After all, these implements and text designed by intellects of X to find evidently there's just so much that hides. And though the saints of us divine in ancient feeding lines, their sentiment is just as hard to pluck from the vine. Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 100 Where we go back, back to, the, to past the past And read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com Or pick us up to, via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify And when the moon is in the 7th house and Jupiter aligns with Mars I believe we call that the age of Aquarius, right? Hmm. Yes, Normally, indeed but this is instead the dawning of the Age of Apocalypse. Bun, dun, dun. Uh, That's right. We're finally doing a big X-Men event. This is discussing the, discussing the post-1991 X-Men family of titles, Legion Quest and X-Men Alpha, with special attention paid to X-Men Alpha number one. Had a February 1995 cover date. Uh, Story is titled Beginnings, written by Scott Lubdell and Mark Wade, pencils by Roger Cruz and Steve Epting, inks by Tim Townsend and Dan Panosian, colors by Brian Buccellato and Electric Crayon, letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, edited by Bob Harris, edited in chief by Tom DeFalco, cover up by Joe, cover by Joe Majuara and Tim Townsend, and the cover price is three ninety-five. Mm-hmm. But before we uh, get into anything, we got to start setting the table a bit here. So we're going to meet the X-Men family of titles up to this point, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to start with the flagship, Uncanny X-Men, launched simply as X-Men. The first issue was cover dated September 1963, and this featured the original five, and that's a phrase we'll be saying a whole heck of a lot today. And that was, of course, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Iceman, Beast, and the Angel who, led by Professor Charles Xavier, sought to find a way for humans and mutants to peacefully coexist while fighting off the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and other bandits. Of course, yeah. Of course. Now, the team was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. The title wasn't exactly a sales winner at first, and uh, following issue number 66, which was March 1970 cover date, the book would become a reprint-only title. Yeah, it was bi-monthly for a while, but I think it mm-hmm. went quarterly. Even. Quarterly, yeah. and it was all reprints. It was pretty much going to uh, gonna die, but it all changed with the introduction of the all-new, all-different X-Men and giant-size X-Men number one with a May 1975 cover date, which in- included... Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Storm, Banshee, Sunfire, and Thunderbird. The X-Men title would resume telling new stories featuring this new team, plus some of the original members, with issue number 94, that an August 1975 cover date. Chris Claremont would take over writing duties from Len Wein, and would go on to have a 16-year run on the title. Joined by artists Dave Cockrum, John Byrne, and Paul Smith, Claremont would tell some of the most seminal and fondly remembered X-Men stories including the Dark Phoenix Saga and Days of Future Past, the latter of which saw the title of the book officially become Uncanny X-Men. For more on those Byrne days, you can check out Weird Comics History, Episode 6. That would be a history of John Byrne, I would, I would mm-hmm. think, that episode. Yes. <laughs> uh, available in the archives. 
Now, into the mid-1980s, the now uncanny X-Men became Marvel and the comic industry's standard bearer for sales. And as such, the line expanded. Uh, More on that in just a little bit. Uncanny X-Men continued to be the flagship title and followed the exploits of the main team, eventually taking them off the grid and into the Australian outback. We'll touch on that a little bit later, too. Uh, (laughs) Following the events of the Muir Island saga, Uncanny X-Men became the home of X-Men's Gold Strike Force, which was led by Storm. Chris Claremont would be replaced by Jim Lee and Will Spatasio with a scripting by, of all people, John Byrne, with issue number 281, October 1991 cover date. And that's X-Men Volume 2. This is the Adjective Lifts volume. would launch that same month, October 1991, and was written by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee with art by Lee. The first issue would sell 8.1 million copies and net $7 million in profit. It is the best-selling comic of all time, as proclaimed by the Guinness World Records at the 2010 San Diego Comic-Con, and it's a record that has not been uh, shattered yet. Nope. Uh, Claremont would hang on for the first three issues, then be replaced as a scripter by John Byrne. Byrne didn't last long on the, either title, leading to Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nicieza being drafted into the writer's chairs. But the deck chair re- rearrangement doesn't stop there, folks. And we will get there. Yes. Uh, X-Men Volume 2 was home of the X-Men's Blue Strike Force, which was led by Cyclops. The blue and gold teams featured the reintegration of the original five back into the main team after a lengthy stint with <laughs> X-Factor. Uh, X-Factor number one, February 1986, reunited the original five X-Men as they banded together under the guise of mutant hunters who were actually tracking down mutants in order to train them to better control their powers. The team saw the return of Jean Grey, who was believed to be dead following the events of the Dark Phoenix saga. It was revealed that Jean was never the Dark Phoenix, or Phoenix in general, because uh, she was in hibernation in a a cocoon under Jamaica Bay. Uh, Phoenix, Dark Phoenix, the whole spaz, might be a topic worth investigating for a future Cosmic Treadmill or Weird Comics history. We will touch on it a little bit more later on, but not. uh, it'll be the uh, inch deep. We touched on it in the past. God, what story was that we did? We we, we had to talk about it a lot for some other x-men title but we've never actually talked about that specific saga talked yes. about any issues in there so yeah we should we should we've do done the someday. inch deep mile wide and exactly. we'll get uh, now uh, x-factor would work under a pal of warren worthington's named cameron hodge following the events of the muir island saga the original five would return to the x-men teams and x-factor would be radically altered and warren worthington is obviously the angel we'll, we'll get mm. more information about these specific <laughs> guys later on uh, in X-Factor number 71, that was in October 1991, cover date, Peter David and Larry Stroman would take over the title and a new team would be introduced, including Havoc, Polaris, Multiple Man, Quicksilver, and Wolfsbane. You can check out Cosmic Treadmill episode 61 in the archives for our long-form discussion of that very issue. And during David's tenure, Peter David, that is, X-Factor would work under the United States government and feature some heavier-than-normal subject matter, including an issue where the entire team sought counseling from Doc Sampson, and a storyline which was to explore deducing the mutant gene in utero. But David didn't stick around long long enough to do that, so it didn't happen. Now, in X-Force, this uh, in Marvel graphic novel number 4, November 1982 cover date, the world was introduced to the New Mutants by Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud. The New Mutants were... Just that, brand new mutants, the next generation of Charles Xavier's students, which included Danny Moonstar, a.k.a. Psyche, Jean Koi Man, 
Karma? Did, did I butcher that horribly? How bad did I, I think do? It's Sh I think it's Xi'an. Xi'an, Karma. That's a Vietnamese. Uh, I think so. Uh, yeah. Ron, Rain Sinclair, that's Wolfsbane. Roberto da Costa, Sunspot, and Samuel Guthrie is Cannonball. Now, the New Mutants would receive their own ongoing title with a March 1983 cover date. Along the way, the team would pick up characters like Doug, Cypher, Ramsey, and Warlock, who would uh, both die before the volume was out. Doug's mutant power was his keen understanding of language, which uh, is about as useful on a battlefield as having a bullet. <laughs> yeah, <damage>. really. <laughs> uh, now, War Warlock would perish during the Extinction Agenda crossover event. There was also characters like Birdbrain and Gossamer, but... Uh, I think mentioning them is enough. Yeah, um, <laughs> glossing over them. <laughs> now, the New Mutants would find a new leader in Cable, and just as their volume was wrapping up, folks like Shatterstar and Domino popped up. Uh, Boom Boom and Richter would pop up, too. Ooh, these, these memorable forever characters that you keep bringing up. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, after a 100-issue volume, number 100 was cover dated April 1991, these mutants were no longer new, and under the leadership of Cable, transitioned to an actual X-team of their own. This is X-Force number one, and now finally getting to that. Uh, August 1991 cover day launched the concept of a proactive mutant hero group. Rather than waiting for trouble to knock on their door, Cable and the gang would neutralize threats before they did any damage. An early outing for the team would result in the World Trade Tower being destroyed by Juggernaut back in 1991. What hmm. might have been. We'll talk more X-Force when we get to the crossovers. But for now, we'll say following the 1988 event Fall of Mutants, in which nearly all the X-Men appear to have died, Nightcrawler and Shadowcat wake up on Muir Island in the care of Dr. Moira McTaggart. The X-Men Nightcrawler and Shadowcat are devastated by the loss of their teammates. Captain Britain, brother to the mutant Psylocke, is also broken up. Without warning, Phoenix came from an alternate universe called Mojo World hunted by metallic, wolvish robots called Warwolves. Shadowcat, Nightcrawler, Megan, and Captain Britain help Phoenix out with that. Yeah, they decide to form a new team in memory of the X-Men, calling the team Excalibur after the magical sword of King Arthur. They set up their headquarters in Captain Britain's lighthouse, which is a convergence of alternate realities. X-Factor number one had an October 1988 cover date, and we talked a whole lot about it back in Cosmic Treadmill episode 96, yeah. available in the archives. Another team we got, Generation X. Following the events of the Phalanx Covenant, which we will touch upon a bit later, uh, the next next generation of mutant heroes came together. Uh, we gave a bunch about the first issue of Generation X during Cosmic Treadmill, episode 30, available in the archives. And uh, we're going to be talking about that Phalanx saga in just a little bit. Oh, yeah, and quite a bit about it. <laughs> but, uh, another fellow you might know here, Wolverine, first broke out on his own in a four-issue limited series titled Wolverine, that ran from September to December 1982, cover dates, written by Chris Claremont with art by Frank Miller. The first ongoing series launched in November 1988, and the original creative team was Chris Claremont and John Buscema, and was decidedly less superhero fare than perhaps many had expected from it. More a blend of James Bond and Indiana Jones, Claremont's solo Wolverine was more of a high-adventure take on the character. No mask, no costume, occasionally an eye patch, and a whole lot of Madripoor ninjas. The title would eventually move a bit closer to the X-Men family of titles and would even take part in crossovers, just like the several we'll be talking about today. <laughs> yes. Uh, another solo series is Cable. Cable, like Wolverine before him, had a miniseries before and ongoing. 
Cable Blood and Metal was a two-issue series that ran from October through November 1992, written by Fabian Nicieso with art by John Romita Jr. Cable's ongoing would begin just a few months later, uh, launching with a May 1993 cover date. However, it had no steady creative team for the first first year plus. Uh, Another book we got to talk about, X-Men Unlimited. In 1993, Marvel began launching quarterly series as a way to counter the dreaded fifth week in comics publication. Uh, For more on that, you can check out Weird Comics History, episode 24, where we go real in-depth on just what a fifth week is and uh, ways around it. Uh, Now, (laughs) these fifth week, these quarterly books were the unlimited books. Spider-Man Unlimited and X-Men Unlimited were the first to launch, and they sucked. Um, (laughs) Well, eventually they sucked. Uh, They started out as a way to tell stories, quote-unquote, between issues. Now, the Unlimited books quickly became a repository for inventory and tryout stories, which would have been all well and good if not for the inflated price point. X-Men Unlimited had a $3.95 cover price at a time when the rest of the X-Men line were priced between a buck and a quarter and a buck seventy-five. Ooh, that is rough. I mean, that is just that is what Marvel will charge you for a regular comic today. So that's yeah. not that uh, that out there, I think. But yeah, when you compare it to the other uh, twenty-two or however many pages they ran comics back yeah. in those days, everything has changed, as you can tell, folks. So that so that was just a list, right, of X-Men comics. Ongoing at the time. That's yes. it. That's all. You know, <laughs> if you feel like if you feel like you already got a semester's worth of information, then you better buckle in. There's a lot more to yes. come. Uh, now, how do we get here? Well, we can talk about the Exodus. This uh, has to do with Chris Claremont specifically, although it's going to deal with a bunch of people <laughs> on X Men. Uh, as mentioned earlier, Chris Claremont enjoyed a 16 year run with the X Men, though maybe he didn't enjoy the last two as much. Although. We're pretty sure his bank account did enjoy them, especially with that record-breaking uh, X-Men uh, so, 7 yeah. million profit <laughs> issue. Uh, Claremont found himself butting heads with editor Bob Harris, who was keen on having current superstar artist and cash cow Jim Lee take over plotting detail on the mutant books. Chris's final issue for the stint would be X-Men Volume 2, Number 3, December 1991 cover date, which ended his run with a tiny caption featuring his initials. Yeah, not not a lot of pomp and circumstance. Wow, yeah. Move okay, along, so... move along, Chris, is what they, you know. <laughs> so Claremont's out the door. It's time for Jim Lee and company to show us just what they can do. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, stop us if you heard this one. Uh, Lee, along with several contemporaries, left Marvel in 1992 to start their own publishing imprint. This would afford them creative control and rights for their own properties, and most importantly, all the financial benefits that comes with said ownership. Worth noting, Lee initially felt a bit of loyalty toward Marvel. However, it is rumored that due to their refusal to cover airfare for Lee's wife right. to go to a Sotheby's, is Sotheby's, is that how we say it? Either way is good, I think. Yeah, Sotheby's, Sotheby's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sotheby's art auction, and uh, this auction was for his own work, uh, and they wouldn't pay for his wife's plane ride. Uh, he felt that they might not value him as as much as they perhaps should. Mm. Uh, you got to consider, dude did just bring in almost eight figures yeah. of profit with a single book. That was a publicity gaffe, I'm sure. Any publicist, publicist would tell you, give the guy the plane ticket. It's not a big deal, you know? 
Charter a jet for them. Who yeah. cares, you know? <laughs> now, uh, the way Image Comics worked was that each creator had his own imprint, uh, which would use Image for distribution, publicity, and manufacturing. However, otherwise, it would be on their, they would be on their own for creative and production needs. Lee would launch Wildstorm, Public, uh, Wildstorm Productions, which was originally Aegis Entertainment, and uh, the rest, they say, is uh, weird comics history. For uh, more of Jim Lee, you can check out Cosmic Treadmill episode number 28. In the archives. That's got to be Wildcats, right? That's Wildcats number one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, there's, there's definitely a much longer. St- we, we've talked about Image Comics so often, also, but we've never actually done an episode <laughs> on it. There definitely is a yes. weird comics history episode in the making and in the oh, in sure. brains for that. But it just we, we just come across it every time we we blow we by this year, you know, this yeah. night, this uh, <laughs> 1990s, early 90s. So, uh, so now what? Uh, during the Exodus, Marvel didn't just lose Jim Lee. Not just him, the entire X-Men line of books took a pretty sizable hit. Lee, who was guiding the flagship titles, was gone. We'll say Prestacio, who was handling art and some plotting on un- Uncanny X-Men, also gone. Rob Liefeld, who was plotting and penciling X-Force, he was also gone. And Mark Silvestri, who was penciling Wolverine and had penciled Uncanny X-Men for a couple of years, was also out the door. Uh, and I like to think Bob Harris's pants got much heavier that day. <laughs> uh, what's more, ex-book editor Bob Harris had ticked off the old guard, including Claremont, Byrne, and Simonson, and they were not going to come back to fill the vacancies. Nope. So what do we do now? Uh, as mentioned, following the departure slash ouster of Claremont, Marvel reached out to John Byrne to script Jim Lee and Will Spatasio's plots and arts on X-Men. And, as we mentioned, didn't last long. Uh, he decided he was receiving art too late to adequately script, and he left after only five issues. Of that time, Byrne would say, apart from the logistical nightmare working with Jim and Wills turned out to be, the characters themselves had moved so far away from anyone I knew or wanted to know. I found absolutely no connection to them. So, we need a new guy. Mm-hmm. Let's meet Scott Lobdell. Or Lobdell. I, I always say his name a few different ways. <laughs> uh, he was already working on Alpha Flight, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. And I was in the office one Friday evening in December when he was approached by X-Men editor Bob Harris about scripting 22 additional pages over that weekend. He said, sure. Later that evening, it was the Marvel Christmas party where Lobdell found out that everyone else had been offered the gig and turned it down. Hmm. Uh, he would become the fill-in scripter for Uncanny X-Men for a few months until it became his regular gig. And so begins his time with one of Marvel's flagship books. Yes, uh, and some of that would happen during a... A lot of crossovers in the in, yes. in and out of the X-Men books. Uh, I guess beginning with the Executioner's Song. This was a 12-part event which ran through the big four X-Men family titles from cover dates November 1992 to January 1993. Specifically, it was Uncanny X-Men 294 to 296, X-Factor 84 to 86, X-Men Volume 2, number 14 through 16, and X-Force number 16 through 18. This would feature X-Force baddie and Cable lookalike Strife attempting to murder Professor X, framing Cable for the misdeed along the way, and lashing out at his parents, Scott Summers and Jean Grey. This would end with his, as well as Cable's, apparent deaths. Marvel would change course in the months that followed, making it so Cable was actually Cyclops' son, and not the evil mutant terrorist Strife. We jump ahead a little bit, and we got another crossover. This is Fatal Attractions. This ran from July through November 1993, appearing in X-Factor number 92, July 1993, X-Force 25 in August, 
Uncanny X-Men 304 in September, X-Men Volume 2, number 25 in October, and Wolverine 75 and Excalibur 71, both in November. Now, this is a story that saw Colossus jump from the X-Men to Magneto's Acolytes during his sister's funeral, and uh, famously ended with Wolverine having his adamantium skeleton forcibly removed from his body, just before Professor X gives Magneto what amounts to a uh, telepathic lobotomy. That Logan cannot catch a break, let me tell you. They, just can't. They want just his can't. skull now, they want his brain out, just leave, him, <laughs> leave the poor guy alone. Uh, another the crossover, Blood Ties. This is a crossover with the Avengers to celebrate the 30th anniversary of both books. Ran through Avengers number 368 to 369, Avengers West Coast number 101, X-Men Volume 2 number 26, and Uncanny X-Men number 307. And uh, Chris has a comment here, meh, is being polite about this crossover. It was dull, yeah. That's all we'll say, but here's one we've been kind of skirting around a lot here, the Phalanx Mm -hmm. Covenant. Uh, The crossover that leads into the formation of Generation X. Ran through the entire family of X-Men books throughout the months of September and October 1994. This is Uncanny X-Men number 316 to 317, X-Men volume 2, 36 to 37. Featured the core storyline called Generation Next, and the X in Next is the capitalized letter. In case you're wondering what <laughs> what side of the bread the butter was on here. Uh, written by Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nicieza, with heart, art by Joe Majera and uh, Andy Kubert. X-Men baddie Stephen Lang and Cameron Hodge allow themselves to become assimilated by techno-alien types, the Phalanx. They are not unlike Warlock from the New Mutants and can take the form of other life forms. The story starts off like a horror movie with a Banshee arriving at the X-Mansion, which houses an X-Men team that acts kind of strange. He runs a computer scan which shows the only mutants present are Jubilee, a comatose White Queen, a captive, a captive Sabretooth, and himself. So all those other X-Men he met, Face. they're phalanx. <laughs> Now, White Queen was uh, driven into a coma following her team of Hellions being murdered by Trevor Fitzroy back in Uncanny X-Men 281. We will mention that again later. Uh, Sabretooth had been taken in by Xavier with hopes of uh, that he might be able to curb his homicidal tendencies. That doesn't work. No. It never works. It never works. Sorry. Sabretooth is a maniac. That's how it is. <laughs> uh, it would turn out that the other X-Men president are, in fact, phalanx dupes who are trying to utilize Cerebro to track down new mutants. Not the new mutants, but any any new mutants. A banshee destroys Xavier's computer system in an attempt to keep the information out of the phalanges of the phalanx. <laughs> the four makeshift X-Men are able to escape the mansion and have a single new er young mutant afterwards. <laughs> uh, the phalanx are able to capture four newbies. This was Husk, Paige Guthrie, the sister of Cannonball, and about a zillion other Guthries. Monet Saint-Croix. Monet Saint Croix, Croy. Why, why can't I say this? Croy. Croy. Thank you. I don't know why I could not do that. Monet Saint Croy, skin and blink. Poor blink would not survive this initial phalanx storyline. She dies, sacrificing herself a month after she introduced. We'll meet her far more popular Age of Apocalypse incarnation later on today. And this bit ends with the Gen X kids minus blink safely escaping the phalanx. But that's not all. Nope. X-Factor 106, X-Force 38, and Excalibur 82 feature the next phase. Life Signs is the story, written by Scott Lobdell, Fabian Nicieza, and Todd DiZago, with art by Jan Dusema, Tony Daniel, Ken Lashley, and Steve Epting. In this, Professor X assembles the second stringers and alerts them to the threat of the phalanx. 
They believe uh, this all started when Warlock's cremated remains were stolen by hate group Friends of Humanity. <laughs> Warlock died during the X-Team's last big run-in with Cameron Hodge, which we mentioned was the Extinction Agenda crossover. Warlock's ashes were laid at the grave of his self-friend, Doug Ramsey. And as mentioned, Doug Ramsey was that new mutant's new that new mutant named Cipher, who you might recall had the extremely helpful in battle power of understanding any language. Oh yes. And as mentioned, he died. Yeah, we couldn't understand the the international language <laughs> of you're going to get killed. Yeah. Uh, I gotta say too, when I was a kid, I I loved Warlock, and I think I was I think that was. Supposed to speak to kids of my age as being kind of wacky, wild. He had a cool design and uh, said, and, uh, said uh, funny especially, stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah like Bill Sienkiewicz do uh, right. like just the wacky poses with him. It was great. Oh, I mean, I'm sure you know the number, but the New Mutants cover with Sienkiewicz doing him, he's like, he takes up the whole cover. It's just one of yep, my favorite. Yep. It's in the early 20s, yeah. Favorite uh, covers. But uh, anyway, so we said all of that so that we may say this, that the teams learn the existence of Doug Locke, which is believed to be the reanimated Doug Ramsey, with the genetic who's what sits of Warlock, though it ultimately is revealed that Doug Locke is simply Warlock with Doug's memories. Anyway, the second triggers destroy phalanx incubators, and it, it appears as though Doug Locke sacrifices himself, but he doesn't. He gets better and joins Excalibur. Wolverine number 85 and Cable number 16 feature the wrap-up of Final Sanction. Uh, it's titled Final Sanction, written by Larry Hama, with art by Adam Kubert and Steve Scroach. Cyclops and Jean Grey returned for their honeymoon in an obligatory miniseries, Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, was the title of that, where they were, where they head to the future and raise Cable from boyhood into adolescence. Yes, really, that really did mm-hmm. happen. Anyway, they return home and get right, right on their honeymoon too. I mean, come on, can you? Can, it's going to happen in the future anyway. Uh, anyway, so yes. they return home and get right into the phalanx action. The team with Cable and Wolverine uh, to attack on two fronts. Gene and Cable do their astral plane thing, and Cyclops and Wolverine infiltrate. Wolverine finds Bishop in one of the containment chambers and uses his mutant energy source powers to bring down the house. Lang and Hodge appear to perish, but yeah, that never really sticks, does it? Yeah. Now, of a of potential interest, the Phalanx Covenants was uh, sort of kind of adapted into a two-part episode of the mid-90s X-Men animated series, though it features Beast rather than Banshee in the point-of-view role, and also none of that pesky Generation X stuff that just mucked it all up. Sure. Um, then, the crossover we're about to speak of. Dare we call it Crisis on Infinite X-Earths? Huh? No, that's silly, even though that's uh, what Wizard Magazine called it in their 41st issue, January 1995 cover. They said, is it just a bunch of fluff and hyperbole coming out of Marvel's mutant office, or are we about to witness the cataclysmic unraveling of Crisis on Infinite X-Earths? Well, hold on to your hats, folks, because it's actually both. Those are a lot of words that I don't think mean anything. No, um, not really. You know, no, it's, sort of, uh, it's, it's so. So, is this like crisis? Well, no. This is uh, actually just wizard talking out of their asses. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> also, in the January 1995 issue, they asked Fabian Nicieza for the skinny. And here's what he had to say: uh, I'd rather not compare what we're doing to DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths or Zero Hour. Quite honestly. Not to sound facetious in any way, but what they're doing is a radical reorganization of their continuity. We're not doing that. We are doing a story. Theirs is a revisionist version of their previous history in order to make their future more streamlined. Ours has nothing to do with that whatsoever. Our story affects all, all the X-Men titles. That's all it is. 
Even though, according to Fabian Nicieza, this has nothing to do with Crisis or Zero Hour, don't let that stop you from checking out our coverage of both these events in the archives. Uh, so, they're trying to say the X-Men weren't convoluted and they needed streamlining. Is that what they're trying to pass on us here? That's exactly what they're saying. I mean, after everything we just said, too, Chris, come on. <laughs> now, at the very thought, Scott, Scott Lobdell had this to say. Unreadable? The X-Men? I think that's very, very humorous. I think that the books are more readable now than they ever were. By the same token, there were a long period of time where they were less so. He continues, it's very amusing, though, because uh, it's a very amusing thought, because one would argue, one who would argue that is the people who find it unreadable are the ones that aren't reading it. And uh, those are a lot of words that are really up for debate. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We, uh, we kind of dragged our feet a little too long here, so let's get into the Age of Apocalypse. But first, Legion Quest. What? Yeah, who the hell is Legion and why does he matter? Well, his real name is David Holler. First appearance was New Mutants number 25, March 1985, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Bill Sienkiewicz. The son of Charles Xavier and Gabriel Holler will meet them both in a bit. A mutant who suffers schizophrenia, and we're just going to minimize this meaning to have uh, multiple personalities as in comic parlance. Yes. Uh, thing, thing of it is, each of these personalities has a different mutant power. During the Muir Island saga, he was possessed. Legion was possessed by the Shadow King, during which time he killed the mutant precog Destiny. The who now? Very soon. <laughs> now, following this, he was left in a coma until X Factor number one hundred nine, December nineteen ninety four cover. This is Legion Quest Prologue: The Waking by Todd DeZago, John Francis Moore, and Jan Sama. Legion's in a coma and uh, is very nearly assassinated by Mystique, who's Sort of in the midst of a kind of good guy phase, but she's also being forced to work with X-Factor. It, it's, a, it's a long story. Sure. Uh, while in his coma, David speaks with Destiny. We just mentioned her. She's that, she's a, that precog who's also blind, mm-hmm. but she's also a mutant named Irene Adler. First appearance, X-Men number 141, January 1981, created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. She was part of Mystique's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. It's also alluded that they were romantically linked, and we will we'll touch on that a bit later. Uh, I'm not even sure if we touch on that today, but we will eventually. In this series, yeah. Yes. Now, Destiny died in Uncanny X-Men 255, December 1989, cover date, because Legion. Uh, he was under the control of the Shadow King. Uh, however, her consciousness actually survived. And lives inside Legion's mind. Well, that's con- now the artist only has to draw one character. You know, that's yes. good. Uh, <laughs> instead of two. So still with us, folks? Good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear. Destiny has a message she needs David to pass on to Mystique. X-Factor battles the Brotherhood's avalanche, during which Legion is able to pull the old mind meld with Mystique and delivers Destiny's message. Issue ends with Legion making X-Factor disappear and him stating he's going to make everything better. That that does not a good portent. Uh, Uncanny X-Men number 320, cover date January 1995. This was Legion Quest Part 1, The Sun Rises in the East by Scott Lobdell, Mark Wade, and Roger Cruz. After learning that a black dome had been erected in the Negev Desert, the X-Men head in to check it out. X-Men Storm, Iceman, Bishop, and Psylocke enter the dome to fight Legion. However... They're unsuccessful in stopping him from creating a time portal, and they all get sucked into it. Jean Grey is left behind, sends a distress signal to the professor. 
Meanwhile, Princess Lalandra of the Shi'ar is informed that the Emkron crystal signals the end of everything. Uh, now, Psylocke gets left out of the Age of Apocalypse for some reason, <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll give her a quick bio right now. Elizabeth Braddock first appeared in the UK in Captain Britain number 8, this is December 1976, and then in the United States during New Mutants Annual number 2, October 1982, cover date. She was created by Chris Claremont and Herb Trimp. She's the sister of Captain Britain, Brian Braddock. Head tell she actually was briefly Captain Britain herself. She'd be captured by Mojo and Spiral, who removed her eyes and replaced them with bionics, then made her the star of a Mojo World television show. If you recall, Mojo World is obsessed with media of all types. Yeah. Uh, that show was called Wild Ways, and the new mutants found themselves involved, too. After this adventure, she'd wind up joining the X-Men. Later on, to save the X-Men from a fatal end she saw in her precognitive vision, she sent them through the Siege Perilous, a magical doorway brooch thing named after the vacant seat at King Arthur's Round Table. Stepping through the Siege would give the passer a brand new life. She herself woke up an amnesiac in China. Don't hate when that happens. Yeah, it sucks. Uh, the leader of the Hand, Matsuo Tsureba, that's good. Close enough. Do. Gabaturiaba uh, nabbed her to do a body swap with his brain dead girlfriend, Quenin. And this is how she wound up in her Asian body. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, comics, you bless your sweet, sweet, tender hearts. Uh, in this lead up to the Age of Apocalypse, uh, Betsy had started a flirtation with the very spoken for Cyclops before starting an actual relationship with Angel. Also, her old body came back for a visit. Why not? Sure. You know, remember me? <laughs> the white body? Anyway, uh, it eventually died of the legacy virus, though, so that was nice. Uh, and, and the art was so, like, <laughs> you couldn't tell which one was which in some of them. Cause, really? Uh, it was, it was uh, one of the Kubert brothers did it, and, like, I mean, like, the facial structure was very similar when <laughs> one's supposed to be Caucasian, one's supposed to be Asian, and... The only way you knew is because the uh, the, the the old body had puffier hair. Like she had, uh, the Psylocke had like the straight hair, and this uh-huh. one that came back had like poofy, had, like, almost nineteen eighties hair. To it, yeah. Yes, that, <laughs> she conditioned regularly. I gotta tell you, this really this really does sound hilarious, hilarious to me. Uh, but it's been e- it's been easier to read than ever. Yeah. The X Men line. Sure. Yeah. Now now it's it's all <laughs> makes perfect sense. So anyway. Uh, God, I can't even think about it. Anyway, uh, while we're bioing, folks, uh, Professor X, who for reasons that are about to become clear, is also left out of the Age of Apocalypse. Uh, his real name is Charles Xavier. First appearance was in X-Men number 1, September 1963, by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Grew up with an abusive stepfather, a jerk-faced step brother. Uh, that brother was Kane Juggernaut Marco, by the way. Graduates with honors from Harvard at age of 16, and from there goes on to study at Oxford, where he meets Moira Kinross, who we will meet later. They have a brief engagement, but then he travels to Cairo, then to Israel, where he'd meet Eric Lenscher. Now, this is where our timelines kind of split off, if you know where we're headed. Uh, In the Prime Universe, he would later travel to the Himalayas, where he would have a run-in with an alien known as Lucifer. This is the baddie responsible for crushing Charlie's legs. Uh, he'd go on to form the original X-Men at his school for gifted youngsters. Uh, they graduate in record time. Uh, I think a lot of people don't pay mind to the fact that they graduate like an issue eight. Yeah, they're done. Like it's it's very done. The, the school's the first class is done already. It's incredible. <laughs> yep. uh, now, Chuck fakes his own death early on. Uh, more on that in a bit. 
after the original team were captured by the mutant island Krakoa, Xavier put together the all-new, all-different team. But didn't he first put together that other team, the uh, team that died, that had Cyclops' other other brother on it? Not yet, not now. Not yet, not yet, not yet. Um, now, he would meet and fall in love with the Majestrix of the Shi'ar Empire, Lalandra, and they fall in love. And then soon after, he has a brood egg implanted inside his body. This ends with his body having to be cloned, and that's why, for the mid-late 1980s, Professor X was able to walk. Following the trial of Magneto, Professor X leaves Earth to be with Lalandra. Magneto takes over his role as mentor to the New Mutants. Uh, Charles comes back to Earth and has his legs crushed again. Hate it when that happens. Because, you know, they, that was for convenience sake, I guess. Uh, <laughs> during Extinction Agenda, they, uh, he was nearly assassinated by Strife, who was trying to pass his cable, as we did mention before. And during... I'm sorry, that was Executioner's song. I put the wrong title on oh, there. Oh, ex- yeah. Executioner's song, but that was the same storyline we talked about yes. before where they were mistaking yeah. Strife for cable. Uh, yes. During Fatal Attractions gave Magneto a brainwash, and of course, since we're going to the Age of Apocalypse... Most of what we said didn't actually happen for the purposes <laughs> of this story that we're getting to very soon, folks, I promise. It's all important groundwork we're getting here. <laughs> uh, X-Men number 40, January 1995 cover date. This was Legion Quest Part 2, The Killing Time, by Fabian Nicieza and Andy Kubert. Legion and the X-Men arrived 20 years in the past, and nobody can remember nothing. In the present, the X-Men and Cable find Gene in the desert. They're informed by Lalandra, who received warning from the Watchers about the end of days. thought they weren't supposed to interfere. Uh, except when they do, which is always. So that's mm-hmm. what that means, yeah. <laughs> now, back in the past, Legion is taken to a hospital in Israel. It just so happens to be the very hospital where both Charles Xavier and Eric Lenscher were working 20 years ago. Legion's memory returns after being touched by Magneto, and he starts projecting illusions. These illusions are of Magneto's yet-to-occur evil deeds, and also of the present-day X-Men. We jump into Uncanny X-Men 321, February 1995. This is Legion Quest, Part 3, Auld Lang Syne, by Scott Lobdell, Mark Wade, and Ron Gawney. In current day, Gene and Cable try to send a psychic signal back to the time-displaced X-Men. Back in the past, Professor X and Magneto's younger selves get into a barb role while trying to protect a war veteran. Legion then... <laughs> well poses as his father, Charles Xavier, and seduces his mother, Gabrielle Haller. Hmm. Uh, they don't show what happens to uh, uh, completion, but uh, we, we have our theories, folks. There is, at the very, very least, some hot and heavy making out. But he could be, he oh. could be his own papa. But we, yeah, we expect that something else happened. Yeah. We probably, in knowing yeah. knowing how comics like, couldn't they just do another another racial body swap? I mean, <laughs> uh, now Xavier hears her mentally cry out, and he and Magneto rush back to the hospital to check on her. What they find is Legion. Cable's also able to contact the time displaced X Men, but only long enough to pass a message on to Bishop. Over to X Men Forty One, February nineteen ninety five, cover date. Legion Quest Part 4, Dreams Die, by Fabian Nicieza, Andy Kubert, and Ron Garney. In here, Legion fights Magneto. The time-displaced X-Men try to reduce chronal and physical damage to the past. Psylocke's able to contact Xavier, lets him know what's going on with Legion. In the present, the M-Cran crystal begins destroying everything. Back in the past, Apocalypse wakes up and figures, hey, now might be a good time to ascend. 
Mm. Now, the X-Men fight Legion to a standstill until Legion just KOs a lot of them. Uh, then he sets his sights on Magneto. Now, you see, the whole point of this is if he kills Magneto in the past, mm. his father's dream of a world where humans and mutants can peacefully coexist is almost a certainty. Right. Magneto, Magneto's always the big bad leading the mutants mm-hmm. to be homo superior. That's his Indeed. thing. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, altruistic Xavier throws himself in the way and wind up be, winds up being killed instead. Everyone, except Bishop, vanishes as the crystal wave smashes into the earth in the present. Now we wrap up Legion Quest with an epilogue in cable number 20, February 1995. This is Legion Quest epilogue, an hour of last things by Jeff Loeb and Ian Churchill. This is basically the last moments of existence in the present before the crystal wave hits. All right. And now, finally, finally, Chris. That brings us to X-Men Alpha Number 1 with a February 1995 cover date titled Beginnings by Scott Lobdell, Mark Wade, Roger Cruz, and Steve Epting. But first, <laughs> some normal creator bios, of course. We have to let you know about the people that made these books. And we'll start with Scott Lobdell, born on either August 24th, 1960, or someday during 1963, assumedly on dry land, uh, maybe on Earth, possibly. Maybe. Marlboro, New York? We're not sure. Uh, Did not grow up a comic book fan, only resorting to reading them while convalescing after lung surgery when he was 17. So that was either 1977 or 1980. He was more fascinated with the idea that people got to make comics for a living than the stories. He decided this might be a career path for him. He studied psychology in college until he came to the realization that he did not want to spend the rest of his life listening to everyone's problems. He just completed two years of that. Then he, decided to, then he decided to pursue writing, utilizing conflict and resolution techniques from his brief psychology background. Very brief. Um, yeah. Worked on the college newspaper as a writer and a cartoonist, and he would also perform interviews. One of those interviews was with New York newscaster Chuck Scarborough, which showed Scott that he could use the paper in order to chat with people that he found interesting and who might help him maybe get his foot in the door in the comics industry. And so he looked up comics editor uh, Al Milgram, did the interview, and he felt he might have an in at Marvel. For the, for the next year and a half, he would regularly travel to Marvel HQ and drop off uh, story synopsises. Uh, this was a five-hour round trip from Marlboro, and he would begin networking with a few Marvel editors. He'd receive multiple rejections. However, one from Tom DeFalco had a handwritten PS that said, this story isn't as bad as the last story. And I tell you, I'm sure that letter went immediately to the fridge or the wall. Up to, you know, it or was under under glass. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it really, that's kind of thing that would just you know send a writer to the stratosphere, any kind of little uh, recognition. Uh, Marvel Comics Presents was a bi-weekly anthology series that launched September 1988 and would run 175 issues until March 1995. Each issue featured four eight-page stories. Scott Lobdell pitched a story to Tom DeFalco using an obscure using obscure characters because had he chosen a big name character, it would have to be okayed by upwards of four editors. He pitched a story featuring Global Village characters from Marvel's 1982 Contest of Champions miniseries. Some say the first comic book event, but you know it's mm-hmm. another thing. Uh, Contest of Champions uh, ran for three issues from June through August 1982, and that was Marvel's first limited series. Now, Scott also wrote uh, Alpha Flight, as we mentioned earlier, including issue 106, March 1992, cover date, wherein North Star came out as homosexual. This was after he adopted a baby who had AIDS. Uh, the baby is referred to as Joanne Bobier, or 
Bobier, which is Northstar's own surname, and uh, the baby dies that same issue. All royalties from this book went to the Elizabeth Glasser Pediatric AIDS Foundation. Uh, he would become, as mentioned here, for lack of a better term, the architect of the X-Men line. Uh, he also wrote... Uh, this is uh, nothing to do with the Age of Apocalypse, but he also wrote what is often looked at as the worst X-Men family comic book, at least of the 1990s. This is X-Men Unlimited number four, March 1994, cover date. And the issue would reveal that Mystique is Nightcrawler's mother amid a mess of continuity errors and tweaks. Uh, they, I, I think one of the things people point out is that there was a waterfall in Mississippi or something, and there are no waterfalls in Mississippi. Oh, yeah, it's, okay. it, it's really silly. Uh, now, Lobdell himself even mocked this issue on Usenet under the name Kid York. Uh, for better or worse, this would pay off a long, lingering, dangling plot line dating back to the early to mid-Claremont run. Uh, since we're not sure when we'll discuss this again, Claremont's original plan was for Mystique to be revealed as Nightcrawler's father since she's also a shapeshifter. Longtime associate Destiny, who we mentioned earlier, would be revealed as Nightcrawler's mother. Well, I'll be. Mm -hmm. uh, on to the, I guess, the co-writer, scripter, whatever you want to call him. Uh, Mark Wade, born January, uh, sorry, March 21st, 1962, in Hueytown, Alabama. In 1966, Mark's dad brought home Batman number 180, cover date May. Uh, the story is Death Knocks Three Times. This was the first issue out after the debut of Bill Dozier's Batman television show starring Adam West. Mark was captivated by this comic and began collecting comics. When the family moved to Birmingham, he would go with his father to a radio newsstand, which may have just been a newsstand with a sign that read radio on the outside of it. Uh, the newsstand had a wall of comics, which became Mark's four-color library, and he never stopped collecting comics, not when he got older, not due to girls, nothing, no reason. He always collected comics. Before becoming a teenager, Mark used to read every comic book twice consecutively, then copy its pertinent information and a description of the story onto a 3x5 index card and file it away. His teenage life was tumultuous, and he fought frequently with his parents, often spending long stretches of time crashing at friends' houses. In 1979, Mark watched Superman the movie. He found this a life-changing experience, uh, sat through the movie twice in a row, and left with a strong belief in heroism. He says, Seeing Superman the movie changed my life in a fundamental and profound way and gave me a North Star that I've followed ever since. Mark dreamt of working in comics, but uh, didn't think that he wrote or drew enough to qualify. He'd attend the Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, uh, which is noted for its journalism program, Stopped pursuing journalism when, quote, it dawned on me in about the first week and a half that I'd never, ever have what it takes to stand in front of a grieving widow and stick a microphone in her face. He would change his major a few times, eventually settling on English with a minor in physics. Though he didn't graduate, uh, he's shy three credits, and probably the rest of those credits have uh, long expired by now, and this yeah. is uh, as of 2009. Oh, just give him a, give him a uh, you know, an honorary, an honorary degree. degree. What's the big deal? <laughs> uh, after college, Mark found work for Amazing Heroes magazine and Comics Buyer's Guide. In 1984, DC editor Sal Amendola did a cross-country talent search. Mark was living in Dallas at this time and spoke with Amendola, who was looking for story pitches. Mark asked him which character hadn't been pitched yet. Sal replied, you know, of all the pitches I've gotten so far, no one's pitched a Superman story. Everyone wants to write Batman. Nobody's tried for Superman. And the editor, Julie Schwartz, is actively looking for eight-page stories. Since Mark already knew Julie through Amazing Heroes and he was about to be in New York for the first time, he was able to set up an in-person meeting with Julie Schwartz. Mark said, 
I offered him an eight-pager in which Superman goes to his Arctic fortress only to find that it's been stripped bare. Someone has burgled the joint, but who and why? Schwartz picked up the story in Wade's first professional comics work in Action Comics number 572, October 1985, cover date, titled Puzzle of the Purloined Fortress. The following year, Wade pitched thousands of stories. Schwartz Schwartz bought one and was uh, heavily edited by he and his assistant, uh, E. Nelson Bridwell, Um, and thus his uh, freelance comic book writing career was put on hold. We're not sure which story this was, though. Um, In 1986, Mark moved to L.A. to work for Fantagraphics as an editor. Mark's first task on his first day was to fire (laughs) his replacing, which is always a good way to start a new position. Uh, And this fellow, of course, had no idea that it was coming. He probably just bought a new house a couple days earlier. Yeah, really. <laughs> now, by the spring of 1987, Mark was packaging and editing his own magazine. This was Comics Week. Mark says, and Mark refers to it as an industry news tabloid that was printed at roughly the size of a military parachute, but with more hot air. <laughs> Comics Week would run five issues. DC Comics publisher Jeanette Kahn noticed Comics Week and thought that Mark might be a good fit for the brand new imprint, Piranhas. An imprint that you can learn all about by listening to episode 15 of Weird Comics History in our archives. That's right, the Piranha Paradox Press episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, that fell through, but he was hired as an associate editor at age 25 by Dick Giordano and moved from L.A. to New York for this, his dream job. Mark's first two days consisted of erasing pencil lines on Green Arrow. Living the dream. <laughs> that is the dream. For two <laughs> years, he primarily edited Secret Origins and made a lot of contacts, but he was fired by 1990. He also edited Batman Gotham by Gaslight, kicking off the Elseworlds imprint. After this, he became a regular freelance writer for DC Comics. First work consisted of work for DC's short-lived Impact Comics line, where he wrote the comic and scripted dialogue for Legend of the Shield. These are the MLJ Archie comics heroes bought by DC at the time, and I think they've let that license lapse, and Archie has them back so, again. Yeah. Uh, in 1992, Wade was hired by editor Brian Augustin to write The Flash, and here, his star took off. He would write The Flash for eight years. He wrote a Metamorpho limited series in 1993 and created the Impulse character in The Flash 92, 1994, uh, July 1994, cover date. Impulse was launched into his own series in 19, April 1995 by Wade and artist Humberto Ramos. And this is Bart Allen, the future mm-hmm. future uh, descendant the, of Barry of Allen, Barry Allen. Yeah. who comes back to kind of be the Kid Flash of the 90s. Uh, in November of that same year, Wade and Howard Porter collaborated on the Underworld Unleashed limited series, which served as the core storyline of a company-wide crossover event. At the same time, Mark Wade was writing for Marvel, and his first major project for them was was one of the writers of this very Age of Apocalypse crossover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now let's hop across the table and meet Roger Cruz. Rogerio da Cruz Corada was born February 22nd, 1971 in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He began his professional career with... Editora Abril, a major Brazilian publisher and printing company, also one of the biggest media holdings in Latin America. He mostly lettered Portuguese translations of American comics. He'd be introduced to the American comics world by Art and Comics Studio, and he found himself getting a lot of work from Marvel Comics. Now, his arrival on the scene was met with cries of, Swipe! You see, Cruz taught himself to draw by copying other pencilers, including Jim Lee and, perhaps most obviously, Joe Maguara. 
Joe wasn't terribly pleased and included a newspaper headline reading, Cruise Swipes Again, <laughs> in Uncanny X-Men number 325, October 1995, cover date. In fairness, though, Cruise was doing an awful lot of fill-in work for Joe Mad, who at the time was probably a little too preoccupied with Chrono Trigger or Final Fantasy III to get his pages in. Uh, he does, Joe Mad, that is, turn in a heck of a color for X, uh, cover for X-Men Alpha, though. It is. It's quite... Well, we'll, we'll talk about it very shortly. But, you know, mm-hmm. just got to make a quick comment. You know, of course, you often see a lot of young artists are cribbing their styles from others. But sure. over time, they can develop and become, you know, very their strong people, personal yep. artists. So, it's all however you get there, you just got to get there eventually. And finally, Steve Epting, who received a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Graphic Design from the University of South Carolina. In 1989, Epting read about a contest being held by independent publisher First Comics Comics, looking for some new talent. The winning story was to be published by the company, only the contest didn't actually exist. (laughs) In an interview with Marvel Spotlight, Epting said the following... I graduated with a BFA in graphic design and had been doing that for a while when I read about a contest that First Comics was holding at the Atlanta Fantasy Fair. They were going to publish the best six-page story as a backup in one of their books. I decided to enter just to see if there was any chance of getting into comics. I didn't know anyone in the business and had no idea how to go about trying to break in, so I figured this was worth a shot. Well, I arrived at the convention and was surprised to find that nobody from First Comics knew anything about the contest. They had not authorized it and told the eight or nine people who entered that they would look at the entries, but they would not be publishing anything. Another guy and I were declared the winners, of, and First Art Director met with us to discuss possibly doing some work for them. That's how I got my start, but I don't remember the other winner's name, and I've often wondered who he was and if he went on to work in comics. Who knows? Maybe he's reading this. And that... Man's name was Robert Life Nomalikin. Uh, <laughs> Epting would do fillings on first titles Dread Star and Whisper. That by 1991, first was out of business. And after sending some samples around the industry, Epting found work in Marvel Comics. His first work was filling in a bi weekly Avengers story, after which, with the issue number 341, November 1991 cover date, he would become the full time Avengers, Avengers artist. After leaving the Avengers, he would jump over to the X-Books and even take part in the massive event we're discussing right this very moment. Let's hop right into X-Men Alpha. We promise it, we're going to deliver. Now, the cover is a, it's wraparound, it's chromium, and it features some of the new-look mutants. Wolverine, or Weapon X, is a naturally front and center. He's flanked by Gambit, Blink, Bishop, Sunfire, who probably has the coolest new look here, Marvel Girl, Quicksilver, and Nightcrawler. Magneto and Rogue float on a chunk of Earth behind them. And on the back cover, we still see we see still more of the X-Men, including Sabretooth, Wildchild, Colossus, and Jubilee. Apocalypse and a fleet of green and gray sentinels linger in the background here. We open in Seattle. A man is clawing his way through a mountain of burnt bodies. Captions read, Welcome to Seattle. It should be raining. Certainly the man reaching upward thinks so. Though a sudden downpour might slicken his climb, surely, surely it would cut the stench. He arrives at the top of the pile, and this was the site of a culling. He thinks to himself that this is somewhat familiar, yet wrong. You see, where he comes from, mutants are rounded up. Not humans. These are human bodies. Yeah. He wears a tattered cloak, which hides his identity. 
Yeah, the secret guide kneels down to next to one of the corpses and invokes a moment of silence on their behalf, which is almost immediately interrupted by a young girl racing in his direction. She crashes right into the man. She goes, ah, They're coming! They're coming! They got Mama! Daddy! They got them all and we're g- gonna die! Mister, don't, don't let me die! The man now finds himself stood before a green-armored individual who is surrounded by large Nimrod-esque characters who Unus refers to as the Infinites. Is, is Unus? Unus? What, what am I going to say? There's so, many, there's so many ways I want to say it, but I know there's got to be one. Uh, yeah, so this man in charge is Unus, the untouchable. His real name is Gunther Bain, although born Angelo Unus Schioni, hence the Unus. Uh, First appearance, X-Men number 9, November 1964, cover date, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. He has the power to use his repulsor energy to create a solid force field. Join the villainous Factor 3 with an eye toward... What else? Taking over the world. And this was unsuccessful. As you might imagine, with a name like Factor 3. He'd later hook up with Magneto's Brotherhood. Uh, He'd eventually retire from the villain game and become a professional wrestler. At some point, he'd sire future Alpha Flight member Radius. He'd come out of retirement and fight the Hulk, uh, and he would wind up suffocating himself in his own force field. Whoops. Uh-oh. Now, Eunice blasts this cloaked man. Yeah, he says, Allow me to take care of him. With a crushing of force field. He continues to blast. Tattered northern dress. An emigrant. Fool. Every flat scan with a brain is dashing northward. Away from the wrath of a sacred leader. Surely you've heard them curse the holy name of... Something, something's wrong. Indeed there is. You see, this tattered fella is absorbing your power. He, he absorbs me power? We just said that. Impossible. Unless he too is a mutant. Well, that ought to be obvious by now. Pretty much. Uh, by the way, the flat scan remark he made is an anti-human slur that evil mutants like to bandy about. Uh, now, the only thing Eunice likes less than a flat scan is... The stranger is a traitor to his race. Now, we didn't realize that mutant was a race, but what are you going to do? It is in this series, Chris, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Eunice says, kill him! And then from off-panel... Sabretooth says, Not so fast. It's... It's the X-Men? Kinda. Sorta. Let's meet him. We're gonna start with Sabretooth. Real name, Victor Creed. First appearance, Iron Fist. Number 14, August 1977. Cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. He was a member of the CIA Covert Ops Unit Team X. He's a a mercenary killer, a member of the Marauders. Uh, He's had a pretty busy life. (laughs) Um, he was also intended as being, uh, as being uh, wolf revealed as Wolverine's father by Chris Claremont. Claremont says, "Father and son." That's why Sabretooth always considered Logan sloppy seconds to his original slash real deal. And we're not sure that sloppy seconds means what Mr. Claremont thinks. I, it does. I sure hope it doesn't. Yeah, why uh, <laughs> so sloppy? Anyway, uh, Claremont continued. The other critical element in my presentation of the relationship was that in their whole life, Logan was never defeated, has never defeated Sabretooth in a knockdown, drag out, killer be killed, berserker fight. By the same token, on every one of his birthdays, Sabretooth has always managed to find him, no matter where Logan was or what he was doing, and come within an inch of killing him, for no other reason than to remind him that he could. 
this would be debunked in Wolverine number 42, July 1991 cover date, when it was confirmed that they were not father and son. Sabretooth was part of the Marauders during the mutant massacre, which wiped out a whole bunch of Morlocks. And as we approached the Age of Apocalypse, Sabretooth had just spent some time as a captive in X-Mansion, and wound up actually helping the good guys in their battle against the Phalanx. Next person we're going to meet is Wild Child. Real name Kyle Gibney, and first appearance Alpha Flight, number one, August 1983, created by John Byrne. Young Kyle was tossed out by his parents due to his odd appearance, uh, and found himself taken captive by the Secret Empire, which... Uh, I think that's that group that Nixon ran, right? Right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Empire uh, experimented on him. He was eventually found by some Canadian agents and handed over to Department H. And those, of course, are the people with the Alpha Flight. Wildchild would join Gamma Flight. Uh, also, there is Blink, real name Clarice Ferguson. First appearance in Uncanny X-Men number 317, October 1994 cover, created by Scott Lobdell and Joe Maggiera. Maduera? Maduera. Maduara. Sure. Uh, we, met, we met Blink very briefly during the Phalanx Covenant, where she sacrificed herself to save the rest of the team. Since that was only four months before the Age of Apocalypse, we guess she was still on Scott Lobdell's mind at the time. We got Morph. Real name, Kevin Sidney. First appearance, uh, X-Men 35, August 1967, created by Roy Thomas and Warner Roth. Back in the long ago, he was a bad guy called Changeling who uh, then took over the form of Professor X so he, the professor, could fake his own death. And he was dead forevermore. Sure. Well, until he was brought back for the X-Men animated series under the name Morph. Well, he died there too, didn't he? Uh, for a little while, yeah. Yeah, uh, Well, and he's back again for the Age of Apocalypse and looks absolutely nothing like either his changeling nor animated series forms. Though, in fairness... He is a shapeshifter. That's his name. He morphs. Uh, Rogue's real name is Anna Marie LeBeau, as of this recording. Uh, first appearance is Avengers Annual number 10, October 1981, created by Chris Claremont and Michael Golden. This is a runaway who left home after her mutant power of absorption via touch kicked in just as she was making out with her boyfriend, Cody. Her powers were uncontrollable, leading her to, ha- to having to wear gloves and avoid any and all skin-to-skin contact with others. She'd be picked up by Mystique and Destiny and wound up joining their Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And she wound up permanently absorbing the powers of Carol Danvers, uh, at one time uh, Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Uh, she eventually see the error of her ways and join the X-Men, and is romantically linked to a few mutants we might know, including Gambit and the fella we're about to meet right now. That is Magneto, real name Max Eisenhart, though at this time he was believed to be Eric Lenscher. First appearance, X-Men number one, September 1963, created by Stan and Jack. This is the X-Men's original arch nemesis and the master of magnetism. He led the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, uh, just an all-around bad dude for those first 66 issues. Stanley commented in 2008 that he never saw Magneto as a villain, which is a very Stanley thing to say. Yeah. He says, I did not think of Magneto as a bad guy. He just wanted to strike back at the people who were so bigoted and racist. He was trying to defend the mutants, and because society was not treating them fairly, he was going to teach society a lesson. He was a danger, of course, but I never thought of him as a villain. Far be it from us to argue with Stan, but come on. Yeah. I guess these things just play a little bit better in recent times. He of the convenient memory will remember (laughs) things as he chooses. Uh, It would be Chris Claremont some 15 years later who would use the Malcolm X Martin Luther King Jr. inspiration 
for Magneto Professor X rivalry slash relationship. As of the Age of Apocalypse, Magneto was believed to be Eric Lenscher, a Sinta Gypsy, and a Holocaust survivor. He'd meet Charles Xavier in Israel, and there, and that's where the timeline splits. In the Prime Universe, Magnus and Xavier debating philosophy uh, and came to the conclusion that their points of view in society were incompatible and so became enemies. Magneto would swipe a cache of Nazi gold in order to finance his endeavors. He runs into the X-Men during an attack on Cape Citadel military missile base and starts the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Winds up getting captured by the cosmic being The Stranger. He gets chucked into the Savage Land. He fights the X-Men. He fights the Avengers. He fights the Defenders. Sounds kind of like a villain of the week at this point, even though Stan says he didn't see him as one. Sure. Uh, he's eventually reduced to infanthood by Alpha the Ultimate Mutant. More on him later. He's eventually re- restored to adulthood and captures the X-Men under the guise of Shi'ar agent Eric the Red. He starts softening after nearly killing Kitty Pride. He sees that she's wearing a Star of David and catches himself before he can land a killing blow. Yeah, this is one of those very memorable Marvel moments uh, yes. that constantly gets recalled. I don't know if it still does, but it did for a while. Yes. Uh, he learns that Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are his children during Vision and the Scarlet Witch number 4, their first miniseries in February 1983 cover date. And then he's swept away to Battleworld with the X-Men for the Secret Wars event. Check out Weird Comics History Episode 9 for more on Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars. Uh, but this is notable for Magneto being left with the heroes when the Beyonders split those he swept away into teams, hero and villain, naturally, because that's how we have to pit people against each other. <laughs> Upon his return to Earth, Magneto is voluntarily put on trial for his crimes against humanity and the rest of the world. Uh, the charges are dismissed. Because he was reborn and all that jazz. It's fine now. What do you, you know? Yeah, you were made a baby. That's all. That's a oh, new start. You know, oh, now that's in the that's distant <laughs> memory. Whatever. Uh, he becomes headmaster of Xavier's Institute while Charlie's off making time with the Majestrix, and then he guides the new mutants. He also joins the Hellfire Club as its white white king, and eventually gives the Black King Sebastian Shaw the boot. And we'll meet him pretty soon. He flips the script here, claiming that his uh, babyface turn was all a ruse to use the X-Men and New Mutants as pawns while he takes over the world. During Acts of Vengeance, Magneto teams very briefly with the Red Skull, who, you know, pals with Hitler. Yeah, that must have been a little uh, awkward. A little awkward. Uh, you know, yeah. yeesh, you know? You know, just keep your enemies close, but that's a, that's a tough one to keep close. That's a toughie. Yeah. Uh, Magneto would work with the X-Men and Nick Fury again during a Savage Land adventure, circa Uncanny X-Men number 275, during which he got extra chummy with Rogue. After the Muir Island saga, Magneto was back as a bad guy, commanding the Acolytes to do some pretty nasty stuff. Thought dead after Asteroid M's destruction in X-Men Volume 2, number 3, December 1991, cover date, Magneto would lay low until Fatal Attractions, where he'd go from villain to full-on foaming-at-the-mouth villain. <laughs> yes, he interrupts the funeral of Ileana Rasputin, who just passed of the Legacy Virus, the first casualty. Wow. Uh, he sways longtime X-Man Colossus over to his cause, so, X-Man, uh, so Colossus leaves the X-Men and joins the Acolytes. And, of course, he notably yanks Adam, Wolverine's adamantium skeleton out of yeah. his hairy little body. Fatal Attractions, as mentioned, and we might mention it a few more times, ended with Professor X psychically lobotomizing Magneto. 
uh, which we're going to be saying a lot more. It seems um, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, We got Quicksilver, real name Pietro Maximoff. First appearance, X-Men number four, March 1964, cover date by Stan and Jack. Uh, he was still Magneto's son at this point, uh, and he might be again at this point. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, so we're just going to go with that. We're going to go with that for this, though, yeah. Because back in the mid-90s, there were no movie rights to play with, so there was no need to really distance a, quote, Avengers character from a, quote, X-Men character. Ah, uh, good times, good times. You're telling me, yeah. Uh, he was part of, Pietro was part of Magneto's first brotherhood of evil mutants and turned into a good guy pretty quickly, joining the Avengers during the Caps Kooky Quartet era, Avengers number 16, that was May 1965, cover date. He and his sister, the Scarlet Witch, who we will meet soon, lost their powers and went home to Vundagor Mountain, the boringest place on Earth. Ugh. Their powers came back, and, and so did they. They married the Inhuman named Crystal. Do we care about the Inhumans yet? Nope, still don't care. Uh, <laughs> together they had a daughter, who they named Luna, and Quicksilver would eventually join X-Factor, and that's pretty much where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. We got Storm, real name Aurora Monroe. First appearance, Giant Size X-Men number one, May 1975 cover, created by Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. She joined the all-new X-Men, who saved the originals from Krakoa, the living island. She was originally conceived as this shape-shifting cat-like woman by Dave Cockrum for the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, I guess DC passed. Um, It was revealed that she was a pickpocket growing up in Kenya, who just so happened to try and pick Professor X's pocket. A little while after joining the X-Men, she would become something of a mentor to Kitty Pride, who really didn't like it when she got the Mohawk. Uh, she really reacted poorly to that. Uh, she reacted uh, less poorly. After all the outfits, Kitty Pride, you know, all the looks she had. I know, I mean, right? Come on, let, let her have a little, you know, hair change. No big deal. <laughs> no, she, she was less upset with Storm saving her from the Morlocks. Uh, not sure which order these events happened, but they definitely did happen. All right. Uh, now, Kitty's reaction to Storm's mohawk look was based on artist Walt Simonson's daughter's reaction to seeing her father beardless for the first time. I guess she freaked out and ran out of the room. Um, now, the mutant gizmo was Forge created a power nullifier and was planning on zapping Rogue with it in order to get her powers under control. He hit Storm instead, and uh, she was left powerless for a little while. Even depowered, she was able to best Cyclops in a one-on-one fight to take over leadership of the X-Men. This was Uncanny X-Men number 201, also notable as being the first appearance of Scott's son, Nathan. Let me tell you, you're getting your butt kicked by a depowered mutant. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're pretty much, yeah. You deserve to uh, abdicate, I think. Uh, she spent some time in another dimension with Forge in a story called Life Death, and it's here that her powers returned. Following Fall of the Mutants, Storm would be one of the Outback X-Men. She'd be regressed into a child state by Nanny, who we will meet later. And she was rescued by Gambit in his first appearance, and more on him later on, too. During the Extinction Agenda, Storm is brainwashed by the Genosian Magistrates. But everything's cool by the end, and Storm's an adult again. Following the Muir Island Saga, Storm became leader of the X-Men's Gold Strike Force. Now we talk about Iceman, real name Bobby Drake, first appearance in one of the original five, X-Men number Mm -hmm. one, September 1963, cover date, created by Stan and Jack. Created, according to Stan Lee, essentially as a copy of the Human Torch, but cold. (laughs) Following the first 66, Bobby Bobby would join the champions alongside fellow X-Men Angel. Champions writer Tony Isabella hoped to write a buddy series with the two, but Marvel editorial insisted it be an entire team. He joined, Bobby would join the Defenders when the champions went defunct. 
on television, he became one of Spider-Man's amazing friends. Yeah, I remember that. Probably better than any of this. Uh, the launch of X-Factor brought the original five back together, and Bobby, being an original X-Man, was part of that. During his time in X-Factor, Iceman had his powers supercharged by Loki and had to wear an inhibitor belt to keep himself under control. Following the Muir Island saga, Bobby would return to the X-Men proper on the Gold Strike Force. We got Nightcrawler, real name Kurt Wagner. First appearance, Giant Size X-Men number one, May 1975, cover by Len, uh, Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. He, like the rest of them, joined the all-new X-Men, who saved the originals from Krakoa, the living island. Uh, though he was originally conceived by Dave Cockrum as a member of DC's Outsiders. Uh, not those Outsiders. Or those outsiders. No, uh, this was a team <laughs> that was set to spit out from the Legion of Superheroes. If you see, hear the name Dave Cockrum and DC, Legion of Superheroes must be the only thing that follows. <laughs> uh, DC editor Murray Bolton off passed because he thought the character was too funny looking. There's stuck... no funny looking Legionnaires, right? I know. Come on, those are a very serious group. <laughs> um, stuck around the X Men until he was knocked into a coma during the Mutant Massacre. And as he was recuperating, the X-Men died in Dallas during the fall of the mutants. From here, he'd hook up with Excalibur, where he'd remain up to and past this storyline. Back to the story. We got Sabretooth going, After all, we traitors like to stick together. Rogue says, Do any of y'all recognize this stranger? Magneto goes, Only for what he is, Rogue. Like ourselves, a mutant, persecuted and hunted by his own kind. Step away from him, Eunice. Now, so say the X-Men. And then Sabretooth lets Wildchild off his leash. Oh, yeah. Leash? Sabretooth leaves Wildchild around on a leash. <laughs> Forgot that. Uh, Blink goes to hop into action, but Sabretooth cuts her off. Get back, Squirt. This feels very much like the usual Wolverine buddies up to a teenage girl gimmick we've seen a few times in the prime X-Men books. I think this is sort of a take on that, right? Gotta be, gotta be, yeah. Now, one of the Infinites sneaks up behind Rogue. However, Nightcrawler bamfs in and swipes the baddie's spear. He says, my, what a big spear you have, mein friend. What the? I'll take that, danke. Now the frazzled infinite immediately surrenders. Rogue's all screw you anyway and socks him good for, for no reason. <laughs> now the yeah. infinite goes. <laughs> they the even like goes, try to like ward her off, like no, 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 bam. <laughs> yeah, just go do it. <laughs> now the infinite goes flying right into a wall made out of morph. <laughs> morph changes into a wall and takes the impact. Now Storm does some stormy stuff to eliminate the other infinites. Meanwhile, Eunice has snuck up behind Magneto and places a gun against his helmet. He says, Plastic gun, Magneto, filled with non-fair shells. One twitch and you're a foot shorter, you heard me. Call your X-Men off or be a martyr, I win either way. Suddenly, Eunice is overcome with ice. And a decidedly Swedish accent. But anyway, he says, <laughs> Come on, make a choice. I'm not... Kidding? I can't move. Freezing. No, no. Eunice has gone to pieces. And then Iceman says, "The big man's gotta find better enforcers. These guys go to pieces too easy. I can't believe you let him get the drop on you." I was in no danger, Iceman. Pietro would have intercepted the bullets with ease. This time. How about losing this death wish attitude? We won! Celebrate! And unfortunately for 
Well, everybody, this invites Magneto to go full-blown soliloquy on us. Once more, the X-Men stand victorious atop the ashes of those who have paid the ultimate price for genetic intolerance. The soldiers of Apocalypse jackboot ever forward, each with each step crushing any hope that humans and mutant might someday exist in harmony. Magneto thinks about how he too once believed in the concept of homo superior and how that all changed. It was a fleeting notion spurned by the arrogance of youth and quelled by the spirit of a long-dead friend. But for his grace, Magneto would surely have become mankind's greatest foe. His name was Charles Xavier, and he was the greatest man I have ever known. And he continues, yeah. Yeah, really, he keeps going. Xavier had a dream. <laughs> A vision of racial unity. Again with the race here. I mean, are mutants really just another race? And then if, if so, so there's like white mutant, black mutant. Yeah, Is that you how like it works? That so, you know, I don't really get it. <laughs> with his dying breath, he entrusted the deliverance of his dream to me. Twenty years later, I imagine him looking down from the heavens at what his world has become and wondering why I have failed him so miserably. Thankfully, Blink interjects here and asks, <laughs> as the boss to maybe chicken and they're a mysterious stranger. You see, Sabretooth's trying to question him, and it's going about as well as you might expect, very violently and meanly. Uh, Magneto approaches, and the man Udhoods, revealing himself to be Bishop, the real name Lucas Bishop. First appearance on Uncanny X-Men number 282, November 1991, cover date, created by Jim Lee and Will Spartacio. We meet Bishop when he was a member of the XSCs as Xavier's security enforcers from the far-flung future. Flanked by fellow XSCers Malcolm and Randall, we assume their last name was Red Shirt, Bishop came to, we, we never see them again, uh, <laughs> came to the 20th century to chase down the time-traveling baddie Trevor Fitzroy. He'd be invited to join the X-Men, a team who saw he saw as legends during his youth. Bishop lunges toward Magneto. Yo! Murderer, your fault, all of it. What? Legion, warp time, killed Xavier, let him die. Not our world, all twisted, your, your fault. And Magneto is unmoving and suddenly Bishop gets a bit woozy and eventually falls asleep. Sabretooth goes, that's a magnetic trick. How'd you do that? By slowing the blood flow of iron to his brain. Couldn't he have done that to Eunice like a minute right? ago? Like, what's the deal? <laughs> Did you know him? Of course not. Thought you recognized him. You were mistaken. To the compound. Now. Mistaken, my Harry. And scene. <laughs> uh, we shift over to a laboratory where decidedly more gray, um, where decidedly more gray Hank Beast McCoy is performing some very painful procedures to the blob. Let's meet them right now. We got Dark Beast, that is the alternate beast we're looking at. Real name Hank McCoy, first appearance, X-Men number one. That's that September 1963 book by Stan and Jack. One of the original five, Beast was initially without fur. Uh, he had some oversized mitts and feet, though. He could kind of move around like a gorilla. Following his tenure with the X-Men, read once they stopped putting original stories in the X-Men book, Hank would get himself a job at the Brand Corporation, a subsidiary, subsidiary of the evil Marvel Corporation, Roxxon, as a research biologist. He'd create a serum, which was considered such an advance that folks wanted to steal it. And when they came to steal it, Henry did what any right-minded scientist would do. He drinks it! 
This, mm -hmm. this was an amazing adventures number. Great 11. idea. Yeah, March 1972. <laughs> Why not, right? This is our last chance. I guess let's let's see <laughs> what flavor of code red this is. So, uh, this is how Beast first got furry, though he was more gray than blue at first. At this point, uh, he'd mastered the art of rubber manipulation and mask making overnight, and would wear a Hank McCoy mask or not to scare the bejesus out of those around him, which really was just hilarious to think about. Yes. <laughs> uh, also, a painful looking harness to straighten his hunch. Yeah, he was hunched over. Now, uh, Beast would join up with the Avengers, where he formed a friendship with Wonder Man, and uh, he would eventually join the Defenders as well. He, along with the rest of the original five, would come back together as X-Factor. Early on in the run, Beast went furless again. But that didn't, ask all, that didn't last all that long. Following the Muir Island saga, Beast would rejoin the X-Men proper and serve on the Blue Strike Force. Uh, the Beast of the Age of Apocalypse world is... Just a little bit more twisted yeah, than the fellow that we know and love. Pretty cruel guy, I gotta say. Yeah. He sure is. Um, we also have the Blob, real name Frederick J. Dukes. First appearance, X-Men number three, January 1964, created by Stan and Jack. He was a member of a circus sideshow because he's a tremendously obese and immovable object. <laughs> Uh, early on, Professor X was able to sense Dukes' mutant ability, and so the X-Men went out on a recruitment mission. It was a no-go. Blob ain't no team player, though that uh, didn't stop him from eventually joining the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And later, the Freedom Force and several other iterations of the Brotherhood. Uh, maybe he just didn't like the X-Men. He, did, he didn't like the cut of uh, Xavier's yeah. jib. That's all there was to it, you know. Take it personally. So, uh, Blob is eventually able to break out from his bindings, and he lunges right for his captor. Butcher! And the beast says, oh my. No more. Before he can do too much damage to the bouncing beast, the Blob is leveled by a blast from... Havoc, real name Alex Summers, first appearance X-Men number 54, March 1969, created by Arnold Drake and Don Heck, the brother of Scott Cyclops Summers, who we'll meet soon enough. He, like his brother, was tossed out of an airplane by his parents when their plane came under attack from a Shi'ar battleship. They had a parachute, of course, so it's not, it was not that cruel. Uh, he'd meet the original X-Men after earning a degree in geophysics. He was kidnapped by the living monolith, Living Pharaoh who feared that Alex's power might rival his own. He joined the X-Men alongside an on-again, off-again girlfriend, Lorna Polaris Dane. He was taken captive by Krakoa, the Living Island, and then they quit the team post-giant size. Havoc would work on Muir Island doing some genetic research for Maura McTaggart, who we will meet later. Uh, upon return to the X-Men, Havoc would have something of a relationship with his brother's ex-wife, Madeline Pryor. We will meet her another day. Uh, he'd be part of those Outback X-Men, and he would eventually enter the Siege Perilous. Coming out the other side of the Siege, he was an amnesiac in Genosha, and somehow worked his way up to being a high-ranking magistrate in the Genosian army. That's a good way uh, to wow. use your uh, your amnesia. Yeah. Uh, he'd eventually come to his senses and would become the team leader for the second incarnation of X-Factor. Yeah, and then after Havoc busts in the scene, Beast says, Whew, impeccable timing, Alex. Mr. Dukes, meet Prelate Summers. We call him Havoc, as in Rex. Yeah, never would have figured that out. Um, now, Havoc goes to give the Blob another blast for good measure. However, Mr. Dukes is quick to grab the beast and hurl him right in his direction. <laughs> he then lunges. Like, it's a lot of lunging in this book. Yeah. Uh, he lunges again. Now, this time, he's stopped by an optic blast from 
Cyclops. Real name, Scott Summers. First appearance, X-Men number one, September 1963, Stan Jack. Uh, this is the brother of the fellow who we just met. One of the original five X-Men, usually considered the first ever. Uh, Scott ran away from the orphanage he was living in when he was 16. He winds up nearly being taken under the wing of small-time crook Jack O'Diamonds before Professor X could intervene. He was romantically linked with Marvel Girl from just about the very start. Do you think he, he looked between the two potential mentors? He was like, well, I, got, <laughs> I have a professor or I have Jack O'Diamonds. I, think I, got, I'm a... I got the guy throwing dice in the yeah. air. <laughs> <laughs> or I got the guy with his own school. <laughs> I think I'm going to go. I think I'm going to go with yeah. him. Uh, so Scott led both the X-Men and the all new X-Men when the originals without himself were captive of Krakoa, the living island. During a space adventure, he discovered that the swashbuckling star jammer Corsair was actually his father, Christopher Summers. Following the Dark Phoenix saga, Scott quit the team and immediately fell in love with and married Jean Grey's doppelganger. The couple would have a child named Nathan. Who Scott would abandon at the first sign that Jean Grey, the actual love of his Ooh, life, okay. was still alive. Whoops, okay. <laughs> now, Scott became the leader of X-Factor, and after his ex-wife is revealed to be the Goblin Queen, gets custom custody of their son because, uh, you know, she was dead. Yeah. Uh, they would uh, call baby Nate by his middle name, Christopher. During a later adventure, Scott wound up having to send Nathan Christopher into the future. You see, he was infected with a techno-organic virus and uh, would die if left in the present. Soon after, Scott would rejoin the X-Men proper and lead the Blue Strike Force. Scott and Jean would finally wed in X-Men Volume 2, Number 30, March 1994 cover. Yeah, you see, infected with a techno-organic virus, that's why we had to send that person into the future. Yes. That's what you tell the police when they ask, when they ask <laughs> after the, the missing yeah. person. Oh, we had to send them into the future. Uh, so here, Beast says, Ah, if it isn't old evil eye himself, and just in the nick of time, salutations, Cyclops. And Cyclops proceeds to read the Beast the Riot Act. Well, before we go on, it's worth mentioning here that a lot of the differences of appearance here is if, if you had, like, long hair in the real universe, you had short hair now, and if you have short vice. hair in the universe... Yeah. yeah, vice versa. So Cyclops has very long hair here, and he only has one eye. So the visor only covers... The the, the ruby quartz is only over one eye. And, and it's more of like... It looks more of like a pair of eyeglasses or something. Yes, it's, uh, it does. Like, like, everyone seems to have acquired more hardware in this universe in general, right? Like <laughs> we, we ditched the pouches for hardware. Got a lot of stuff on you, yeah. <laughs> Cyclops says, What in Sin's name do you think you're doing? You were ordered to shut this lab down. The Kelly Pact that Apocalypse has brought before the human specifically halts genetic experimentation. And this Kelly Pact is very pact is very likely a nod to Senator Robert Kelly, who is the the prime X Men had several run-ins with. Uh, Robert Kelly first appeared in X Men number one thirty three, May nineteen eighty cover date. He was created by Claremont and Byrne, an anti mutant activist spurred on by some visual trickery from Mastermind to believe he was being attacked by the X Men. He became a factor of Mutant Control Act and Project Wide Awake. It was his murder that led to the dystopian future of Days of Future Past. Good thing that never really happened, <laughs> considering where we are now. Uh, named after one of Claremont's professors at Bard University, the poet Robert Kelly. Fellow Bard University alum is, of course, Bob Haney's nephew, Chevy Chase. So it always, hey, it always comes is. back to Chevy Chase, doesn't it? 
Uh, oh, and the what in Sin's name is probably referring to Mr. Sinister. Yeah, we'll meet him in just a sec. Uh, now, it's made clear fairly quickly that the Summers Brothers' relationship is rather icy on this Earth number 295. Yeah, Havoc says, I'm the head of security. I make the reports if they need to be made, and I take my responsibilities seriously. Not like some pampered brats who breeze in from the pens just to throw their weight around. And if I hadn't come, little brother, what then? I could have handled it, you insufferable. Then from off-panel... Mr. Sinister says, Aha, lads! Haven't I raised you better than this? Will the Summers brothers ever get along? I was hoping you'd do like a Frankenfooter for him. <laughs> uh, now, Mr. Sinister, real name, Dr. Nathaniel Essex. First appearance, Uncanny X-Men number 221, September 1987, created by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri. We were introduced to Sinister while he led the Marauders, those bad guys that were responsible for slaughtering many a Morlock during the Mutant Massacre. He was originally conceived as a very strange and special young boy. Yeah, about him, Claremont says, Dave Cockrum and I went over ideas, and what we were coming towards was a mysterious young boy, apparently an 11-year-old at the orphanage where Scott you know, Cyclops, was raised, who turned out to be the secret master of the place. In effect, what we were setting up was a guy who was aging over a lifespan of roughly a thousand years. Even though he looked like an 11-year-old, he'd actually been alive since the mid-century at this point. He was actually about 50. He had all the grown-up urges. He's growing up in his mind, but his body isn't capable of handling it, which makes him quite cranky. And, of course, looking like an 11-year-old, who'd take him seriously in the criminal community? So he built himself an agent, in a sense, which was Mr. Sinister. That was, in effect, the rationale behind Sinister's rather, for want of a better word, childish or kid-like appearance. The costume, the look, uh, the face, it's what would scare a child. Even when he was designed, he wasn't what you'd expect in a guy like that. Which is actually a lot more interesting than what we actually got, I gotta say. It's true. I like, it's true. I like the background than the actual, but that's fine. It's very true. And, uh, of course, it's Claremont, so we have to talk about the urges. Yes. So. Always. <laughs> now, something that, uh, that, something that stuck from uh, the original uh, plot here was Sinister's obsession with Summer's DNA. Uh, he would be revealed to have created Madeline Pryor, that clone of Jean Grey, who Scott Summers wound up marrying and having a child with. That child, spoiler alert, was Cable. Uh, Maddie would go on to become the Goblin Queen during the Inferno event, but that's a bio for another day. Uh, Mr. Sinister unwittingly unleashed the Legacy Virus after opening a canister he believed to contain Summer's DNA. He loves that Summer's DNA, boy. Dude's got a fetish. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Around this time, uh, pre-Age of Apocalypse, or just into the Age of Apocalypse here, the most notorious uh, not understanding of Mr. Sinister was his mention of Scott Summers' brothers, plural. Mm. Up to this point, we only knew Scott and Alex. Uh, it wouldn't be until X-Men Deadly Genesis miniseries from that ran from January through July 2006 that this loose thread would be tied. Uh, it, I really wish it was Adam X, but no, they, they decided not to make it Adam X, unfortunately. Oh, well. Now, it's pretty clear from the get-go that Scott is the favorite son. Sinister requests that they walk together, leaving Alex behind to clean up whatever's left of the blob. It's messed up. Sinister says, "Mm, Scott, I have to go away. Sir, no. If, If it's something I've done... Not everything is about you, Scott. 
Now, you see, this is what happens when you have favorite children. Really? You know, you just play them against each other, really mess with yeah. their minds. Now, Sinister goes on to explain that one of their own has fallen prey to a madness, which may lead to an Armageddon. I mean, really, this is an Armageddon? Look around. You know, it's, <laughs> how, how, how much worse is it going to get? This is ridiculous. That's right. Uh, well, it's, and, you know, uh, Scott does exactly that. He looks around, and uh, he looks across the bay and sees Sentinels. Now, the Sentinels first appeared in X-Men number 14, November 1965 cover, created by Stan and Jack. These are mutant hunting robots uh, created by Dr. Bolivar Trask, who we will meet a little bit later. The Mark I Sentinels weren't as large as the ones that we usually think of, like the ones from the cartoon or anything. Right. Uh, unless, of course, you're thinking of the Mark I's. I, I usually am not, but yeah. That's... <laughs> a few people are. <laughs> now, the Mark II Sentinels were created by Bolivar's son, Larry Trask. Larry, a mutant, wore a medallion around his neck that, neck that blocked the Sentinel's sensors. Didn't know he was a mutant either. Uh, the Mark IIs were defeated when Cyclops suggested they fly into the sun. Okay. Yeah, why not? Uh, Mark, <laughs> Mark III's were created by Dr. Stephen Lang, a federal mutant researcher under Project Armageddon, which doesn't sound ominous in the slightest. <laughs> Good lord. Uh, there was also Project Wide Awake and Nimrod, just robots hunting mutants. You know how they be. That's what they do. Uh, the Sentinels are flying right past the window of Manhattan's Heaven nightclub, a neutral zone that welcomes both humans and mutants, and it's run by none other than Angel, whose real name is Warrington, Warren Worthington III. First appearance, X-Men number one, September 63 cover by Stan and Jack, one of the original five. Following the first 66 issues of X-Men, Angel would join the Champions, but he would return to the X-Men not too long after that, and he'd also join the Defenders, because why not? That's kind of what you have to do, right? Yeah. As you cycle, the rounds. As you yeah. cycle through the teams, you're going to hit Defenders eventually. Uh, he'd rejoin the rest of the founding X-Men and X-Factor. Warren lost his wings early on and was believed to have committed suicide shortly after that. He was actually taken in by Apocalypse and transformed into the razor-winged Archangel. Archangel, sorry. He was also Apocalypse's horseman of death. He'd eventually come to his senses, sorta, and rejoin his pals, and Angel had a constant struggle controlling his bloodthirsty metal wings. Following the Muir Island saga, Archangel would rejoin the X-Men and serve on the Gold Strike Force. Yes, Angel holds a glass aloft and goes, A toast to the mechanical arm of the human resistance and the shortness of its reach. Oh, after, sorry. <laughs> after that, doing my little bottom to it. Yeah. Uh, now, he introduces tonight's entertainment, a singer named Scarlet. Say! The Scarlet Witch, oh. yes. Now, real name, Wanda Maximoff, though referred here as Scarlet McKenzie. Uh, first appearance, X-Men number 4, March 1964, covered by Stan and Jack. She debuted alongside her brother and father as a member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. She would follow her brother to the Avengers as part of Cap's kooky quartet. The fourth member was Hawkeye, by the way. If uh, oh, She'd uh, be romantically linked to the Vision, an android. They even had some kids together. Sort of. Sort of. Uh, during her time with the West Coast Avengers, Wanda would briefly be corrupted by Magneto. This was following Vision Quest, a story wherein the Vision lost his humanity, so she wasn't exactly in the good place to uh, begin with. She'd get over it, though. Uh, going into the Age of Apocalypse, Wanda was still a member of the Avengers. Uh, it's worth noting that the Mackenzie surname belongs to a certain submariner. Hmm. So, as she takes the stage, Warren's approached by an associate who we know to be Karma, real name Xian Koi Man. 
uh, first appearance, Marvel Team-Up number 100, December 1980 cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller. One half of a pair of psychic twins who offer an adventure with Spider-Man was recommended as a potential New Mutants member to Professor X by Reed Richards. While under control of the Shadow King, she ate a lot and became morbidly obese. She'd eventually leave the New Mutants to search for her lost siblings. Now, Karma informs her boss that he is a guest, and she refers to him as the Cajun, but we know him better as... Gambit. Real name, Remy LeBeau. First appearance, Uncanny X-Men number 266, August 1990, created by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee. It's worth noting that his first published cameo appearance was actually in Uncanny X-Men Annual number 14, July 1990 cover, which featured art by Mike Collins. Now, he's a thief from New Orleans who was prophesized to unite the Thieves and Assassins guilds. And stories that have guilds in them with Gambit are very, very boring. Usually pretty boring, yeah. He's one one of these characters to me that's always good on paper. Well, I guess he is sort of always good in theory (laughs) than he is uh, in practice. Uh, Though it hadn't yet been revealed, Gambit led the Marauders into the Morlock Tunnels for the Mutant Massacre. This would eventually be revealed in Uncanny X-Men number 350, though by then we'd already all figured it all out. Remy would join the X-Men shortly before the original five returned to the fold and was romantically linked with Rogue. Prior to the Age of Apocalypse, Gambit was on the X-Men's Blue Strike Force. Hello, Gambit. It's been a while since the Louisiana calling. How have you... Let's cut to it, Angel. I need to talk to Magneto now. And what makes you think I can help you? Because Angel spelled sideways his angle. If anyone knows to get to him, it's you, for sure. Honey child, Um, Gambit is able to convince Warren to give him a hand. After all, he owes him one for something that went down in Louisiana. Uh, Now this conversation is being watched via a nearby window. Behind it stands Sebastian Shaw. First appearance, X-Men number 129, January 1980 cover by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. He is the Black King of the Hellfire Club and a key part in the corruption of Phoenix into Dark Phoenix back in the long ago. Prior to the Age of Apocalypse, Shaw was killed by his own son, Shinobi Shaw. This happened in X-Factor number 67, June 1991 cover date. He eventually gets better, but not until this story's over with. Did his son kill him because he named him Shinobi Shaw? You know that had anything to do with it? <laughs> he had a Sega fixation. He was like, you son of a... You know, I like Sonic. Anyway, uh, back in what's left of Westchester County, we rejoin the X-Men. Rogue enters a nursery and checks in with Nanny. First appearance was X-Men number 112, August 1978 cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Now Nanny is there keeping an eye on Charles Lenshire. Real name is Charles Lenshire. First appearance was this very issue, X-Men Alpha number 1, February 1995 cover date. Woo-hoo. Magneto and Rogue take young Charles and put him right to bed. And that's what I call quality time. <laughs> yep, you get home, send him to the bed. Go to bed now. <laughs> Magneto goes, Nanny will tuck you in, and Mother will keep will help you with your prayers. Mother? Now I lay me down to sleep. I play the I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If the magic come before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Gotta note here that due to Rogue's uncontrollable powers, she has never actually touched her son without gloves. Never kissed him, all that stuff. It's pretty bleak, but nothing new to the no, X-Men. That's everyday everyday trials for them. Yes. <laughs> also, the prayer, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, is a 
bedtime prayer from the 18th century, uh, usually attributed to Joseph Addison, an English essayist, essayist and poet that has had a number of different versions throughout the years, uh, but the sentiment is usually the same. Uh, so maybe rogues is just as valid as uh, sure. one in our world. Why not? <laughs> now, uh, our man Bishop is back among the awake, and he wants answers. Yeah, he says to Magneto, You tell them. Rogue says, tell us what? I was there. I saw your crime. Eric, what's he going on about? Tell them exactly what happened to Charles Xavier Magneto. Magneto ain't having none of it, and he just KOs Bishop with a magnetic blast. (laughs) Uh, He does have an idea, though. He says to Rogue, the X-Men's telepathic options have been sorely limited. The only power that can reach into our stranger's mind is yours. And scene again. Hmm. And so we shift over to wherever the hell Mr. Sinister went off to. (laughs) We'll call it elsewhere, because that's what the caption says. And he is greeted by... Abyss. Real name, Nils Steiger. First appearance, right here, baby. Uh, This is a uh, horseman of apocalypse. Uh, That's all we really need to know for now. Uh, We will learn a little bit more about him later. Yeah, Sinister says, Amusing yourself, Abyss? Always! We have been summoned. The Master waits with his most trusted subjects. Where is Mikhail? Now, the Mikhail he speaks of doesn't appear here, but we'll meet him anyway. It's Mikhail Rasputin. First appearance, Uncanny X-Men number 285, February 1992, created by Jim Lee, Wills Potasio, and John Byrne, a cosmonaut and brother to Colossus and Magic. During one mission, he was yanked through a dimensional rift and uh, wound up on a strange planet. He assimilated pretty quickly and uh, would even marry one of the locals. A rift reopened during a civil war, and Mikhail was the only one with the power to close it. When he did, the backlash wound up killing a whole lot of folks, including his wife. Uh, With the aid of the X-Men, Mikhail returned to Earth. And as you might imagine, he lost his mind. Uh, He'd stay with the Morlocks for a bit and become a real thorn in the side for the X-Men. Well, it looks here like Mikhail has snubbed the Master. That's okay, though. At least the truant officer of the Damned has shown up, otherwise known as Holocaust. Real name? Nemesis. <laughs> I mean, what? what <laughs> anyway, uh, first appearance, holy smokes, right here. What a, this is a collector's item. Special uh-huh. number, number one issue, bagged and boarded. Uh, though he did get a mention in 1993's Strife's Strike File at one shot. Apocalypse's son, and that's all we need to know for the moment, it would later be referred to simply as Nemesis, probably for the reasons you're all thinking. Mm-hmm. Yep. A little too hot for uh, yeah, hot maybe, for comics. Maybe Holocaust was not the best date. Probably not. And, and you know, especially when because this guy has an action figure too. You don't want that on a picked uh, on a toy. Plus, plus um, you have a character also that he interacts with that was actually like in the actual Holocaust. The, <laughs> so we can pretend it didn't happen at all. You know, like anyway. <laughs> uh, they are then joined by the master and ruler of America himself. You know, Apocalypse. Oh, that guy. <laughs> yeah, real name, N. Sabanur. First appearance, X-Factor number 5, June 1986, created by Bob Layton, Louise Simonson, and Jackson Geis. Now, we meet Apocalypse when he was revealed as the super-secret leader of the Alliance of Evil, though it almost wasn't to be. The outgoing X-Factor writer, Bob Layton, originally planned to reveal this leader as being 
the owl. Which, that's hilarious. From Daredevil. Yeah. I almost did. Was this ever a what if where they where they played with this? Story? <laughs> it, I, if I, if I, not, I, it needs to be. I'd love to see it. Yeah, just like just no. get, whatever. <laughs> Now, the incoming X-Factor writer, Louise Simonson, was given express instructions by editor Bob Harris that this reveal had to be a little bit more exciting than a D-level day. <laughs> uh, Bob says, All I had communicated to Louise was my desire that an A-level, first-class character be introduced. I wanted a Magneto-level villain who would, who would up the stakes and give the X-Factor team a reason to exist. Of the character, Louise says the following. Using Darwinian principles, survival of the fittest, to kill off the weak and force the survivors to grow stronger, to push humanity to get better and more powerful. He considers himself the apocalypse of modern man and the father of what humanity, what humanity will come next, mutant kind. Where Magneto sees mutants as the next step of evolution and strives to protect all mutants, Apocalypse believes in absolute survival of the fittest. That's a pretty good description of what's happening here Absolutely. right now, yeah. Uh, Apocalypse was a thorn on X-Factor's side for the entire initial run. He made Warren Walter Worthington his horseman of death, and he infected Scott's son with a techno-organic virus, forcing them to send the baby in the future. We discussed that <laughs> incredible storyline before Apocalypse saw young Nathan as being the one who would eventually destroy him. There was also this really big deal concerning the 12, which Marvel let dangle for over a decade and totally screwed the pooch on around the turn of the century. Apocalypse was thought to be dead just prior to the Muir Island saga, though he popped up again during the Executioner's song. There will be time later to deal with Mikhail's lapse in judgment. We will find him as we sift through the ashes of the earth. Then the moment has truly come. The forces of the Brotherhood are indeed in place for the final strike, Sinister. As we purge the country, so now do we cleanse the globe. And Apocalypse continues. Listen closely, and hear the toll of doom as it chimes for humankind worldwide. Hear the Flatskins cry for a dream stolen as they drop their guard. The god of false promises of hope and empty treaties of peace. Kelly packed indeed. So often do I rely on the naivete of humans, and so rarely am I disappointed. <laughs> Sinister raises the concern that this genetic civil war might actually claim both sides. Apocalypse isn't exactly pleased. Sinister says, I merely wonder if the mutants will live through your Armageddon. Does it matter? What care I have for the fate of the masses? Whether four or four billion fall in the days and weeks to come, the strongest and the fittest will survive, and they will form the army of tomorrow. Yeah, I don't think that was quite the answer Sinister wanted to hear. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, you never question authority. Exactly. You don't ever, you might hear something you don't want to. Mm -hmm. uh, now the fellows next discuss strategy Worth noting that there's a special name For the group of Sinister, Abyss, Holocaust And Mikhail, they're called The Four Horsemen mm. First appearance in X-Factor number 15 April 1987 cover date Created by Louise and Walter Simonson First incarnation included The Morlock Plague in, in the role of Pestilence, this first appearance On Canny X-Men number 169 May 1983 cover date by Claremont and Paul Smith Abraham Kiros's War, his first appearance in X-Factor number 11, December 1986, cover date, created by the Simonsons. Autumn Rolfston as Famine, first appearance in X-Factor number 12, January 1987, cover date, created by the Simonsons. 
And finally, in the role of death, a D-winged, and then re-winged with meaner wings, <laughs> Warren Worthington III, though he'd eventually be replaced by the Morlock Caliban. First appearance on Canny X-Men number 148, August 1981 cover date, created by Claremont and Dave Cockrum. So, not the ones we just met at all, four different no, people no, entirely. No. <laughs> uh, the, the scene concludes with Mr. Sinister silently pondering some of his personal scheming, which might land him in hot water with the man in charge. The next scene opens in London, where a cloaked man finds himself the target of an attack. Whoa, deja vu, man, just like the <laughs> beginning. Uh, a buffed-out fella in a torn trench coat and headband lunges at the more lunging, too, lunges at the lunging. man. Yeah. The dude goes, mutants. And Wolverine says, and proud of it, boyo. He says this as he unleashes his claws with a snicked with a C. Yeah, isn't that weird? That stuck with me, too. I was like, yeah, that's a little strange, but whatever. Uh, and, of course, this is Wolverine. But for now, we'll call him Weapon X. Real name, James Howlett, though we only know him as Logan at this point. First appearance, a cameo in Incredible Hulk number 180, October 1974, cover date. His first full appearance is the following month in Hulk 181. Marvel editor-in-chief Roy Thomas asked uh, writer Len Wein to devise a character specifically named Wolverine, who is Canadian and of small stature, and with a Wolverine's fierce temper. Wolverine would be part of the all-new X-Men who were assembled in giant size to rescue the originals from that very same Krakoa, the Living Island. He'd uh, be a member of the X-Men from this point on, with breaks every now and again, until having his adamantium forcibly removed during the Fatal Attraction's crossover. As we head into the Age of Apocalypse, Wolverine has bone claws, and he's doing the loner thing. For a whole lot more on Wolvie, as well as his first appearance, check out Cosmic Treadmill, episode 31 in the archives. And, you know, I think this guy might come up in the conversation again in the coming weeks. Yeah, so we probably. Can fill in any blanks that are left. I see. I seem to recall uh, people thought he was all right in the 90s. He was had a, They dug him. Yeah, they, they thought him. he was okay. Hey, he was no Lobo, but he was okay. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> uh, Wolverine's accompanied by Gene Gray. First appearance, X-Men number one, September 63 cover by Stan and Jack. Yep, one of those original fly, five <laughs> romantically linked to Cyclops from just about the very start. Uh, leered at creepily by just about everyone else, including Professor Xavier, for the most creepy part of it. But yeah, she was always getting hit on, uh, especially in the early issues. Following the first 66 and the rescue from Krakoa by the all-new team in giant size number one, Jean would remain with the team, but would start acting rather oddly. During the Phoenix saga, it would appear that Jean Grey died and was reborn as Phoenix, who iconically burst from the waters of Jamaica Bay. She would be corrupted by the Hellfire Club and would burninate a planet full of asparagus-shaped aliens. I hate burned asparagus, personally. Mm, no, uh, she would lead to the Dark Phoenix Saga, or this would lead to the Dark Phoenix Saga, wherein Jean would sacrifice herself. For more on the uh, editorial Mishagas regarding this, check out both Weird Comics History Episode 6 at the John Byrne bio and Cosmic Treadmill Episode 71, which is really more or less a Jim Shooter biography. Indeed. Now, when X-Factor was on the publishing docket, the fifth member remained a mystery. All folks knew that it was going to be Cyclops, Beast, Iceman, Angel, and a g-g-g-girl. Mm, originally set to be Dazzler. But what if there were a way to complete the original five and bring Gene back into the fold? In a 2016 interview with me for DC in the 80s, writer, 
Yeah, writer Kurt Busiek explained how he cracked the code. You see, Phoenix was never actually Jean at all. For the past little while, Jean had been in a cocoon under Jamaica Bay. Kurt says, I was at the Ithaca Fan Fest, and Roger Stern and his wife Carmela put me up at their place. So we were talking, getting to know one another. Well, we went out to lunch before heading to do a radio interview, and we were talking about the X-Men, because I really like the original X-Men. Roger says to me, it's a pity you can't have the original group back again. And I said, eh, there's always a way. He reminded me that Jim Shooter has this rule, and that that rule is that Gene is dead. Uh, and I told him that I figured out a way around it. And I outlined the story to him, and he laughed and said it would actually work. Now remember, even though we were both professional writers, this was just us talking. He continues, a little while later, and I wasn't aware of these conversations at the time, he's talking to John Byrne and tells him that he'd met a guy who's figured out a way for you to get around that Shooter edict. He outlined it to John, who thought it was a good idea and would actually work. When X-Factor was being started up, Bob Layton was writing it to the fifth member, and the fifth member of X-Factor was going to be Dazzler. John called up Bob and asked him if he wanted Gene back, because they now had a way to do it. He outlined the story to Bob, who liked it. And so, Gene was back on the table and back in the mix. She remained on X-Factor until the Muir Island saga, when she'd rejoin the X-Men proper and serve on the Gold Strike Force. In the lead-up to Age of Apocalypse, she and Cyclops would finally wed. Now, Gene wonders if Logan cut, uh, cut the buffed-out boyo. Did you cut him? Not yet. Won't have to, provided he takes us to his leader, Pronto. And the leader he's referring to are the muckety-mucks in the Human High Council. First appearance of this concept, right now. Uh, <laughs> they are a group of humans that oppose Apocalypse, which is... Probably what all humans should be doing, honestly. I would in this case, I'll tell you what. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this group includes Maura McTaggart, who is known here as Maura Trask. Her first appearance, X-Men number 96, December 1975, cover created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. Born Maura Kinross, she was an early associate to Charles Xavier. She married Joseph McTaggart, and they gave birth to a boy named Kevin, who would become the dangerous mutant Proteus. She created the Muir Island Research Center, which is also where she kept her dangerous son contained. Until, of course, he broke out and yeah. raised a whole lot of hell. That's what, that's, uh, what, that's what happens on Muir Island. There's no... Uh, all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they don't have locks on the doors. They don't. That's uh, a, it's a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> She's worked closely with the X-Men even before the team was officially created. Uh, leading up to the Age of Apocalypse, she was mostly linked with Excalibur, probably, you know, some proximity there. Yeah. Uh, worth not mentioning, even though we're not there yet, and we won't be here, uh, Mora would perform some deep research on the legacy virus, which, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, but it's the mutant-specific analog for AIDS, basically. And uh, Mora would wind up being the first human to both catch and die from it. Oh, wow, well, yeah, it's a totally fatal disease, right? Basically, yep. what they gave to characters and they wanted to stop writing them, I felt. <laughs> They were like, just give them that old legacy virus. There you go. Uh, Bolivar Trask is also in the group. This His first appearance was X-Men number 14, November 1965, cover date, created by Stan and Jack, human anthropologist and creator of the Sentinels. He ultimately realizes that the X-Men were actually the good guys and dies at their side fighting his very creations. And here, in this universe, he is Moira's husband. 
We have Emma Frost, first appearance X-Men 129, January 1980 cover date by Claremont and Byrne, former white queen of the Hellfire Club and CEO of Frost International. She becomes the chairman of the board of trustees and headmistress of the Massachusetts Academy, from which she leads the Hellions, a team of young mutants, which are basically competition for Xavier's own new mutants. In a battle with Trevor Fitzroy in issue uh, 281 of Uncanny X-Men, the Hellions are slaughtered, and Frost is left comatose. Uh, The X-Men take her in and nurse her. After having some comatose fun with Bobby Drake, Emma wakes up just in the nick of time for the Phalanx Covenant, after which she becomes the headmistress for Generation X at that very same Massachusetts Academy. Here in the Age of Apocalypse, she's depicted as having a large portion of her head shaved, the result of a lobotomy that eliminated her mutant abilities. And then Brian Brian Braddock, whose first appearance was in Captain Britain number one, October 1976, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Herb Trimp. Born and raised in the small town of Malden, Essex, Brian Braddock inherited a fortune from his wealthy parents and then got into a motorcycle accident. Uh, Merlin and his daughter Roma came to Brian's broken form and offered him the Amulet of Right or the Sword of Might, and he chose the Amulet and became Captain Britain. Come on, dude. Uh, following the fall of the mutants and the arrival of the surviving X-Men, he became a leader of Excalibur and ran the operation out of his lighthouse. Now, Weapon X and Gene meet up with a uh, meet up with this team here inside of Big Ben or whatever's left of Big Ben. Actually, yeah, it's a wreck. In order, <laughs> it is destroyed. Uh, in order to hand over some data rods <laughs> that they'd gotten from Mister Sinister. Uh, I mean, they're just like. You know, big discs or something. Yeah. Make it seem so, make it seem such like a special thing. Uh, that's what he was brooding about in the last scene, though. Obviously, mm-hmm. Mister Sinister wanted this to, this handoff to happen. Uh, Moira hands them off to Emma and Brian, and they leave. And Logan and Jean have a chat that fills in a few blanks. What if we made the wrong call by agreeing to work for Sinister? How can we even trust him? We'd be fools to, yeah. If we didn't know how much he stands to lose if Apocalypse gets his way. You know Sinister better than any of us, Red. Without you, we have no plan at all, eh? We do what he ha- we do what we have to. This world of pain won't last forever. And with that, they kiss. What? Mm, what they don't realize is they're being watched by another member of the Human High Council. This is Mariko Yoshida. First appearance, X-Men 118, February 1979 cover, created by Claremont and Byrne. It's a former love interest and fiancé to Wolverine, and also the half-sister of the Silver Samurai. She was poisoned by an assassin in the employee of Matsuo Tsuraba, Tsuraba, Sur- Sur- <laughs> Sur- yeah. in uh, Wolverine number 57, this is July 1992 cover date, and uh, she asked Wolverine to kill her in order to avoid the uh, painful death of poison, and that's exactly what he did. Every year hence, Wolverine would find Matsuo wherever he was and sever a single one of his body parts. And I just want to say really quickly that I think the big turnaround here with Wolverine and Jean Grey being together is that when Wolverine first came to the team, one of the big thorns in Scott Summer's side was he kept hitting on Jean Grey. As you pointed out, every male ever on the X-Men hit on Jean Grey, but I guess he was a little more aggressive, Scott didn't like him. And that, and, and Jean showed a little bit of interest. And she, so. That's right, she showed a little bit of interest, and he wasn't he wasn't feeling that, so uh, this is sort of like a, you know, what might have been if they were together and the entire world was destroyed. Yes. So, uh, back to Westchester, where Magneto shares his plan with the rest of the team, it's met with a pretty mixed reaction. Quicksilver goes, how wise is this? A desperate an act. You would risk your wife's sanity to glean insight from a madman? 
Before they can engage with the plan, the team is suddenly overtaken by a force emanating from Bishop. There's also a figure lurking in the shadows. Then, Magneto's overcome by visions of a world not entirely like this one. And then he sees his first confrontation with... The original five. This occurred, of course, in X Men number one, a September '63 cover date. Jack and Stan, you know the deal. Uh, as if we haven't said original five enough today, this is obviously referring to Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Iceman, Angel, and Beast. And uh, they first mix it up with Magneto when he attacks Cape Citadel, a missile center. Another vision is his formation of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Their first appearance, X-Men number 4, March 1964, Stan and Jack. The Brotherhood has had several incarnations, which we will very likely elaborate on throughout this little series. Uh, these are the originals, though. Magneto, Toad, Mastermind, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch. He also sees the Acolytes, their first appearance in X-Men Volume 2, number 1, October 1991, covered a created by Claremont and Jim Lee. A group of Magneto devotees who operated out of his space station, Asteroid M. Most notable member was Fabian Cortez, and he was a prick. He was, indeed. Uh, he also sees that time that he was transformed into an infant by Alpha the Ultimate Male. Ultimate Male. <laughs> Ultimate Mutant. Uh, the first appearance of Alpha was Defenders number 15, September 1960, I'm sorry, 1974. Created by Len Wein, Sal Buscema, and Klaus Janssen. Alpha is an artificial life form created by Magneto, who upon becoming aware that he's being used for nefarious acts, repaid his creator by regressing him to to babyhood. Uh, he then leaves Earth to explore the infinite cosmos. Other bits he sees is when he met Charles Xavier, uh, also that time that he and Rogue were an item on the Savage Land, uh, back around Uncanny X-Men 275, April 1991. And uh, that time where Professor X was forced to give him that telepathic lobotomy. That was X-Men Volume 225, number 25, October 1993. I mean, how could he remember that, even though it is another dimension? <laughs> right? How, you, how can you remember your own lobotomy? But all right, whatever. <laughs> then, that figure lurking in the shadows... Jumps out of the shadows, Whoa. revealing himself to be Gambit, who we already met, so we don't need to meet him again. Uh, he pushes Rogue out of the way of the hinky energy stuffs. Yeah, Bishop says, I opened his eyes, showed him the truth. The only truth here is that you're a lunatic. Isn't that right, Father? Father? And Rogue says to Gambit, Remy, what? How? Gambit says, relax, Cherry. Take a deep. Before he can finish that thought, Gambit is yoinked away by Sabretooth. Quicksilver quickly gets involved to inform Sabretooth that Gambit is actually an invited guest of his father's. And boy, does Magneto look happy to see him. Yeah, it's almost as, as like the sight of the Cajun triggered some spontaneous acromegaly in the uh, Master of Magnetism. His face is all bananaed out. It's just like, what? Um, it looks like he had a, something to drink or something. I don't know what's going on. Now, Magneto then requests Nightcrawler head off to find his mother. More on that and her in coming episodes. Then, he dismisses everybody. It's so funny. <laughs> and Gambit says what we're all thinking. He says, yep. I didn't come this far to be ignored, Magnus. You say you need me? I want to know why. Why am I here for sure now? <laughs> and Rogue says, let it drop, Remy. Gambit doesn't find out why he's here. But he does learn that Rogue and Magneto have a love child, a bouncing baby boy, even. She says to Magneto, You want your son growing up in Apocalypse's world? And Gambit whispers, Son? 
And Sabretooth with an S-eaten grin goes, What's the matter, Cajun? They forget to invite you to the baby shower. And now we jump over to that elsewhere where Holocaust discusses the appearance of the disappearance of Mr. Sinister. Which makes us wonder if our copies are yeah. missing a few pages. I don't remember him disappearing. I, but, I, I was okay. just doing his voice a minute ago. I don't understand what he <laughs> feels. Uh, we wrap up back with Magneto and Rogue as they consider what the visions from the stranger might mean. Meanwhile, a crystal wave is heading toward Earth. And that is X-Men Prime. Yeah. But what's next? Well, you see, we've got Uncanny X-Men. But not anymore. It's going to be Astonishing X-Men. Mm. X-Men Volume 2 is going to be Amazing X-Men. I love this one. Fa- X-Factor becomes Factor X. Yeah, they're not all that. Not all of them are very uh, creative, no. folks. Uh, Here comes X- a creative one, though. X-Force becomes Gambit and the Externals. <laughs> X-Caliber becomes <laughs> X-Caliber. Calibre. Calibre, <laughs> even. Yeah, the uh, British version. Uh Generation X becomes Generation Next. X-Men Unlimited becomes X-Men Chronicles. Yeah, it still sucks. Uh, Wolverine becomes Weapon X, and Cable becomes X-Man. And next week, we'll be taking a look at the first issues of each of these books. Not X-Men Chronicles. No. Yeah, well, you know, in a way, we kind of have covered what well, is covered in those uh, it's true. couple of issues already. You know, it's sort of a prequel stuff, but... Uh, yeah, boy, that is it, folks. That's our the first stab at the Age of Apocalypse, and we think this is going to be five episodes, right? We think so. We as think the, so. As the plan goes, and we're going to go through every single one. Um, mm. You know, in earlier in the episode, it talked about how this was promoted as Crisis, you know, uh, Marvel's Crisis on Infinite Earths, and yeah. it isn't because it's not resetting the universe or establishing... Uh, new continuities, you know, line wide. Although, as we'll get into later, it did. There, there, there were books that showed how this this uh, version of events the, affected yeah. the rest of the Marvel universe. But you know, I'm not going to spoil it. But everything goes back in its box later on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just kill the next four episodes. <laughs> but anyway, it, it is it is crisis in 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 my mind in the uh, extent that it's such a big event and always such a remembered you know linchpin. This is definitely a bigger, more shattering event than Secret Wars, Absolutely. or a lot of the ones that came before it, so... It wasn't, uh, it wasn't made clear initially that this was temporary. I mean, we all kind of, we were like 90% sure it was right. temporary, but, you know, there was that other 10% where it's like, I wonder what they're, what they're doing here. It, uh, we weren't sure that things were going to go back as neatly as they might. Well, they did new logos, new rebranding. They had done, sure. you know, they had done a lot of work for new designs, and you almost start to think, like, how much of this is uh is going to stick around and it, it didn't you, but then don't worry it came back later and if you if you read x-men prime and then pick up an, a copy of previews magazine it doesn't show that it goes back it's still it's still age of apocalypse stuff yeah. so you're you're looking like three or four months down the line and it's still this different universe so it's a uh, it was exciting it was an exciting time and a little nerve-wracking yeah i i, I love the idea and i, I wish you oh, know yeah. we'd, we'd get more of these kind of you know little uh forays into because they can do that, you know what I mean? This is the sure. this is the direct market, so you can actually change the title for a little while, and that people will still buy it, and uh, they should play with that more. But anyway, and like I say, all, a lot of these concepts that supposedly got, you know, reversed or changed, they all came back. They all came back to a one. They've all, this whole series has been mined 
beyond anything. It is no longer yeah. yielding any more ores or precious metals. So no, the novelty or, is, is done. Yeah. No gems. But anyway, I'm thrilled to be covering it and also to get back to uh, a little bit of X-Men, which is sort of, mm. you know, kind of your thing in a way. Yes, it was. <laughs> but uh, if you would like to write to us uh, about the Age of Apocalypse, about Marvel Comics, the X-Men, Scott Lobdell, Mark Wade, Roger Cruz, or Steve Epting, or anything we've talked about, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. Check us out on Tumblr, cosmicteamailhistory.tumblr.com. Find us on Twitter at cosmicteamail, and I'm at Twitter uh, at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. See our weekly writings on DC Comics over at D- WeirdScienceDCComics.com, and you can see Chris's daily writings on older DC Comics on Chris's on InfiniteEarths.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every day of the week. You've been hanging out in that uh, Total Chaos event for a couple of weeks. <laughs> I am but, revisiting Total Chaos from the New Titans. Dipping yes. in and out, you know, you, have, you seem to be having a good time right around that 2005-ish era, I think. <laughs> Uh, that's what's going on there, but there is a different review every day of the week, gotta check it out, got a full breakdown, pictures from it, his feelings on the book, and then uh, following up with some advertisements. Next best thing to read in the book, you can't miss it. Thank you. We also have the, the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you can find the entire archives and uh, show notes and uh, all sorts of silly stuff. That's right. It's also chronologically ordered over there, all of our yes, past episodes. the only so place, yes. If you're looking to go back in any kind of reasonable way, that is the place to go, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. And uh, Chris and I just want to take a minute to say here, this is our 100th episode. and It is. I don't want to say that we, uh, you know, we never thought we'd get here. We just never really talked about it. You know, <laughs> just so we just, we just we just sort of march along. You know, we know we have not even scratched the surface of the comics and the the topics on comics that we want to cover. Maybe we've scratched the surface, but we have so much more we want to uh, get into. We talk about it all the time. So, uh, but we definitely want to thank everyone for tuning in and supporting sure. us along this way. There've been some terrific people, and uh, I'll you know I'll let Chris say his bit here. Yeah, we're always kind of cautious when we start naming people because we don't want to leave anybody out. But, right. Uh, basically, if you've listened, if you've shared, if you've reached out, I mean, I, and, and if anybody's read the blog, they know that I get kind of mushy around milestones. So I'm going to try to sidestep that here. But, <laughs> save, <laughs> but, you know, just save it for the 200th one. Come on. Yes, we'll do that. <laughs> but uh, no, no, thank you to everybody who's who's listened, who's reached out, who's said hello, who shared us, who's liked us. Any of that stuff, uh, we we appreciate every single one of you. Yeah, we really do. We really do uh, love to get to hear from you and to see, uh, you know, people getting interested in the same things that we do. Uh, Certainly, I'll just say, you know, our guiding principle for this whole podcast venture is to make the show we wanted to hear, and Definitely. we are very glad that the, some other people feel the same way. So, uh, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we will, you know, keep pumping them out until we feel like we. We'll no longer do that. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? Nope. Just a, just a big, big, big thank you. A big, wet, sloppy kiss and a hug. And mm. I'm going to say until next time, folks, keep it on the treadmill apocalyptically. See ya. Well, I'm going to tell you a story and I come out bluntly. Want an ugly child? Ain't nobody will want me. I used to walk around and get upset and upset her. Till I figured out ways to make myself look better. 
As I got older, my awareness expanded. I met this beautiful girl, and my wish was commanded. Didn't hang with the fellas, cause they started getting shady. I'd always be my girl, and y'all could call her my lady. I loved her a lot, word up, not going to front seat. The problem that arouses, why on earth did she want me? Couldn't figure it out, and to make things worse, I was cursed. With the torment of not being the first. And the first was this fly guy, made me very jealous. Always think she'd cheat on me and talk to other fellas. Two wrongs will make a right, but anytime we would fight, I would kindly pick up the phone and call a girl out of spite. I shouldn't have done it. I'm feeling sad and After all, these implements and texts designed by intellects of X to find evidently there's so much that hides. And though the saints of us divine in ancient feeding lines, their sentiment is just as hard to pluck from the vine. Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 101, where we go back, back to, to the, the past, past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeans, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and via the faint strains of a transmission from another dimension. Mention, mention, Ooh. mention. It is this part is two here, right? Part two of the Age of Apocalypse, and uh, there are eight number ones for uh, for the for the four issue miniseries, and we're going to cover all of them. Right. Uh, all eight of the uh, uh, the number ones for the four issue miniseries. Uh, they're all dated March 1995. Before we get to those, we'll fill you in on what we talked about last week. Back in the long ago, Professor X founded the X Men. They stood for the peaceful coexistence between humans and mutants. And, of course, they battled against mutants, evil ones, and uh, also evil humans, in order to keep Xavier's dream alive. Somewhere along the way, Professor X found out he had a bouncing baby weirdo named David. (laughs) David was the mutant known as Legion, a poor kid with multiple personalities, and each of those personalities wielded a different mutant ability. Now, in order to help his father achieve this dream, David decided to go back to the past himself and kill the one man he viewed as standing in the way, Magneto. Xavier, being the every altruist, wound up jumping in front of Magneto as Legion blasted him, and he died. Uh, Remember, this all happened in the past. Now, around the same time, still in the past, the ancient mutant Apocalypse decides to ascend. The future changes. Professor Xavier never found the X-Men. The only man who remembers the way things ought to be is a time-displaced bishop. After trudging around for nigh on 20 years, he finally tracked down this world's all-new, all-different X-Men, and he's shocked to see they're led by Magneto. And he lets them all know it. (laughs) Girl! (laughs) (laughs) This takes us into our first. And I think this is probably the one you'd look at as the flagship of the Age of Apocalypse line. And this is Astonishing X-Men number one. This is kind of the straw that stirs the drink in a way. Absolutely. And of course, all these books, they replace for a brief time. The regular yes. X-Men books. This yeah. one, uh, this book replaces Uncanny X-Men, mm-hmm. and uh, the book's called, the title is Once More with Feeling, written by Scott Lobdell with art by Joe Majuara. 
Scott Lobdell, we met him last episode, so we're going to give you the fast version, or the less slow version, I guess. Uh, he was born either August 24th, 1960, or at some point during 1963. We think maybe near Marlboro, New York. Didn't grow up a comic fan, and he only resorted to reading them while convalescing after lung surgery when he was 17 years old. So we pegged that at either 1977 or 1980. All right. He studied psychology in college until he came to the realization that he didn't want to spend the rest of his life listening to everyone's problems. He completed two years. He worked on the college newspaper as a writer and a cartoonist, and he would perform interviews. Uh, he interviewed comics editor Al Milgram, and after that felt he might have an in at Marvel. For the next year and a half, he'd regularly travel to Marvel headquarters and drop off story synopses. Uh, his, uh, for him, that would be a five-hour round trip. And uh, while he did this, he began networking with a few Marvel editors. He received uh, multiple rejections. However, one from Tom DeFalco had a handwritten P.S. at the bottom that said, this story isn't as bad as the last story. Well, that that would send you off to the stratosphere right there. Mm -hmm. that. Yep. <laughs> that, one, that one goes on the fridge. Uh, now, <laughs> he pitched a story to Tom DeFalco from Marvel Comics Presents. That's the anthology book from uh, the 80s and 90s there. Uh, using, the, uh, using obscure characters because uh, had he chosen a big-name character, it would have had to been okayed by upwards of four editors um and he you know got the gig there some of his uh more you know notable things here he wrote alpha flight number 106 uh march 1992 cover date that's the issue where north star came out as gay uh all royalties from this book went to the elizabeth glazer uh, pediatric aids foundation and uh he would become for a lack of a better term the architect of the x-men line and he took part in many a crossover including this one. Oh yes uh, now, Joe Mad was born December 3rd, 1974, and he's half Portuguese. He attended the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan, and while still in high school, Joe was an intern at Marvel Comics working under Danny Fingeroff. First published work was an eight-page story that appeared in Marvel Comics Presents number 89, November 1991, cover date. It was What's Wrong With This Picture, a story starring Mojo that was written by Dan Slott. A young Dan Slott himself, I would mm -hmm. say. Prior to taking the gig on Uncanny X-Men, Joe provided art for X-Family Books Excalibur, numbers 57 through 58, and Deadpool, the Circle Chase miniseries in 1993. He joined Uncanny X-Men as the regular writer, regular in quotes, mm -hmm. uh, with issue 312, uh, May 1994, and less than a year later, he took part in this very event. Now, in the book, we open with Magneto preparing his X-Men for what they what very well may be a suicide mission. Yes, Magneto says, I'm not even going to try to sugarcoat this, my friends. Anyone willing to take part in this raid isn't likely to make it back alive. Now, the X-Men, remember this is Quicksilver, Iceman, Sabretooth, Morph, Storm, Nightcrawler, and Banshee. They all scoff at his statement uh, as taking part in such danger is basically Tuesday to these folks. Nightcrawler says, If we can't trust our fearless and fearless leader, mine friends, Nick Var, who can we trust? Come on, Kurt, you should know better than to ask such an open-ended question when Magneto's anywhere within, you know, within earshot. Right. Because Magneto pipes in with, Trust, Kurt? That's exactly why I'm so concerned. I've recently come across information that I believe it irrefutable that has prompted me to question not only everything we stand for, my X-Men, but our very existence as individuals, not just our place in the world, but rather if this world should exist at all. That's when Storm says, You can't possibly be upset over the ramblings of the stranger bishop, one lone madman. Oh, indeed he is, Storm. Oh, you bet he is. 
However, before they can argue all that much about it, a portal blinks open over their heads, and from it fly Blink and Sunfire. Real name, Shiro Yoshida. First appearance was X-Men number 64, January 1970 cover date, created by Roy Thomas and Don Heck. Of his creation, Roy Thomas would say, I wanted to add a young Japanese or Japanese-American whose mother had been at Hiroshima or Nagasaki as a corresponding character to the X-Men, whose parents were, at the time, assumed to have been at the Manhattan Project. Stanley didn't give me a good reason for rejecting the character. He just didn't want to, I think. I didn't bring it up again, but when I came back to the book with Neil Adams, I created Sunfire, who was pretty much the character I wanted to do some years earlier. I didn't make him an X-Man right away. By that time, Stan gave me a little more free reign. In fact, he was included in Giant Size X-Men number one, along with Banshee, precisely because I had gone around creating some international mutants with the goal of expanding the team at some time. As Roy said, Shira wouldn't join the X-Men right away. They were actually on opposing sides a time or two. Also, like Roy said, Sunfire would be part of that all-new, all-different X-Men during the Giant Size rescue from Krakoa, the Living Island. Uh, he didn't stick around all that long, though, and didn't really even show up much later on. Uh, last we saw of Shiro was during the Gold Strike Force mission into the Rift, where they brought Mikhail Rasputin back into the real world. And, I guess, in this alternate world. Certainly. Now, yeah. And he, he does have a really cool, uh, really cool look, though. I do like this design a whole lot. Uh, now, Sunfire lands with a whoosh. His powers are out of control. Magneto's able to get him to relax enough to power down, just in time for a rather large prelate to stick his head through the portal. Before that prelate can strike, but with him still sticking out halfway, Blink closes the portal with a splooch. So, you know, no muss, no fuss. No, that's it. Uh, (laughs) When the dust settles, Magneto asks Shiro for a status report. Yeah, he says, The latest reported calling, the one in Seattle. Apocalypse claimed ignorance in light of the Kelly Pact. Did he not? He promised to punish all those involved. Blink and I discovered he was lying. The cullings have begun again, in earnest. They're being carried out, personally, by Apocalypse's son. Holocaust. We shift scenes to Manhattan, where an Apocalypse loyalist, some dude named Rex, visits with the main man himself. Now, it's worth noting that ne- that Rex has the same pointy hairstyle as Legion. Yeah. It, this isn't heading anywhere, but you might imagine lots of X-Fans' minds went immediately there. It, it bothered you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, time. big time, big time. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rex enters the stronghold, and he crunches human bones with each step. Yeah, he says, My lord, these skulls, there must be hundreds. Thousands, Rex. Hundreds of thousands, actually. I find the aroma soothing. They were the weak, and such is their fate. Now, it's revealed that the mishap where that prelate, whose name is Delgado, got splooched by Blink was all part of Apocalypse's plan. Delgado made it through the girl's portal as we assumed he would. And just as you, in your brilliance, predicted, they sealed it on the poor weak fool as well. Did you pinpoint their location? Uh, not yet, sir, but it's certain to only be a matter of time. Apocalypse smiles. Now, back in Westchester, or more accurately, the dead zone formerly known as Westchester, Rogue and Blink stand over Sunfire, who is resting on an observation table. We learn that Holocaust, that this Holo- uh, that Holocaust destroyed Japan, like all of it, not just a couple <laughs> of cities. 
And uh, Shiro wants the X-Men to join with him to take on Apocalypse's baby boy. Gambit pops his head in and tells Rogue he couldn't leave without saying goodbye. So they go for a walk, and Blink is clearly the displeased by this. Indeed. We hop outside where? Uh, Rogue says, I probably won't be here when y'all get back. Gambit says, you're going with them for sure to stop the unstoppable. Or die trying, sugar. No big ting chair. No, don't know how we're even supposed to get to the other side of the universe for this McCann crystal ting that Bishop Keep fella keeps babbling about. Better alone getting back for sure now. They turn and face each other. Seeing as we won't be seeing each other again, I don't suppose you'd consent to a kiss goodbye now, child. One for the road. Remy, please. I'm married to your best friend. Wait a second, best friend? I don't know. What the hello? <laughs> he was my best friend, Chair. But that all changed a long, long time ago. I guarantee. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as they're just about to kiss, Blink pops in to uh, block the Randy Cajun uh, with uh, Baby Charlie. <laughs> uh, Gambit Rogue Pod Company. Uh, we'll be checking in with his adventure shortly in the Gambit in the External section. And elsewhere in the mansion, Magneto well, thinks to himself, I mean, what else is he going to do? No one's hanging out. Really, yeah, uh, he thinks, is this where it began for you, old friend? Is this where you came as a child to dream your dream so long ago, Charles Xavier? You'd look up at the stars, convinced you could change the entire world. In Israel, in our youth, I once questioned just how much one man is capable of accomplishing. By your absence, you've answered that question. We're sure he could have got on for several more minutes, but thankfully Nightcrawler arrives to break his train of thought. Thank God. <laughs> and here's where Magneto <laughs> issues his marching orders to be followed up on the rest of the X-Family of books. He says, Nothing will stop us from working with the Eurasian High Council to liberate the human populace along the northern east coast. And that will take place in Amazing X-Men. And Nightcrawler says, It is more than that, Eric. It is his bishop fellows they have planted to not to prompt you to doubt. You who never doubted all these years. This is why you've asked me and my mother to track down a woman named Destiny in a place that may or may not exist. From what I understand, Peter and Katya have been dispatched to Seattle. Nightcrawler and his mother, Mystique, they hunt for Destiny, and that'll be followed up on an Excalibur, or as we'll probably be calling it several times, Excalibre. That's right. Uh, Colossus and Kitty will head to the Pacific Northwest in Generation Next, and we'll discuss them both soon. After another flashback to have uh, Chuck was off by his own kid, we pop over to the X-Men's Hangar Bay. They're getting ready to head off to Chicago to fight Holocaust. Sabretooth is in on this, and we learn that he once learned worked alongside Holocaust and sees this as an opportunity for penance and probably revenge. Probably mostly revenge. Yeah, probably. Saber-toothy thing to do. Uh, Quicksilver and Magneto have a touching father and son chat. Yeah, Magneto says, I'm leaving the X-Men in your care, Pietro. You? But, but father, your place is... Here, yes. Any other day of the year, but these are dire times. If we don't make it back, I'm going to need you to remind the others about our goals. To remind them, no sacrifice is too great. But most of all, remind them to floss. 
Of course, sir. But did did you say floss? Uh, you know, Petey, for the fastest mutant in the world. This is actually Morph, posing as Magneto, and Morph grows a gigantic pair of lips with which to lay one hell of a smackaroonie on Pietro's puss. He says, you can be pretty slow on the uptake. I thought for sure that homicidal hordes was a dead giveaway. Yes, he mentioned homicidal hordes in like the fifth paragraph of his Magneto-like soliloquy. I mean, just from the amount of words he used, he had us completely fooled that he was Magneto, though. (laughs) And nobody else in the Age of Apocalypse likes the sound of his own voice that much. No, not even Apocalypse, who definitely also loves the sound of his own voice a lot. (laughs) Just not as much. No. Uh, Now, it's here that it's confirmed that Morph was formerly known as the Changeling back in the long ago. Uh, Bishop watches all this. Uh, he watches the astonishing X-Men leave on the, what is very likely to be a suicide mission, and he wonders why. I don't understand. Why are they throwing their lives away? What do they propose to do would seem impossible. Quicksilver replies with, You need to ask, Bishop? You who claim to come from a place where the sacred Xavier and his X-Men have actually made a difference? Is this then the reality you're asking us to recreate? A world populated by cowards? And then Quicksilver walks away. It is our world nonetheless, and we will fight for it. Indeed. And I'm certain the professor wouldn't have it any other way. And that was Astonishing X-Men. Next up, Generation Next, number one. (laughs) This was, of course, changed from Generation X. Uh, Story from the top by Scott Lobdell and uh, Chris Bacolo. Or Bacolo. I can never say his name. I I say say six or seven different ways. Yeah, I say each way. (laughs) (laughs) Scott Lobdell, we met him already. Yeah, we already did his, so we'll go to Chris Bacolo for this this telling of his (laughs) tale. Uh, Born August 23rd, 1965 in Portage La Prairie, Canada. Though Canadian, he was raised in Southern California. Would have become a carpenter if not for his allergy to dust. Uh, Chris studied at Cal State in Long Beach and majored in graphic art and drew for some underground comics during college. He would move on. He would get his first jobs at DC Vertigo, drawing Sandman and Death. His first published work was Sandman number 12, January 1990 cover date, though he'd already received his assignment for Peter Milligan, written Shade the Changing Man. But more on that in a second. He was selected by Neil Gaiman to draw both Death miniseries, Death, The High Coast of Living in 1993, and Death, The Time of Your Life in 1996. We mentioned Shade the Changing Man. Uh, Part of DC Comics' British Invasion, Shade the Changing Man was a Peter Milligan pen title that hung out sort of on the fringes of the DC universe, just like a lot of those books of the time, uh, before being transplanted into the Vertigo imprint upon its launch in January 1993. Chris Bocciolo is listed as co-creator for this version of Shade, though uh, this series hit just a few months after the Ditko version left the Suicide Squad, so maybe it's still the original, or maybe it's not. Ooh, I, <laughs> I think know. it's been too long since either of us have read it to really give yeah, really. a uh, really give an or, or even the the trapping. Really, the, I'm more don't remember the trappings of Ditko's Shade, which is much more ambiguous, as I recall, it than is. even Shade yeah. is, which is which is difficult to say. But there. <laughs> It's true. Now, this title would run for 70 issues, uh, though Bacolo only only drew 38. Uh, he'd hop over to Marvel, and he'd pencil a few issues here and there, including X-Men Unlimited number one, uh, the first three issues of Ghost Rider 2099, also a backup in Incredible Hulk number 400. He would uh, join up with Scott Lobdell on Generation X, which brings us right about here. Yeah, 
and uh, this uh, book opens amid a great big explosion, and from it hops, Chamber. Real name, Jonathan Starsmore. His first appearance was Generation X number 1, November 1994, cover date, created by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bocciolo. A British mutant who, in the Prime Universe, had his power manifest in an explosion. He actually might have been the explosion. You see, he's basically a living furnace with psionic energies bubbling away inside of him. He joined the Massachusetts Academy in Generation X, which was only four months ago, real time, so that's all we really know about him at this point. Mm-hmm. Now, he dodges all sorts of obstacles, uh, seemingly narrowly escaping with his life. Since this is an X-Men comic, though, you probably already figured out that this is actually just a training scenario. Uh, now, he checks his status with Know-It-All. Real name, Claudia. First appearance, right here. Uh, though it's very likely intended for, this is supposed to be like for whatever the hell Scott Lobdell planned for <laughs> the Generation X mutant M. Yeah. So, uh... We'll, uh, we'll mention her now. Monade St. Croix. First appearance, Uncanny X-Men number 316, September 1994. Cover date created by Scott Lobdell and Joe Majuara. Here's the thing. In the Prime Universe, we've got this weird relationship between M, of course, Monet St. Croix, a character called Penance, who we meet in the first issue of Generation X, also Emplate, a villain that we meet there. And uh, we, we actually all discussed all of this back in Cosmic Treadmill episode 30. That's available in the archives for you. Uh, it was eventually revealed by a different writer. This is James Robinson, around Generation X number 31 or so, October 1997, that Monet was actually an amalgamation of her two younger sisters, one of whom was autistic, which explains why Monet would appear to space out every now and again during the series. Uh, M-Plate was was their brother who had himself a bone marrow addiction, so he he had these little mouths on his hands that were really disgusting, and he would suck bone marrow. Uh, Penance was, in actuality, the real Monet, who was trapped in her spiky body due to one of M-Plate's spells. Eventually, everyone round went up in their right bodies again, uh, but the whole thing really was a mess. They, they never heard of Occam's Razor over there in the no. book. No. <laughs> they never knew about that? Okay. Uh, Lobdell had planned for Monet to be a false persona to be used only when the M-Twins were merged together, and Know-It-All was supposed to be a hint to all of that stuff. Uh, before he can get a complete report, though, our man Jono is noinked away by Husk. Real name, Paige Guthrie. First appearance, ROM, annual number three, November 1984, cover date. Created by Bill Metlow and William Johnson. He's one of the Guthrie clan. His first appearance in ROM was just as a background character. He was revealed as a mutant during New Warriors X-Force crossover, Child's Play. Husk joined Generation X following the events of the Phalanx Covenant. Uh, these kids flirt a little bit, with Paige actually giving Jono a peck on the cheek. Something, if she were to try it in the Prime Universe would leave her with a pair of flaming lips. Yes, because the explosion actually blew off the bottom half of Chambers' face. Yeesh. So it was, uh, he always had energy pouring out there. Uh, then from, the below, from below rocks, we meet Mondo. Real name unknown. Not for all we know or care, it's actually Mondo. Uh, first appearance, Generation X number three, January 1995 cover date, created by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bocciolo. This is a Samoan mutant who joined Generation X. Uh, spoiler alert, he'd later be revealed as a bad guy. Or a bad plant simulacrum guy. All right. Who infiltrated the team for Black Tom Cassidy. Uh, Cassidy is uh, the... Uh, Massachusetts Academy headmaster Banshee's cousin, and uh, he doesn't like him very much, but uh, we don't know any of that yet. Not yet. (laughs) Now, they battle, and it's no longer clear whether or not this is a training exercise, but it totally is. 
Uh, this melee is bro then broken up by a fella we all might be familiar with, Colossus, real name Piotr Rasputin. First appearance was Giant Size X-Men number one, the, the uh, Krakoa Living Island issue, May 1975 cover date, created by Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. Uh, the Russian mutant Colossus joined the all-new X-Men uh, and was part of the rescue mission to save the old X-Men from K- Krakoa the Living Island. Dave Cockrum recalled, we needed a strong guy for the team, so I drew up a strong guy. The character's armor just kind of fell into place. He was accepted pretty much as is, except that I'd given him bare legs because it seemed only logical that if we're going to show him armored up, the legs should be bare like the arms. But Len Wein didn't like male characters with bare legs. Wait a second, wait a second. You're telling me that, that this is a character that wasn't a reject from the for, Legion of Superheroes? For once, and yeah, an actual <laughs> character from Cockrum that was not meant that? for the Legion, yeah. Uh, following the Krakoa ordeal, Colossus remained with the X-Men and took part in many of the team's new se- uh, seminal missions. Uh, all those ones we've mentioned before, plus he was brainwashed by Arcane to thinking he was the evil proletarian. Uh, during a mission to the Savage Land, he gets kind of close with a woman named Nereel, and briefly thought he was the father of her child. Now, speaking of romance, he'd be linked to the young lady we're going to be meeting very shortly. Uh, that would end, however, after the Secret Wars, because during the Secret Wars, Colossus became infatuated with an alien woman named Jaji. Uh, following the fall of the mutants, Colossus would be part of the Outback X-Men. After stepping through the Siege Perilous, he'd emerge as an amnesiac uh, who'd create the identity of Peter Nicholas, an artist. Uh, Colossus was always portrayed as being an artist. Uh, he'd come to his senses around the time of the Muir Island Saga, after which he'd join the X-Men's Gold Strike Force. Yet with them, he would travel into the Rift to save his brother Mikhail. Following the Executioner's Song, the Legacy Virus was unleashed on the world, and the first victim was Pyotr's sister, Ilyana. During her funeral, Colossus would turn his back on the X-Men and join Magneto's acolytes. Uh, currently in the AOA here, uh, Colossus ain't in the best place. His brother, Mikhail, has been taken has taken up as one of Apocalypse's horsemen, and it doesn't seem like he's got the best of relationships with Magneto and the X-Men. The Gen Nexters all dogpile onto Peter, uh, which tells you that, yes, the training exercise is still ongoing. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure Colossus would have pounded them into paste. Pretty much. He would have just swatted them away or, you know, smashed them between his fists. Uh, then enters Shadowcat, real name, Kitty Pride. First appearance was X-Men number 129. January 1980 cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Uh, an editorial directive dictated that the X-Men needed to bring the whole school for mutants thing back to the fore. John Byrne named Kitty after a classmate from his art school and modeled the character on a young Sigourney Weaver. We meet Kitty as a 13-year-old who discovers her ability to phase through solid objects. She joined the X-Men and go through a ton of costume and code name changes right off the bat uh, into some pretty cute kind of like uh, montages. Yes. Only settling on Shadowcat after the events of the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries that ran from 1984 to 1985. She, or her older self, was the main protagonist of Days of Future Past. She'd be romantically linked to that fellow we just met a second ago. Until Secret Wars. Mm-hmm. Kitty adopted the tiny space dragon Lockheed, and they would become sort of inseparable. Uh, when the new mutants came to be, Kitty was briefly demoted, and she wasn't too pleased about being put with the ex-babies. Uh, that's what she called them. Oh. Uh, but she didn't much mind when they rescued her from the White Queen. So <laughs> they they weren't babies day. anymore, were they, no. Kitty? Huh? <laughs> she was pretty, they were pretty cool guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, following the mutant massacre, Kitty, along with fellow X-Men Nightcrawler and Phoenix, they crossed the pond and joined Excalibur. 
where she'd do a whole lot of fighting bad guys and have a whole lot of crushes. Yeah, that was sort of like her summer abroad or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, now Kitty starts swiping away at the students with her very Wolverine-y claws, slashing Paige especially good, but not that that's really a problem for Paige. Paige responds by transmorphing her left arm into a diamond-sharp spike and running it straight through her mentor, which isn't really a problem either, because, you know... Kitty is intangible, so it's sort of a fruitless task, but the training regiment continues and Chambers sets off an explosion. Meanwhile, Kitty has Paige pinned down and is about to strike the killing blow when she's interrupted by the sticky fingers of... Skin! Real name? (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty gross. Real name, Angelo Espinoza. First appearance, Uncanny X-Men number 317, October 1994, cover date, created by Lobdell and Joe Mad. This is a former gang member from East L.A. He uh, wound up up faking his own death in order to get out of the life. Um, He hemmed and hawed a little while about joining the Academy here, but ultimately did accept an invitation and made the move to Massachusetts. And uh, if you're familiar with the the episode, uh, episode 30 of Cosmic Tread, where we discussed him further, he's kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> he's, he's not a pleasant individual to be around. Uh, back in the story here, Skin wraps Kitty up in his flexible phalanges and puts a stop to the struggle. Oh, and we also meet uh, this uh, other guy. Yeah, Vicente Simetta. Uh, first appearance is right here. The 6.6 hmm. version of Vicente would make his debut n- nearly a year later in Generation X number 12, February 1996 cover day. Uh, covered date. He was a bad guy, a part of M. Plate's gang, but for now, right now, this is all we got. Mm-hmm. Uh, Know-it-all calls time and the exercise is over. And I think he also says he's going to go, he's going to bring his ball home and he's not playing anymore. <laughs> then there's a telepathic message from Magneto. I thought it was established that uh, that they didn't have a telepath and that's why Rogue was going to be the one to extract Ooh. Bishop's memories back in Alpha. Yeah, mm. Yeah, I got nothing for that. I'm sorry. You're right. Uh, anyway, uh, Kitty and Pete head off to meet with Magneto, Magneto, who shares with them the existence and odd visions of the man we know as Bishop. He claims to be from another reality, a world where 20 years ago, a tragedy occurred that fractured all reality across the cosmic continuum. Charles Xavier, whose body I held when he breathed his last, was murdered by his own son, and the death was never meant to be. An entire world is paying the price for that mistake since that day. Magneto continues sharing the current dispersal of a few key X-Men members and associates and gives them an idea of what he might expect from them. Nightcrawler and Gambit are bringing me the resources I need to verify Bishop's claim that his existence is a temporal aberration. And we'll follow up with both of them shortly. It may very well fall upon you and your charges to acquire the means with which to travel back in time. Hey, so there's the purpose for this book. All right, hey. that's good. We finally, we finally got it. Uh, Magneto then orders Colossus to head to Core Portland to the child labor camps where he can rescue his thought, once thought lost sister. And that's some magic. Real name, Ilyana Rasputin. First appearance is Giant Size X-Men number one, May 1979, cover date, created by Ween and Cockrum. She first appeared as the Colossus's unnamed sister during his own first appearance. Colossus' mutant ability manifested when he saved her from a runaway tractor on their collective farm. Wouldn't be referred to by name until Uncanny X-Men number 145, May 1981 cover date. At six years old, Ilyana was summoned to the Limbo Dimension by the demon Belasco. The X-Men went after her and rescued her, only after she'd aged seven years, seven Convenient years. Uh, Ilyana creates the Soul Sword and rises up, taking over Limbo, 
Uh, she'd also join those new mutants, but that doesn't seem to be like such a big deal after taking over Limbo, quite frankly. Uh, you know, that's kind of like the president joined uh, the Boy Scouts. Anyway, uh, <laughs> during an adventure with the new mutants, they all get stuck in Limbo, which is rather embarrassing for magic since she's supposed to run the place. But uh, she runs off and hurls her soul sword into a port. She runs off and hur- hurls her soul sword into a portal. <laughs> that was a good one. Uh, after which, the new mutants find a seven-year-old Ilyana. So everything is snapback. Uh, young Ilyana returns to Russ to live with her parents until they're murdered. Then Magic returns to Westchester to live with the X-Men, where she becomes the first victim of the legacy virus. What a crappy year, right? Yeah, well, bad, bad time to be her, boy. Don't worry, though. She will eventually get better. But as of the Age of Apocalypse, she's still dead. All right. And that's how we end Generation Next. We hop to our next book. This is Gambit and the Externals, number one. This was, of course, X-Force. The story is called Some of Us Looking to the Stars by Fabian Niciesa and Tony Daniel. Let's meet Fabian. Born December 31st, 1961 in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Moved Moved to the United States when he was four and he grew up in New Jersey. Fabian taught himself to read and write by reading comic books. He'd attend Rutgers University and graduated in 1983 with a degree in advertising and public relations. While in college, Fabian interned for ABC Television. He worked for Berkeley Publishing Group until 1985. Uh, Berkeley Books was a mass-market paperback publisher that, at this time, was owned by G.P. Putnam Sons. Uh, In 1985, Nisieza joined the staff at Marvel Comics, initially as a manufacturing production department assistant later moving to the promotions department as an advertising manager. During this time, Fabian began taking freelance writing assignments, writing short stories for Marvel's promo magazine, Marvel Age. Nicieza's first published comic story was in Cyforce No. 9, July 1987 cover date, a title in Marvel's short-lived New Universe imprint. Fabian would stay on Cyforce from 16, February 1988 cover date, until 32, June 1989 cover date. This led to fill-in work on such titles as classic X-Men, for which he provided backup stories, and in the Marvel Annual's 1989 summer crossover, Atlantis Attacks. After Tom DeFalco, then Marvel's editor-in-chief, created a superhero team, the New Warriors, he gave the titular titular series to Nisiesa. In 1990, Fabian uh, began short runs on comics like Alpha Flight. He did issues 87 through 101, Avengers. He wrote 317 to 325, and also uh, some issues of Avengers Spotlight. Uh, Fabian also wrote the miniseries Nomad. That was a four-issue deal in 1990, which in turn led led to him writing the ongoing series of Nomad, which he wrote the first 25 issues of. That was May 1992 through May 1994. In 1990, Nisiesa became editor of Marvel's children's imprint that started Star Comics, and Star Comics dissolved within a year. Oh, but it left an imprint on our hearts. It did, it did. Now, at this point, uh, this is when <laughs> Fabian would leave Marvel staff, and he became a freelancer full-time. Uh, Fabian wrote the first four issues of the National Football League-approved superhero, NFL Super Pro. That was October 1991 through February 1992. Uh, he also wrote the four-issue miniseries Adventures of Captain America, which is also known as the Adventures of Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty. That ran from September 1991 through January 1992 with art from Kevin McGuire and this story, this is a retelling of uh, the Golden Age origin story of Captain America With some nice McGuire artwork. Absolutely. Uh, in 1991, ECA is adjoined with artist Rob Liefeld and co-plotting and writing the final three issues of The New Mutants, that was 98 to 100 
In these issues, Fabian co-created Deadpool and Shatter's... Liefeld created Deadpool? I didn't... He mentioned that a couple times. I I never heard him say that. (laughs) Uh, Fabian co-created Deadpool and Shatterstar, as well as the mutant team X-Force. Liefeld and Nicieza then uh, produced an ongoing X-Force title, beginning with number one in August 1991. Initially, Nicieza was a scripter only, but after Rob Liefeld left Marvel, he drew to issue number nine, plotted into issue number 12. Fabian became its full-time writer and remained until 1995. By the end of 1992, Nicieza became regular scripter for X-Men Volume 2, beginning with number 12. That was September 1992 cover date. Art, art handled mostly by Andy Kubert. In 1992, Nicieza wrote the two-issue miniseries, Cable, Blood and Metal, October through November, and penciled by John Romita Jr. He wrote Deadpool's first solo miniseries, Deadpool The Circle Chase, in 1993, art by Joe Maguera. Over the next three years, Fabian Nicieza was heavily in the X-Men mix while it went through some of the franchise's best-known crossovers and events, like Executioner's Song, Phalanx Covenant, and, of course, The Age of Apocalypse, 1995-1996. Across the table, we got Tony Daniel. Antonio Salvador Daniel was born somewhere in these United States. Uh, His first professional work was for Comico's Elemental Sexy Lingerie Special that came out for the 1993 Chicago Comic-Con. Daniel would hop over to Marvel and uh, take over art chores on X-Force after Greg Capullo flew the coop over to Todd Town. His first issue was number 28, November 1993, and he'd hang around long enough to take part in this Age of Apocalypse. Uh, Tony Daniel has a long and storied career now, but this is definitely a dude early in his career, so we'll we'll have more to say about him and his accomplishments in the back end. I think we may have. Did we talk about him during the Batman R.I.P. episode? I can't remember. I believe so. It, I but believe so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's almost funny to see him so early, where it's like just oh, so you, little. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he ends up doing quite a lot. Uh, so now, this book we open in the treat in the streets of New York City, where we meet a girl who was caught stealing medical supplies and is currently running for her life. She is Jubilee. Real name is Jubilation Lee. First appeared in Uncanny X-Men number two hundred forty-four, May nineteen eighty-nine, cover date created by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri. Jubilee was an orphan in Beverly Hills. Her parents were murdered by a pair of hitmen. She'd escaped the orphanage and moved into the Hollywood Mall, where she used her fireworks powers to entertain the patrons. But they don't let any orphan stay as long as they can do fireworks. As long as they can do some work. I don't know, exactly. Something to, you know, earn your keep. You can stay in the mall. Sure. Uh, One day she ran into Storm, Rogue, Dazzler, and Psylocke in the midst of a girl's day out. This is while the X-Men were living in the outback. So they were able to visit the mall via one of Gateway's portals. That's uh, how they... uh, How they got around. ...traveled back then. (laughs) So Jubilee follows them back through that very same portal. While down under... Jubilee hides out in the X-Men's base, and sneaking around, she happens across Wolverine being tortured by the Reavers. This is that semi-iconic scene of Wolverine being crucified on a giant X that I think a lot of us know, even if you haven't read it, you know the uh, panel, or the really the page. The cover, yeah. yeah. Uh, she helps them, and they escape to Madripoor, and that's just a whole big thing happens there. Point is, she eventually becomes Wolverine's sort of sidekick and joins the X-Men. After the Muir Island saga, she joins the Blue Strike Force, and after the Phalanx Covenant, she gets demoted and de-aged. Joins Generation <laughs> Jubilee, joins Generation X. Uh, in the story, Jubilee trips and finds herself staring down several barrels of the Infinites. Suddenly, her backup arrives. They are the Externals, and they consist of, well, they call him Guido, but we know him better as Strong Guy. 
Real name, Guido Carousella. First appearance, New Mutants, number 29, July 1985, Covet created by Chris Claremont and Bill Sienkiewicz. Uh, he first appeared as a bodyguard for Lila Cheney, and we'll meet her in actually just a few seconds. Uh, he joins the all-new X-Factor during, following the Muir Island saga. It was revealed during a visit with uh, Doc Samson that he became wealthy after his parents were killed by falling space debris. That sucks, but I guess... Uh, you get, you get money, it's good. Yeah. Uh, his powers manifested when some bullies were picking on him. So he went from a skinny nerd to a totally huge and buffed-out nerd. <laughs> this uh, might be advantageous in battle for, you know, lifting things and hitting people hard. However, it does leave him in constant pain, which he compensates or maybe overcompensates for with an outgoing personality and a staggering sense of humor. Is that how people deal with pain normally? That's not how I deal with pain. Laughter is the best medicine. I'm horrible when I'm in pain. Forget it. (laughs) Now, he came up with the name Strong Guy during an X-Factor press conference because he was the strong guy. Very good. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) And also... Because Peter David had actually had no idea what else to call him. You know, you know I'll be honest, you, you start cracking out these names fast and furious, you know, they can't all be winners. What are you going to yeah, do? Yeah, a right strong here? guy will slip through. I like it, but he obviously is sort of an allusion to the Charles Atlas uh, story. Seems in, like, In yeah. a sense, yeah, it's, it's definitely something to that. And now, uh, R- Roberto da Costa is here, also known as Sunspot. First appearance, Marvel graphic novel number four, November 1982, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Bob McLeod. He's one of the original New Mutants, a scooter whiz, a son of Brazilian. He's a scooter, a soccer whiz scooter, a soccer <laughs> whiz, and a son of Brazilian businessman and Hellfire Club member Emmanuel da Costa. During his time with the New Mutants, he'd almost become a monster uh, after being injected with that same drug that made Cloak and Dagger the way they are. And he also fell in love with the alien Gossamer. He'd leave the New Mutants after Cable took over, and he found himself under the tutelage of the ex- external known as Gideon. Uh, who was also a businessman. His action figure came with a briefcase, but to be fair, it did have a knife sticking out of it, so you knew that he meant business. Yeah. <laughs> he, meant, he meant pointy business, uh, along with the other stuff. Now, uh, Sunspot would eventually join up with X-Force around the same time as the villain Rainfire began to appear, because Rainfire was originally intended to be a messed-up future version of Sunspot, you see. But things changed, and that never materialized. No, it turned out to be something altogether different that I really couldn't explain. All right. (laughs) One of those things. Uh, Together, they make short work of the Infinites, and they head over to a tenement in order to drop off the medical supplies and to rendezvous with Lila Cheney. Uh, First appearance, New Mutants Annual, number one, November 1984, created by Chris Claremont and Bob McLeod. She's an intergalactic mutant rock star. She'd uh, meet the New Mutants at one of her concerts. At the time, Lila saw herself as a great great thief, perhaps the greatest thief, and uh, was attempting to steal the Earth. Yeah, the Earth. Um, in order to sell, <laughs> in order to sell the population to intergalactic black market slavers, uh, she'd get over it. <laughs> she'd start a relationship with the new mutant Sam Cannonball Guthrie. Uh, Lila is Gambit's human liaison, uh, human in quotes. Uh, right. They join up and uh, they head underground to reconnoiter with uh, Gambit himself. Only Gambit ain't here. Instead, they find Magneto. Looks as though a fight's about to go down. Uh, luckily for the externals, their boss man arrives just in the nick of time to cool everyone down. Gambit says, Believe it or not, Eric came here with me now. How's about a little exposition on our man Gambit? Remy LeBeau, Gambit, adopted into the Thieves' Guild of New Orleans as a child. 
when the heir to the throne, Holocaust, slew Kondra, the guild's immortal benefactor in one of the last battles for succession. Wait a second. Wait a second. You can kill an immortal? He fled for his life and found sanctuary with the wandering nomads called the X-Men. After a couple of years, he had no choice but to leave them. He had fallen in love, but she married another, and it was too painful to stay. For the last two years, he has led the Externals, his band of roguish outsiders. Roguish? I, I, I kick a man while he's down. <laughs> Yikes, I know. Bad choice of words! <laughs> Irritating mosquitoes biting at the coarse hide of the Empire. His charming smile belies his fear. His insects have been asked to bite with the ferocity of a lion. Gambit informs his team that Magneto has enlisted them to steal a chunk of the Emkron crystal. We shift scenes to an Infinite's Fedayeen station in Lower Manhattan, where we meet Commandant Richter. Real name, Julio Richter. Convenient, <laughs> that. <laughs> his first appearance, X-Factor number 17, June 1987 cover, created by the Simonsons. Richter was introduced as uh, one of X-Factor's wards, kind of like the New Mutants, but not. Uh, now, these kids would have their own miniseries called X-Terminators in 1988. Other members included Boom Boom, Fire Fist, Leech, Artie, Skids, and WizKid. Are you, are you, you're not talking about the Tandy computer comic, so that's not that? <laughs> seems like okay, it doesn't. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, we might meet some of these kids during the Age of Apocalypse. But then again, we might not. We'll see if we get to those particular issues. We'll see. Uh, Victor would eventually join the New Mutants, but would leave just before the X-Force shift. It wouldn't be long before Victor came back. He'd join X-Force just before the Executioner's Song, and he'd become fast friends with uh, Shatterstar. Their relationship was left nebulous for most of the 1990s, but we all knew what was going on. You know what I mean? I think you know what time it is. Uh, He'd quit and rejoin X-Force at least one more time prior to the Age of Apocalypse. Just can't stay still. No, he's he's not a a joiner, or at least he's not a stayer, you know? He likes to move around. Uh, Richter's pretty cheesed off for a couple of reasons. Uh, The externals got away here, and also Apocalypse and the Horsemen are hanging out like Right here, like just right in front of them, and he didn't even know about it. He'd uh, really dug the opportunity to show his stuff and maybe move up in the ranks. Come on, dude, you suck. Yeah. <laughs> and when you suck, it's really when you when you're not good at your job, it's really good just to blend in. Just start try to stay in the back. You know what I mean? Don't make yeah, a don't lot make of a lot exactly. of noise. Don't yeah. don't act up too much. Because <laughs> apocalypse is just gonna crush your head like a grape. Yeah. Uh, now we jump back to the underground Morlock tunnels, and uh, Magneto talks. A lot. Um, he also leads the externals to one of Apocalypse's secret chambers. During this walk, he overhears Lila refer to Gambit as her lover. Uh, Gambit manages to pick the lock of an underground chamber. Once its doors open, the team is shocked by what they find inside. It's Apocalypse's library, apparently, and it's mostly a bunch of holograms depicting the universe. Uh, Gambit's getting a bit antsy because, <laughs> really, this this little trek shouldn't have been this easy. No, and it is pretty dang easy, you know, just kind of walked right in. Gambit ought to know you don't ask questions you don't want the answer to, because just then, the Madri burst in. And would you look at that, they're mostly dupes of... Jamie Madrox, whose first appearance was Giant Size Fantastic Four number 4, February 1975, cover date, created by Chris Claremont, Len Wein, and John Buscema. When Jamie Madrox was born and the doctor slapped him on the butt, he multiplied. 
Uh, mutant powers don't usually manifest until puberty, but we'll allow it because that's a pretty great story and great visual to think about happening. Also, because he's actually a changeling. Not the changeling, though. It's a changeling. Uh, changelings, to hear some dude much later on explain it, are the predecessors of mutants and develop their powers at birth. After a tragedy at the Madrox home, Jamie heads to New York to meet with Reed Richards, who passes the buck to Professor X, who passes the buck to Moira <laughs> McTaggart. You know, you don't want to deal with them. No. So Jamie worked on Muir Island. Uh, he joined up with the Fallen Angels for an eight-issue limited series, April 1987 to November 1987 cover date. This was a strange ramshackle team that included Vanisher, Gomi, Ariel, Chance, Sunspot, Siren, Boom Boom, Moon Boy, Devil Dinosaur, and Warlock. <laughs> that is a weird team, Chris. Wow. <laughs> uh, we later learned, no, this is not the real Jamie Madrox, though. Just a dupe, which is a pretty common trick of his, let me tell you. Yes, it is. Now, following the Muir Island saga, Jamie would join the new look X-Factor. During one outing, he's forced to perform CPR and mouth-to-mouth on a Genosian mutate who had been infected with the legacy virus. He's also forced to kill the acolyte Melon Camp. Not that melancholy. Oh, no, not the cougar? Okay. Not not Johnny Cougar, yeah. no. <laughs> now, Jamie appears to catch the legacy virus, and one of his dupes actually succumbs from it uh, in X-Factor number 92. Then, in X-Factor number 100, the mysterious character known as Haven attempts to cure him of the virus. It doesn't work, and another one of Jamie's dupes dies. But that time, we actually do think it's him. We really don't, but we're supposed to. Just, you, gotta, you gotta play along a little bit, Chris. Yeah. This is comics, yeah. you know. Yeah. Now, the Madri burst in. Get it? The Madri? Madri? Oh, very good. Yeah, forget yeah. it. Uh, now, the externals are able to best the multiple men, only leaving behind a man named Peter Corbeau. He first appeared in Incredible Hulk number 148, February 1972, cover date. He was created by Archie Goodwin and Herb Tramp. He's a former college roommate to Bruce Banner, and he's also an old friend to Professor X. He used his Star Corps technology to help the X-Men during a mission, during that mission that ended with the Phoenix bursting out of Jamaica Bay. So he was around for a pretty uh, seminal moment in X-Men history. Yeah. Uh, he's later seen chatting with President Jimmy Carter, also the Avengers, and the Fantastic Four about a great cosmic threat, which turns out to be the Phoenix Force. Hey. And now everybody recognizes everybody else in the room, and it turns out that Corbo's a pretty solid dude. He goes, we don't have much time. Magnus, you told me to scan for, for a place called the Shi'ar Galaxy. This room, comp- composed as it is of the remains of Apocalypse's celestial ship, which you destroyed years ago, revealed quite a bit of information about the star cluster you're trying to reach. Then Lila says, trying to reach? Wait a second here. This jewel you want us to steal... Is it out of space? Yes. Yes, it is. Oh. Also, he mentioned Apocalypse's celestial ship, so let's let's meet the ship. Okay. Uh, the first appearance, X-Factor number 24, January 1988, cover date, created by the Simonsons. It's an artificial intelligence on board a boxy rectangular celestial ship that Apocalypse once used as a base. After X-Factor were able to break Apocalypse's, Apocalypse's control over the ship, it uh, became their base of operations, and they referred to it just as ship. Now, prior to the Judgment War, ship was recalled by the Celestials and wound up dropping all of X-Factor onto some backwater planet in the midst of a civil war. Ship would eventually break free of the Celestial tractor beam and rescue the original five, then landed in Manhattan upended, appearing as though it was a skyscraper. Ship would be infected with the same techno-organic virus as baby Nathan, 
and was crucial in sending the Todd into the future where he became an old man. While in the future, Nathan grew up and found that he had a metallic orb embedded inside of him. This was Ship, but now it's referred to as Professor. Professor would make the trip back in time with Cable, Nathan, and would be his AI assistant of sorts. During the Phalanx Covenant, the Phalanx attempted to assimilate Professor, aka, you know, Ship, which wound just keep keep it straight, which uh, wound wound up finally giving the AI a body called Prosh. Prosh wound up. What would you say, Prosh? I'm saying Prosh. <laughs> Prosh works. <laughs> Prosh wound up assimilating the base to save his pals and leave Earth forever. So you, you wouldn't figure there'd be that much to ship. Nope, that's a lot. I love it. <laughs> Lila ain't uh, exactly keen on making this spaceward trek, but she's rather surprised to learn that, in fact, she'll be the one taking them there. Uh, she scoffs because she believes that she's human. But no, just like uh, we said during her bio section, she's actually a mutant. Uh, Her powers were actually kept dormant out of the fear that she wouldn't be able to control them. Uh, But I guess uh, desperate times call for... Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, calling all mutants, calling all mutants. Uh (laughs) Uh, Then Richter and some infinites show up. Lila uses her powers and creates an interstellar doorway, and the externals are sucked through. Richter follows. Magneto... Does not. Neither does Corbo, because he, re- he realizes that he's already punched his ticket for portraying Apocalypse. So he might as well have just gone into space, right? Yeah. I mean, what, what, what at least there you have a chance, right? All this, all this back and forth, you, you're going to go there anyway. But. <laughs> uh, now, before leaving the underground lab, library, science place, hollow joint, whatever, Magneto sets it to self-destruct. Now, next book, Weapon X number one. This one is titled Unforgiven Trespasses by Larry Hama and Adam Kubert. Uh, here's a guy we love to talk about, Larry Hama, born June 7th, 1949, studied judo, archery, and swordsmanship during his youth. He attended the High School of Art and Design and planned to be a painter. His first comics work was, as a, pro- was a project for Castle of Frankenstein magazine when he was only 16 years old. He'd also submit work to the underground comics tabloid Gothic Blimp Works in 1969. Hama would serve in the United States Army from 1969 to 1971. He was a firearms and explosive ordnance expert in Vietnam, serving in the 18th Engineer Brigade. This would serve him well during his run as editor for Marvel Comics' The Nam, that's the title, from 1986 to 1993. Upon return, he found work at Wallywood's Manhattan studio, where he'd assist with the syndicated strips Sally Forth and Cannon, strips which originally ran the military news and overseas weekly part periodicals, had illustrations published in Rolling Stone and Esquire magazines, and also contributed to the underground magazine Drool No. 1 in 1972. He was able to score a spot at Neil Adams' Continuity Associate Studio through a pal of his and uh, joined the inking gang Krusty Bunkers. Uh, Krusty Bunkers, we've touched on them a time or two. Mm-hmm. This is over 60 artists were at one point or another a member, a member of the uh, Krusty Bunkers gang. Uh, this term was coined by Neil Adams in relation to his children. He says, it was like calling someone a name that wasn't really dirty. It didn't really mean anything. It just sounded good. Now, Hammer's first work as a crusty bunker was the Slaves of the Mahars story in uh, DC Comics' Weird Worlds number two. That was November 1972 cover date. Hammer would briefly take over for Gil Kane on the Iron Fist feature in Marvel Premiere. That was issues 16 through 19, July through November 1974. 
he'd move on to do some freelance work for Atlas Seaboard, Seaboard Comics for a bit. And he was also part of the seminal independent book, Big Apple Comics, with an X, number one, September 1975 cover date. He just can't put those independent uh, underground comics no, down, boy. He loves it. In and it. out, yep. Uh, for the rest of the 1970s, Hama would be an editor for DC Comics, overseeing titles including Wonder Woman, Super Friends, Warlord, and even Welcome Back, Cotter. Also, during the mid to late 1970s, Hama tried his hand at acting. He appeared in one episode of M.A.S.H., he also played a role in a spoof of Apocalypse Now on Saturday Night Live. He didn't continue to pursue acting. He'd say, I always basically saw myself as an artist, not as anything else. And you heard it here first, folks. Acting is not art. <laughs> so saith Larry Hama. Anyway, uh, just before we take over to the 80s, Hama, along with Michael Golden, created Bucky O'Hare in 1979. Although the character wouldn't see print until Echo of Future Past, number one. May 1984 from Continuity Comics. Bucky O'Hare would go on to have an animated series of video game and action figures. That's right. Speaking of action figures, let's head into the 1980s and perhaps what Larry Hama is best known for. G.I. Joe, a real American hero. Now, he claims he only received this gig after Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter was turned down by every other writer in the Marvel bullpen. <laughs> Uh, Hammer used a story pitch he'd put together as a Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. spinoff that he'd call Fury Force. He used that as a backstory for his run with the Joe property. Hammer would also write the file cards that came on the packaging for each G.I. Joe action figure. The Tunnel Rat action figure was made by Hasbro in Larry Hammer's likeness and actually had the same military specialty to boot. Uh, yeah, Hammer's Marvel run of G.I. Joe, a real American hero, would run for an impressive 155 issues, February 1982 through October 1994, and uh, they're back at the legacy numbering uh, in IDW right now. They're, they're using oh, really? the same numbering for uh, as the Marvel run, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, and uh, Hammer just so happened to be in the midst of a long run on the Wolverine title. When the Age of Apocalypse rolled in. Yep, and it would have to absorb him as well. But yeah, that G.I. Joe run is seminal stuff. Uh, even mm-hmm. even I, not really into that kind of thing, normally you have to say it's pretty cool. Sure. Uh, then uh, across the table, we got Adam Kubert, born October 6, 1959, grew up in Dover, New Jersey. Now, Adam is the son of uh, Joe Kubert, you know, the famous uh, cartoon comic strip illustrator and whatever, everything else, <laughs> creator. The brother of Andy Kubert, who we will meet in just a little while. Adam's first comics work was as a letterer when he was a wee lad of 12. He'd attend the Rochester Institute of Technology and graduate with a degree in medical illustration. After this, he attended his father's school, the Kubert School, in his hometown of Dover, New Jersey. You gotta have to, if you're gonna yeah. be a Kubert, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Adam's first credited artwork was a story called Gremlins that appeared in Sar- Sergeant Rock number 394, November 1984 cover date. He'd do various other work for DC and the Independence for the rest of the decade, including a collaboration with his brother on an Adam Strange prestige format miniseries. Adam scored a gig on Wolverine, and his first issue, number 75, part of the Phalanx Covenant, was where we learned that Logan had bone claws under the, all that heavy metal. Since that wasn't all that long ago, it's no surprise that Adam is still around when the book finds itself taking part in this epic crossover event. Now, the story starts with Wolverine, or Weapon X, and Jean. They're on the back of a sentinel as they head toward Apocalypse's mid-Atlantic seawall defense towers in, in order to destroy its grid. As luck would have it, the sentinel is equipped with a radar jammer that won't attract enemy fire. The sentinel shrams right into the grid, and the Merry Mutants hop off just in the nick of time not to blow up with it. 
Uh, not sure if we mentioned this last week, but Wolverine only has one hand. It's the right hand at the moment. Uh, more on how that came to be next week. Mm. It's worth mentioning that before going boom, the Sentinel informs them that their termination amnesty is only temporary, <laughs> which speaks ever so highly of how much we ought to trust that high human council or human high council in the, uh, in the, was it London? Yeah, well, they're giving out some kind of amnesty, so that's not too bad. Gene uh, locates their target, and Wolverine cuts a hole on the floor below to grant them access. In the down below, the pair find themselves attacked by a Balrog-class meta-cyborg, whatever that is. As long as it hit, hits Logan with a tiger uppercut, I'm good with it. Now, that was Sagat, not Balrog. I have no idea what you're talking about. All right, so they make pretty short work of the beastie, and uh, suddenly an alpha-level mutant teleports in. It's Havoc, and boy, oh boy, is he upset. Fit to be tied, even. Gene can feel his presence and warns Logan of the same, but then, a fight. But first, some exposition. Havoc says to Gene, Well, if it isn't the escapee from the breeding pens, my brother Scott is trying to lay eyes, or should I say, I on you. Where's your hairy boyfriend? I'd love to make a present of his other hand to my dear sibling. Adamantium claws at all. Meanwhile, Logan is busting through walls and beating up computer consoles. Then he rolls up on Havoc, who is literally beating a new hairstyle into Jean Grey. We st- she started this issue with long hair, now it's short. No in-story reason why, so we'll just blame it on Havoc. Or, well, him or Bob Harris, I think. Right. Somebody <laughs> should have been minding the switches. But uh, Weapon X manages to send Havoc into the teleporter. Then that sentinel they rode in on reawakens. And so Wolvie and Gene attempt to leave the same way that they got here. During the transatlantic flight back toward Big Ben, the pair witness a whole load of Sentinels heading toward the United States, courtesy of the Human High Council, naturally. We shift scenes to Apocalypse's pad, where the main man himself is chatting with Cyclops. Cyclops reports Mr. Sinister's betrayal. Oddly enough, this news seems to amuse Apocalypse. Hmm. Beast pops in in a really hard to distinguish hologram form. Uh, the the, the, the yeah. science wasn't there yet, <laughs> art-wise. Uh, and he fills them in on Havoc's unpleasant return. Now you see, when he came through the teleporter, he was inside a giant mitt of a sentinel. And now that mitt has uh, been fused to him. Well, that might ruin your day, I think. It might, it might. Uh, now, he continues informing them that a one-handed mutant was responsible. And it doesn't take him all that long to figure out it's, just who that is. It's either if one hand, one eye, can only be a couple of people, right? It's uh, depending true. Depending who you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> arriving in London, Weapon X and Gene passionately suck face. Heading into Big Ben, they are greeted with a rousing round of applause from the Human High Council. Brian Braddock makes a suggestion that they kill all the mutants in America before they rise up and kill all the humans. With that, things heat up a bit. Magma, real name, Amara Akia. First appearance was New Mutants number 8, October 1983 cover date, created by Chris Claremont, Sal McLeod, and Bob McLeod. Joins the Hellions early on in their rivalry with the New Mutants, and she'll eventually come around and join the good guys, though, but she wouldn't stay all that long. Most recently, she popped up during the X-Force New Warriors Child's Play crossover. Oddly enough, Magma would be the point-of-view character in the X-Men Legends video game for the PlayStation 2, Xbox, and Nintendo GameCube in 2004, Activision. That's weird, yeah. It's like yeah. she hadn't been seen in forever. And she was not even like a big character, but she's the no, POV. No. Yeah, very weird. <laughs> now, Magma pops up, and Weapon X wastes no time ramming his claws right into her back. Thanks for coming, Amara. 
<laughs> That's really That's it. it. Uh, <laughs> Braddock climbs up to the top of Big Ben and watches his armada of blimps. Since the letterer clearly filled the bubbles in out of order here, we'll try to clear up what Brian wants to say. Yeah, he says, We must institute Project Scorch F. We have the will, and now, my friends, we have the means. Gene whispers, Lord of mercy. Apocalypse wants a brave new world for his filthy kind? So be it. But his precious domain would be nothing but a radioactive wasteland. Mm-hmm. Ooh. He, he, he means business. He's not messing around. <laughs> uh, but that is the end of that issue. Yeah. Now we'll hop into Factor X number one. Bet you can't guess what that used to be called. Uh, the story is called Sinister Neglect by John Francis Moore and Steve Epting. Let's meet John Francis Moore. He was born in 1968. Somewhere in these U.S. of A. We think, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, Not a whole lot about this fellow online, so we'll uh, just talk about some of the things he'd worked on before the Age of Apocalypse event. We we probably ought to say that we're only only covering folks up to the Age of Apocalypse, and that includes our character bios as well. Right, right. It's everybody up till 1995. Right. Now, JFM wrote a few original graphic novels for DC Comics, including Batman Houdini, The Devil's Workshop in 1993, and also Superman, Under a Yellow Sun in 1994. Now, the latter was presented as a novel written by Clark Kent. Uh, he's also responsible for the hip, cool 90s take on fate. Ooh, but, uh, that's, that's too bad, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we'll try not to hold that against him. <laughs> uh, over at Marvel, uh, Moore worked in the 2099 department, writing for both Doom 2099 and X-Men 2099. He'd pop over to X-Factor with issue number 108, November 1994 cover date, and he stuck around long enough to take part in this here Age of Apocalypse event. Over on the drawing details, Steve Epting received a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Graphic Design from the University of South Carolina. In 1989, Epting read about a contest being held by independent publisher First Comics looking for some new talent. The winning story was to be published by the company, only the contest didn't actually exist. Epting would be declared one of the winners anyway and do fill-in on First Title's Dredge Star and Whisper. By 1991, First was out of business, and after spending, sending some samples around the industry, Epting found work in Marvel Comics. His first work was filling in on a bi-weekly Avengers story, after which, uh, with issue number 341, November 1991 cover date, he'd become the full-time Avengers artist. After leaving the Avengers, he jumped over to the X-Books and even take part in this, the massive Age of Apocalypse event. Now, our story opens in Manhattan, where we see a group of prisoners attempting to escape from Mr. Sinister's pens. They are halted by by Sinister's elite, which includes familiar folks like Cyclops and Havoc, but also North Star, real name John Paul Bobier. First appearance, X-Men number 120, April 1979, cover date, created by John Byrne and Chris Claremont. He's the twin brother to the young lady we'll be meeting shortly. He's a ski champion and member of the Canadian government-sponsored team Alpha Flight. We first met him when uh, they were trying to bring Wolverine back into their fold. Uh, Northstar became the first openly gay character when he came out during issue uh, 106 of Alpha Flight. Uh, that was March 1992, cover date. Creator John Byrne claims that he was always intended to be homosexual. However, due to the still somewhat stringent Comic Code Authority, it was a no-go. Following Alpha Flight's cancellation, that was Alpha Flight 130, March 1994, cover date, Northstar had his own self-titled four-issue limited series. That had nothing to do with his sexuality, because right. it might have been a little too hot a topic, even still. Even then. Uh, then there's also Aurora, real name Jean-Marie Bobier. 
That's that twin sister. First appearance, X-Men number 120, April 1979, cover date, created by John Byrne and Chris Claremont. Like we say, that's that twin sister to North Star. North Star. Similarly powered to North Star, but also has multiple personality disorder, which I don't know if we'd call that a power. But okay. <laughs> uh, which she deals with pretty consistently and has gone on to more or less define her character. Among those who would be would be escapees, uh, sorry, among these would-be escapees are a few pretty familiar faces, too. They include... Avalanche, real name, Dominikos Patrakis. First appearance, X-Men 141, January 1981, cover by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. He'd be part of Mystique's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants during the uh, ordeal with Senator Kelly that almost led to Days of Future Past. Uh, he would stick with Mystique during the team's shift in name to Freedom Force. There's a team of... Well, sort of good guys or posing good guys, uh, whatever they are, they're working for the U.S. government right. in exchange for a pardon for their prior crimes. It's sort of like a dollar store suicide squad minus the shock collars. This is also when they thought the X-Men were dead, right? There was a... It's, it comes right up to it because uh, Freedom Force were there when the when the X-Men died. Right. Um, and uh, Avalanche here was pals with Pyro. And together they would uh, join a few more teams and uh, also bungle an operation in the Middle East that saw their teammate, the Crimson Commando, get seriously injured. Uh, Avalanche would work with Project Wide Awake. Someone else there, Fantasia, real name Eileen Harsaw. First appearance was X-Force number 6, January 1992, cover date, created by Rob Liefeld and Fabian Nicieza. First appeared as a member of Toad's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and battled against X-Force very early in their run. And that's pretty much about it, so that's we'll give you, have to say, uh, huh? give you a twofer here. It's Pyro, real name St. John Allardyce, or Allardyce. I don't know. I think Allardyce is what I always say. Allardyce. I don't know if it's right. <laughs> Could be. Uh, first appearance was X-Men number 141, a January 1981 cover date, created by Claremont and Byrne. He's an Australian mutant with the power to control flame. Not produce it, even though that's often forgotten, especially by X-Men writers and editors. And next you'll be telling me that people still think Juggernaut and Deadpool are mutants. Uh, people still draw Cyclops burning, you know, people with his beam, so there's that. <laughs> uh, he wears a flamethrower backpack thing in order to make it a flames. Pyro would become pals with Avalanche, and we could basically repeat everything we said about him right here, except for the fact that Pyro would eventually contract the, le- uh, contract the legacy virus. That's yes. the difference, so. Now, also, we have a newbie. Uh, this is Artemis, real name. Who knows, and who cares? Um, first <laughs> first, and last appearance, right here, baby. Uh, now, back to the story. The Summer Brothers argue about how to deal with the escapees, with Scott suggesting that they don't kill them. Havoc, however, has other plans. We shift over to Liberty Island, where Lady Liberty no longer stands. Now it's a statue of, who else? Apocalypse. They finally did it, you maniacs! (laughs) We've got Mr. Sinister standing inside. He's inside the eye of the statue, actually. And he considers his betrayal. You see, he's been uh, researching mutant evolution since the long ago, and had... uh, but really had to switch uh, shift gears when Apocalypse ascended to power. Uh, I guess we'll just let him explain it. Apocalypse entrusted me with the creation of the next generation of Homo Superior. A generation to be born not by accident, but by design. With the pens, I finally have a genetic stockpile of human and mutant alike, from which I can spin genetic straw into gold. He explains that during the Kentucky culling that he had met the Guthrie clan, and he was able to draft two of their number into his mutant elites. And they are... 
Cannonball, real name Sam Guthrie. First appearance was Marvel Graphic Novel number 4, November 1982, cover date. Created by Claremont and Bob McCloud. Sam's mutant power of making himself not unlike a human cannonball manifested while he was trapped in a collapsed mine shaft. Hellfire Club member Donald Pierce hears about him and hires him as a mercenary to fight the new mutants. Sam ain't no villain, though. He instead joins the new mutants and would-be co-leader alongside Danny Moonstar. During the Magneto days, Sam isn't keen on taking orders from the former villain, so he rebels, but then he gets over it. Kind of like we all do, don't we, eventually? Yeah. Uh, he and the rest of the new mutants are killed by the Beyonder during a Secret Wars 2 tie-in, and he kills them out of curiosity. I'm not sure that'll stand up in court. No, no, it depends on the court, Chris. <laughs> I guess, I guess. Uh, he's, if it's Cal- Southern California, they let, a, they let a lot of things fly. Uh, he is romantically linked with Lila Cheney and eventually Tabitha Boom Boom Smith. My third favorite sweater. <laughs> he, up you know, <laughs> he uh, sticks around during the shift from New Mutants to X Force under Cable's leadership and becomes the second in command. Then there's a strange story about him, uh, beat about him being an external, which doesn't really wrap up all that neatly, so we'll just move away from that. Yeah, we will. Uh, we have his sister, known as Amazon. Uh, her name is Elizabeth Guthrie. Her first appearance was New Mutants number 42, August 1986 cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Jackson Geis. She's uh, Sam and Paige Guthrie's sister. Uh, not much more to say about that. Uh, her 616 version doesn't do a whole heck of a lot besides exist. All right. uh, now, their sister Paige declined, but we already met her back in Gen Next. Uh, we'll shift scenes here into Hank McCoy's lab. Uh, he's making some uh, protoplasmic soup. Yeah, I mean, he's literally dipping bodies into vats and watching them dissipate into nothingness. They don't call it the gene pool for nothing. And yes, that is actually what Hank calls it, the gene pool. <laughs> yes. Very good. Uh, he and Alex chat about how Sinister always likes Scott best, which, which is a pretty old bit already. Uh, they keep <laughs> needling in that one. Speaking of Scott, he's walking around the base when he's crashed into by the battling Bedlam brothers. Real names, Jesse and Terrence Aronson. First appearance, right here, right now. We'd meet the prime versions of Jesse and perhaps yet another Aronson a few years down the line. Jesse's first appearance will eventually be in X-Force number 82, October 1998. Cover date and Christopher will first appear in X-Force number 87, February 1999 cover date. Jesse would wind up briefly joining X-Force, and Christopher was a no-good jerk. Mm-hmm. Upon seeing Sinister's favorite son, the Bedlam boys stop their quarreling, and even make plans to visit the Heaven nightclub later that night. Luckily for them, Cyclops declines their invitation. Wouldn't imagine he'd be much fun anywhere, much less at a club. I mean, always with the uh, moping with him. Uh, after all, though, he is looking for Mr. Sinister. Now, Sinister is watching this go down from a monitor, because Sinister always has monitors everywhere. Everywhere. So it's, oh, yeah. it's advantageous, yes. Uh, he's sad that Scott didn't realize that their little walk that they went on during X-Men Alpha was actually a goodbye. Now, we jump to that Heaven nightclub that night. Uh, Havoc bumps into Angel, and they chat a bit about Gambit. All the while, Scarlet McKenzie performs a little ditty while splayed out atop a piano. During this, Heaven is invaded by... Henry Peter Gyrick. First appearance, Avengers number nine, number 165, November 1977, cover date. He was created by Jim Shooter and George Perez. 
Uh, he was the liaison between the United States government and the Avengers. This is back when they didn't need to bring S.H.I.E.L.D. in every five minutes to babysit them. Uh, he's quite the thorn in their side. He revokes their priority status. He also limits their team roster. He also forces the Falcon to join in order to fill an affirmative action quota. Uh, now, Peter David believes that Jim Shooter loosely based Gyrick on himself and actually softened the character quite a bit when he was under his pen. Uh, he keeps getting tangled up on the wrong side of the heroes, though. Uh, most recently, he is the target of assassination from the Mutant Liberation Front. Back to the story. Gyrick is quickly contained by the Bedlam Brothers. Uh, after her set, Scarlet heads backstage and makes out with Havoc. Later that night, somebody appears to have set an auto-destruct on the Statue of Apocalypse. And it goes crack-a-boom! Oh, no. All right, then we move on to X-Man number one, which, 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 what is this? Was there a Cable comic? This was that was Cable, cable yeah. Right, so this becomes X-Man number one. Uh, Breaking Away by Jeff Loeb and Steve Scroach. Or Scroachy? I, I say Scroachy, but I don't know if it's right or not. So it's spelled Scroachy, so that's probably the yeah. best one. Uh, Jeff Loeb, Joseph Jeff Loeb III, was born January 29, 1958, in these United States, perhaps somewhere around Stamford, Connecticut, because that is where he grew up. He began collecting comics in 1970. Jeff met Elliot S. Magan at Brandeis University in Walter, Massachusetts, before he had the exclamation point after his S, I think, probably. <laughs> probably. Uh, Jeff did not attend, but he did, however, graduate from Columbia University in New York, with a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's Degree in Film. Alumnus of Columbia includes several former presidents of the United States. However, nobody we could easily connect to Bob Haney's nephew's Chevy Chase, so we, Dang it. We, if we can't do that, we don't bother. No. Uh, Loeb's filmmaking debut was writing Teen Wolf with Matthew Wiseman, which was released August 23, 1985, starring Michael J. Fox. That same year, Loeb and Wiseman would co-write the Schwarzenegger flick Commando, which released October 4th. Other movies included Burglar, starring Whoopi Goldberg, and a sequel to Teen Wolf, Teen Wolf 2, starring Jason Bateman. When Loeb was working on a screenplay for the DC Comics character The Flash, the deal fell through. Fortunately, it didn't fall through before Jeff had the opportunity to meet the then-DC Comics head honcho, Jeanette Kahn, and she asked him to write some comics. The first of which was the eight-issue Challengers of the Unknown miniseries that ran from March through October of 1991, and that saw him paired with a fellow he'd collaborate with a whole bunch in the future, Mr. Tim Sale. Yep. Now, Loeb would do a few one-off stories for DC Comics, including the Batman Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special, that's a prestige format from December 1993. Then, he'd do Cable for Marvel, and Cable became X-Man. Yeah, for a little while here. Uh, now, Steve Scrosi, we don't know a heck of a lot about him, other than that he's of Croatian descent, and uh, that's only if the internet isn't lying to us, so we're not sure. Uh, his comic career started in 1993 when he drew Ecto Kid, a Clive Barker series for Marvel's Razorline imprint. Then he'd do a little cable, and now that's the book he's filling in. That's the book that's filling in for cable, so here he is. Now, let's see. Who is X-Men? Well, first, who is Cable? Nathan Christopher Charles Summers. First appearance as a wee baby, Uncanny X-Men number 201, January 1986, cover date. And as an old man from the future, New Mutants number 86, February 1990. Uh, that's a cameo. He His first full appearance is usually 87. Okay. Uh, now, he's created by Chris Claremont, Rick Leonardi, Louise Simonson, and Rob Liefeld. Now, we first met Cable 
before he was even Gable. Uh, after the apparent death of Jean Grey, Scott Summers would hop into bed with the first clone of her he could find. <laughs> now, this doppelganger was Madeline Pryor, and uh, the baby they'd make together would be Nathan. Scott, of course, abandons his family at the first sign that Jean Grey is actually alive. After the events of Inferno, Nathan would be taken in by his dad because his mom's a demon, and also dead. That's a good reason. Uh, Apocalypse, thinking Nathan Christopher would rise to eventually take him down, infects the tot with a techno-organic virus. Cyclops winds up sending the baby into the future with the Ascani clan in X-Factor number 68, uh, July 1991 cover date. Over a year earlier, an old man from the future showed up in the pages of New Mutants number 87. Ex-book editor Bob Harris requested the New Mutants title get shaken up and decided a new leader was needed. He asked Rob Liefeld to get to designing, and Rob says, I was given a directive to create a new leader for the New Mutants. There was no name, no description besides Man of Action, the opposite of Xavier. I created the look, the name, and much of the history of the character. After I named him Cable, Bob Harris suggested Quinn and Louise Simonson had Commander X. Uh, Simonson would later claim that Commander X was a placeholder, and uh, we hope that's true because, oof, that's a bad, that's not a great name yes. right there, yeah. you know, Commander X. Uh, <laughs> Cable would lead the New Mutants, and they would be the proactive X team, eventually transitioning into the X-Force. At the end of New Mutants number 100, it was revealed that the leader of the Mutant Liberation Front, Strife, shared Cable's face. Hmm. Now, during the Executioner song, it was revealed that Strife was actually the adult Nathan Summers. They quickly reversed course on this, though, and made it so the good guy Cable was actually Scott's tot. Now, X-Man, Nate Gray of the uh, Age of Apocalypse, he ain't Cable. Well, not really, but sort of. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Nate Gray will be revealed to be the biological son of Scott Summers and Jean Gray, born of genetic tampering by Mr. Sinister. Nate's powers are much stronger than Cable's ever were because, you see, he didn't have that techno-organic hoodoo to deal with. Right. And uh, we will get better acquainted with him as we proceed, so don't worry. Uh, On to the story proper here. We open in a dream. Nate sees a man with a glowing red eye offering him a way out. Yeah, we know who this is. It's Cyclops, and he says, Come with me if you want to live. I bet he's always wanted to say that. I think so, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, Nate freaks out and bursts through a wall to freedom. Uh, Cyclops doesn't even really pursue him all that hard. More like just standing there saying, wait, mm-hmm. in a very hushed tone. Just like, hey, man, you know, he's not into it. Uh, <laughs> it suggested that Scott could very well be envious of the now free young man. The dream shifts. Now Nate stands before the ruins of a mansion, though it might have been a school. Of course it was. Uh, now uh, inside the school, Nate sees what uh, looks like a psychic of the looks like the psychic residue of an argument between Bishop and Magneto. Bishop says, "You should have told them. You owe them the truth." And what is the truth? An amalgamation of what ifs and what coulds? I've done the best I know how. Then Nate interjects, only they can't hear him because, you know, different planes and realities and all that stuff. Uh, Nate is then tapped on the shoulder by an overly amused fella named Forge. Real name is unknown. First appearance on Canny X-Men number 184, August 1984 cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Ramita Jr. He's a Native American of the Cheyenne tribe, though trained as a medicine man. Forge prefers to use modern technology. And guns, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Forge turned his back on the Cheyenne to join the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War. 
While there, he used the ghosts of his fallen comrades to fight the Viet Cong. That opened a portal to a lot of spooky stuff, so Forge has a B-52 bomber drop a payload on his position in order to shut it all down. You know, I guess that's one way to do it. Uh, it actually works, but he loses an arm and leg in the process, and one demon did sneak through, but we, he'll show up a little later on. Uh, after Forge is discharged from the army, he comes to work for Tony Stark in the Defense Department using his mutant technol technological... Sorry, using his mutant technological innovation abilities to create new weapons and machines, as well as a new arm and leg for himself. His what? Uh, his mutant technological innovation abilities. He's uh, like a super inventor. Mm, is that a thing? I, I well, I, I guess it is now, yeah. <laughs> now, Forge creates a weapon that inadvertently shorts out Storm's powers, and in rescuing her, they fall in love. Though they break up for a little while when Storm finds out that he made the thing that neutralized her. He, she wasn't aware of it at first. No. Now, uh, during this time, a demon named the Adversary, the one that Forge released during Vietnam, attacks the Earth and sends Forge and Storm to another dimension. This is during life-death, I believe. Now, in this timeless place, they rekindle their relationship, and Storm regains her powers. Forge and Storm return to help the X-Men defeat the Adversary, and uh, Forge must sacrifice nine X-Men to do so. Really, eight X-Men plus Madeline Pryor. Right. He does so, and feeling guilty, Forge allows a distraught magic, who blames him for killing her brother Colossus, with good reason, to stab him with a soul sword, and uh, it doesn't take. Uh, don't worry, a goddess resurrects the sacrificed X-Men anyway, forcing them to endure a spiritual death of atonement. You know, they're, they're not going to let them die, come on. Yeah, this is that whole Outback dealie. Right, with where they, they were, and the ladies had their day out in the mall and whatever. Yes. <laughs> uh, so Forge joins Mystique's Freedom Force, still thinking the X-Men are dead, but finds them later with the help of Banshee. When Bishop shows up on the X-Men, things get dicey for Forge and Storm, so he quits and goes back to civilian life that includes caring for Mystique, who had developed schizophrenia. After Mystique kills Dr. Var Valerie Cooper, we'll talk about that a little later, Forge replaces her as the government liaison to X-Factor. He eventually comes to lead X-Factor, has a fling with Mystique, and then leaves X-Factor when Havoc takes over. Basically, when a new guy comes in to, uh, you know, mess with his woman, he's not into... Uh, he also doesn't trust Havoc. Forge joins the Mutant Underground for a while, gets mixed up with Siren and Deadpool and them, and that's more or less where he's at when this comic came out. Yes, Forge goes, what are you doing? They can't hear you, because you're not really here. I've used our Psylinth to find you. I've warned you about pushing yourself. It could be very dangerous. And with that, Forge and Nate just blip out. Only we know that what Nate was actually seeing was Magneto and Bishop, and what's more, Magneto could see him. Next, Nate wakes up. He's surrounded by his, by his current running buddies of rebels, who include... One of my very favorites, Toad, a real name, Mortimer, Mortimer Toynbee. First appearance, X-Men number four, March 1964, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Uh, what is there to say about Toad? Uh, he was a member of the Brotherhood and would eventually start his own Brotherhood of Evil uh, mutants. He also had the hots for the Scarlet Witch, but she didn't compensate because he's disgusting. And uh, he's hunchbacked and looks sort of like a Toad. Also, he hops. Yeah, so also we have Sauron. 
Oh, I know this guy. He's uh, the main antagonist from J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. He first appeared as a necromancer in The Hobbit, which was published way back. No, 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 wait up. No, this is a different one. Oh. This one. Yeah, this one is Carl. Is Kyle Lykos. Uh, his first appearance was X-Men number 59, August 1969, cover date, created by Roy Thomas and Neil Adams. Now, this fellow was originally planned to be a bat-like character by uh, Roy and Neil. They went the pterodactyl route because the Comics Code Authority saw an energy vampire that also looked like a bat to be, you know, that bridge too far, I guess. I love it. I, love, I just love that. <laughs> this is the workaround, yeah. Right. So they make him a vampiric pterodactyl, and that's A-OK with the right. Comics Code Authority. Sure. Uh, now, his story is, while traveling with his father, a professional explorer's guide, in uh, Tierra del Fuego in South America, young Carl Lycos is bitten by a mutant pterodactyl and gains the power to suck the life force from things that have it. Yikes. Um, after Carl, Kyle's... No, 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 what's his face? After his father dies, he's taken <laughs> in by the guy that hired him in the first place and falls in love with his daughter, Tanya, who they rescued during that initial expedition, incidentally. Uh, to impress the father of the woman he loves, Kyle becomes a physicist, genetic, physicist, geneticist, and hypnotherapist. A very well-rounded fellow, I gotta hey, say. Yeah. Multidisciplined. <laughs> uh, all the while, he's draining the energy of patients and folks he doesn't like. Later, he meets the X-Men and is recruited to help treat Havoc. Absorbing Havoc's powers turns him into his pterodactyl form, and he names himself Sauron, actually after the very character from Lord of the Rings that we mentioned earlier. Sauron mm. would be a thorn in the X-Men's side from then on and would join up with various incarnations of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And he always looks ridiculous. It's, I think it's the idea that, the idea that a pterodactyl is the workaround, uh, arguably a scarier thing, you know, to, a, to drain a, your a uh, energy yeah. than a bat. Yeah. <laughs> now, we also have Mastermind, real name Jason Wingard, first appearance, X-Men 4, March 1964, created by Stan and Jack. Now, he was part of Magneto's original Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Just like the Toad, he had the hots with the Scarlet Witch. Uh, the trouble with him, uh, trouble much, that, yeah. yes, that's a trouble with being the only lady on a theme, right? It's Jean gets hit on, yep. Scarlet Witch gets hit on. It's just a mess. <laughs> Uh, he also has a thing for redheads that we're going we're gonna to come to learn shortly. Uh, after the Brotherhood breaks up, which is to say after their run-in with the cosmic entity The Stranger, Mastermind joins up with Factor 3. And if you remember, they had the goal of taking over the world, and it didn't work. Mm. Now, Magneto would eventually regroup and reform the Brotherhood. Mastermind, like the rest of his pals, are reverted to babyhood by Alpha the Ultimate Mutant, and we discussed that last week. Uh, after getting grown up again, Mastermind would join the Hellfire Club. It's here he was given the name Jason Wingard by Claremont and Byrne. They based his name on actor Peter Wingard, who played the leader of a group called the Hellfire Club on an episode of The Avengers. That's that other British Avengers television show. Peter Wingard is best known for playing the character Jason King in the television series Department S which ran from 1969 to 1970, and the follow-up simply titled Jason King from 1971 to 1972. So Jason King plus Peter Wingard equals Jason Wingard. Also, Byrne drew the character to look just like the actor. I find it's best not to look too deeply into what Claremont ideas might be based on, because uh, at the end of the day, there aren't as many original ideas there as you might hope. Yeah, you know, I mean, you could transpose that to a lot of comic creators when you really start <laughs> digging in there, but that's, you know, whatever. Uh, he poses as a debonair fella called Nikos. 
A mastermind can control the people, the way people see him. That's his thing. Yeah, he starts a romance with Jean Grey, who is actually the Phoenix, but we'll get there eventually. Uh, told you he has, he has a thing for redheads, though. Now, he projects the illusion of her living the perfect Victorian-era life. In this illusion, they're also married, and she is the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club. Cyclops is eventually able to reach Gene on the astral plane, but Wingard is also there, and he soundly beats Scott. He goes, you know, what's Scott know about the astral plane? Really bad. <laughs> uh, Phoenix, however, can now see through Mastermind's plan and pumps, uh, pumps his own powers up to that of a god, and this experience leaves him a babbling Looney Tune. Uh, he gets better and screws with the X-Men some more. He eventually contracts the Legacy Virus. <laughs> And dies only after begging for Jean Grey's forgiveness, which, being the, the good gal she is, she gives him. Of course, a deathbed forgiving. It's just her mm-hmm. way. Uh, we also see Brute, whose real name is unknown. His first appearance is he's in an Age of Apocalypse original. So mm-hmm. that's why we have nothing to say about him. We're all meeting no. him for the first time here together. Uh, Nate goes all Dorothy back from Oz trying to explain the crazy dream he just had. It's clear, you know, you were there, and you, yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's clear from the destroyed area that they're cur- currently huddled in that Nate's uh, telekinesis went a bit wacky while he slept. So it's no surprise to anybody who's having one of those dreams. One of those? Yeah, you know, uh, those dreams where you get to watch Bishop and Magneto yell at one another. I hate right? those. You, you never hear have those? Yeah. <laughs> Very embarrassing. <Now> that, <laughs> that night, uh, Nate's gang puts on a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, yeah, their, their cover is as a traveling theater troupe. Sure. Now, A Midsummer Night's Dream is a comedy by William Shakespeare that was entered into the register of the Stationers Company on October 8th. 1600 and uh don't think we have any idea whether or not this play was chosen for any kind of thematic reason i don't I, think I, so i mean it is a genuinely funny kind of silly romp but hmm. no it's that's the one uh what fools these mortals be you know so i don't know okay i wonder now uh, their performance is enjoyed by survivors of a midwest culling however some of the prelates present grow suspicious and I gotta say, it's probably it's probably because Sauron looks like a pterodactyl, right? I mean, come on! Now we really wish he was a bat. You know, then we could right. then you can pass him off. Uh, <laughs> Nate does some mental hocus pocus to make everyone look the other way. Although it gets the job done, Forge is not pleased. Nate, uh, Forge goes, Nate, that wasn't very smart. He says, "What? What I do?" Don't deny it. You used your gift to change those men's minds. Ah, so what if I gave them a little telepathic whack? I got us out of hot water. Besides, it's not much of a gift if I can't use it to help my friends. We pop back over to check in on Apocalypse. Cyclops informs the big boss that Sinister's turned traitor, and we're getting this scene a lot. Yeah, everybody, likes um, to, everybody wants to tell him, you know, oh, no, you're me first, you know. It's Cyclops every time. <laughs> you know, sheesh. It is. No. no, it is. It's Cyclops, yeah. No, Apocalypse turns to his pet telepath, who is the disembodied Shadow King. Real name, Amal Farouk. First appearance, X-Men 117, January 1979, created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. I mean, do we really got to... Uh, I hate the Shadow King. Now, the Shadow King is an entity of the astral plane who enslaves the bodies of telepaths and psychics, and he does it a lot. Uh, He was behind the Muir Island saga, and since we've mentioned that a bunch over the past couple weeks, let's give you a refresher on exactly what it was. The Muir Island saga is a five, and it also stops us from having to talk about the Shadow King directly. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, now, the Muir Island Saga is a five-part Marvel Comics crossover event involving the X-Men and X-Factor, published in 1991. It was written by Chris Claremont and Fabian Niciasa. Now, Muir Island is an island off the uh, northwest coast of Scotland, which contains Maura McTaggart's mutant research lab. Muir Island, uh, during this, Muir Island is taken over by the Shadow King. The X-Men go to investigate what's happening, uh, and they're captured and possessed by the very same Shadow King. Back in New York, Professor X fights with a Shadow King-possessed Colossus. Uh, the Professor cures the uh, possession. However, also, he, he also eliminates that, that uh, amnesiac Peter Nicholas right. alter ego from yeah. the uh, Siege Perilous. Uh, X-Factor sent to Muir Island by Professor X to solve this Shadow King conundrum. On the island, Wolverine, Rogue, and Banshee are all freed of their mind control by Forge. Uh, Banshee explains that the Shadow King is using Polaris, it's a mutant uh, with uh, magnetic powers, as a conduit to steal the powers of other mutants. Professor X leads uh, the X-Factor on an assault on Muir Island, which results in a face-off with the Shadow King, as you might imagine. That's pretty much why he did it, one would assume, yeah. Uh, back to the story, Forge is able to use a mind-controlled Psylocke to sever Polaris's con- connection to the astral plane, which in turn kills Shadow King for a hot minute anyway. And everyone lives happily ever after. Uh, no, wait, this is still the X-Men, Chris. This That's is, true. No That's way, true. there can't be a constant uh, nightmare <laughs> for all of them. So, the Shadow King, under glass, informs Apocalypse that Sinister might be the least of their concerns, because there's a new, immensely powerful teleplath... Pel- Telepath on the block, and we'll give you three guesses as to who he's talking about. The mutant with powers rivaling Apocalypse is somewhere in the Midwest. Apocalypse thinks on it and decides to send out a hunter who we know as Domino. Real name Nina Thurman. First actual appearance was X Force number 8, March 1992, created by Fabian Nicias and Rob Liefeld, and we'll explain why that was an actual appearance uh, in a minute. Helped out the merc- helped found the mercenary group Six Pack, which is where she first met Cable. Seemingly joined the New Mutants X Force shortly after Cable's arrival. However, that was revealed to be Copycat impersonating her. And we'll hear from Copycat in a little while. Uh, Domino was actually being held captive by captive by Tolliver. Tolliver Tyler Dayspring is Cable's son from the future. Uh, maybe it uh, might be Strife's kid. Who knows. Either way, Tyler is ticked at Cable. Uh, Domino would accidentally be accidentally freed from Tolliver by Deadpool and would eventually join X-Force. Apocalypse goes, see if you can collect this telepath. Perhaps you can convince the mutant to work for me. And if he or she refuses, kill it, my dear Domino. Love to, boss. We scoot over to Kansas, where our town is being invaded by the Infinites. Amid the mass of panicking Kansans is Siren. Real name, Teresa Mauve? Maeve? Maeve? I, th- I would say Maeve, Maeve, but I don't know. Yeah, Teresa Maeve, Raw Cassidy. Uh, first appearance, Spider-Woman, number 37, April 1981, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Steve Lealoa. Uh, she is uh, the daughter of Banshee, a fellow who will bio a little bit later. Uh, while her dad is working for Interpol, Teresa's mom dies, and she's taken in by her dad's cousin, Black Tom Cassidy. Uh, Banshee returns and blames Tom for not taking better care of his wife, and then throws him down a chest. A chasm and breaks his leg for hey, a good measure. There you go. Uh, this, uh, as you might imagine, annoys Black Tom, and he vows never to tell Banshee about his daughter. Tom trains her to become Siren, and they team up with Juggernaut in San Francisco to do crimes. And we'll meet Juggernaut in a little bit. 
Uh, when Siren is injured during her first job, Black Tom regretfully disavows her and writes a letter telling the truth about her real daddy. Siren and Banshee are reunited at the X-Mansion. She lives on Muir Island for a while, where uh, she thinks she's got a relationship with Jamie Madrox, but it turns out that it wasn't really him with, uh, what was that, Exterminators of the Fallen Angels, one of those groups. It wasn't the real Muir, multiple men. Of course. Uh, <laughs> that, that old trick, you know? Yeah. Now, uh, later, Siren joins X-Force and has a very serious relationship with Deadpool, which sounds funny when you say it out loud. <laughs> uh, Siren's power set includes the sonic scream you would expect, uh, but then the ability to uh, <laughs> to do everything else under the sun on top of that. It's like, why is her name Siren? Like, she's just the sonic <laughs> scream, plus, like, tele- telepathy, telekinesis, you know, flying. <laughs> you know, I'd give her whatever name she freaking... Teresa would be fine. Anyway. Uh, she's grabbed by an infinite and tossed into a train car. Off to the side in the bushes, Nate and Forge look on, and then they attack, though Nate is ordered not to directly engage their enemy. But he does anyway, yelling, eat it, as he blasts the <laughs> hell out of a group of infinites. Now, as the dust settles, so does Teresa, right into Nate's arms. Forge tells Nate to drop the girl, but he ain't having it. I can't do that, Forge. She's coming with us, whether you like it or not. Well, when you put it that way. Um, And so the troop, plus one, load into their cart and roll down the road until they run into a stranger with a red diamond on his forehead who introduces himself as Essex. Mm. I wonder who that could be. (laughs) And that is X-Man number one. Next up, Excalibre number one. Anyway. Which, of course, is uh, is replacing Excalibur. Yeah. Uh, this is The Infernal Gallop by Warren Ellis and Ken Lashley. Start with Warren Ellis. Warren Gerard Ellis was born February 16, 1968, in Essex, England. He claims that his earliest coherent memory was of the moon landing just a year later, which is pretty convenient. Sure. I think that's my first coherent memory, even though really? it was 10 yeah. years before I was born. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, he attended the Southeast Essex Sixth Form College, which is now known as the South Essex College of Further and Higher Education. Uh, While there, he contributed comic work to the college magazine Spike. Prior to becoming a professional comics writer, Ellis held jobs running a bookstore, running a pub, working at a record shop, and also some manual labor. He claims he fell into comics journalism largely by accident, and when the folks he was working with decided to start publishing original work, he decided why not give it a try. This would turn out to be Lazarus Churchyard, which appeared in Blast No. 1 from 1991 from Tundra Press. In 1994, Ellis began working for Marvel Comics, taking over scripting duties on Hellstorm, Prince of Lies, with its 12th issue, March 1994 cover date. He'd stick around until the book's cancellation the following year with its 21st issue. He'd hop over to the 2099 arena and write some Doom. He'd also do Excalibur, which is why we're talking about him right now. Uh, this was still very early in Warren's career, so we'll have more to say on the back end. Oh, yeah. It, it t- takes off pretty much immediately after this right. uh, yep. time. Uh, over on the drawing side, we got Ken Lashley. Very little can be found online about Ken Lashley's early years. Uh, we assume he was born somewhere in Western Hemisphere, somewhere sometime during the latter half of the 20th century. Hmm. Started working for Marvel with Excalibur number 70. That was October 1993 cover date and stuck around long enough to take part in the Age of Apocalypse. Uh, he has a website, which is ledkillaboom.com. We'll link to that at the blog. And he does plenty of work even today, cover work at least and stuff. So yeah, He's uh, he's going to be part of the uh, Milestone reboot uh, coming out. When, yeah. Whenever that happened. That's, that's <laughs> the whole other thing. Um, he's on the list. Uh, that's good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, <laughs> 
So we open the story near the Savage Land with a girl riding a strange little ferry into a dark cave. This young lady is Switchback. Real name is unknown. Her first appearance right now. Now inside, she discovers a giant of a man in chains. And we already know him as, well, he's introduced as Kane, but we know him as Kane Marco, the juggernaut. Real name, Kane Marco. First appearance, X-Men 12, July 1965, created by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Alex Toth. Uh, Kane Marco is the son of Professor, Professor Charles Xavier's one-time stepfather, Kurt Marco, who c- contributed to the death of Charles's mother, incidentally, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. Uh, Kurt clearly shows preference towards Charles and belittles Kane, so Kane bullies Charles when Dad ain't looking. Uh, later, Kane and his stepbrother serve in Korea during the war. Inside this spooky cave, Kane discovers the ruby of Sidorak, and upon touching it becomes the Juggernaut, which is a nice tie-in with Doctor Strange here. Uh, he actually meets and fights the guy in Doctor Strange number 182, September 1969 cover, and is banished to another dimension. The Juggernaut is essentially that immovable object meeting with unstoppable forces, uh, not unlike the Blob, but only less blobish. Less blobish, yeah. He's, he's still <laughs> huge, though, but he looks more like yeah. a man, not like a... He probably, doesn't, he probably doesn't jiggle as much. Probably right? not, yeah. Okay. Uh, now, Marco comes back from that dimension, but ages rapidly and seeks the help of Beast, who sends him back to his old dimension. <laughs> then, his true form, true, true age is restored, and he stays there until he is drawn into this dimension by a Hulkbuster machine. <laughs> it's like, wow. Poor Tell guy, really. We're yeah. trying to say. Yeah, yeah, he really does get around. <laughs> uh, later, he becomes a villain due Spider-Woman and Spider-Man. He eventually battles Thor. There's that, there's that one, uh, nobody stops the juggernaut, uh, story with Spider-Man where he winds up be- being turned into like part of a road somewhere. Oh yeah, <laughs> he stomps into some wet cement and just sinks. Um, now, right about now, he's at his zenith of his popularity, and the Juggernaut will be central to an event of his own next year, 1996. Yeah, but for now, he's just uh, doing his thing. Marco will act as her guide into the Promised Land, known as Avalon. Over the next little while, they make the trudgy trek until finally they arrive. Avalon is a beautiful paradise of a place hidden deep within the Savage Land. Its name might be based on a certain hot potato space station in recent X-Men lore. I don't know. Uh, We hop over to New York City, which is quite the interesting juxtaposition. Everything's on fire, sentinels are flying about, it's pretty ugly. Inside the Heaven nightclub, Angel has a meeting with Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler asks if his travel arrangements have been made, which irritates the angel as he's gone legit now and doesn't want to be a front man for terrorists. It doesn't take much for Kurt to make Warren see things his way anyway. After socking Warren in the mush, uh, Kurt's instructed to head to a Stark Holdings warehouse and ask for Proud Star, who we'll meet in just a bit. Back at Magneto's place, he's having a video chat with... Mystique. Hey. Real name? Yes, real name Raven Darkholm. First appearance, Ms. Marvel, number 16, April 1979, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Jim Mooney. Blue-skinned Mystique's real age is unknown. However, her earliest meeting with Destiny, that's her lover we met during the Legion quest there, mm-hmm. happened at the dawn of the 20th century, so she's a little old. She's old. Um, she's also a shapeshifter. She's also Nightcrawler's mother. She did uh, once did government work with Sabretooth, uh, who she banged and had a kid with. 
and uh, was Rogue's adoptive mother as well. It's just like the linchpin to everything, basically. To everything. Like she's, yes. she's the mother to the whole thing, really. Six degrees of mystique, yes. Yeah. Uh, now, mystique organized one incarnation of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and that's, a one, that's the one that included a young Rogue at the time. Uh, as you know, Rogue defects to the X-Men eventually. Later, Mystique is very nearly killed by Dr. Valerie Cooper, a special assistant to the head of the National Security Council and liaison to the mutants after impersonating her. Mystique convalesces at Professor X's mansion, but eventually escapes with Forge. Mystique resurfaces several months later and then a failed attempt to kill Legion for his murdering of Destiny, which we discussed last week. Uh, she eventually becomes an X-Men frenemy, sort of like Magneto. She's sometimes a member, sometimes an associate, yeah. sometimes a villain. It's It depends on the day of the or week. Or back then, I think it would be kind of like a villain, but they have like a begrudging respect, right? Like, yeah. Like you get these kind of like Moriarty uh, Holmes situations like that. They think, can this person... Can this person Carry the burden of a four-issue limited series, <laughs> and, and if so, and if okay, so, then she could be she could be a good. Person, yeah. <laughs> uh, now he wants her to go to Avalon, but uh, Mystique doesn't wanna. Magneto ain't taking "I don't wanna" as an answer, though. Yeah, he says, "I understand the problems involved, Mystique. However, this is not a request. You will stand ready to receive your son, Kurt, and then extract Destiny from Avalon and bring her here." Mystique says, "No." Kurt must have explained why I won't do this, Eric. I will not set foot on Avalon. End of argument. I said I understand. But allow me to explain why you'll comply. If you help, I will not have your location divulged to Apocalypse, who, of course, would be more than happy to tear off all your arms and legs. If you help, I will not tear off all your arms and legs. Well, fair enough then. I guess uh, Hmm. it's a deal, buddy. Uh, so Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler arrives at Stark Holdings and finds a bunch of folks dancing around a bonfire. One of those folks is John Proudstar, a.k.a. Thunderbird. First appearance was Giant Size X-Men number 1, May 1975, created by Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. John Proudstar was born into an Apache tribe on a reservation camp in Camp Verde, Arizona. As a teenager, he developed his mutant powers of superhuman speed, strength, and heightened senses. Proudstar was drafted into the, into the United States Marine Corps during the Vietnam War and earned the rank of corporal. Returning home after the war, Proudstar was depressed and listless. Professor X recruits John to join his new incarnation of the X-Men, and John accepts taking the name of Thunderbird. He ends up butting heads with Cyclops a lot. I think they're both leader types looking to uh, take over. Uh, looking to catch Count Nefaria before he escapes, Thunderbird James jumps aboard his fleeing jet against Professor X's orders. Thunderbird takes down the plane with his bare hands, killing himself and Count Nefaria in the process, but the Count doesn't stay dead forever. No. Uh, John informs Nightcrawler that they're part of a religion called the Ghost Dance, and they are the first link of the Infernal Gallop. The dance they perform now was originally performed to wipe out the white man. However, it's been refigured to remove Apocalypse from power. Nightcrawler breaks one of one of Proudstar's fingers because this this Nightcrawler is kind of a jerk. Really, he yeah. uh, he's just the worst. Uh, as they argue, we can see that they're being eavesdropped on by Danielle Moonstar. First appearance: Marvel Graphic Novel Number Four, November 1982 cover, created by Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud. Native American teenager Danny, a member of the Cheyenne tribe starts manifesting psionic powers at puberty, like most mutants do. Yep. Uh, initially, the Hellfire Club makes a play for her, but Danny's grandfather made arrangements with Professor X, who whisks her away to Westchester. 
She joins the just-minted New Mutants and gets along with everyone just swell. Though she does have a special friendship with Wolfsbane. It's like a sisterly uh, relationship. Uh, Danny seems to be deployed primarily when there is an ethereal or demonic entity to battle. Uh, later on, Danny will join S.H.I.E.L.D. and goes against her former teammates and colleagues when it, it was, she infiltrates the Mutant Liberation Front, but they don't they don't quite realize that right away. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Interesting lady. Yeah. Uh, Danny takes what she's overheard and rushes back to Apocalypse with it, and Apocalypse then orders some of his agents to follow Nightcrawler on his trip to Avalon. Those agents include... Dead Man Wade, a.k.a. Deadpool. Real name, Wade Winston Wilson. First appearance was New Mutants number 98, February 1991 cover date, created by Fabian Nicieza and, well, Rob Liefeld, huh? Uh, he, he created Deadpool? Yeah, that's right. That's interesting. Uh, Never mentions that. <laughs> Wade, Wade joined the Weapon X program after being kicked out of the U.S. Army Special Forces, and he was given an artificial healing factor based on Wolverines. He shoots guns and slashes swords and kills for hire. He's a merc. That's it. What? That that's all. He's just just he's a merc. What more? What more do you want me to say about it? He's a merc with uh. Halitosis problem. Oh, maybe that mask doesn't breathe very well. Could be. Could be. <laughs> uh, another one we have here is Emma Steed. And I, I wonder if this has an Avengers connotation. Uh, it definitely does. There's no question. <laughs> Her first appearance. Well, bag and board this one because we're looking at it now. Uh, Kurt loads into a submarine, which is uh, called Excalibur, uh, on his trip south. Meanwhile, we hop over to Avalon and Switchback and Marco run into Destiny who, upon touching hands with Switchback, becomes overloaded by visions of Apocalypse. And I think this is the final part here. Is it really? Wow, all right. I think Amazing X-Men number one. This was adjectiveless X-Men in the real world. Mm -hmm. Stories called The Crossing Guards by Fabian Niciesa and Andy Kubert. Fabian Niciesa? Well, we already met him. We already met him, but Andy Kubert was born... February 27th, 1962, and grew up with the rest of the Cuberts over in Dover, New Jersey. He is the son of Joe Cubert, brother of Adam Cubert, who we already met. And guess what? He graduated from the Cubert School. I mean, you're going to have to do it. Uh, his first gig was as a letterer for DC Comics in 1980, and his first credited artwork was for, just like his brother, a Sergeant Rock story, but it was Old, Sol- Old Soldiers Never Die, Sergeant Rock number 393, October 1984 cover date. Adam happened to be in the right place at the right time and found himself as the fill-in penciler on Uncanny X-Men following the image Exodus. This would score him a regular gig on X-Men Volume 2. He drew X-Men Volume 2, number 30, March 1994 cover date, which featured the wedding of Cyclops and Jean Grey. And he'd still be on the books when the Age of Apocalypse went down, so here he is! Hey! Now, uh, our issue opens with a prologue. Welcome to America. Welcome to a world and a time gone mad. Years ago, a mutant named Apocalypse conquered this land. And as Homo sapiens superior rose from the rubble, humans were left crushed by their climb to power. A few, the lucky ones, managed to flee to Europe and Asia. The rest remained trapped by a destiny they couldn't quite understand. Fodder for the work camps and breeding pens of the New World Order. We're in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, where a cloak 
masked stranger starts talking to the Graves family, who are hoping to escape to Europe. She learns that they expect their salvation to come from the sky, and she's quick to share that information with her pals, the Madri. Oh, by the way, this cloaked woman is this cloaked person is copycat. Real name Vanessa Geraldine Carlyle. First appearance, posing as Domino, New Mutants number 98, February 1991 cover date, created by Fabian Niciesa and Rob Liefeld. This is a former prostitute from Boston and Deadpool's ex-girlfriend. Vanessa uses her shape-shifting powers to be a mercenary after Deadpool breaks it off. Uh, this is after he, he gets diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. Uh, she initially takes the job as to uh, mimic Domino and blow up X-Force headquarters, however falls in love with Cable and decides not to go through with the gig. Uh, she actually makes her first appearance as Domino before Domino. Which is hilarious, but also Isn't awesome it? in its own way, too, right? <laughs> it is, right? Uh, now, uh, and, and I hope it wasn't by accident, but I can't... <laughs> you can't guarantee it, but yeah, I hope no, it was we planned. We'll, we'll just say it was planned, you know? Yes. Now, uh, Deadpool is enlisted next, and he snitches on Copycat and blows up X-Force base himself. Uh, don't worry, though. Everybody gets away okay. Right. They're uh, fine. <laughs> everybody survived. Uh, Copycat is forced to go into hiding after this, and she winds up being hunted by Deadpool and his associates. Uh, you know, some guys just can't let a girl go. Yeah, guys, just don't do that. You know, just, just break it off. It's done. Move on. Delete Clean. the contact. Yeah. <laughs> uh, back to the story and back to the mansion where Bishop roams the grounds alone. Caption reads, he looks over this wasteland he once called home and struggles to remember what it used to look like, should have looked like, if his reality had not been changed. For twenty years he has wandered this world, unsure of his place in it. As much as a time traveler from the future belonged anywhere, he knew he did not belong in this war-ravaged world. Why, then, does he now feel as if he's come full circle? Bishop continues his stroll and comes across the X-Men during a training session. They're fighting a hollow construct of a sentinel. And uh, let's meet some more X-Men. Sure. We got Banshee, who we've talked about a little bit already. Real name, Sean Cassidy. First appearance was X-Men number 28, January 1967, cover date. Created by Roy Thomas and Werner Roth. Initially, Sean is forced to be a member of the villain group Factor 3 when he's outfitted with an explosive headband. Professor X disables the headband telepathically somehow, or I yeah. guess telekinetically, sure. Um, One of those. And Sean becomes sympathetic to the X-Men, even joining their all-new, all-different retooling in 1975. His vocal cords are damaged, and he has to leave the X-Men for a time, living with Moira McTaggart on Muir Island, but he gets better. His powers include a sonic scream and the ability to induce vertigo in others. We also have Exodus, real name Bennett du Paris. First appearance, X-Factor number 92, July 1993, cover date. Born in the 12th century, Paris linked up with the Black Knight of his time, Yobar Garrington, to find the mystical Tower of Power, baby. <laughs> they, they have a falling out, so Bennett sets off to find it himself. After arduous searching through sandstorms, Paris collapses, then a mysterious voice speaks to him and bestows him powers. Sort of a mix of everything. Teleportation, telekinesis, a healing factor. He's, he's a pretty tough cookie. Yeah. He's, a, he's one of those that has what it takes, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the story calls for, he's got it. Now, uh, because of comics, the 20th century Black Knight, Dane Whitman, and, the, and Cersei the Eternal show up in the 12th century and tangle with Paris. Uh, they uh, recognize him as Exodus, the supervillain from the 20th century. 
Apocalypse is there too, and he commands Paris to kill Dane and Cersei, but Paris refuses. So Apocalypse strips him of his powers and seals him away in the Swiss Alps. Then, eight centuries later, Paris is found and freed by Magneto, becoming his right-hand man. Now, his name officially becomes Exodus, the one that uh, was recognized earlier. When Professor X mind-wipes Magneto, Exodus takes control of the Acolytes for a time, though he believes the mindless Magneto still speaks to him telepathically. Uh, don't worry, Magneto gets over it eventually, but currently, Exodus is the boss. Mm-hmm. As the X-Men emerge victorious, let's take a look at the creator of the hard-light sentinel construct. It's Dazzler. Real name, Allison Blair. First appearance was X-Men number 130, February 1980, cover date. Created by Tom DeFalco, John Romita Jr., and Roger Stern. Born in Gardendale, New York, Allison manifests her mutant ability to generate light while performing at a junior high school dance. Everyone assumes it's just a special effects light rig when it happens. Must have been one heck of a successful bake sale to raise the money for this. I mean, you know, this has got to be in some really rich neighborhood, you know, garden. Right. (laughs) Uh, So Allison becomes a performer using the stage name Dazzler and her mutant ability to dazzle crowds. Oh. There you go. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) When the X-Men and the Hellfire Club tangle during one of her shows, Dazzler fights back and turns, turns one of the Hellfire Club catatonic. She's offered membership in the X-Men and even the Avengers, but turns them both down. Dazzler does, however, help the X-Men out many times, sort of a special recurring guest star for a time. Uh, Galactus even endows her with the power cosmic temporarily. Talk about a charmed life, right? (laughs) Now, after moving to Los Angeles to pursue her career, she reveals herself to be a mutant and endures a lot of backlash. Uh, when she's saved from a plane crash by Cannonball and uh, Joshua after being freed from possession by the evil mutant Malice, Dazzler finally decides to join the X-Men proper. Uh, Dazzler has had relationships with Warren Worthington III and Longshot from the Mojoverse, uh, and kind of has a catty beef with Rogue. Now, interesting character, because Dazzler was originally a project commissioned by Casablanca Records in the mid to late 1970s to be a cross-promotion in the mold of Kiss who themselves had two successful comic book tie-ins with Marvel by the end of 1977. Marvel Comics would create a singing superhero, while Casablanca would produce a singer in the same mold. The two companies would then work with Filmworks and produce a tie-in motion picture. Jim Shooter wrote a treatment for the project. I think they started as a cartoon and eventually decided that it was uh, big enough to be a motion be a picture. Film, yeah. Yeah. Ramita Jr. originally intended for the character to resemble Grace Jones, but representatives from Filmworks wanted to promote model and actress Bo Derek and insisted on design changes to resemble her. She had recently, Bo Derek, that is, had two stints in Playboy magazine, plus a major motion picture success with the movie Ten, which came out in 1979, directed by Blake Edwards. Though Marvel did debut Dazzler in X-Men number 130, Casablanca Records was bought out and the rest of the project never materialized. But... That was not the end of the character. I mean, obviously not, since she shows up in the Age of Apocalypse. She's right here. (laughs) Yes, but Marvel did have big plans for her early on. According to Jim Shooter himself on his blog, he says, Noting the strengthening of the still-fledgling direct market, I propose to Galton that we publish a direct market exclusive issue. Uh, Galton was the parent company, correct? Yes. Around that time, X-Men and other top performers were selling around 30,000 copies on the, in the direct market, in addition to their newsstand sales. The sales department resisted, fearing angering the ID wholesalers, that's the newsstand distributors. The compromise is that we would use a lesser-known character, 
rather than a top seller, which the newsstand people might pay more attention to and might be upset by. I picked Dazzler. I figured it would provide a good test. Dazzler number one was the first all-direct comic book, at least from a major publisher. It sold 428,000 copies. Wow. I mean... That's a lot of books. It is unbelievable, you know what I mean? Like, even even for that time when comics regularly sold in the six figures... Sure. That would be a real high one, I'll tell you what. Uh, Absolutely. So, yeah, that definitely uh, opened their eyes to more direct market. The power of the direct market, yeah. Uh, But anyway, uh, back in the age of apocalypse, Dazzler lights up a cigarette and tells the gang they were one and eight-tenths of a second slower during their training, which leads to an argument which Magneto arrives to talk over and... We'll spare you at this time. Yeah. Uh, Bishop wanders over, holding baby Charles. I'm not sure I'd trust nope. my baby with a crazy ranting dude, but I guess we won't judge. I, you know, parents get real tired, you know what I mean? They'll, they'll take anything. <laughs> Hand them to everybody. Uh, Bishop says to the X-Men, Dreamers. And the caption reads, They are the first words Bishop has uttered in more than a day. He clutches the young boy named Charles tightly to his chest as if the child were a literal, were literally in a sea of confusion. A life raft in a sea of confusion, sorry. The boy is the second son of Eric Magnus Lenscher, Magneto, and the X-Men wonder why he lets the madman hold this dearest child. Yeah, us too. We were wondering that too, yeah. Yeah. Now here, Magneto updates the X-Men and the readers of the day uh, what's going on in the other X-Family books. You know, the quick and dirtier Nightcrawler looks for Mystique in Excalibre. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gambit and the gang look for the Emkron Crystal Shard in Gambit and the Externals. Rogue's team heads to Chicago to stop the Cullings in Astonishing X-Men. And Kitty and Colossus head to the Pacific Northwest in Generation Next. And uh, you already know that, too, because we've already read all of those just now. Hey, available in the archives? Well, once this episode is published. Oh, okay. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Then, Exodus uses his previously unknown powers of teleportation to take them to Maine, where we opened our story. While there, Quicksilver hangs around the human camps and even runs into that same family that Copycat chatted up back in the open. Uh, Storm is up in Newfoundland, uh, attempting to take out a defense tower, so the human High Council Sentinels will be able to make it into, you know, swoop up all the humans and and spirit them away. Mm. Uh, She whips up some cloud cover to shield the Sentinels' entry. Back in Maine, the humans are watching the skies. That Graves boy from earlier runs to get a better vantage point and winds up getting snatched by Horseman Abyss. Then, the Sentinels start pouring in, which is not at all what the humans expected to see as their saviors, so they start to panic. Dazzler whips up a hard light Weapon X and Jean Grey to confuse the Sentinels, and the X-Men rush in to try to take control of the situation. And this looks to end pretty poorly for Iceman, as Sentinels blast the bejesus out of him. The X-Men then find themselves stood before the Brotherhood of Chaos, whose membership boasts Box, real name Madison Jeffries, eventually. Uh, first appearance, Alpha Flight Number 1, August 1983, created by John Byrne. This is a mutant with the abilities to reshape metal, plastic, and glass and to sort of speak to machines and technology. Uh, Madison Jeffries created the robot box for Roger Box, B-O-C-H-S, a mechanic who lost the use of both his legs. Roger and the machine box were recruited to the Canadian super team Alpha Flight. Later, after tangling with Guardian of Alpha Flight, Box is shorted out and repaired by Jeffries, who adds a feature that allows Roger to merge with the robot. 
Eventually, Box, B-O-C-H-S, becomes uh, inextricable from the robot Box, B-O-X, so he enlists Madison's brother Lionel Jeffries to use his mutant power, which is manipulating flesh and bone, to extricate Roger from the robot. But Lionel had been accidentally turned insane by Madison, so he fuses himself with Roger Box, <laughs> then steps into the robot box to create Omega. All right. Madison Jeffries uses his powers to defeat Roger and Lionel and later merges with Box himself, improving his hardware and armor pretty much for this storyline. The very storyline, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got Spine with a Y. Real name unknown. First appearance, Cable, number 17, November 1994, cover date, created by Jeff Loeb and Steve Scrosi. Spine is a murderous cannibal mutant that looks like he's part snake, maybe. Uh, consequently, he's got snaky senses plus fangs, scaly skin, and a spiked tail. Uh, he's without humanity and doesn't have a secret identity. He was a member of the Dark Riders, which was one of uh, Apocalypse's earlier crews. There's also Arclight, which is a new character, however, one that shares a code name with Philippa Sontag, whose first appearance was Uncanny X-Men number 210, October 1986, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Romita Jr. A Vietnam veteran Sontag suffers from PTSD, and she channels that and her mutant power, which is to cause shockwaves on contact with another person, into a rage-filled personality. Sometimes this contact crosses, causes a bright light that looks something like a welder's arc light. There you go. Uh, she's a member of the Marauders, a team of mutant assassins assembled by Mr. Sinister, first appearing in Uncanny X-Men number 210, October 1986, cover date, by Claremont and John Romita Jr. There's also Yeti, uh, first appearance, uh, maybe right now, unless we, uh, unless this is a take on the Prime Universe's weapon, Prime, P-R-I-M-E, who first appeared in X-Force number 11. June 1992 cover date, created by Fabian Niciesa, Rob Liefeld, and Mark Pasella. Oh, and don't forget the one that debuted in Fantastic Four 99 from 1970, who was an Inhuman. We don't, the... we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't talk about Inhumans here. Uh, oh, oh well. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, th this is indeed the first appearance of this Yeti, but uh, <laughs> tell you what, don't get too attached to him. And that's the end. That's it. All eight books, boy. Woo, in the can. Woo-hoo. We next week, come, <laughs> next week we have more to come. We are going to, uh, we're actually going to wrap up half the books. We're going to cover Astonishing X Men issues two through four, Factor X two through four, Generation Next two through four, Weapon X two through four, and X Men Chronicles one and two, uh, which I for some reason read out of order, so I am already <laughs> on that one, but. Uh, yeah, we are we are going through this age of apocalypse, folks, and boy, it just, it's getting more and more apocalyptic by the moment. The uh, I tell you, these this this X the deep dive into these X Men characters is illuminating and hilarious at times, Chris. I got to tell it, you, it sometimes, is. You, <laughs> like I've said before, you never really understand how funny comics are until you start talking about them aloud. You're like, well, that sure, was, that was a little <laughs> weird, but. Uh, if you have anything you want to say, or if you think we got something wrong in the bios or the stories, or you want your own Age of Apocalypse to come upon us, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history, Or on Tumblr at cosmicteamailhistory.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter at CosmicTmail, and I'm on Twitter at ReggieReggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can find our weekly writings on DC comic books that are currently coming out on WeirdScienceDCComics.com. And you can see Chris's writings on DC comics that aren't really currently coming out 
On his personal blog, Chris is on InfiniteEarth.com, where he reviews a different DC comic from at any point in the time stream every single day. Uh, I think you're up to over 700 now, right? Over 900. Over, over 900. 900. We're in the home stretch here. God, it's, uh, it's almost like a child growing up. It's time get to flies. 1,000. Yeah, <laughs> and after 1,000, he's going to throw his computer out the window and go and be a hermit, so that'll be Big that. Hole, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you can check out the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you'll find our show notes, as well as a, uh, what's that word, where everything's in order? Uh, chronological listing. That's the one. <laughs> there you go. A chronicolo- chronological listing of all of our past episodes and yeah. all of our episodes of Weird Comics History and all the silly stuff we do. You find that all there at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a pretty good chunk of show we give it up today. I think that's all we got for him. Chris, got anything else for him? <sighs> I think that's it. Uh, well, folks, until next time, I want you to keep it on the treadmill apocalyptically. Oh yeah! I tell you, I just ain't right. Every time I fail or we fight, and I cannot explain what happens to me. I ruined your life, yeah, I know you'll agree. I took from you everything but your diamond ring When I slept with your sister, beat up your dad Told your mama her cooking was bad Hooked up with your best friend on our wedding night After all, these implements and text designed by intellects of X to find evidently there's so much that hides. And though the saints of us divine in ancient feeding lines, their sentiment is just as hard to pluck from the vine. Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 102, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the guest year of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by turning into Wolverine. Uh, not that Wolverine. No. Here we are in part three of our look at Marvel Comics X-Men event from 1995, the Age of Apocalypse. And uh, we are going to dig into uh, Astonishing X-Men, Factor X, Generation Next, Weapon X, and also read X-Men Chronicles number one and two with a concentration on number one. So uh, let's do a little recap here to, to bring us up to speed and then... Those listening to Week to Week, uh, we do apologize, and myself especially, for not having a new episode last week. Uh, I had a bad Wi-Fi connection. 
It happens. To How's the best that? Of us. How's that for you? <laughs> I, t- I tells only the truth. Anyway, uh, so Legion, who's the son of Professor Charles Xavier, that is the leader of the X Men as we know him, went back in time to kill Magneto, which he believed would facilitate the realization of his father's dream of a peaceful coexistence between humans and mutants. And he accidentally killed Xavier instead. Whoops. Whoopsie. Uh, this would lead to a splintering of the time stream in a world where the ancient mutant apocalypse ascended to power. The time-displaced X-Man Bishop, who was present when Xavier was inadvertently murdered, remained, and then lived for two decades in this eventually dystopian world before meeting this dimension's X-Men, led by Magneto. Now, Bishop explains the situation as he remembers it, and though wary and suspicious, Magneto feels it might be something worth looking into. Now, in the ser- we're going to discuss the series that splinter out of this. We got the Astonishing X-Men, and in that, Rogue is going to lead a team to stop Apocalypse's son, Holocaust, from calling humanity. And that's a story we'll be wrapping up today. Uh, also, Amazing X-Men. Storm leads a team to the Northeast and helps grant uh, scared humans safe passage to, to Europe, which is a place that has not yet been conquered by Apocalypse. Oh, but he's on his way. Uh, mm-hmm. In Gambit and the Externals, Gambit and his gang shove off to space looking to steal a shard of the Mkran crystal. And in Factor X, Cyclops and Havoc argue. A lot. That's how brothers can be. Uh, They also run Mr. Sinister's pens. More on that in a little bit. In Excalibur, uh, (laughs) Nightcrawler seeks out his mother Mystique so that together they can seek out Destiny. Uh, In Generation Next, Colossus and Kitty lead a team of young mutants into a human slave camp in the Pacific Northwest in order to search for Colossus' sister, Ilyana Rasputin. And we'll get to the bottom of that one today as well. Now over in Weapon X, Logan and Jean Grey work with the High Human Council in Eurasia, which will be our final book for today. And in X-Men, we meet Nate Grey, and we'll learn more about him next week. It's gonna, you're going to hear some of that in this episode, learning more about stuff <laughs> next week. That's the way it works. Uh, so, have you been wondering what happened before Bishop met the X-Men? Neither have we We have not really wondered But we've got the skinny for you anyway In X-Men Chronicles number 1 March 1995 cover date This is Origins by Howard Mackey And Terry Dodson Let's give you some nuts and bolts Howard Mackey was born January 22nd 1958 In Cypress Hills, Brooklyn Raised mostly by his mother His father having passed away when he was 7 years old Mackey started his career in comics In 1984 as an assistant editor For Mark Gruenwald Early in Mackey's career, a running gag in Grunewald's columns was that Mackey was a mysterious figure whose face no one at Marvel had ever seen. Howard said, I was working for an exporting company and having less fun than I thought I should be having. A good friend, tired of hearing me whining about how much my current job sucked, was aware that there was an editorial position opening up at Marvel. The job was to be Mark Grunewald's assistant editor. The salary was pathetic. The friend was Mike Carlin. I think he went off to do something involving a guy with a red cape. I worked as Mark Gruenwald's assistant editing the core Avengers titles for a couple of years and then received a promotion to managing editor. Nothing happened in that position, but I did start trying my hand at writing. It was strongly suggested at that time that assistants do something on the other side of the desk so that you could learn what it felt like to be a freelancer. Now, Mackie was promoted in early 1987 to managing editor of Special Projects, 
And then he would oversee Marvel's New Universe line. Uh, we discussed the Marvel's New Universe and its launch title, Star Brand Number 1, in Episode 71 in the archives. Though, uh, if you're to listen to it, it is more of a uh, Jim Shooter bio Pretty than much. an actual uh, book review uh, or book reading. Uh, now, his writing debut would, it would happen in Iron Man Number 211. That has an October 1986 cover date. And it was penciled by Alex Saviak. And he thought that this first writing assignment would be his last writing assignment. <laughs> But it was not. Um, we got to say, though, we're probably more interested in what was likely his second credit as writer, where he wrote Chuck Norris Karate Commandos, with K, number four, from July 1987. Yeah, we got to get that one. That is a that's, must That's got to be on the list, I, yeah. I love Chuck. Uh, <laughs> Mackey first gained attention as a writer in 1990 when he and artist Javier Saltaris launched a new Ghostwriter series for Marvel. Uh, number one was cover dated May 1990. They revamped the character and introduced a new host for the Spirit of Vengeance of Danny Ketch. Mackey wrote the Ghost Rider until issue number 69, January 1996 cover date, and that was drawn by Salvador La Roca. Mackey would become the regular writer of Web of Spider-Man with issue number 85 that has a February 1992 cover date, and he'd stick with the Spidey books until around the turn of the century through uh, reboots and also... That whole clone saga match hey. was just about in full swing during this age of apocalypse. Yeah. We're going to hop across the table. Terry Dodson, he comes from Oregon. He began working in 1991 for Revolutionary Comics. That's a company that put out black and white illustrated bios and stories about rock artists and rock groups. Uh, he first came to a mainstream prominence, prominence as the artist on Malibu Comics' Ultraverse title, Mantra. And that was 1993, and that was a character co-created with Mike W. Baugh. And that brings him right up to about this moment here. So mm -hmm. uh, we open the comic with Magneto standing atop Vundagore Mountain. Oh, bored already. He's going to start talking any minute. I can feel it. Mm. Uh, he's checking out the headquarters he'd built there to house his X-Men. Remember, the stories featured in X-Men Chronicles are pre-X-Men Alpha. This is the prequel to the Age of Apocalypse. Uh, so Bishop hasn't shown up yet, and the X-Men team looks quite a bit different than we even know them to be in their different state that we've seen already. Uh, he's joined by Quicksilver, who informs him that the X-Men are currently getting ready to begin training in the Killing Zone. Now, the Killing Zone is basically what we know as the Danger Room. Yeah, why did they even change the name? I mean, I, yeah. it's like, why? Anyway. <laughs> now, in the Killing Zone, we meet these X-Men. We've got Storm, Iceman, Jean Grey, Colossus, and, of course, Quicksilver. Also, the Scarlet Witch, who we mistakenly bioed a few episodes ago when we thought she was Heaven's uh, lounge singer. I mean, why would they call her Scarlet when we already have one? Well, this is the Marvel Universe. I mean, right now, right this second, how many people are running around calling themselves Spider-Man? That's very true. I think Manhattan yeah. is pretty well covered by spider people <laughs> at this point. And we'll we'll come to another uh, name, uh, Mishagas, and it's the very same issue. We will, uh, yeah. Magneto looks on for a bit before deciding to join in. He's not an on-the-sidelines kind of leader, you know. Once this session ends, he insists they begin a new one, a level four exercise, which is apparently a pretty big deal since the X-Men have never done one yet. Now, at this point, we meet the newest X-Men, Weapon X. And uh, he still has both of his hands at this point, uh, because in the current Age of Apocalypse continuity, yeah. he's missing one. He is missing uh, one, yeah. <laughs> now, he slices and dices the level four robots, but then he falls into a berserker rage. 
Magneto is able to settle him down by uh, slamming him into a wall. That's, is, that, is, that, uh, is that a good way to do it? I don't know. Might be. Uh, he might need an intermediary or something. There. But uh, now Gene then actually settles him down by soothing his mind. Whatever that means. Sure. Now uh, Magneto leaves Logan with the X-Men so they can have a little meet and greet. And then he excuses himself because he has yet another new recruit to welcome to the team. Meanwhile, in Manhattan, a massive ship hovers in the sky. The people of New York are greeted by a massive hologram projection of... Kendra, whose first appearance was in Gambit No. 1, December 1993 cover date, created by Howard Mackey and Lee Weeks. This is one of the immortal mutants known as the Externals and also part of both the Assassins and Thieves Guilds of New Orleans. Uh, she says she's the Herald of Apocalypse and warns that the era of humanity is at its end. Back at Wundagore, Magneto admires a photo of he and Charles Xavier. He's also aware, he's always brooding. He's, he's always doing that. He's, always, he's also aware that Apocalypse is about to make his move, but his thoughts are interrupted by... Bova! <laughs> Full name, Bova Arishire. <laughs> now, her first appearance was Giant Size Avengers number one from August 1974 cover, created by Roy Thomas and Rich Buckler. Now, if you haven't guessed, she's an evolved cow created by the High Evolutionary as one of his new men. Uh, she was a nursemaid and also a caretaker at Wundagore Mountain, and she chose to remain there after the Evolutionary decided to move on. She'd actually deliver Pietro and Wanda Maximoff uh, from her, their mother Magda. But would she uh, breastfeed them? And if were they at the other, same time? Yeah, that's that's what I <laughs> heard them and the other kids in town. Anyway, <laughs> come on over. Now, uh, during the uh, siege of Wundagore, her home was destroyed, and at that point, she ret she decided to return and live with the uh, High Evolutionary. Now, back to the story. She lets Magneto know that his newest X Man is here, and it's Rogue. And she's being dropped off by Mystique. And they have an overly dramatic goodbye scene. It's, like, really something yeah. to see. I mean, like, it looks like something out of a romance comic. Mystique's, <laughs> like, covering her eyes, like, no, I must go. <laughs> oh, it's really something else. Now, uh, the X-Men enter to meet the newbie, and Iceman is instantly excited to see that, that, that the, new, the newbie is a gal his age. And he goes to touch her. And she, of course, freaks out. Maybe a little overly excited, I would say, but he is a, he is a young fellow. That's all right. Yeah. Uh, Magneto is well aware of Rogue's power curse, and he and says he knows that during an earlier abduction attempt, she'd retained some of the powers of Polaris. Real name Lorna Dane, first appearance in X-Men number 49, October 1968, cover date, created by Arnold Drake and Don Heck. Lorna was identified as a mutant by Cerebro, the mutant-finding machine, and her powers first emerged when she was under the control of the villain Mesmero. Throughout her entire existence, there was this wishy-washy, is she Magneto's daughter storyline going on, and we think at present, meaning the present of this event. Recording, yeah. Uh, uh, or <laughs> even of this recording, she is, but it wasn't always that way. And, and hell, it might not even be that way this time next week. Well, they change it a lot. It, you know I don't know if the I don't know if the movie rights are a big deal anymore. That might that might affect her her parentage. That might that might affect her adoption uh, <laughs> papers. We'll see. Uh, so after a to do in the Savage Land and a short stint as Magnetrix, uh, that would be the Lady Magneto, I would guess, right? Lorna would join the X Men and would be even be taken captive by Krakoa, the Living Island. She'd get the Polaris name while, again, under the control of another. It was This time, it was the Shi'ar agent Eric the Red. Uh, Polaris and, and uh, 
Eric Alex Summers would hit it off, and though there was briefly a love triangle with Iceman trying to make time with the green-haired lass. Lorna and Alex would leave the X-Men and work for a bit on Muir Island, and they'd be called back into action to help rescue the X-Men from Arcade's murder world. Later, Lorna went under the control of the Marauder, Malice. Malice would take control over heroes from time to time. Even Sue Richards, the Invisible Woman. Uh, you know, this is back when she dressed really, really trashy. Oh, yes, the S&M Sue Richards yeah. outfit, yeah. We needed <laughs> some excuse that... for that to happen, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> now, it seems that uh, Malice and Lorna were actually a really good match because they somehow became grafted together. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Now, she got tied up with Zala Dane, who she thought was her sister. You know, get it? Lorna Dane, Zala Dane. Oh. Uh, then, a secondary mutation, like a decade before they became fashionable. This mutation caused Polaris to grow a lot. She became huge. And uh, this would only last until around the Muir Island saga. Now, after that oft-mentioned saga, Lorna would join the new-look X-Factor alongside her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Havoc. Now, back to the story, Magneto promises Rogue that she's safe, and that together they'll search for a way for her to control her gift. And they hug. Oh. It's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> we shift scenes to the Cape Citadel nuclear defense arsenal, where we meet Apocalypse's Five horsemen, is that right? I, uh, One, two, three, yeah. Huh? Uh, all right, that's uh, <laughs> the new in the, that's the new Bible. Uh, they include Condra, Sabretooth, and Gideon. Uh, first appearance, New Mutants number 98, uh, February 1991, created by Fabian Nicieza and Rob Liefeld. The external businessman with, with perhaps the worst, the, the externals businessman with perhaps the worst haircut in X-Men lore. It's really bad. Uh, after Sudspot left the New Mutants, Gideon took him under his wing, believing him to be a fellow external. Turns out he was mistaken. The external was actually Roberto's partner, Cannonball. Yeah, we don't talk about that storyline. <laughs> uh, we also have the Horseman of War, who doesn't get named, and the Horseman of Death, who also doesn't get named. Uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, they're both new characters. How exciting! <laughs> now, <laughs> the, the Horsemen are planning something, obviously. Uh, now, it's worth noting that Cape Citadel was the site of Magneto's first face-off with the X-Men, way back in X-Men number 1, September 1963 cover. Uh, this is also where the public was alerted to the very existence of mutants to begin with. Mm. Yeah, we hop back to Wundergore. Scarlet Witch gives Rogue basically the lay of the land. She even, you know, I, I guess when you go to, when you join Magneto's team, you have to hear about what happened to Professor Xavier. Oh, everybody, yeah. They should have, they should have a hallway lined with pictures. That's what is she, I think there might be one. I, I, I think there is actually a picture there, but I'm, I'm thinking just like take you through a whole like timeline, you know, back in the long ago. With like an animatronic Xavier, like uh, Lincoln at Disneyland. I, I am Professor <laughs> X. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Quicksilver does what he does best. He rushes in to sound some alarms about what's going down at Cape Citadel. Yeah, that's pretty much all he ever does is rush. He runs in, yeah. Uh, speaking of which, the horsemen are having one hell of a time messing fools up at that base. Looks like Sabretooth is in charge of that uh, fray. Also looks like the other horsemen don't like the fact that he's in charge. Uh, they bust inside, and Sabretooth informs the team that what they're looking for is underground. But before that, let's head back to Wundergore. Again! Uh, Magneto views what's going on at the Cape, and he laments the fact that they were too late to save the folks that the horsemen have already killed. And so the X-Men hop on their jet and head toward America, and they leave uh, the Scarlet Witch and Rogue behind. As the X-Men jet off, we can see that Magneto's citadel is being watched. 
by a very large blonde man named Nemesis, mm. who we know better as Holocaust. Okay. <laughs> now, after nearly hitting Apocalypse's cloaked ship, the X-Men arrive at the Cape, and they infiltrate. But back at Vundagor, De- Nemesis attacks the complex. Uh, we can see that inside there are young mutants in training, and they're unnamed and sort of a simplified blend of new mutants and Generation X costumes, sort of general mutant folk. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rogue sneaks behind Nemesis and gives him a whack, and he hits her back twice as hard. So Scarlet Witch gets involved and actually manages to hurt Nemesis with her hex bolts. Sucks to be her. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at the Cape, Gideon taps into the network and arms the nukes. Sabretooth is taken aback and believed they were just there to control the nukes. Come on, Creed. What, what, what do you think I they mean, were going to do with them? Why, what we're going to go get the nukes just you, to control them. You're controlling them to stir the pudding? I mean, what do you do with nukes, buddy? That's all there is to it. <laughs> <laughs> now, at this point, Kandra deems uh, Sabretooth unfit and pops him into a telekinetic bubble. But then the X-Men show up. Uh, Sabretooth convinces the horsemen that, you know, they might need him for this fight. And they agree, so he fights alongside them. Right. And, uh, you know, this is where we get our requisite Sabretooth Wolverine fight or Weapon X fight. Gene <laughs> uh, pairs off with Kandra. Uh, Magneto breaks away and heads inside to stop Gideon from tampering with them nukes. Doesn't go so well for Magneto, as Gideon has the power to amplify and redirect Magneto's own powers against him. Whoopsie! Mm-hmm. Uh, outside, Storm best death. Uh, the You know, the horseman death, not... The other death. The concept. <laughs> uh, and Colossus and Iceman de- defeat war again. <laughs> Not the concept. Uh, Weapon X severs Sabretooth's spine, and so there's that too. That happens. Uh, Magneto then draws power from Earth's magnetic field and blasts Gideon so hard it overloads him and the base explodes. Apocalypse emerges from his ship and looks down at the X Men. He claims to be impressed with the ease in which they took down his horsemen, even goes so far as to say he'd welcome them onto his side if not for them being tainted by Magneto. Speaking of Magneto, he's looking at a picture of Professor... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, he's out <laughs> and congratulates his X-Men for a job well done. Later, the X-Men return to Vundagor, where they find Wanda dead. <gasps> very, very sad. Yeah. Moment of silence, and we hop right into X-Men Chronicles number two. This is June 1995. It's called Shattered Dreams by Howard Mackey and Ian Churchill. Now, since we already met Howard Mackey, let's meet Ian Churchill. Now, he was born April 22nd, 1969, in the United Kingdom. Uh, if you want a trip, you can check out this fellow's Wikipedia page. It, it lists his, quote, early work as working with Jeff Loeb on Supergirl, which came out around a decade after the Age of Apocalypse. Ooh, maybe he was trying to excise all those years he spent drawing like Rob Liefeld, huh? Probably. Could be. Could be. Yeah. Now, prior to the Age of Apocalypse, Ian worked primarily on the X-Books. Uh, his first was a 10-page story called Beast Foot Forward, and that appeared in the X-Men Annual, Volume 2, Number 2, from 1993. He'd have stints drawing uh, for Cable's ongoing, also Deadpool's second miniseries, and... Sabretooth Classic, which is a title that actually existed in the real world and uh, and ran for over a year. You don't believe that. And it was good because I was tired of all those like modern Sabretooth. Like, Can we get down to the classic, the, you know, the core Sabretooth? Anyway. I mean, we, we can't get an Avengers title that lasts a year now. We get a Sabretooth yeah. Classic. I know. It's kind of amazing. Oh, boy. Now, we picked this story up in New Mexico. We're still pre-Bishop's arrival. 
However, we're post Weapon X losing his left hand, so a lot of stuff happened. Somewhere in those two, between those two issues, yeah. <laughs> now, speaking of Weapon X, he tells Magneto that he and Gene quit. And uh, it's here that we learn that on an earlier adventure, the X Men abandoned Gene at one of Apocalypse's camps. Hey, Weapon X says, Now, why don't you go have the rest of your ex kitties back off before one of them gets cut, Hoser? Uh, Sabretooth goes, You're playing with fire, runt. You even breathed too hard, and we're going to be all over you. Been waiting a long time to take a piece out of your hide. Magneto cuts him off. Sabretooth, this is between Logan and me. No one here wants to fight. Oh, that's where you're wrong, bub. I'm itching for one. Been that way since the day you had us abandoned Gene to Apocalypse's camps, you betcha. <laughs> now it's here that it's revealed that Weapon X was the one who rescued her, and that it cost him his hand. Now, Gene tries to calm Logan down and suggests that they just leave without further incident. And so they do. On the way out, though, she telepathically communicates with Magneto. Yes, and mentally says, Magneto, I understand why you did what you did, but right now, Logan needs me more than the team does. Forgive yourself. I have. Now we shift scenes to what was formerly Spokane, Spokane, Spokane is that how we say it? Spokane, Washington? Spokane, sure, that's fine. Spokane, One of those. Yeah. Somewhere in Washington, it is in Seattle. Uh, now, Holocaust stands among the wreckage. Uh, now, to make this podcast even more confusing, he is soon joined by Wolverine. Not, not that not one. Not that one. <laughs> First appearance, right now. Now, this Wolverine is a giant of a man and a product of McCoy's genetic tampering. And that's all we got. And really, that, that's all we need. Now, did they name him Wolverine specifically to confuse me? Because it worked. It did cause me to have to read uh, this issue like three times. Yeah, I think that was the point. I, was, this the point, right? I got my money's worth. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> oh, what? But did I just, I was, you know, because you just see him. But the way it is, is that this is Wolverine. In this world, this is Wolverine. And the one we know is Wolverine is Weapon it's X. Weapon that's, X. That's the idea. And of course, it, it was smart to do that with what was Marvel's inarguably most popular character at the time. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yeah, so the, you can have the, the solicits like, yes, yeah, so Wolverine and Holocaust. Exactly, uh, Wolverine <laughs> dies. On the street. Yes, Wolverine, in this issue, Wolverine dies. Yeah. Now, uh, at this point, Holocaust gives his next order. Yeah, he says, I've come up with something special for you, something which I think you'll find amusing. I'm sure you've heard of the band Rebels, known as the X-Men of Magneto. Wolverine goes, he's the one that hurt you so bad, made you wear that life support armor. The very one. Word has reached me that two of his rank have left the Rebel fold. You, you, you want me to find and kill him, boss? No, their leaving will have caused a chink in Magneto's armor, a weakening of the ranks. That will have hurt the X-Men, wounded his ego. I want you to find Magneto and cause him to suffer even more. I want you to find them and... Before he can finish this thought, they are jumped by a human. <laughs> a stupid human. It does not work very well for this human. It just seems to get... This scene just kind of comes and goes, but I guess... It's, right? <laughs> it's to show their brutality and how, you know, little humans are. <laughs> and then they continue their chat. Now, what, what do you want me to do with them when I find Magneto? They're find him and kill the closest to him while he looks on. He wasn't there when I killed his daughter, but he has another child, the boy Quicksilver. I want Magneto to be burdened with the death of both his children 
as I am burdened with this armor. Then, knowing his suffering, I will kill him. A few days later, the X-Men survey the damage of what used to be Denver, Colorado. They're also there to track a horde of bandits who have really bad mohawks. And uh, as we come to expect, Magneto talks a lot. This is the area which the bandit horde was last sighted. Quicksilver, you and Sabretooth have the point. And Sabretooth, this time when you find the bandits, wait until the rest of us arrive before dealing with them. You know, Mags, sometimes you can be a real wet blanket. Yeah, no kidding. Right? <laughs> I know. Iceman, Storm. <laughs> <laughs> At least he knows. At least he's aware. That's the first step. I know. Iceman, Storm, the three of us will keep close to the terrain. I don't want to announce our arrival prematurely. Gambit, you and Rogue watch the surrounding buildings for any sign of hostile activity. Colossus, keep an eye on all of our backs. Now, the X-Men have no trouble fighting the bandits because, come on, they're the X-Men. Yeah. Even in this alternate world, they can pretty much do it. Uh, Magneto is upset that his team doesn't appear to be taking this all that seriously. Enough! This is battle, not a training session. You're all taking far too long with this operation. We must act quickly, directly, brutally. If these had been Apocalypse's infinites instead of mere bandits, we would have lost some of our own number already. Weapon X and G knew the value of expediency. Well, it's too bad you ran them off then, isn't it? Right? You know? <laughs> you should have maybe uh, kept them on. Uh, so, Rogue and Gambit note that Magneto seems distracted, uh, though he seems uh, concentrating enough to orate for minutes at a time, so right? not too distracted. <laughs> Uh, nearby, another pair of bandits look on, and they get their noggins crushed by Wolverine. Again, uh, not that Wolverine. No, not him. Now, the, this noggin crushing uh, fills them with amazing powers, and then they rush in to fight the X-Men. Yeah, the nerd says, kill them! Kill them! Kill the them! Goes, the other one goes, Magneto! Kill them! Make him bleed! And uh, Gambit whacks one on the head with his staff. Uh, the other throws a obviously non-ferrous knife, which lodges into Magneto's back. Wolverine, not that Wolverine, is confused. <laughs> and so are we. <laughs> we are all confused. Now, he was led to believe from his chat with Holocaust that Quicksilver would be the closest person to Magneto. However, by all appearances, he seems much more intimate with the duo of Rogan Gambit. Uh, now, back at the X-Men's base, Magneto gets patched up. He's annoyed at Gambit for ordering a retreat during the Denver boondoggle, but the rest of the X-Men side with the Cajun. Now, before taking his leave, Gambit makes a little time with Rogue. That's what he does. Gambit says, <laughs> <laughs> Me and his sudden Belle got plenty of living to do together. Come on, Cher. Let's me and you go relax somewhere together for sure. <laughs> and Rogue says, Not now, sugar. I want to stay behind and go over next week's plans with Magneto. Iceman says, Not to worry, Cajun. You'll always have me to snuggle up to. Gambit, kissing Rogue's gloved hand, says, Looky me, chair, don't go talking too long. Me and you got some real important things to talk about. Back in Denver, Wolverine, not that Wolverine, drafts a bunch of punks in hope of taking his fight straight to the X-Men's doorstep. Back in New Mexico, Iceman really rides Gambit about his relationship with Rogue. Yeah, Iceman says, 
Please don't turn this into another rogue. It's just the sweetest little thing I ever laid eyes on, Session. I've heard it all too many times. Gambit. Can't help it, Bobby. Ta girl's something special. Oh, no. Say it isn't so. The raging Cajun. The last of the great ladies, men. My idol in the art of Amore. Has had his heart pierced by Cupid's arrow. How can I go on? What can I say? I never expected to settle down with any one woman. But it's certainly not in this godforsaken world. But... And then, Bobby asked the tough questions. All kidding aside, have you thought it through? I mean, her powers. You can never touch her. Never. Come on, Bobby. You think I'm only interested in Rogue for the physical thrill of it all? In part, probably. I mean, I would think so. That has something to do with it, right? Now, the chat ends with Bobby splooshing Gambit in the face. With, with a snowball. All right. An, an actual snowball. Oh, Come on. <laughs> Elsewhere, they're having fun. Can't you they can't, are loving don't life. Don't you let had two guys just having a gas? <laughs> uh, anyway, elsewhere in the compound, Magneto and Rogue share a moment. Uh, Magneto talks a lot, as usual, and they share a glance. One that freaks Rogue out enough to cause her to rush out of the room. Elsewhere outside the compound, Wolverine, not that Wolverine, finds the X-Men scent. And again, not that Wolverine, even though they, they both seem to have that scent thing yeah, going, right? Yeah, they even have, they, they even look similar. This was clearly done just to annoy me. <laughs> now, a short time later, back inside the compound, Rogue chats with Quicksilver. And they reminisce a little bit about the Scarlet Witch, and they also talk about their roles in the X-Men team. Rogue feels a little bit guilty about becoming Magneto's second-in-command when Pietro, his own son, isn't. Quicksilver's totally cool with it. It's fine. Yeah. Now, the talk is interrupted by the arrival of, you guessed it, Gambit. Well, here you are. I've been looking all over for your chair. Quicksilver goes, I'll just assume you're talking about Rogue and move to the side to admire the sunset. Pretend I'm not even here. And he does just that. (laughs) (laughs) Rogue, I've got something on my mind that I just can't wait for sure. I want you to know that I'm ready for a commitment, I guarantee. Your powers will learn to deal with them. All that's important to is us. Could you say something now, Cher? I'm feeling kind of foolish standing here. Anything, please. Rogue runs away. Ah, uh, ah, uh, I'm sorry, Remy. I'm so sorry. What just happened here? I don't know, Gambit, but I think you and my father need to have a talk soon. And so Gambit tracks Magneto down and finds him in the middle of a training session. Well, looky here. Just the man I've been looking for. Magneto, if you got a moment, I need to talk to about Rogue. She's acted awful peculiar and I was wondering. Gambit, we are training. Either be silent and watch or join in and be silent anyway. Listen to this guy demanding silence. Come on. <laughs> of all people. Uh, at that moment, directly outside the compound, Wolverine, not that Wolverine, and the bandits are, arrive. Worst band name ever, right? Really? <laughs> now, uh, after the training session, Gambit manages to get a moment of Magneto's time. If you've got to mean it, I'm sorry about busting in the practice and mouthing off and all. It's just, it's rogue. She's got me all twisted round inside. You mind if I bend your ear about her a little bit? Could it wait, Remy? I need to... I promise to keep it short. 
Gambit goes on to explain his intense feelings for Rogue, but uh, can't go on too long because the lady herself shows up. <clears throat> Excuse me, Gambit. I've got to talk to Magneto. It's very important. Gambit, gentleman that he is, gives Rogue and Magneto their space. It's now that Magneto demonstrates to Rogue that by creating an electromagnetic shield around his body, they might just be able to touch, you know, skin to skin. And what do you know, it works. Now, Rogue's eyes well up with tears. Uh, she's happy to finally feel the touch of another, or or at least to touch of another's electromagnetic yeah, shield, baby steps. We're getting there, you know. <laughs> now, someone far less pleased about this situation is Gambit, who has literally been lurking <laughs> in the trees watching them and saw the whole thing go down. What a creep. Right? And uh, so Gambit's eyes go red, er, and he lashes out. Chin! Treacherous dog! I'll kill you! Remy, what are you doing? Yeah, real smooth, guy. Right? Creeper. Me? What am I doing? You're the one standing here for sure. Touching her. Looking at her like... Like... Why, Eric? Why? You were my friend. My friend! Gambit turns to look at Rogue. And you! I saw the look in your eyes when he touched you. Did it feel good? Remy, please don't. Just cause you gave Wanda your vow to look after the old man, doesn't mean you have to. Rogue slaps Gambit, complete with a, how dare you? <laughs> Maybe I deserve that. But whether you know it or not, Cher, you're gonna have to choose real soon. Either him or me, I guarantee. I gotta say, it sort of seems like she's already chosen, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is this is like the guy, you know, while a woman's getting married. You're gonna have to choose some point. You're gonna have to make... You can't fire me, I quit. Yeah, yeah. exactly, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> then, the alarm sounds. The X-Men, minus Gambit, rush into action because Gambit stops for a cigarette. He's gotta have that, yeah. Now, <laughs> inside the compound, Wolverine and the bandits strike. Not that Wolverine. Uh, Wolverine actually manages to land a shrack on Magneto's back. Rogue throws herself on top of the fallen Magneto. Wolverine says, Sorry, Magneto. You're not going to be able to do too much talking to the pretty lady. I don't know who you are, but if you've killed him, I swear I'll... He won't die. I need him to live. Live to see you die. Goodbye. <laughs> By now, Gambit's already finished his smoke, and he leaps into the fray. Literally leaps into the fray. It's not going to happen, mon ami. I got some feelings left for the lady. Wolverine ain't terribly impressed, and he backhands Gambit with a crack. Next, Rogue attempts to whap Wolverine, but looks to hurt her hand in the process. Wolverine, not that Wolverine, attempts to reason with Rogue. He says, if she lets him kill her, he'll spare Magneto. Which, were, those are his orders anyway. He was supposed to save Magneto for Holocaust, right? so it's sort of an empty offer here, but uh, Gambit lunges in for another punch. That's it? A punch in the gut and you expect me to crumble? I've been slapped harder by little girls. All right, we got to hear that story next, right? Wolverine. What's, what happened there? But uh, <laughs> When did you get in, into what, it with little what, girls? When did the little, why were the little girls? How many of them? I need to know a lot more there. Uh, Gambit says, well, actually... I never considered taking you out with the punch. You see that there rock behind your belt? That's right. The one that's glowing? Yes, since this is a podcast, we will let you know there is, in fact, a glowing there rock. There is a glowing there. rock, yes. Uh, well, it's all part of my power is to turn potential energy into kinetic energy. What the? 
and Wolverine goes, Bracoom! And the X-Men are victorious. But Gambit quits the team. So now we know. Why and how, sort of what <laughs> led up to the uh, events of the Age of Apocalypse. And now we can dive right back into... Now, did these come out? This is a sequence these came out, Chris? These two come out? No, in no the middle these of are... The, the, I just picked different uh, different miniseries. It's just to wrap them up. Yeah, so I, are, I hear you. The, we're the, jumping all over in the order. In the order for the you know the online order, they put these obviously first. But I they didn't come out first. I think right. They no, no, later. they did. No, they came but, out later. Yeah. So that was nice to fill in. Fill in answered all of your questions. Obviously, you never knew you had yeah. made it crystal clear. You were like, oh, now it all makes sense. Anyway, <laughs> so. Let's dive right back into the story proper, beginning with Astonishing X-Men number 2, April 1995, cover date. This is titled No Exit by Scott Lubdell and Joe Maduera. We have Scott Lubdell. Met him in the last episode, so here's the fast version. He's born either August 24th, 1960, or someday during 1963, perhaps in or near Marlboro, New York. He didn't grow up a comic book fan, only resorting to reading them while convalescing after lung surgery. He studied psychology in college for two years and then worked on a college newspaper as a writer and cartoonist and would do some interviews, including editor Al Milgram, who he felt he had an in with at Marvel. For the next year and a half, he'd regularly travel to Marvel HQ and drop off story synopses and began networking with a few Marvel editors. He'd pitch a story to Tom DeFalco for the Marvel Comics Presents Anthology, where he'd use obscure characters because had he chosen a big-name character, it would probably have to be okayed by upwards of four editors. Uh, He would go on to become the architect of the X-Men line and took part in many crossovers, including this one. Hopping across the table to Joe Mad, Born December 3rd, 1974, he's half Portuguese. He attended the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan. While still in high school, he was an intern at Marvel Comics working under Danny Fingeroth. First published work was an eight-page story that appeared in Marvel Comics Presents number 89, November 1991 cover date. The story was called What's Wrong With This Picture? And it's a story starring Mojo and was written by Dan Slott. Prior to taking the gig on Uncanny X-Men, Joe provided art for X-Family Books Excalibur. That was issues 57 and 58. He also did the Deadpool Circle Chase miniseries in 1993. He joined Uncanny X-Men as the regular writer. If you say regular in quotes, he he didn't make every issue. Okay. Uh, Now, he came on with issue 312. This is May 1994, and less than a year later, he took part in the Age of Apocalypse. Yeah, so hopping in the comic, uh, we got Rogue's team arriving in Chicago to put a stop to Holocaust's next culling. The humans are, as you might imagine, going nuts. (laughs) One of the humans bears the tattoo of Iron Fist. Real name, Danny Rand. First appearance, Marvel premiere number 15, May 1974, cover date. Created by Roy Thomas, Gil Kane, and Bill Everett. Trained under Lee Kung, the Thunderer, in the mystical city of Kun Lun. Went to America and met Professor Lee Wing and his daughter, Colleen. Also, Colleen's partner, Misty Knight, who Rand would start a relationship with. Danny would team up with many of Marvel stars of the 70s, including White Tiger, Shang-Chi, Jack of Hearts, and of course... Luke Cage to create the Heroes for Hire. With uh, Danny would seemingly die in their final issue, uh, Power Man and Iron Fist number 125, 
September 1986, but he got better. So that's of fine. course, yes. <laughs> now, while while trying to calm the humans down, Sunfire's power starts going crazy, and he ignites. The humans, as you might imagine, continue going nuts as now they think Holocaust's hordes have already arrived. After being sort of kind of calmed down, Shiro suggests not worrying about getting the humans to safety, and instead concerning themselves with taking on Holocaust head on. Uh, he, then he heads skyward and starts blowing up Holocaust probes with his flame powers. Now, Rogue catches up with him and informs him that he's really only making matters worth. worse. She touches him with her bare hand, which takes us to flashback time. Suntire was captured by Holoca- Holocaust and Apocalypse after destroying his homeland of Japan. And he kind of blames himself for the whole thing, which is why he's wigging out here. The flashback is short, as during it, Apocalypse choked poor Shiro out, so... <laughs> You know, he doesn't remember much after the lights went out. (laughs) Back in the present, Shiro's got hard feelings about Rogue's callous invasions of his memories. Rogue attempts to reason with him, assuring him that the fall of Japan wasn't his fault. Shiro comes around and goes on task, now helping the X-Men evacuate the humans. Back in Westchester, uh, Magneto is approached by Bishop. Bishop is ticked that the X-Men are out risking their lives while Magneto hides at home. What Magneto's actually doing is cradling his son while he falls asleep. And looking at Professor Xavier's picture, of course. I'm sure of it, I'm sure of it. <laughs> uh, now, Bishop goes to apologize, but Magneto ain't, ain't, he ain't hearing it. Because, uh, you know, if Bishop is correct with all of his nonsense he's been spouting, and this world was never meant to be, that also means that Charles Lencher, the baby, was never meant to be born. And if this mission goes according to plan, he will never be born. So he wants to spend as much time with him as possible. Uh, Magneto asks Bishop to leave so he can spend what may very well be his final night with his son. Over in Manhattan, Apocalypse watches the events of the of Amazing X-Men unfold, and we'll discuss the rest of that series next week. Uh, and you'll hear that, that phrase again, like I said. Uh, Rex <laughs> enters the stronghold and reveals that he was able to deduce the X-Men's location. It's, you know, in Westchester. Duh, we just saw them there. So Apocalypse readies his men for a visit. I'm going to get in the Metro North, I guess, probably get off <laughs> peak hours right up to uh, Westchester. Uh, back, back to Chicago, Sabretooth pulls Blink aside, and he's got a proposition. No, no, not, nothing like that. Oh. He, he just wants her to take him to Holocaust. Well, Clarice isn't sure what to do. It's revealed here that Victor Creed once saved her life from abyss, and she hates the idea of sending him to certain doom. But Blink eventually comes around and agrees. Not so fast, Blink. Rogue might have something to say about that. Yeah, probably something along the lines of no. Uh, Now, Blink uses her powers to briefly displace Rogue, allowing her a fraction of a second in order to send Sabretooth and Wildchild directly to Holocaust. Who's hanging out in Indianapolis? (laughs) Why? (laughs) The nicest time of year, I guess. The races. Uh, Now, uh, (laughs) Sabretooth runs into Holocaust nearly straight away. And they briefly reminisce about the long ago. Sabretooth ain't too keen to continue chatting. Sabretooth, uh, I mean, Holocaust does the whole Bond villain thing, and he reveals that he sent all of the surviving humans to an infinite processing plant nearby. Sabretooth unhooks Wildchild from his leash and sends him off. And then he leaps into battle with his old running buddy Nemesis. While they fight, it's revealed that Holocaust wears his armor due to an injury he'd suffered at the hands of Magneto. They fight. Holocaust wins. And we learned about him getting that injury in the Chronicles, but we mm-hmm. didn't really learn what the injury was, but I guess that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's good enough for uh, us. Yeah. Astonishing X-Men number three, May 1995, cover date. This is titled 
In Excess by Scott Lobdell, Jeff Loeb, and Joe Mad. Now, the only guy we don't know here is Jeff Loeb. This is Joseph Jeff Loeb III, born January 29, 1958, in these United States. Perhaps somewhere around Stanford, Connecticut, because that's where he grew up, but we're not positive. Uh, Jeff would meet Elliot S. Magan at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts. Jeff did not attend. He did, however, graduate from Columbia University in New York with a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's Degree in Film. Loeb's filmmaking debut was writing Teen Wolf with Matthew Wiseman, which was released August 23, 1985, starring Michael J. Fox. When Loeb was working on the screenplay for DC comic character The Flash, the deal fell through. Fortunately, not before Jeff had the opportunity to meet then-DC Comics head honcho Jeanette Kahn, who asked him to write some comics. His first work was the eight-issue Challenges of the Unknown miniseries that ran from March through October 1991 cover dates, which saw him paired with a fella he'd collaborate with a whole bunch, kind of become a duo, uh, Tim Sale. And uh, by the way, that Challengers did recently get reprinted in a trade, I think, so if you want to look at it. yeah. Uh, Loeb would do a few one-off stories for DC Comics, including Batman Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween Special, prestige format December 1993. Then he'd do Cable for Marvel, which became X-Men. Now into the story, a fresh-off-the-leash wild child arrives in Chicago with a whole bunch of infinites hot on his trail. They eventually catch him. No, I, I gotta stop you for a second, Chris. <laughs> do, do we find out why wild child is on a leash? Because he's wild. All right, fair enough. <laughs> I think that's as good as what we're going to get. Yeah, a question asked and answered, fine, that's good. Now we have Holocaust arrives, and he stomps right on poor Kyle, that's Wild Child's head. But I guess more in a symbolic way, because it doesn't get all smushed. Wild Child sniffs, and then decides to play dead. Holocaust starts monologuing at the at the believed-to-be KO'd Wild Child, promising that he and the X-Men will only live long enough for Apocalypse to personally see to their individual deaths. The Holocaust, the um, sorry, the Infinites are confused. Uh, you know, after all, there's no way Holocaust could have beaten them from Indy to Chicago. Hmm. Oh, this is very weird. You figure this out yet? Mm-hmm. It is, of course, Morph. The whole time, once he has Wild Child in hand, he pulls the old Michigan J. Frog top hat and cane routine and dances away. <laughs> and this really confuses the Infinites. Then, I was, I'm pretty confused myself, but all right. <laughs> morph, morph does like Morph does. Morphing around. Uh, <laughs> then Sunfire arrives to burn them all to death. Blink and Rogue pop out of the Blink disc, and a Wild Child licks the ladder on the cheek so she can absorb his memories. So now they know where Victor is. In Indianapolis, Holocaust hoists the chain body of Creed aloft, showing him that the infinite processing plant he'd mentioned last issue. He refers to it as the heart of Apocalypse's empire. In Indiana? Really? Maybe he means the heartland of Apocalypse's empire? I don't know. Real real estate's pretty cheap out there, so that probably has something to do with it. Now they bicker for a bit, which segues us right into a flashback. And it's a flashback of Sabretooth and Weapon X rescuing Blink during the good old days. Uh, This isn't actually Sabretooth's memory, but it's a segue into Blink, because she has just shared that story with the rest of the X-Men. We hop back to Xavier's, and guess what? Bishop and Magneto are having another argument. (laughs) (laughs) And and this time, Bishop's packing heat. You see, Magneto just wants to be sure that Bishop is capable of killing if and when they travel back to the past. I'd love to see the argument like Bishop's just like, I want to look at Xavier's photo for a while. (laughs) No, I have to look for it. Anyway, uh, 
While they go back and forth, Nanny enters holding baby Charles, and she transforms into an egg or cocoon, a transformation referred to as DEFCON Armageddon. This can only mean Apocalypse has found them. Back at the Infinite's plant in Indianapolis, Holocaust monologues. Then an intruder alarm sounds, but it's only a giant whale washed up several hundred miles inland. Figure it out yet? Mm Hmm? Hey, it's Morph again. Hey, you. <laughs> and when he opens his giant whale mouth, all the X-Men pour out. And then he changes into an octopus to crush the bad guys. So <laughs> he's keeping it on theme, I guess. Uh, now, we, we wrap up this issue with Blink finding Sabretooth chained to a pole, and his chest is torn open. I mean, Whoa. you see his ribs hanging out and everything. It's Gross. Pretty gruesome scene. And then we we go to the final issue of Astonishing X-Men, Astonishing X-Men number four from June 1995. This is Holocaust by Scott Lobdell and Joe Mad. Start with Blink confronting Holocaust, and they fight. Holocaust hurls Blink, however, she just as she opens a portal and pops right back out to punch him in his face. Uh, then she, you know, she opens another portal under Holocaust, which leads to him taking a dip in a vat of acid, which is handy. Nice. Uh, meanwhile, the X-Men fight a bunch of infinites. Morph tries to make light of the situation, but the X-Men are less than receptive, you know, since, best case scenario, they all die tonight. <laughs> in Manhattan, Apocalypse has taken Magneto hostage. This will occur in a book we're going to be talking about next week. Uh, Apocalypse forces Magneto to watch Rogue's team on one of his hollow screens. He then tells Magneto that he's waited 2,000 years to rule the world, then KOs him with a snap of his fingers. Back in Indianapolis, the group of infinites are preparing to execute a group of flat scans. Nearby, Wild Child howls into the night. Sunfire then blasts into the scene and incinerates the bad guys before freeing the prisoners. Elsewhere inside the plant, Blink catches up with the rest of the X-Men. And just then, Holocaust bursts out of the acid vat. Rogue, Morph, and Blink take the fight to Apocalypse Jr. Holocaust whams the hell out of Rogue. Which is to say, you know, he punches her really hard. Don't yeah. think anything else. Uh, Morph then morphs into the form of baby Charles to bring her back to her senses. And she proceeds to beat the crap out of Holocaust right onto a teleplatform. Now, Holocaust hits the activation button to teleport both he and Rogue away, if not for a handy ice lasso from Iceman. We end this uh, volume with the Astonishing X-Men standing ready to face what's to come. Next, X-Men Omega. And then, go to the other miniseries here. We got Factor <laughs> X, number two. <laughs> next All of these next stories... only for that series, folks. We <laughs> yeah, have a bunch yeah. more books to get through before oh, yes. that. Yeah, we're going to be saying next X-Men Omega three more times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is Factor X number two, April 1995. Story's called Abandoned Children by John Francis Moore and Steve Epting. Let's give you a little bit on JFM here. He was born 1968 somewhere in the United States of America. Not a whole lot about this fellow online, so we'll just talk about some of the things he'd worked on before this Age of Apocalypse event. He wrote a few original graphic novels for DC Comics, including Batman slash Houdini, The Devil's Workshop in 1993, and Superman Under a Yellow Sun in 1994. The latter was actually presented as a, quote, novel that was written by Clark Kent. He's also responsible for the hip, cool 90s take on Dr. Fate, but uh, we won't hold that against him. No. Uh, over at Marvel, Moore worked on the, in the 2099 department, writing for both Doom 2099 and X-Men 2099. And he'd pop over to X-Factor with issue 108, 
November 1994 cover date and stick around long enough to take part in this year Age of Apocalypse event. Across the table, we got Steve Epting. He received a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Graphic Design from the University of South Carolina. In 1989, Epting read about a contest being held by independent publisher First Comics looking for some new talent. The winning story was to be published by the company, only the contest didn't actually exist. Epting would be declared one of the quote-unquote winners anyway and do fill-ins on First titles Dread Star and Whisper. By 1991, First was out of business, and after sending some samples around the industry, Epting found work at Marvel Comics on the Avengers. From here, he would jump over to the X-Books and even take part in this, the massive Age of Apocalypse event. Into the story, we meet up with Lorna Dane. We know her as Polaris, and she's dreaming that Magneto has come to save her from the Black Tower, which is the home of the Brain Trust. Their first appearance is now. Right. They are a they're they're jar they're brains in jars. It's a collection of <laughs> in vitro brains of six telepaths that were bred by Mister Sinister in order to keep prisoners of the pen from even thinking about escaping. Considering how many we've already read tried to escape, I'm really not sure why he even bothered. Meanwhile, Cyclops and Havoc chat up Apocalypse regarding Mr. Sinister's disappearance and or betrayal. Again? <laughs> this has got to be the fourth time we're having this conversation, right? Yeah, I, they, that's pretty much all they ever tell him. <laughs> Anything new? No, just that. Again. Yeah. Now, Apocalypse picks Cyclops as the new leader of the Pens, suggesting that he might also be in line to become a horseman. <laughs> Poor Havoc is probably thinking, yeah, really? are you freaking kidding me? Uh, now, I've been working here a long time, pal. Right? You know? <laughs> and and, I, and, and I, I don't care about killing kids. I'll do that. But uh, you know, Scott promises to do his best. Alex attempts to add something, but Apocalypse just waves his hand in its face. It's really sad. Yeah, he's just like, go, go away with you. <laughs> uh, later, Havoc and the Guthries check out some security footage, which reveals that a cloaked figure did indeed attempt to assist Lorna Dane. They question her, and by question, we mean beat. Uh, she's sure it was Magneto helping her, but you see, she's also insane. Uh, Lorna lashes out at Alex, and but gets tased for her troubles. Alex says he's going to hand her over to the Beast, and hoping he can yoink all the information they need out of her adult brain, he does just that. Mm-hmm. Elsewhere, Cyclops and the Bedlam Brothers are approached by Angel. He's there to warn Scott about the rumors of a full-scale war brewing in Europe. Over at Heaven, Alex is off making time with Scarlet, who is not the Scarlet Witch, apparently. Nope. <laughs> so he reveals that he wants to, you know, off his brother and claim his rightful position at Apocalypse's side. After he leaves, Scarlet makes a phone call. You see, we wouldn't know it, but she's a spy. Oh, I see. Back at Beasts, Cyclops learns of the torture being conducted on Lorna Dane and orders it stopped. After all, Apocalypse is still negotiating with Europe to keep the peace. Sure he is. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about that, that negotiation. <laughs> As Scott leaves, Lorna believes he's Magneto. Talk about a fixation here. You know, geez, everywhere she looks, and daddy issues <laughs> on top of that. Uh, that night, Lorna is rescued by someone in a cloak with a glowing red eye. They're attacked by Northstar and Aurora, but Psychar, the cloaked individuals, easily able to take them down. Uh, he delivers Lorna to Val Cooper. First appearance, Uncanny X-Men number 176, December 1983 cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Romita Jr. She's a special assistant to the President's National Security Advisor with a primary concern of the danger mutants posed to the United States. 
She was a part of the commission that claimed ownership to the Captain America intellectual property during one of the several dozen times Stephen Rogers uh, denounced that role. Uh, Val helped choose his replacement, John Walker, who we'd later know as U.S. Agent. Val Cooper was corrupted by the Shadow King in order to shoot Mystique. She was able to will herself out of it and turn the gun on herself, but she got better, don't worry. Cooper played a role in having the second incarnation of X-Factor work as a government-sponsored government -sponsored entity. She'd be replaced as liaison to the team by Forge. And wouldn't you know it, Havoc saw the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Factor three, Factor X number three. We have May nineteen ninety five cover date. This is called "Open Wounds" by John Francis Moore, Steve Epting, and Terry Dodson. Uh, one of the weirdo hybrids created by Hank McCoy busts out of the pens. Cyclops and Havoc are able to take it down. Havoc also comments at how poorly the pens are running under the new leadership. Very subtle, Havoc, yeah. Yeah, yeah a little passive-aggressive, a little, you know. He's, 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 he's being passed over a lot, though, I gotta admit. This guy's got, a, got an axe <laughs> to grind, up. yeah. Uh, outside, Jean Grey arrives, and, oh, by the way, she's got long hair again somehow. Yeah. Uh, she hopes to reach Mr. Sinister so they can overthrow Apocalypse before the Human High Council drops their nukes. Well, about Sinister, he don't live here no more. Uh, she stops around the place until she's taken by surprise by a wolf. And as Jean fights it off, Havoc blasts her in the back. Over at Club Heaven, the Bedlam brothers arrive to arrest Scarlet, who they know has been in cahoots with the Human High Council. You might be asking, when did they find this out? Well, that was in Amazing X-Men number two, which we will be talking about next week. All right. Now, uh, okay, it's going to be very important. She's nauseous. Mm, for whatever reason, mm. but tries to escape anyway. She doesn't get all that far. What's more, Angel doesn't even try to help her. He's like, nah, it sucks to be you. <laughs> uh, he does wonder aloud, though. I wonder if Alex knows that you're a spy. I, I would venture to say no, because she'd probably be dead. Yeah. Um, back at the pens, Havoc confronts Cyclops and accuses him of being a spy. He brings him to McCoy's lab and shows him Jean Grey. Whoa. Oh, Scott is stunned, and we hop into a flashback about an early encounter between Scott and Gene. Alex gives Scott an out, says to prove you're not a traitor by killing Gene Gray. Scott ain't about to do that, and so he's attacked by the Guthries. Havoc uh, decides to promote the Guthries to prelates. Uh, I'm not sure he's got the authority to do that, but it is the thought that counts. In fairness, though, he also promotes himself to commander of the base. Yeah, I'm I'm positive he doesn't have the authority to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, that's just, you can't just promote I mean, yourself. How you, how, how's that going to get the payroll? <laughs> really? I mean, how do you got to the human resource? Yeah. Uh, so Havoc let hand Cyclops over to McCoy to do with him as he pleases. Gene's able to telekinetically lift Cyclops' visor, and he blasts McCoy, and together, the two of them escape. In the throne room of Apocalypse, Apocalypse learns that Alex has succeeded Scott as ruler of the pens, and he's pretty cool with it. He asks Rex to pass a message on to Alex, and the pens are to be shut down, and all of the prisoners culled. It's like he just got the job. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're shutting, we're shutting down the department. Sorry. <laughs> we're You'll get your severance. We're just closing down this. Uh, this uh, <laughs> you're being laid off. Exactly. Yeah. This is a you know we're 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 consolidating here. <laughs> we're downsizing havoc. Sorry. Uh, now we're gonna wrap this one up in Factor X number four, June 1995 cover date. Stories called Reckonings by John Francis Moore, Steve Epting, and Terry Dodson. 
Now Havoc gives the order for the Elite to cull the pens. The Beast and the Bedlams ain't so sure about that. After all, you know, the Beast has a vested interest in keeping his test subjects alive, obviously. And uh, the Bedlams aren't keen on killing the weak. Uh, seems like they're definitely in the wrong line of work then, I gotta say. <laughs> I mean, at the very least, they're working for the wrong boss. It's, I mean, yeah. that's, whole, that's apocalypse. That's its whole thing, is, is that the only strong <laughs> survive, yeah. Now, Havoc gives the order again. Oh, and also find his brother and kill him as well. Right. Uh, now, speaking of his brother, we have Scott and Gene on the run with designs on releasing all the prisoners before they can be called. They run into the Bedlams, who actually wind up siding with them. They offer to help Scott by dealing with them pesky Guthries. Back at Club Heaven, Angel shows his true colors no longer playing both sides. He turns on the Infinites. And then over at the base, the Guthries and Bedlams fight it out, with the Bedlams getting the better of that uh, competition. Over in the Black Tower, Cyclops and Jean release more prisoners, this time by literally boiling the brain trust right in their jars. Yeah, they're pretty useless. I, you know, once you, once you turn up the heat underneath them, there's not <laughs> a lot more. Not a whole lot they can do. Not the they can't they run. Can nope. Yeah. Uh, upstairs, Havoc interrogates Scarlet. That would be the spy Scarlet. Uh, asked why she he shouldn't kill her where she stands, but I mean we mentioned she was nauseous a little bit earlier, so obviously she, she's pregnant, right? Any time a woman is nauseous in in any literature, in fiction, yeah, yeah, she must be pregnant. And Alex is shocked by this. Then the lights go out, courtesy of the Bedlams. In his lab, Hank McCoy is attacked by by a bunch of his test subjects, and so he flees to greener pastures. Cyclops and Jean continue leading the freed prisoners out of the base, but Havoc attacks. After some brother-versus-brother action, Cyclops wins. He does refuse to kill Alex, though. He and Jean and a whole bunch of prisoners successfully escape. Later on, that wolf that attacked Jean a few issues back wakes Havoc up. <laughs> Why? Where did this, why did this come back? All right. <laughs> and when Havoc wakes up, he swears to kill his brother. Next, X-Men Omega. But first, <laughs> Generation <laughs> Next, number two, April 1995, cover date. Hither Comes the Sugar Man by Scott Lubdell and Chris Bachelow. Bacalow, Bachelow, what do we say? Bacalow. One of those. Yeah. Uh, we say both. We, say... we do. We usually do. <laughs> we say Go every which way. One day he'll, he'll correct us and we'll do the right one. Uh, Bachalo is when we do too sometimes. Anyway, uh, <laughs> born August 23rd, 1965 in Portage La Prairie, Canada. Uh, though Canadian, he was raised in Southern California. Chris studied at Cal State, Long Beach, and majored in graphic art. Drew for some underground comics during college. Uh, for DC Vertigo, he drew Sandman and Death. Bachelot's first published work was on Sandman number 12, January 1990, cover date, though he had already received his assignment for Peter Milligan written Shade the Changing Man. He was selected by Neil Gaiman to draw, bo draw both of Death's miniseries. This was Death... The High Cost of Living in 1993, and Death, The Time of Your Life, 1996. For Marvel, he penciled a few issues here and there before joining up with Scott Lubdell on Generation X, which brings us right about to this point. Yes, uh, we open with Ilyana Rasputin and a young girl named Ace, and they're hiding inside the cave, careful to remain still and quiet because he's here. Who's he? Well, that's the Sugar Man. First appearance, here and now. Uh, this man, uh, he's basically a giant face on a round body. It's like kind of like a, like Danny DeVito fell into like a, <laughs> like a mutation device. Yeah. Uh, this this fella runs the camp. 
And uh, old Suge comes sniffing around. Uh, literally, he's snorting and sniffing. Yeah. Uh, before he stops, turns, and walks away. He's kind of an incredibly gross yeah, he's thing, person thing, or whatever. Uh, top side, a pair of guards are taking a ride on a carriage, crudely named, crudely marked a pox shuttle. I love it. <laughs> They're bragging about their recent kills. They certainly don't know that their driver's actually Generation Next member, Skin. And also that their fellow passenger is Chamber. Jono kills the two guards with his psionic powers. Outside the core, we join Colossus and Kitty Pride. They're arguing about how they're going to infiltrate. Uh, Colossus quickly grows impatient and decides to just bust in without Shadowcat. No sooner does he step away than she gets captured by a goofball named Undercloak. I think you need the braces to correct that, right? I think that's how that think works. So, yeah. yeah. So, so are we gonna are we gonna give this guy a bio? No, no, by the time we're done, Colossus will have already smashed him to death with a boulder, so don't worry about it. True, true, yeah, well, well, waste not, want not. <laughs> right. Uh, now, we we jump to a spa in the downtown area where Husk <laughs> is bathing a disgusting cretin named Quietus. Now, he's suspicious not to see his, quote, regular girl. Paige assures him that she's just out sick. Quietus goes to give Paige a kiss, at which she nearly vomits. Uh, he reveals that he has a vaporizer in the room that only makes mutants sick. <laughs> so she's not getting sick by the sight of him. It's actually by this. Wow. So uh, so he's figured out that she's a mutie, and he punches her butt good. Then he gets thirsty. He, he literally stops beating her because he gets thirsty. <laughs> it's a hard work to get out of beating, you know? <laughs> and, and he's going to add insult to injury by actually stealing a drink from Husk's own flask. Wow. Then he gets back to work slamming Paige against the wall. When suddenly, he keels over and bubbles begin foaming out of his body. You see, what was actually inside the flask was our old friend Vicente. You. Who we, we guess just dug his way out of Quietus's body. Oh, gross. It's pretty foul. Yeah. Uh, now, Vicente cleans off, and he and Paige go through Quietus's files to see if they might lead them to Ileana. In the courtyard, Mondo, disguised as part of a brick wall, snatches a fellow who's checking the energy gauges. Elsewhere, Vicente and Husk er, operate Quietus's body like puppet style. Uh, they're incited. You know, Paige is in the head, and Vicente fills out the added mass to kind of make it work. It's really gross. Uh, it's sort of like when, you know, three kids are stacking each other under a long coat. Similar kind yep. of thing. <laughs> uh, they're doing this to chat up and uh, quiet as his gang, who have nothing to report anyway. So <laughs> They then meet up with Skin and Chamber, who they make quick excuse for in order to keep them nearby. Down below, Ileana and Ace are met by a fat dude with a pitchfork. He spits water at them as though he was a fireplug to wake them up, and then he walks away. And that's the list. We'll see of that guy. All right. <laughs> we up into Generation Next, number three, May 1995 cover date. Story's called It Only Hurts When I Sing by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bocciolo. It usually only hurts other people when I sing, so <laughs> it's, it's a nice change. Now, uh, we open with uh, Skin and Chamber looking on as the human slaves work the yard of, of the uh, Seattle core there. Uh, now, they're being over, these humans are being overseen by some real horrible-looking slavers, just like monstrous folks. Uh, now, one of the guards kills a man for fraternizing with his daughter. Which is to say, he offered her food, since the last time they'd eaten was three days ago. No fraternizing <laughs> over food. <laughs> right. She uh, then shows a little bit of a rebellion in herself and throws a rock at the guard, and then gets thrown off the side of a cliff for her troubles. Oh. It's going to become a theme. The underground uh, cliff, honest. Okay. 
Yeah, we got a few of them. <laughs> now, Chamber watches this all go down, but he does not act. Mondo, however, still in brick wall form, does. He kills the guard and promises him bad karma in the next life. I mean, death is enough. You don't have to promise a bad afterlife, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, back to Quietus, who is working in his office. Fake, that's, you know, Quietus being operated by Vicente and uh, Paige. Husk. Husk. Uh, a secretary informs him that he is a guest, and it's the sugar man. I really think the sugar man needs a theme, you know, he does. something sleazy. He does. Uh, sugar man claims to have been contacted by the Shadow King, who noticed someone size surfing their files. He also suspects there, there suspects there's about to be a break in at the core. Fake Quietus attempts to convince him that nobody's that stupid, which gets a laugh. It also, more importantly, gets him to leave. And Husk and Vicente then make out. Still with the quietest face, though. What? It's really gross. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> now, outside, uh, you know, the, the straws that stir the drink, we have Kitty and Colossus. They wait for the signal. That's, that's it. They're All just right. out there waiting. Yes. Uh, now, uh, back in the down below, Ilyana talks to an old woman named May while they work. Now, work, in this case, is carrying large rocks from one side of the, wherever they are to the other. So I guess these are some of those shovel-ready exactly. jobs. Exactly. Anybody, you know what I mean? Entry level, we call that. Yeah. Right. Now, a guard starts harassing them, but gets thrown off a cliff before he can interject. Again, are we underground? What's going on? This core must be like the cliff capital of the world yeah, here. really. It's, it's like, it's like you know, the, that first step is a doozy of a new place. <laughs> <laughs> no, luckily Mondo is there to save the day before the god the guard makes it to Ilyana, and he absorbs her into his stomach. There's a, you know, there's a lot of inhabiting other people's bodies in a gross way in this yeah, series. It's, it's kind of freaking it's me out. <laughs> yeah. Now elsewhere, Skin and Chamber attack a guard and celebrate loudly. <laughs> Fake quietus creeps up to tell them to, you know, maybe keep, maybe keep it down. <laughs> We're trying to sneak around, right? Oh God, boy, what a good name for it, though. You know, hey, quietus and quiet. <laughs> just then, bop, 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 Sugar Man pops in, and he might have just heard the entire thing. Oh no! Outside, Kitty and Colossus finally get their sign from Know It All, alert, alerting them that Mondo has Iliana. In his stomach, if you recall, stuffed in there. Uh, Kitty and Colossus go intangible and float down to the core. We wrap this up with Sugar Man commanding Quietus to kill Chamber, and this issue ends with a single gunshot. In Generation Next number 4, June 1995 cover date, titled Bye by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bacciallo, Ileana is sleeping inside Mondo's stomach. <laughs> Must be comfortable in there. Must be. Uh, she she wakes up and reaches outside, and a, <laughs> a guard notices the tiny glove hand popping out of Mondo's chest. Back in Quietus's office, Sugar Man has demanded Quietus shoot Chamber, and so he did. Worth noting, Sugar Man wields a Mjolnir-looking hammer with the word sugar etched on it. Very pimped out, I'll tell you. Yeah, just just in case, you know, you forget who it belongs exactly. to. Exactly. I'm the Sugar Man. <laughs> <laughs> now, believing Quietus has turned on the core, Sugar Man runs him through with his tongue spear. Which is to say, he uses his tongue as though it were a spear. Uh, this is where Paige and Vicente, whatever his name is, lose the plot. And uh, it's revealed that they've been impersonating Quietus. Sugar Man then orders his toadies to kill the mutants. Then, an explosion. Wow. Turns out that Jono's not dead after all. 
He was just using his psionic powers to make it look as though he was shot. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Sure. <laughs> uh, now a fight is on, and Colossus and Kitty join the fray. Down below, Mondo tosses a guard off the cliff. So many, <laughs> so many cliffs here, all of them very, very uh, high up. Yeah. Ace wanders up to him and asks Mondo if he would mind taking her too, and he says he'll try, but before he can, he's impaled by the never-ending tongue of the Sugar Man, who then goes on to swipe Ileana, until he gets stopped by the arriving Colossus, who beats the ever-loving hell out of him. Don't touch his sister, buddy. Even mm-hmm. with that, especially with that freaky spear tongue. Yeah. With Ileana and Ace in tow, Generation Next heads towards the exit. On the way out, they see a raging battle between the human slaves and mutant oppressors. Chamber, Ace, and Skin are dragged into the fight. Kitty wants to stay behind and help out, but Peter is not having any of it. Oh, Vicenzo, who's who Husk is carrying, piggybacked, dies. Yeah, he just dies. Uh, Kitty and Colossus, they abandon Husk, too. Uh, Kitty phases Colossus and Ileana outside, and then explains that she's going to go back inside to help with the battle. Pete still ain't having none of that. He hands Ileana over to Kitty and says he'll go back himself. We wrap up with Kitty and Ileana waiting by a campfire for Colossus to return with the kids. Colossus does return, but he does so alone. Generation Next is dead. But the Sugar Man is not. <laughs> Next, X Men Omega. Y'all can't kill the Sugar Man, child. Uh-huh. I got the sugar. <laughs> Next up is Weapon X number two. That's had an April 1995 cover date. This was titled Fire in the Sky by Larry Hama and Adam Kubert. Uh, we did talk a little bit about Larry Hama, I think, last week, right? But mm-hmm. uh, a little more about him, or actually a little less about him, really. He was born <laughs> June 7th, 1949. He planned to be a painter, so he attended the High School of Art and Design. His first comics work was a project for Castle of Frankenstein magazine when he was only 16 years old. He also submitted work to the underground comics tabloid Gothic Blimp Works in 1969. Hama would serve in the United States Army from 69 to 1971. He was a firearms and explosives ordnance expert in Vietnam, serving in the 18th Engineer Brigade. This would serve him well during his run as editor for Marvel Comics' The Nam from 1986 to 1993. Upon return, he would find work at Wally Wood's Manhattan studio, where he would assist with the syndicated strips Sally Forth and Cannon. He was able to score a spot at Neil Adams' Continuity Associates studio, and he joined the inking gang known as Krusty Bunkers. His first work as a Krusty Bunker was the Slaves of the Mahars story in DC Comics' Weird Worlds Number 2, that had a November 1972 cover date. Hammer would briefly take over for Gil Kane on the Iron Fist feature in Marvel Premiere, those issues 16 through 19, July through November 1974 cover. He was part of the seminal independent book, Big Apple Comics with an X, number one, September 1975 cover. For the rest of the 70s, Hammer would work as an editor for DC Comics, and he oversaw titles including Wonder Woman, Super Friends, Warlord, and even Welcome Back, Kata. Also during the mid to late 70s, he tried his hand at acting. He'd appear in an episode of MASH, and he also played a role in a spoof of Apocalypse Now on Saturday Night Live. Just before we tick over into the 1980s, Hama, along with Michael Golden, would create Bucky O'Hare. This was 19, I'm sorry, 1979. Although the character wouldn't actually see print until Echoes of Future Past, number one, May 1984 cover date from Continuity Comics. 
Uh, Bucky O'Hare would go on to have an animated series of video game and action figures. And speaking of action figures, in the 1980s, and perhaps what Larry Hammer is best known for, was G.I. Joe, a real American hero. He claims he only received the gig to write that comic after editor-in-chief Jim Shooter was turned down by every other writer in the Marvel bullpen. Hammer used a story pitch he put together as a Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. spin-off series that he'd call Fury Force. That was a backstory for the uh, G.I. Joe property. Hammer would also write the file cards that came on the packaging for each G.I. Joe action figure. I think he named a lot of them, too. Pretty sure. Uh, Hammer's Marvel run of G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, would be run an impressive... 155 issues well, Really long after the toy's popularity I think but For sure February yeah. 92 to October 94 uh, Or 82 right 82, yeah. uh, And Hama would just so happen to be In the midst of a long run on the Wolverine title When the Age of Apocalypse rolled in Across the table, we have Adam Cubitt, born October 6, 1959. Uh, he grew up in he grew up he grew up in Dover, New Jersey. He's the son of Joe Cubitt and the brother of Adam Cubitt. He would attend the Rochester Institute of Technology and he would graduate with a degree in medical illustration. After this, he would attend his father's school, the Cubitt School, in his hometown of Dover, New Jersey. Adam's first credited artwork was a story called Gremlins that appeared in Sergeant Rock number 394, November 1984 cover date. He'd do various other work for DC and the Independents for the rest of the decade, including a collaboration with his brother on an Adam Strange prestige format miniseries. Adam would score the gig on Wolverine, and his first issue was number 75, part of the Phalanx Covenant. It was the very issue we learned that Logan had bone claws under all that heavy metal. Now, since that wasn't all that long ago, it's no surprise that Adam is still around when the book finds itself taking part in this epic crossover event. Yeah, he got dragged into it, too. Mm-hmm. Willingly, folks, willingly. <laughs> uh, now, Logan is searching for Jean, we begin the issue, and she apparently had been missing since last night, but he finds her straight away. At the drop-off point for the Great Sentinel airlift, where she's checking on a pair of kids who had come with a whole mess of folks from Apocalypse's America as refugees. They reunite, and some of the refugees take note and recognize Logan as Weapon X. One of those ref, one of them says, though, aren't you Wolverine? Anyway, but... Uh, <laughs> not that one. Not that one. Anyway, uh, one of those refugees <laughs> is Donald Pierce. First appearance was X-Men number 129, January 1980 cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Uh, we met Pierce when he was the White Bishop of the Hellfire Club during the Dark Phoenix Conflict Fear. Pierce was gravely injured by Logan Wolverine. When Logan carved him up, it was revealed that Pierce was a cyborg. He'd disappear for a time, resurfacing alongside Lady Deathstrike and the Reavers. And after most of the X-Men passed through the Siege Perilous, the Reavers would capture and torture Wolverine. As mentioned last week, Jubilee wound up saving him. Pierce would continue to haunt Wolverine, creating a pair of androids, Albert, who looked just like Wolverine if he were a robot, and LCD. Get it? Uh-huh. Oh, boy, oh, boy. <laughs> uh, now, Logan talks with Jean about her stance against bombing Apocalypse. You know, that plan that Brian Braddock wouldn't shut up about. <laughs> really? He was, like, pontificating yeah. on top of the Big Ben. Uh, now, Gene thinks there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. Uh, <laughs> at another scanner, the Brotherhood of Chaos busts in. Those are the geeks that included Copycat and Box, who we met at the end of Amazing X-Men number one last episode. Apparently, they were pretty active in Amazing X-Men number two, which we'll be talking about next week. 
Logan kills Box with ease and uses this event as an example why they gotta bomb America. <laughs> Gene still isn't too sure about that. Weapon X goes all, you do what you gotta do, eh? Before walking away. He actually says, eh, too. I love it. And <laughs> now back at the Human High Council, Logan meets up with Mariko. They almost flirt, but not really. Uh, she reminds him that the last time they met, Logan was there to see her father. Her father is Lord Shingen. Full name, Shingen Arata. First appearance, Wolverine Number 1. That's the miniseries from September 1982 cover, created by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller. Shingen is a Yakuza boss and, as mentioned, the father to Mariko Yoshida, also the father of the Silver Samurai. At this point in history, Shingen was dead, having been killed in a duel with Wolverine, a duel that Mariko believed that Wolverine cheated in. Now, he'll eventually get better for some reason. I don't know why you'd need Lord Shingen again, but I guess you do. <laughs> Here, whatever. Right. <laughs> now, anyway, Mariko doesn't trust Brian Braddock, and I don't think we do either. No, He's not in this incarnation. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, she believes that he has a vested interest in escalating a war between humans and mutants, You know, just like any real politician probably would. Yeah, this story is a little too close to home, I'll tell you. Uh, one of Braddock's blimps then explodes, and they're under attack by mutant terrorists, or altered human terrorists, if you ask them. And them, in this case, is Donald Pierce. Uh, the baddies are headed toward the airship that has the analog guidance system for Braddock's doomsday attack, so Logan hops into action. Elsewhere, Moira suggests sacrificing the human high council if it means saving the doomsday guidance system, but Braddock... He ain't having none of that. He ain't sacrificing anything but America in this case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Frost, Frost calls for an attack of the commandeered airship, but Mariko rushes in to let them know Logan is on it. Uh, not sure they care, little lady. Remember, the diplomatic immunity or whatever is only temporary anyway, you know? Yeah, they didn't have any immunity left up. No. Uh, now, Logan beats up bad guys, and the airship explodes. He hears Gene telepathically say goodbye as he walks away from the flaming crash. Logan catches up with her just as she's leaving for America on a little propeller plane that definitely shouldn't be able to make a transatlantic trip, right? No, I, I wouldn't right? trust it to do that. Not at all, no. <laughs> I don't think it would get off the ground, much less cross the Atlantic. Uh, now, she says if he's there to kill her, to please make it quick. Now, instead of killing her, he hops off and he, he lets her go. <laughs> you know, probably thinks she's not going to make it anyway, so yeah. go. Uh, we hop over to Weapon X number 3, May 1995, cover date. The story is called The Common Right of Toads and Men by Larry Hama and Adam Cubitt. Here we have Logan heading for Vundagor Mountain. Not awake? Not awake? Oh, are you with us? Okay, yeah. Good, good. Oh, yeah, I'm back. I'm back, yeah. Good, good, good. Now, he stumbles upon a pair of enhanced humans who have been laying low awaiting his arrival. They are Deadeye and Mangle. Get any bios? Nope. All right. No, 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 no. Logan whoops him pretty quick. He then walks past the grave of the Scarlet Witch and the place where he was nearly burned to death by Apocalypse's men. He then runs smack dab into his old friend, Carol Danvers. First appearance was Marvel Superheroes number 13, March 1968, cover date, created by Roy Thomas and Gene Colan, former NASA chief of security and victim of blackouts. During these blackouts, she becomes Ms. Marvel, only she doesn't know it at first. There's also this Cree and Marvel stuff involved. It's, you yeah, know, the, the story fancy. of Captain Marvel is very weird. <laughs> uh, now, after writing a scathing tell-all book about her time in NASA, she took a job at the Daily Bugle. Carol established herself as a superhero and worked alongside the Avengers, 
eventually joining the team full-time, taking over for the Scarlet Witch, who was at that time on leave. Things get dicey when Henry Peter Gyrick wants Ms. Marvel's fingerprints, though, because as a former NASA type, her prints are already in the system. Yeah, it would really jeopardize her secret identity. Definitely. Now, famously, Carol becomes pregnant in very bizarre fashion by the alleged son of the villain Immortus. Immortus is Nathaniel Richard, so also known as, among several, many, many identities, he's also Kang the Conqueror. Some sometimes. Right. Uh, now, this went down in the much maligned Avengers number 200, October 1980, co-plotted by the editor-in-chief himself, Jim Shooter. In a December 12th, 2001 blog post, Shooter actually denounced the entire thing. He says it sucked. Because uh, the entire thing, if you read it, really comes off as Carol being raped. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really bad. Uh, and, and her pregnancy only lasts a few days. She gives birth to a baby boy who grows into adulthood within hours, so it's not a good time. No. That's a convenient yeah. pre- that's a conveniency pregnancy right there. <laughs> it call is, that, it yeah. is. <laughs> now, she would vanish from the book for about a year, so you know they knew they screwed up. <laughs> yep. uh, and she would return in Avengers Annual number 10. This is October 1981. It was also the first appearance of Rogue, where she basically lays into the Avengers for letting things go down the way they did. I don't really blame her. I gotta be honest. No, like, I'm, I'm with her. Guys, yeah. what are we on the team for? To prevent <laughs> just things just like this. Uh, Carol then moved to San Francisco, where she'd have a run-in with Rogue and Mystique. Rogue would touch her and permanently absorb nearly all of her Ms. Marvel powers. Also her memories, Professor X would assist in getting most of them back, though. During a battle with the Brood, an unpowered Carol would get zapped by an evolutionary ray which triggered her latent powers, and she became the cosmic-powered binary that was in Uncanny X-Men number 163, November 1982 cover date. From here, she joined up with the Star Jammers. While Carol was in space, the now-heroic rogue would be tortured by the memories that she'd stolen from her until going through the Siege Perilous. Handy thing, that, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. just kind of wipe it away. <laughs> Uh, the hangover cured, cure all hangovers. Uh, Carol would return to Earth, and while on Muir Island, she became sh- possessed by the Shadow King, which is really just kind of what happens if you visit Muir Island. Yeah. You're bound to get possessed by the Shadow King. <laughs> uh, she'd fight Rogue and seemingly be killed by Magneto, but she'd, of course, get better, and that's where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. Now, Carol asks where his better half is, and she, re- she refers to her as the... I don't even know how to pronounce these words. The puissant and puissant? pulchritudinous. Yes, the puissant and pulchritudinous Jean Grey. She wants to know where she is. Mm, yeah, what? <laughs> Whatever it means, uh, you know, Carol and Logan, they're, they're pals. They head up to uh, a tower in order to chat. Hop back to London, the Trasks, who are Mora and Bolivar. They discuss the possibility that their very own Brian Braddock might not be mentally well enough to lead the strike against Apocalypse. He might be off his rocker, don't you know? (laughs) (laughs) What are they talking about? I mean, some of the best and most sane leaders go on theatrical speeches punctuated by lightning flashes, right? Hey, I mean, those lightning flashes aren't his fault. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, they just happened. They couldn't do anything. Now, back at Wundagore, Logan and Carol reach the top of the tower where they meet... Gateway, whose first appearance was an Uncanny X-Men number 229, May 1988 cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri. He's an aboriginal mutant who the X-Men met during their time in the Australian outback, with the power to teleport people from one place to another even facilitating a ladies' day out at the mall during that time. Mm -hmm. 
He once aided the group the Reavers because they threatened to destroy a place that wasn't quite special to him if he didn't. Uh, most recently, we saw Gateway arrive on the lawn of the Massachusetts Academy with penance in Generation X number one. Getting ahead of ourselves, it would eventually be revealed that Gateway is a distant ancestor to Bishop in Extreme Extreme X-Men number four, <laughs> October 2001 cover date, but we don't know that now. No. Just so happens, Gateway was exactly who Logan was looking for. Tries talking to him, but Gateway doesn't reply. He never replies. That's kind of his thing. Carol tells Logan that Gateway is trying to document the entire history of the world before it's all gone for good. This Gateway is definitely more digital than his normal 616 counterpart. Yeah, he usually just like sits down, like swinging a rock in the sky, wearing like a diaper. And, and <laughs> now he's like, now he's all teched out. Yeah, he's he's digging into the computer. Uh, now Logan's got no time for such nonsense, so he does one of the things he does best. He beats up Gateway's computer terminal. <laughs> Beating up computer terminals is what I do. Is what I do best. <laughs> now this rouses Gateway from his trance. Uh, Logan tells him that they need him to pilot the lead airship in the nuclear strike against Apocalypse. Well, Gateway ain't down with that. Yeah, why? Uh, who would be? <laughs> now then, those goofballs from earlier, the, the, uh, those Deadeye and Mangle, they're merged together as a Mangle Deadeye <laughs> abomination, and they enter the room. <laughs> they're quite easy pickings for Carol and Logan. I see why they didn't get a bio. Now I get it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, outside, another altered human shows up. This is the illustrious Vultura. She flies around and stuff, but with a name like Vulture, you already you pretty knew much that. already knew that. Yeah, what else is yeah. she going to do except for eat carrion? <laughs> uh, Gateway, under orders from Logan, teleports the three of them onto Pierce's ship, and they kill everybody. <laughs> Carol sacrifices herself to take down Pierce. She yanks the pit in a grenade, and the two of them go for a parachuteless skydive. And Logan mourns his dead pal. And Gateway agrees to pilot the Armada now because Logan's all sad. Mm-hmm. Weapon X number four, June 1995, cover date titled, uh, the story is uh, Into the Maelstrom by Larry Hama and Adam Kubert. Over in Eurasia, Emma Frost walks Gateway through a VR reenactment of The Great Culling, wherein Apocalypse is attempting to do away with every human in North America, in case you had forgotten the entire crux of like so most of the story here. <laughs> uh, Gateway is a bit full of himself, doesn't think he needs the primer, but Logan begs his indulgence just in case it comes up. They show Gateway an innocent girl being murdered, and now he starts to understand... Just what they're up again. I'm sorry. Why am I? <laughs> Why does he only know the stakes then? Anyway, uh, the council. I mean, it is, he's a superhero, and they, you know. And they have it on file. Good lord! I know. What is this? So is this when you show all the new recruits? Come here. Let me show you something. All right. Can you handle that? All right. You're in. Uh, the council proceeds with her plan to strike at Apocalypse's New York Citadel. Speaking of which, we pop over there ourselves to see a chat between Apocalypse and our friend Rex. Now, Rex knows that the Human High Council is readying an attack. Apocalypse doesn't seem terribly interested. Uh, you know, after all, he's got Donald Pierce on the job. Yeah, uh, buddy, about Donald Pierce, he's, uh... He... <laughs> well, Rex tells Apocalypse that he hasn't heard from Pierce. Nor, nor the slipperiest of horsemen, Mikhail, who is also supposedly in Eurasia. Getting the feeling we're never going to meet Mikhail. No. <laughs> uh, now, back in Eurasia, the council boards the airships. Braddock is throwing a fit because nobody believes in him. Which 
kind of proves their point, right? <laughs> you all think I'm crazy because I all I do is yell and, and pontificate. Anyway. <laughs> Emma and Logan break off for a chat. Emma's afraid that Braddock's acting suicidal. Uh, Logan's annoyed that Jean turned his back turned her back on him. Uh, during this trip, the airship is attacked by altered humans, including Donald freaking Pierce? Seriously? I mean, what, where do you come from? <laughs> Who radios for some infants to come and in and blow the armada out of the sky? Oh, another of the altered humans. Uh, Carol Danvers is also. Oh, boy. During the fracas, Brian Braddock switches sides like twice. Uh, <laughs> he is then thankfully killed. So we don't have to worry about his crazy uh, psychotic rants anymore. Just as Carol explains how Pierce saved her, Pierce kills her. What? Oh. Logan then finally kills Pierce. We really mean it this time. He's super dead. Yeah. Never never to come back. Uh, Gateway opens a portal large enough for the entire armada to fit through, and they're headed for the heartland of Apocalypse's America in beautiful Indiana. <laughs> uh, next, X-Men Omega, but not really. Not really. No, I'll be in two weeks. <laughs> two weeks. Uh, but next week, we're going to wrap up the other half of these miniseries, and also give you the entirety of another one. We're going to be doing Amazing X-Men issues 2 through 4, Gambit and the Externals 2 through 4, Excalibre 2 through 4, X-Men 2 through 4, and the new one, X-Universe 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. The next Let universe me... is going to fill us in on everything else going on in the Marvel Universe during the Age of Apocalypse. Which so, is, I mean, I love... Yeah, alternate stories like this, you know, I'm a you know I'm a huge Elseworlds fan. Love what if, love all that sure. stuff. Uh, love it. I liked. I love this concept, but boy, there's some goofy stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a lot of moving. I would even go so far as say too many things happening. We could and and it's weird. It's like it it like straddles that line about being like too beholden to the real universe and also like struggling not to be like it at all. Right. It's yeah, yeah. so weird. Yeah. yeah. It's it's like it's like one foot in, one foot out and it's uh mm-hmm. it's it's you know, it's good though. I I am enjoying it, but I I can't help but laugh at some of it. It's just There is some silliness. Yes. Definitely wearing its 90s colors too. I'll give I'll say <laughs> that for it, but that's uh that's fine. So if uh, you have any comments on uh, what we've been reading up to so far, or if you're also similarly annoyed that there were two Wolverines essentially in the same <laughs> issue, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. We're on Tumblr, cosmicteamailhistory.tumblr.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at cosmicteamail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Find our weekly writings on uh, DC Comics current stuff on WeirdScienceDCComics.com. And you can find Chris's daily writings on his personal blog, ChrisIsAnInfiniteEarth.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every single day of the week now for the last 5,000 weeks and running, something like that. <laughs> Just about. Just uh, about. Feel, feels about that. Uh, I've been doing the uh, awesome series on Vartok recently that I've just been in love with. have not really been able to comment, unfortunately, this week dashing through it on my phone, but uh, it's uh, so good. I love it. I, I always thought Our that character great, yeah. made no sense. Uh, just like such a weird him and uh, who's the, who's the, wasn't there a Western guy that always attacked Superman back in the day? Oh boy. What's yeah, I don't, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I think he's, yeah, I think I'd be talking about. It's just like, why? But, what uh, a weird guy. <laughs> but I think uh, Vartox has, uh, has single-handedly saved the blog for a little while because I was, it was starting to drag, but uh, 
going into the Vartok story is really making me excited again because uh, I, I it, it is just so out there. Is he he's based after Sean Connery, right? For the time, yep, he looks from just, I, Yeah, I, it never it never occurred to me until you know reading your blog. So yeah, Chris is on, <laughs> Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. You got to check it out. It is terrific, and there's uh, stuff to read. Boy, you could be spending a lot of hours on that blog at this point if Lots you're so blogs, fit. Yes. Yep. <laughs> we also have the show blog, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you can find show notes. Uh, what, I keep forgetting that word. What does it mean when everything's in order? Chronological. That's the word, yes. <laughs> the chronological listing of every episode of the uh, Cosmic Treadmill, also Weird Comics History, uh, uh, all the little silly things we've done, the real comics history, and now... Even adding some uh, young and animalistic content. That's for, right. We uh, do listening the, uh, pleasure. We've been doing. I don't know if everyone knows. We do young animal reviews for the uh, Weird Science DC Comics podcast, and we're starting to, now that Young Animal imprint is coming to a close. I think we're gonna uh, start dumping those on you yeah, folks. Um, see what you think of that. Sure. But uh, as I say, that's also the place to listen to stuff chronologically. It really is. Sure. Like, don't 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 hurt yourself on the uh, Podbean. So, uh, <laughs> I, I think we've given them quite a bit to munch on for this episode. You got anything else for them, Chris? No, I think we're good. Well, until next week, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill apocalyptically. Not that apocalyptically. Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 103, where we go back, back to the to past, past and read a comic book from the publishers of yesteryear. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and the hellish fire prints of the evil dark side himself. Wait, that's not the right one that we're doing? Is that 
What are we doing this week, Chris? Kind of looks like them, but no, we're actually in part four of our Age of Apocalypse epic oh, right. series here. And this week we're going to be wrapping up four of the miniseries. That's Amazing X-Men, Gambit and the Externals, Excalibre, and X-Men. And we're going to pay special attention to Amazing X-Men number four, it's kind of because everything sort of converges in that book. And uh, we're going to cover that one at the very end of this episode. But first, Amazing X-Men number two, cover dated April 1995. Stories called Sacrificial Lambs by Fabian Niciesa and Andy Cubitt. Let's talk about Fabian. Now, we met him a couple of episodes back, uh, so we'll give the quicker version. Mm. He was born New Year's Eve 1961 in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Moved to the United States when he was four, and he grew up in New Jersey. Taught himself to read and write by reading comic books. He'd attend Rutgers University and graduated in 1983 with a degree in advertising and public relations. He worked for the Berkeley Publishing Group until 1985. Also in 1985, he joined the staff at Marvel Comics. Uh, this is He was in, in production, a manufacturing assistant mm-hmm. at start. Uh, he'd later move on to the promotions department as an advertising manager. Now, all during this time, he began taking some freelance writing assignments, writing short stories for Marvel's promo magazine, Marvel Age. Nicias' first published comic story was in Cyforce Number no. 9 that came out with a July 1987 cover date. This led to fill-in work on titles such as Classic X-Men, for which he provided backup stories. After Tom DeFalco, then Marvel's editor-in-chief, created the superhero team The New Warriors, he gave the titular series to Nicias. And in 1990, Nisi became editor of Marvel's children's imprint, Star Comics, which uh, dissolved within a year. Not, not really his fault, I don't think, but the, you know, no, no. sort of the times were a change in. It was not time for that kind of stuff. Uh, but at that point, he left Marvel's staff and moved entirely to freelance writing. In 1991, Nisi joined with artist Rob Liefeld in co-plotting and writing the final three issues of The New Mutants that was 98 to 100. In these issues, Fabian co-created Deadpool and Shatterstar, as well as the mutant team X-Force. Liefeld, I almost said Liefeld, and Nisiesa, <laughs> then producing an ongoing X-Force title beginning with number one uh, in August 1991. Initially, Nisiesa was a scripter only, but after Rob Liefeld left Marvel, he drew until issue nine, plotted until issue 12, Fabian became its full writer, and he remained until 1995. By the end of 1992, Nisiesa became regular scripter for X-Men Volume 2, beginning with number 12. That had a September 1992 cover date, art handled mostly by Andy Kubert. And over the next three years, Fabian Nisiesa was heavily in the X-Men mix, while it went through some of the franchise's best-known crossovers and events. For example, The Age of Apocalypse, which we're reading right now. Hey, now across the table, we got Andy Kubert. Born February 27, 1962, he grew up in Dover, New Jersey. He's the son of Joe Cubitt and the brother of Adam Cubitt. He'd graduate from the Cubitt School. I don't even know if I don't even know if I'm saying their name right. But, uh, I, I, I believe we, we are correct in when we say Cubitt. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, I'm thinking of that little orange thing jumping up a pyramid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like. Is it Cooper? Nah. We'll, we'll say Cupid. Uh, now, his first gig was as a letterer for DC Comics in 1980, and his first credited artwork was in a story called Old Soldiers Never Die. Now, that appeared in Sergeant Rock, number 393, and had an October 1984 cover date. Uh, later on, Adam happened to be at the right place at the right time, and he found himself as the fill-in penciler on Uncanny X-Men following the big Im- image exodus. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, this would score him a regular gig on X-Men Volume 2, 
And he drew that volume. He drew X Men Volume Two number thirty. This is March nineteen ninety four cover date, and that's the one that featured the wedding of Cyclops and Jean Grey. Also, he'd still be on the books when this Age of Apocalypse thing went down. So here he is. All right. Now, into the story, we open with that Graves boy being taunted by the Horseman Abyss on the Brotherhood's transport ship. Now, Jeremy Graves was the young boy whose family copycat chatted up in Amazing X-Men number one. We talked about that two weeks ago, two episodes ago. Now, Abyss feeds off of Jeremy's fears, which uh, we're guessing is his power, or at least one of his powers. Okay. Um... Fair enough. Uh, Now, he uh, tells Jeremy that no matter how far his family runs, they will never be safe. And uh, they're headed to Eurasia, incidentally, which might just be the next place Apocalypse is looking to take over. He's kind of been sniffing around there, uh, along with the rest of the world, of course. He's going to get to it all eventually. Uh, Back in Maine, the X-Men were taunted by the... Cardinal Madgerie. You see, they reprogrammed the Human High Council's Savior Sentinels. Banshee elders Exodus to take out the Brotherhood, and he goes right to work doing just that. Meanwhile, Quicksilver rushes off to protect the humans from the Sentinels, and also to give chase to a few members of the Brotherhood. Not long before he catches up, he is Quicksilver, after all, and unhoods a Brotherhood member. He's shocked to learn that it's his sister, the Scarlet Witch! Or, you know, that member of the Brotherhood who's also a shapeshifter. There's a lot of shapeshifting happening. I, 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 do, I do not like it. It's underhanded. Uh, but Quicksilver is dumbfounded and gets conked on the head during his days when he's distracted by the amazing uh, visage of his sister. Before Copycat can kill Quicksilver, Dazzler gets involved and disarms the shapeshifter. After reading Copycat the Riot Act, Dazzler is blasted by a sentinel. Exodus swoops in to block the Sentinel's killing blow, and this becomes a bone of contention between Exodus and Quicksilver, as Pietro would have rathered Paris follow the escaping Brotherhood members, rather than save Dazzler. Yes. Now nearby, Storm blasts a few Sentinels with lightning. Iceman is able to pull himself together. You remember he exploded last issue. Uh, and he informs the team that the Brotherhood members Arclight, Spine, and Yeti, quote, aren't a problem anymore. Banshee continues chasing the others all the way back to their ark. He runs into the Cardinal Madri hanging upside down from a tree, thanks to Abyss. Now, you see, with the X-Men's arrival, the Madri might have failed to keep the humans from escaping to Eurasia, and the penalty for failure, even possible failure, is death. Oops. Well, you know, so yeah. you, got, you, gotta, you know, you gotta take a hard line with these kind of things. You sure, can't right? let things slide, yeah. I'm sure that's in the orientation package. So <laughs> sure, yeah. You gotta expect that. Now, Abyss reveals to Banshee that he has Jeremy Graves' Inside his body. And he claims he'll only free the boy if Banshee is able to deliver Quicksilver to him. Otherwise, the kid's going to bite the big one. Now, Banshee returns to the evac site and finds a bunch of humans reeling in psionic pain. This is also thanks to Abyss. Uh, Banshee reports what he's learned to the X-Men with the trading Pietro for Jeremy thing we just heard about, and Quicksilver decides to look into it. Storm offers to to accompany him, but is turned down, and she goes anyway. I mean, who's in charge here anyway, right? I, well, why didn't she even ask? Well, just go. Uh, well, what <laughs> just is go. the difference, you know? Uh, Quicksilver follows rushing over to the Ark and sees Jeremy wrapped up in Abyss's nasty, t- nasty tendrils. Storm charges in after the boy, and Pietro follows, and once they find Jeremy, Quicksilver finds himself getting all wrapped up in Abyss's tendrils. Abyss reveals that he released Jeremy because he'd lost all his flavor, comparing him to an old piece of gum. They chat for a bit. Quicksilver actually attempts to reason with Abyss, telling him that the way Apocalypse does things is wrong. 
and that, it's in, that it is possible for humans and mutants to peacefully coexist. And Abyss just laughs. Oh, and also attacks. Yes. Uh, now Quicksilver then grabs Abyss's tendrils. Hey, now, hey. Ooh, and proceeds to wrap Abyss up in them. Now this causes Abyss to get sucked into his own void. I so that's I, another one of his powers. I think I saw a, a Looney Tunes cartoon just like that, right? The kind of guy pulled so himself into his own knot. box. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, Storm and Pietro successfully they've walked back to the evac point. Uh, Jeremy runs back over to his family. Uh, Dazzler informs the team that they were able to re-re-reprogram the Sentinels, and all the humans can now be saved. They're going to be loaded into the Sentinels and sent over to the Human High Council in Eurasia. Uh, we switch scenes to New York City's Heaven Nightclub, where our buddy Rex interrogates Karma, trying to learn about the location of the X-Men's base. Nearby, we see that Sebastian Shaw and Apocalypse are watching this happen. Rex tells Karma that he already knows where the X-Men are hiding, and he really just wants to know uh, what their defensive setup looks like from her. Uh, Apocalypse quickly grows tired of this and decides, screw it, we're just going to pay Magneto a visit now. All right. Head on into Amazing X-Men number 3, May 1995 cover date. This is titled Parents of the Atom by Fabian Nicieza and Andy Kubert. We open with Magneto at the grave of Charles Xavier. His tombstone reads... Any dream worth having is a dream worth fighting for. And guess what? Magneto <laughs> talks to the grave a lot a about lot. dreams. And if there was there a picture of, of Xavier on the grave, then he would, you know, <laughs> then definitely would, he would have been talking. He would have sat down. Yeah, yeah. he would have been like, let me, I got a few <laughs> things to say uh, about dreams and the price they might have. Enter Bishop. And once again, he's packing heat. He tells Magneto that now is not the time for reminiscing, considering that. Best case scenario, the world's about to end. I say this is pretty much the only time for reminiscing, right? This is, this is it. This is the this end. Is it. So this, if you're going to reflect to do it now, you're not going to have a chance later. Uh, in fairness, there is the, the, he is there to report that the mansion's defenses have been breached. With that, he proceeds to start blasting at some infinites. And then enter... The Vanisher, alias Telford Telly Porter. Hey. Oh. His first appearance was X-Men number 2, November 1963. He was created by Stan and Jack. Now, this is the X-Men's first non-magnetic-powered supervillain. Uh, during an early battle with the team, he fell prey to Professor X's go-to finishing move, the Mind Wipe. If you read any Silver Age X-Men, he did this a lot. A lot. Like, most of the time. Like, like way too many times, frankly. Like nine yeah. out of ten X-Men battles, he was like, all right, Mind Wipe, mind done. Wipe. Boop. Now, uh, when Telly's memory came back, he'd join up with the dreaded Factor 3. <laughs> now, those were the losers who wanted to take over the world by instigating World War III between the United States and the Soviet Union. He would actually side with the X-Men against Factor 3's alien leader towards the end of that deal. Uh, he would return from a lengthy hiatus to join the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, who uh, were bothering the champions and the Fantastic Four around this time. Unsuccessfully. Yeah, he uh, did lead the ragtag group of mutant thieves known as the Fallen Angels, and we talked about them a few weeks ago. They're the group with Gomi, Ariel, Devil Dinosaur, Moon Boy, Boom Boom. A real odd grouping of heroes. Uh, yeah. Seems perfect for the Vanisher. Uh, but he wouldn't be a hero for long. He was coerced back into villainy by Asylum, but to fight the New Warriors, which is right around where he, where he was when the Age of Apocalypse started. So... Vanisher tells Magneto that he ain't there to fight. He's just acting as Apocalypse's taxi service, dropping the infinites off. And with that, he leaves. 
That was worth giving him a bio, right? Uh, don't worry, he will be back. We will have okay. to deal with him again. Uh, Bishop and Magneto tear the Infinites apart just in time for the arrival of Apocalypse himself. He lands with a Kashkakam, causing the heroes to go flying every which way. Bishop reaches for his gun, but Magneto causes it to explode, hopeful that it will be strong enough a blast to kill Apocalypse. It wasn't. I mean, it wasn't even strong enough to kill Bishop. Really? Uh, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, you're going to have to come harder than that, buddy. <laughs> now, Apocalypse stands over the fallen X-Men and ponders the importance of Bishop. Then his thoughts go to baby Charles, who is, at this moment, still in the belly of Nanny. If you remember, it was either last week or the week before, uh, Nanny went into, like, the doomsday mode and turned into an egg right. with the, with, to protect the baby. Uh, now, they are in the labyrinthine underground Morlock tunnels below the X-Mansion. Uh, under the X-Mansion, she runs into the Vanisher, who's been lurking in the shadows. Why not? At this point, she produces no less than a half dozen plasma blasters, all trained on poor Mr. Porter. Yeah, I mean, you got to see this image. It's like just, it's like, it's insane. Just all these like guns pop out of her, just aimed on him. A pure 90s, you know, just gun oh, fest. Sure. Yeah, beautiful. For sure. Uh, moving ahead now, Quicksilver and Storm's team of X-Men return from Maine. After surveying the damage, Quicksilver runs the grounds and finds that everyone's been abducted. Exodus finds Magneto's helmet in a smoking crater. Quicksilver tries to keep the team's spirits up, pointing to all the dead infinites as a sign that Magneto and Bishop were able to defend themselves before they yeah. bit it, you know, like... <laughs> uh, then Iceman shows up and produces the Vanisher, who he'd found in those Morlock tunnels. Vanisher is dead, by the way, courtesy of Nanny. <laughs> How would you like that in your official Marvel handbook oh, bio boy. entry? Killed by Nanny. Nanny. Oh, man. I hope it was, you know, that you got a friend dresser like, eh. <laughs> uh, Quicksilver dispatches D Dazzler and Exodus into the tunnels to hunt down Nanny and Charles. He sends Iceman off to locate Rogue, which we discussed last week. And has Storm and Banshee remain in the mansion in case anybody returns. And then Quicksilver himself runs off to... The Heaven Nightclub. Where else? Where is anyone going this uh, age of apocalypse? <laughs> That's it. Uh, we have Angel arriving, and he thinks about how everything seems to be coming apart. You know, Karma is missing. Uh, Scarlet has been arrested as a spy. Not that uh, Scarlet, she's also, of course. Yeah, she's also knocked up, but uh, but he doesn't know that. Right. Uh, then Quicksilver shows up, and he punches Angel right in the mouth. Which happens an awful lot to poor Angel, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, you'd figure him playing both sides would result in less punches to the face. What that, are you going to do? You think that's why you would do that? But right? no, you know what I mean? Might as well pick I a side. I would rather not be punched, so I'm going to be friends with everybody. Yeah. Uh, now, Angel is done playing games. He's, he's all, screw it. I'll tell you exactly what happened to Magneto and Bishop. And he does. We learn that Bishop is in Quebec, and Magneto is in Apocalypse's Citadel. We left with uh, Pietro needing to decide what to do next, either stay the course with Magneto's plan or to abort Magneto's plan and redirect the X-Men's efforts towards actually saving his father. Mm, what to do, what to do. Mm -hmm. Well, over in Quebec, Bishop is being tortured by the Madri. They are chanting, may the fittest survive, which sounds more like a moderate annoyance than any kind of torture. But mm -hmm. uh, once his mind becomes malleable by this uh, endless chanting... <laughs> Enter the Shadow King. In probing Bishop's mind, he sees many images from the Prime Marvel Universe. For example, battling Xavier on the Astral Plane. That happened in X-Men number 117 from January 1979. The death of 
Professor Xavier. X-Men Volume 2, Number 41, just a few months before this, February 1995. The formation of the original X-Men. Probably X-Men Number 1. Yeah, that was the one, pretty much. <laughs> and then uh, Apocalypse's Death. Maybe during the Executioner song? I can't be sure. We'll see. Uh, and Jerry Curl Bishop next to Xavier. Which could be any time after Uncanny X-Men number 282. But they are recognizing Jerry Curl Bishop, and that's the important thing. Indeed. Uh, this this one's the most confusing, though, to the Shadow King, and it's not due to Bishop's awful hair. It's because he wonders how a younger Bishop could ever stand beside an older Xavier. Mm, he, he deduces from this that Bishop is likely from a different reality. Pretty smart fella. Uh, yeah. Bishop is able to expunge the Shadow King from his mind, at which point Abyss shows up and kills a bunch of Madri. He then uh, refers to Bishop as the most dangerous mutant of all because he knows things nobody else does. Yes. Hop back to Xavier's here. Uh, Quicksilver returns, hopeful that Rogue's team has also returned. But they haven't. And we read all about their exploits last week. Uh, he is greeted by Storm and Banshee, and he shares with them his plan. He decides that it's more important to everybody that they save Bishop, not Magneto. Mm. He also decides to forego the hunt for his own baby brother, Charles. <laughs> A little sibling jealousy, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, it's not just the Summers anymore. It's, uh, <laughs> no, you got Pietro's <laughs> involved. Yeah. Shears too, good, yeah. Good. Now, that's the end of this issue, but since so many of the threads merge in Amazing X-Men number four, we're going to save that one for the end. And instead, we'll jump into Gambit and the Externals number two from April 1995. Story is called Where No External Has Gone Before by Fabian Niciesa and Tony Daniel. Since we already met Fabian, let's talk a little Tony. Antonio Salvador Daniel was born somewhere in these United States. His first professional work was for Comico's Elemental Sexy Lingerie Special that came out for the 1993 Chicago Comic-Con. He would hop over to Marvel and take over the art chores on X-Force after Greg Capullo flew the coop over to Toddtown. His first issue on X-Force was number 28, November 1993 cover date. And he'd hang hang around long enough to take part in this here Age of Apocalypse. Now, this is the very beginning of what would become a storied career, so uh, we'll have more to say on the other end of that. Yeah. Now we hop into the story, and the externals arrive somewhere else, where they run smack dab into the Shi'ar Imperial Guard. So why not meet them? Let's meet them. We got Gladiator, real name Kalark. First appearance was X-Men number 107, October 1997, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. Uh, leader, this is the leader of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Superboy of the Legion of Superheroes with a name in, in homage of the Philip Wiley novel Gladiator that many folks believe many of Superman's trappings were based upon. Uh, we go in much deeper on the Gladiator novel during episode 63, The Death of Superman, Part 1, which is available in the archives. Uh, Gladiator is a member of the Strontian race, was ordered by the Shi'ar to murder the Strontian elders, and he did. And he was the only one who was willing. This was enough for him to be named leader of the Imperial Guard. He fought the X-Men during the Phoenix Saga and later aided them in battle against a Shi'ar traitor. Gladiator had a run-in with the Fantastic Four while on the trail of some skull, some scrolls. This is the issue with the sort of iconic John Byrne cover where Gladiator has the Thing hoisted over his head. A cover that Byrne would later homage himself after making a move over to Superman for DC Comics. He was good at doing that. If you, if you look at yeah. a lot of his covers, there are a lot of, like, Byrne on Byrne yeah, yeah. to himself. <laughs> Gladiator would even battle Thor to a standstill. 
Uh, he'd also have a run-in with the Avengers during the Kree-Shiar War. This story we know as uh, Operation Galactic Storm, which ran forever. Yeah, it was a long one. And uh, until you said his real name out loud, uh, I didn't get that connection. Clark. Clark. There Clark. you go. Clark. Ah, ta-da. I must have written that name a thousand times, and I never said it out loud. Clark so. and, you know. There you are. <laughs> now, the next one we're going to meet is Oracle. Not that Oracle. Uh, real name, Sybil. First appearance, X-Men number 107, October 1977, created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. Now, she's a member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Saturn Girl of the Legion of Superheroes. I, I don't know if we made it clear, but the Shi'ar is yeah. based on the Legion of Superheroes. Yeah, basically, Marvel's Legion of Superheroes, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, uh, she ran in with the X-Men during the Dark Phoenix Saga and gets beaten up by Wolverine. She'd uh, team up with Rom to battle an evil space knight. She battled against the Star Jammers and Excalibur, and she took uh, took control over Rick Jones during Operation Galactic Storm. Now, Starbolt, his first appearance was X-Men 107, October 77. Also, Claremont and Cockrum, also a member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Sunboy of the Legion. He was part of that old Dark Phoenix thing, thing, which we'll be saying a lot, and he was also part of Operation Galactic Storm, and we'll be seeing a lot of that, too. Uh, he was also Oracle's lover, and that's something we hopefully won't be seeing a lot. Yeah. We got Fang. First appearance, X-Men 107, October 1977. Claremont and Cockrum. Member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Timberwolf of the Legion of Superheroes. He's a more feral fellow than his compatriots. Uh, was present for the Dark Phoenix saga. Would later be transformed into a brood and had to be killed by Wolverine. Wolverine would then take his costume. Uh, Wolverine, yeah, Wolverine in the Fang costume actually got an action figure during the Toy Biz X Men line. Uh, this figure was released in 1995 as part of the Mutant Genesis series. That set would also include Sunfire, Cameron Hodge, Maverick, the Acolyte Senyaka, and the Executioner. <laughs> That's a heck of a toy line, boy. It's, Isn't it? it's like well, the kids were like, "Oh, Cameron Hodge." Love it. me, mommy, mommy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Nightshade, first appearance. Guess what, boys and girls? X-Men number 107 by Claremont and Cockroom. A member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard analogous to Shadow Lass of the Legion of Superheroes. Originally known as Nightshade, it changed so as not to be confused with Charlton DC Comics character with the same name. And guess what? She was also there during the Dark Phoenix saga, so how about yeah. that? Yeah. We got Titan. First appearance, same as it ever was. X-Men yeah. number 107, October 1977, Claremont and Cockrum. This is a member of the Shi'ar Guard, analogous to Colossal Boy of the Legion of Superheroes. Dark Phoenix saga. Uh, yeah. Fought against Excalibur under the orders of Deathbird. He'd face off against uh, Captain Britain there, and he was also for, there for Operation Galactic Storm. Mentor, first appearance, X-Men 107, Claremont and Cockrum. Member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Brainiac 5 of the Legion of Superheroes, and actually looks just like him, you know, I mean, yeah. almost like too close, you know? Yeah, totally. Uh, other than that, same as the rest stuff, uh, you know, uh, Dark <laughs> Phoenix Saga, Operation Galactic Storm. <laughs> also, there's Impulse, first appearance was at X-Men 107, Claremont and Cockrum. Member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Wildfire of the Legion of Superheroes, and the character's name would later be changed to Pulsar, so as not to be confused with DC's Impulse, but the Legionnaire, not the Speedster, although DC Comics wasn't really concerned with the confusion there themselves, so I don't see why Marvel should have worried. <laughs> uh, this is a being of pure energy, only contained by their costume, just like Wildfire, the man with the... Uh, 
what is he? He has the faceplate. Reminds me of like a welder's faceplate. That yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we got Smasher. Real name, Vril Rock, which is pretty. Cool. Right. Um, right. First appearance: X Men 107. Claremont Cockrum, member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Ultra Boy, the Legion of Superheroes. He's a member of the Imperial Guard. That's yeah, you know, that's about it. Uh, <laughs> so uh, his name seems to be a mixture of Legionnaires Vril Dox Brainiac and Rock Crin yep. Cosmic Boy, even though he's based on Ultra Boy. What do you got to do? Well, who knows? Uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we got Hobgoblin, not that Hobgoblin. Uh, first appearance: X Men 107, Claremont Cockrum. Member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Chameleon Boy of the Legion, and just like Mentor, looks just like him. Uh, if you haven't guessed, he's a shapeshifter, as if we haven't had enough of those yet. Yeah, really. It's a little overly shapeshifty around here, but... Uh, Indeed. There's Scintilla, first appearance, yep, X-Men 107, Claremont and Cockrum, a member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Shrinking Violet of the Legion of Superheroes, originally known as Midget, although that likely wasn't changed to avoid any confusion. <laughs> Her deal is that she shrinks. Hmm. Uh, War store. Real names are Bene, Bene and Cecil. It's spelled B apostrophe N-E-E and C apostrophe C-L-L. First appearance was X-Men number 137, September 1980, cover date, created by Claremont and John Byrne. These are members of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, analogous to Duo Damsel and Pharaoh Lad. Cecil is the big guy, and Beanie rides on his back, and they were named after Beanie and Cecil, a puppet show by Bob Clampett, which ran on the Paramount Television Network from 1949 to 1955. The show won three Primetime Emmy Awards and actually had a cartoon and a comic book. Mm-hmm. That was pretty popular. Oh, yeah. Uh, that might be an indictment, though, on how awful television was back then. If uh, puppets freak you out, do not Google these guys. They will kind of make you nauseous. Nightmares, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, back to the story. The externals are, as you might imagine, pretty freaked out. Even more so with the realization that Apocalypse Lackey Richter joined them for the port jump. Gambit decides their best course of action, running away. Hey, their feet will carry them. He's a man after uh, my own heart. Oh, indeed. <laughs> Richter puts his hands up and surrenders because he's literally the worst. Um, now, the externals dodge the Imperial Guard's attack and are able to get away by running into a forest, where Gambit attempts to plan their next move. Only, as luck would have it, the forest they pick to hide out in appears to be alive. Krakoa the Living Forest? And I wish. Now, uh, the Jungle Vines grab the team and hoist them away, just as the Imperial Guard comes a-calling. With the externals nowhere in sight, the Guard calls off the search. They give up pretty quick. Uh, We rejoin the externals in an underground cavern, still all tangled in the vines. They're approached by a group of folks who inform them that this world is dying. Yeah, what else is new? That's right. You can't (laughs) know that by now. Uh, back with the Imperial Guard, Richter reveals to Gladiator that he'd affixed a tracker onto a member of the Externals, so they shouldn't be too terribly difficult to find. Oracle, not that Oracle, gives him a scan to ensure he's not lying, and it turns out that he is on the up and up. Suddenly, there's a blink, not that blink, and Oracle faints. It was as though for a moment, everything ceased to exist. She reveals that Deken's spies were right, and that this world will be next to fall in the Nexus expansion. Hmm, wonder what a Deken is. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Emperor Deken, full name Deken Naramani. First appearance was X-Men number 97, February 1976 cover, created by Claremont and Cockrum. He's the brother of Deathbird and Lalandra, 
one-time ruler of the Shi'ar Empire and abuser of the Emkran crystal, would kidnap and attempt to bang Scott and Alex Summers' mother, Catherine. Only, she was already pregnant, but we wouldn't learn about that until around 2005. This would be the third Summers' brother, Gabriel Vulcan Summers. The rumor had it that Adam X, the extreme, was originally intended to be revealed as Scott and Alex's brother, and would have been the biological son of Catherine and Deken. But nope, they didn't do that. They went the, no. Vul- the Vulcan route. Uh, with X, with the X-Men's aid, Lilandra and the Imperial Guard were able to overthrow Deken. Back into the story, Oracle laments that Deken, she laments Deken ever finding the Emkron crystal at all. Um, which, uh, this is the same thing that Gambit and the gang are there to steal a chunk of, if yeah. you recall. Uh, back in the underground, the Externals meet their host, a Shi'ar and Mephistoid hybrid named Jonath. A, uh, Mephist what? A Mephistoid. First appearance, X-Men 107, October 1977, created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. They are a race of humanoid felines, and we're going to meet one in just a little bit. Thundercats? Is that what you mean, or is that, is that something? Okay. <laughs> Very close. Okay, all right. <laughs> now, uh, Jonah fills them in on the blinks, which show everyone glimpses of the complete and utter eradication of all reality. We're going to be saying Blink a lot, and we're not going to be referring to the character. And we're not talking about Blink. That's the annoying no. part, folks. If you're confused, join the club. Join us. So, yes. <laughs> now, he reveals that after Deken got control of the Emkron Crystal, he usurped the Shi'ar throne from his sister... Deathbird, whose real name is Kalsi Naramani. First appearance was Miss Marvel number 9, September 1977, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Keith Pollard. A Shi'ar who was, was once exiled to Earth, where she joined up with Modok and AIM and battled Ms. Marvel. After her siblings did their thing and Lilandra unseated Deken as ruler of the Shi'ar Empire, Deathbird decided she wanted the throne for herself, and uh, that didn't go her way. She'd side with her sister during Operation Galactic Storm. He also killed his other sister, Lilandra, who I think we met during Legion Quest. Uh, Jubilee is none too pleased and to be stranded on a planet that will very soon be eradicated in a crystal wave. I guess nobody told her that Earth isn't doing much better. It's not a lot safer right now, you know, but (laughs) I guess, you know, you you take the uh, danger you know than the danger you don't. Uh, (laughs) Then Richter and the Imperial Guard storm in. A blink happens, not that blink, and the crystal wave begins, and then another, and this one leaves half of the Imperial Guard in crystalline form. When all that, when all seems lost, the externals are rescued by the Star Jammers, who are led by Deathbird and include Chad or Chad, if you will. First appearance: X Men One Hundred and Four, April nineteen seventy-seven, created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. A lizard-like Star Jammer, often depicted as a gentle giant of sorts. Uh, he's usually accompanied by a tiny little fuzzy alien pet called Kriri. Or one of those. (laughs) Yes. Now, uh, the uh, Star Jammers aided the X-Men during the Dark Phoenix saga, and while we're talking about the Star Jammers, they were a team of space pirates that Dave Cockrum had tried to pitch to Marvel for several years, but uh, they couldn't fit them in for whatever reason. (laughs) Probably because they couldn't hold a series or even a simulation. But Chris Claremont was all right, you know, he loved it yeah, all. Claire, Claremont was more than happy to take him when he was offered to uh, offer these characters. I mean, I think if someone's come with I got, I got a character that's a talking tomato, they would have been like, sure, why not? We'll try why not? Whatever. <laughs> uh, also part of the crew was Hepzibah. First appearance was X-Men 107. The same one that all the Shi'ar imper- first appeared in, created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. 
Uh, she is that Mephistoid that we mentioned a little bit ago. She was rescued from a prison camp by Corsair, Christopher Summers, the father of Cyclops and Havoc, and leader of the Starjammers. Was named Hepzibah by Corsair after the character of Mademoiselle Hepzibah from Walt Kelly's Pogo, because her actual name is unintelligible. How, how much harder could it be to say than Hepzibah? Really? That's, you know, that's tough. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Rounding out the, uh, the uh, lineup here is Raza. Full name, Raza Longknife. First appeared X-Men 107, Claremont Cockrum. A cyborg swordsman rescued by from a prison camp by Corsair. And that's oh, about it. Right, fine. Uh, now back to the story. It's here that Gambit sees that his goal at present is more than just snatching a chunk of crystal. It's about saving the whole ding-dang universe. Yeah, about that, Gambit. Yeah. Uh, I got bad <laughs> news for this universe. But uh, we'll go on to Gambit and the Externals number three, May 1995, cover date. To the Limits of Infinity by Fabian Nicieza and Salvador La Roca. We met Fabian, so on to Salvador, just a quickie here. Uh, born in 1967 in Valencia, Spain. Started off as a cartographer before getting a gig with Marvel UK. He'd contribute to Dark Angel and Death's Head 2. His first mainstream work in North America was a brief stint on The Flash. From here, he'd have not, a brief, not as brief a stint in three years on Ghost Rider, which takes us up to right about now. Uh, this is all still very early in Salvador La Roca's career. He had, goes on again to have a very storied uh, career. But uh, some, still working now, yeah. Uh, absolutely. It, you know, we'll, we'll peel him back in other episodes and maybe at the end of this whole shebang. Uh, the externals arrive at the planet they're supposed to be sneaking into, which appears to be quite the daunting task, considering the planet is surrounded with a fusion energy absorption system. These, don't you hate those? Uh, the, star, stink, yeah. <laughs> the star jammers <laughs> decide to run interference to distract Ken's aerial armada so that the externals can beam down planet side. Upon landing, Gambit, Layla, and Deathbird break off to hunt down the crystal, leaving the others to deal with Ken's goons. Jubilee is positive that they're being set up to be sacrificed, and Sunspot assures her it's for the greater good, which doesn't really sound like an argument to the contrary, no, if you ask me. You know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, but it's okay. It's, it's good, uh, though, that we're going to be sacrificed. <laughs> Don't you understand? All right. Rah, rah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deathbird leads Gambit to the crystal. That's just one problem. It's three stories tall. Uh, but there they're going to need to chip a piece off, which we thought was the entire plan all along anyway. Yeah. He was never going to bring the entire thing. I, back, how so. are you going to bring that whole crystal? Like, yeah. <laughs> did, you bring a, did you bring a U-Haul with you? Anyway. <laughs> now, as they approach the crystal, an arm pops out of it and drags Lila inside. Gambit and Deathbird follow, hopping in themselves. Inside they find Jaff. <laughs> First appearance, X-Men 108, December 1977, created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. Now, Jaff is a, gu- is a guardian of the Emkron crystal and the resident of the nexus of all realities. Back to the story. Outside, the externals see that the crystal is glowing and that the blinks have started. Chris, why are we calling these occurrences blinks when there's a <laughs> character with the very name looming large during, during this event? Yes. Well, you know, there's a very important person named Blink. Well, they couldn't have thought of another word for this? Rift? I know. Yeah, uh, maybe. You know, window, there's so many, you know, somebody, they could even just make up a word. Snap. Or just like bleep. Yeah. yeah I mean, I mean, this is the, this is from the uh, group that made up Bamf, but for this, they couldn't make up something new. Uh, so, and Snicked. This is what, you know what I'm talking about? Anyway. Uh, Zark. Yeah. <laughs> then Gladiator with Richter in tow arrive on the scene. 
Inside the crystal, Jaff leads Gambit and Deathbird toward the heart of the M. Cran. There they find both Lila Cheney and Emperor Deken in a sort of suspended animation. Deathbird goes to kill her brother while the Gittin is good, only to find herself also plopped right into stasis. Gambit wants some answers, and luckily Jaff is more than happy to give them. Turns out anyone who ever approached the M-Cran crystal always wanted something in return, except the X-Men. How? Is it? What? Are they using this to reverse the... What? I, anyway, uh, he goes on to say, well... We'll just let him explain it. Yeah, and and you, you know he's always wanted to answer this question because he's he's gonna go on here. Uh, yes. <laughs> says, See the inside of the Emcron crystal, the neutron sun. It's a nexus point between all matter and all antimatter. That means all matter and all antimatter crossing over to every single different reality in existence. Think of the Emcron like a doorway. It's necessary to always keep that door closed, not just in one reality, but in all of them. If that door would have been left open, let's say in the world you know as real, then the draft would eventually reach other realities and worlds, affecting the people which live in them. So Gambit rightly asks, how come nobody's noticed any of that? Exactly one person did. The raving lunatic you know as Bishop, a chronal anomaly. He was present at the exact moment when all the different realities split asunder. And he continues... Charles Xavier's death meant Jean Grey was never trained into use of her powers. She never became Phoenix, and therefore never repaired the Emcron crystal in the actual reality. And so, everything is eventually going to collapse. Uh, Jaff pleads with Gambit to take that chunk of crystal and use it to send Bishop back in time to prevent Xavier's death. Gambit ain't so sure, but eh, he's up to give it a shot. Why not? <laughs> Back outside, Sunspot and Gladiator are exchanging punches with Roberto absorbing a whole lot of energy. Then, blink. Now that is a blink, not the girl blink. Oh, okay. <laughs> Gladiator is crystallized. Hell, everyone who isn't an external or Richter is turned to glass. The externals, plus Richter, all beeline it to the M-Cran crystal. Inside, Gambit commits to the plan, takes a chunk of that stuff, and the team teleports out. Minus Roberto, that is, he stays behind since he'd absorbed as much energy, energy as a star. Heading on into Gambit and the Externals number 4, June 1995 cover date, The Maze by Fabian Nicieza and Salvador LaRocca. Is LaRocca right, or I, I feel like it should be? I say LaRocca, but in th this issue is weird because it's it, it plays with time a lot. It's just, it's very, very... We're going to try to explain it the best we can. Oh, it's, I mean, yeah, issue. this, this yeah. Gambit story, really, I think, is the one that spins out the most weird, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what is going on? The other stuff is all these taking place on, like, Earth. On and, the like, same plane you or know, something, This yeah. is like, where did he go? What is going Linear, on? Why is he yeah. doing this? But, uh, uh, we open in the now with none of the externals. Instead, it's Dazzler and Exodus tro trolling the Morlock tunnels looking for baby Charles. What they find instead is Nanny's destroyed carcass. We jump ahead to later where we find Richter's in a darkened room. Also in this room is Apocalypse, and in Apocalypse's arms is baby Charles. Then, jumping back to earlier, Lila and Gambit are running through the Morlock tunnels. Richter's chasing them. And this is all going according to plan. You see, they know Richter is an idiot and would chase them upon return, so they split up. Gambit and Lila would be the bait. Guido and Jubilee would take the M-Cran shard to Magneto. And Richter proclaims that he'll be able to track them anywhere they go, even if they split up. Sure, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, back to, uh, forward to later... 
okay, Apocalypse is interrogating Richter. And he wonders why he'd chase Gambit instead of Jubilee, who had the M-Cran shard. And Richter thought Apocalypse wanted Gambit more. Well, he didn't exactly catch either of them, yeah. so it's kind of a moot point, right? It's pretty clear that he failed in either account, so <laughs> whatever. You at least could have said you failed at getting Jubilee, right? <laughs> uh, now, <laughs> we jump back to earlier, and Jubilee is running through the Morlock tunnels, and she's carrying both the Emkron Shard and Baby Charles. Turns out that she's being chased by none other than Guido. What? Oh, he tells her it's nothing personal. He just hates Gambit. Uh, he, maybe he's in love with Lila Cheney, uh, sort of like the Prime Universe, Marvel, Marvel Universe version. But here, she's only got eyes for the Cajun. He takes the shard and the child away from her. He claims that Apocalypse had planted a bug inside him a few months earlier. Remember, back on the Shi'ar homeworld here, uh, Richter uh, mentioned that someone has a bug on him. Right. Well, it was Guido. Uh, taking the baby and the shard, he apologizes to Guido, and he leaves. Forward on to later, Richter pleads ignorance about what Guido and Jubilee were up to, and since he's an idiot, there's little doubt that he's telling the truth. Back to earlier, Gambit and Layla double back, fearing that Richter wasn't just whistling Dixie when he said he could track them. The last thing they want to do is lead him to Xavier's. They run into Guido, and baby Charles is in his arms, and Gambit's got questions, and Richter, who's also nearby, has answers. Guido sold them out. Richter then starts using his quake powers to bring the roof down. Guido panics at him, but this might also kill the baby, and he holds up the main support column to the tunnels with his own back. Gambit only has time to choose who to save, either Lila or baby Charles and the M-Cran shard as well. Relegating this entire endeavor a complete waste of time, Gambit <laughs> chooses Lila. <laughs> Guido releases the beam, which makes it so the only way he and baby Charles can go is actually deeper into the tunnels and not outside with Gambit and uh, Lila. We jump off to the later. Richter explains how he escaped the crumbling tunnels via a small access tunnel, because we really needed to know that. Sure. Uh, it's like, he's alive. That's all we, That's need, to all we need to know. Somehow he uh, got out, yeah. We don't need his root. Uh, now, Gambit <laughs> shows him the baby, which surprises Richter quite a bit. He's also surprised that Guido survived the cave-in, though he's probably most surprised when Apocalypse crushes his skull like a, like a grape. Moments uh, before, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, see you, Richter. Thanks for coming. But uh, see you at the party, Richter. Sorry, I had to say it <laughs> once. Just once. There you go. Uh, back at the tunnels, Gambit and Lyle are discovered by Dazzler and Exodus. Next, X-Men Omega. Or, or more accurately, Amazing X-Men number four, which oh. we'll be getting to at the end of the episode. Oh, all right. Uh, we go right into the next series. This is Excalibre, number two. April 1995, stories called Burn by Warren Ellis, Roger Cruz, Renato Arlum, Charles Moda, and Eddie Wagner. <clears throat> it's, a lot of, it's a lineup. A lot there. of folks on this one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Warren Ellis here, born February 16, 1968 in Essex, England. While in college, he contributed comic work to the college magazine Spike. Prior to becoming a professional comics writer, Ellis held jobs running a bookstore, running a pub, working in a record shop, and even did some manual labor. He claims he fell into comics journalism largely by accident, and when the folks he was working for decided to publish, start publishing their own comics, he decided why not give it a try. His first thing would be Lazarus, Lazarus Churchhood, 
Oh, boy. Easy for me to say. <laughs> Lazarus Churchyard, and that appeared in Blast Number 1 in 1991 from Tundra Press. In 1994, Ellis began working for Marvel Comics. He took over scripting duties on Hellstorm, Prince of Lies, with issue number 12. This is March 1994 cover date, and he'd stick around until the book's cancellation with its 21st issue. He'd hop over to the 2099 arena and do some Doom 2099. He'd also do Excalibur, which is why we're talking about him right now. Yeah, he just happened to be standing there when the Age of Apocalypse washed over him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then Roger Cruz, also known as Rogerio da Cruz Corota, was born February 22, 1971 in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He started his professional career with Editora Abril, a major Brazilian publisher and printing company. Also, one of the biggest media holdings in Latin America. Mostly lettering Portuguese translations of American comics is what Roger did. He was introduced to the American comics world by Art and Comics Studio and found himself getting work from Marvel Comics. Accused of swiping or aping the style of his favorite artist, he taught himself to draw by copying uh, other pencilers, including Jim Lee and perhaps most obviously Joe Madreira. Madreira. I always have a lot of problems with that one. (laughs) Uh, he did teach himself to draw that way, but, you know, uh, we've said it before, it's worth repeating. Joe wasn't terribly pleased and included a newspaper headline reading, Cruz swipes again in Uncanny X-Men number 325, that was October 1995 cover date. In fairness, and also worth repeating, though, Cruz was doing an awful lot of fill-in work for Joe Mad, who, at the time, was very likely too preoccupied with Chrono Trigger and or Final Fantasy III to get his pages in. We do know all about his... Uh, Love for video games, which he's very public about, but uh, yes. Roger Roger Cruz, whether he swiped that, I think he's definitely developed his own look more recently. Sure, so, yeah, sure, and, and and I mean, if you're if you're buying a collected edition of work from that time, you kind of want it to be in the same style, right? So. He, exactly, like you say, he's doing fill in, so you want it to sure. be stylistically correct. Now we also have Renato Arlem. Not much online about this fella. However, a chronological listing of his published work shows that this very issue is his first. So uh, bag it and board it. Uh, Now he has or had a blog where he describes himself as a graphic designer, designer, illustrator, and that he worked with drawing since 1986. And uh, since no one's argued that point, I guess we'll take his word for it. Uh, it sounds good enough to me. Uh, Charles mm-hmm. Mota, even less is known about him, uh, whose first and only published work is this very issue. And then there's Eddie Wagner, who we have a tiny bit more about him. This wasn't his first or only published work. It was actually his third. Yes. How about that? Yeah, now into the story. We left off last time with Switchback and Juggernaut meeting up with Destiny in Avalon. Destiny would touch Switchback, and then her mind was flooded with visions of Apocalypse's America. The visions end when they break contact. Now, speaking of Apocalypse's America, we shift scenes over to Manhattan, where the Madri are attacking Proudstar and the Ghost Dance. Proudstar pontificates about something or another before being shot in the back. Uh, On their way to Antarctica, Nightcrawler and his fellow refugees are choking to death from the submarine's busted air conditioning. The Excalibur sub fires off a flare to alert an oncoming ship. Now, this freighter decides to lend a hand, and they cut through the submarine's door with torches. Now, the the captain of this freighter is... Callisto. First appearance in Uncanny X-Men number 169, May 1983, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Paul Smith. Uh, we first met Callisto when she was leader of the Morlocks, kidnapped Angel, inclu- intending to make him her mate, even started cutting cut off his feathers so he couldn't get away. Bested in a duel by Storm for Warren's freedom, which also left Storm as Morlock's leader. 
Callisto would then kidnap Kitty Pride in an attempt to force her into marrying Caliban. More on him in a bit. This also didn't work out that well for her. She's not a very good matchmaker, what we find no, out about Callisto. No. Uh, during Colossus's postage perilous time as Peter Nicholas, Callisto had her normally scarred face repaired by the Morlock mask. And they even started having a thing. Until Mask took her beauty away, then thing it concluded rapidly. <laughs> uh, during what Marvel laughably referred to as the last Morlock story, Callisto fell for another Rasputin, the ever-elusive Mikhail. The arc ended with the apparent death of the Morlocks, but they were actually just sent to an alternate dimension where they all wanted to run up a hill or something like that. Yeah, it wasn't, very, wasn't, wasn't the greatest story. Yeah. And back to the story. Callisto agrees to take the refugees to Avalon. Nightcrawler, however, is nowhere to be seen. You see, it, it turns out, like a true hero, he ported himself out of the Death Trap yeah, submarine, leaving all. his fellow refugees behind, yeah. Uh, in the skies above, Apocalypse's pale riders are hovering. Now, this is that group with Dam- Damask, uh, Danny Moonstar, and Dead Man Wade. Yeah. As a matter of fact, right now, Danny is carving up Wade's head to play her quote, disappearing graffiti trick with his healing factor. <laughs> what a weird thing to do. Right? Uh, whatever. <laughs> now, they're contacted by a really awful CGI-looking apocalypse. Uh, he updates their mission, so they're no longer just following Nightcrawler to learn where Avalon is. They're actually there to go to Avalon and kill everyone in Avalon. Oh, mission update. All right, well, mm-hmm. uh, take that down. Uh, Wade lets out a scream. He's growing tired of being hacked and slashed, and Damask has also had enough, and so she kills Danny Moonstar. Yep. Not with a bang. <laughs> wow. It's like, okay. <laughs> Wasn't that your colleague? Fine. All right. Uh, down on the waters, the refugees board Callisto's freighter. She directs them to to a ballast tank, which she claims is scan shielded. After locking them in, she dumps them all into the icy Atlantic and they die. Uh, the ship then drifts into an atrocity zone, which is a fancy name for a place where Apocalypse drops all the bodies. Kurt reveals himself and is shortly joined by Mystique who, as luck would have it, was flying above. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Ex- Excalibre was a tough one to get through. I mean, um, it was really just kind of like unnecessarily mean and brutal, that little yeah. bit there, but all right. <laughs> uh, Excalibre, number three, May 1995. Body Heat by Warren Ellis and Ken Lashley. We met Warren. Let's meet Lashley. Very little can be found online about his early years. Uh, we assume he was born somewhere in the Western Hemisphere sometime during the latter half of the 20th century. He started working for, for Marvel with Excalibur number 70. It was October 1993, cover date, and he stuck around long enough to take part in the Age of Apocalypse. He's got a website, leadkillaboom.com. Yeah, I mean, all, a lot of these guys, you know, they, they are loom so large now, but this is them 20 years ago just starting out. So there's yeah, just freshmen. not a yeah. lot to say at this point, but now they're like the, the premier cover artists or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, we open this issue with Nightcrawler and Mystique getting reacquainted. Kalisto, as well as the rest of her crew, they're all dead. Huh. <laughs> so off-panel killing. Uh, so now, really, Nightfall... so really, those refugees, <laughs> those refugees would have died anyway. So it all worked out, right? Yeah, Everything's it, fine. It all, <laughs> they just at least they didn't suffer unless <laughs> unless drowning is a uh, drowning and freezing <laughs> might be. I don't know. We'll f- don't don't think about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> At least they, they have plenty of company in that atrocity zone. <laughs> uh, now, Nightcrawler and Mystique climb into her airship. Uh, it's revealed that she wasn't even looking for Nightcrawler. She just really wanted to kill the pirates. So, wow. d- you know, double whammy. Uh, now, back with the Pale Riders, Wade asks the mask why she had to kill Moonstar. She tells him to shut up and also tells him that uh, Danny never liked him anyway. Wow, what a bully. Sheesh. Right? She's awful. <laughs> 
Uh, Mystique and Kurt land in Antarctica. The Blue Falk argue, and it becomes physical when Kurt realizes that Mystique has been fleecing would-be refugees wanting to travel to Avalon, and then dumping their bodies in the atrocity zone. <laughs> they eventually make their way to the ferry and finally to Marco. He guides them into Avalon, and along the way they set up camp, and Kane tells them about having a stepbrother named Charles. Once they enter Avalon, Mystique learns that Destiny has a son named Doug Ramsey, a.k.a. Cypher. First appearance was New Mutants number 13, March 1984, cover date, created by Claremont and Sal Buscema. A friend of Kitty Pride's who turned out to be a mutant with the power to master languages. Mm-hmm. What a power. Learned about the New Mutants from Cannonball, for, uh, who needed help communicating with the techno-organic alien Warlock. Doug joined up and became close pals with Warlock. He'd help rescue Psylocke from Mojo in her first American appearance, and he's killed when he takes a bullet meant for teammate Rain Sinclair. Headma- Headmaster Magneto explains the death to Doug's parents as a hunting accident. Doug never came out as a mutant to his folks. There's also that Doug Locke thing that followed, but we already discussed that a few episodes, and it wasn't him, so yeah, don't worry about it. Um, imagine going to, it's like, oh, he died in a hunting accident. Yeah. Oh, oh, at, least well, he, at least he wasn't a mutant. Yeah, really. He wasn't touching no mutant, were he? Anyway. <laughs> Now, back to the story. After a reunion, uh, together they all travel to the Avalon Village. Mystique also tells Irene, that's Destiny, that she's only come she's only come this far in order to take her back with them. Uh, once in the village, Irene reveals that the vision she saw when she touched Switchback told her that they're all going to die. The very moment, at the entrance to Avalon, Dead Man Wade and Damask arrive. The very sight of the place is enough to bring Damask to tears. She cannot comprehend that such a beautiful place exists in this world. Inside the village, Mystique fills Destiny in on Magneto's plan, and we'll just let her tell it. She says, In America, Eric Lencher Magneto has found a man who appears to have manifested here from an alternate timeline, a timeline where Apocalypse never came to power. If Eric can confirm the truth of it, then he sees the chance to actually twist our time towards that better world. He needs you to confirm it. That's pretty much as as interested in the subject as I thought she was. <laughs> that's perfect. Uh, actually, no. actually, that's Southern Californian for fascinated. That, that <laughs> voice is riveted, but you, can, you just can't tell. <laughs> no, from, from this statement, Destiny is spooked. Because she's afraid if she were to leave Avalon, the entire place would be destroyed. While they debate and they talk about the importance of suns, there's a tremendous explosion. Marco hits the ground and mutters Charles as he does so. It's Wade and Damask, and they've got rockets. Damask doesn't act, though, and when he asks, and Wade asks why, she claims to want to be one of the good guys and defect from Apocalypse's employ. Right there, like... Right there, right there, one pass. Ta-da! Then she stabs him in the throat. Before Wade's healing factor can kick in, Nightcrawler bamps in and teleports out while holding poor Deadpool's head. We wrap up with Nightcrawler, Mystique, Damask, and Switchback vowing to defend Destiny as they get her out of Avalon. On to Excalibur number 4, June 1995. On Fire by Warren Ellis and Ken Lashley. After the dust settles, the gang heads back into the village to attempt to convince Destiny to leave with them once more. Switchback performs her mutant ability to jump back in time a few seconds to avoid getting a headache. This sounds stupid, but it will be important later. Um, They find a very pained juggernaut being cradled by Doug Ramsey. Well, most of a pained juggernaut, anyway. He no longer has legs. Um, 
Doug reveals that his language power is what allows all the folks in Avalon to understand one another, which I don't think that's his actual power. <laughs> it doesn't I don't seem, think he can facilitate. Was, yeah, he can understand and speak. Yeah, I don't but think I, he, uh, unless he's translating for everybody. I mean, that, that's got to be annoying. That's a lot. It's a lot to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I really want to talk to her. Can you, can you come with me? <laughs> uh, now, he also says that Destiny won't be so quick to return to America just because some lunatic named Bishop ranted about alternate dimensions. Uh, it's here that it's revealed that Kurt's little team will be known as X hyphen caliber. Hey, they actually said it. Hey. Yes. Uh, now, what they say is they're actually named after a bullet, so a caliber bullet with an X carved in it. Sure, so, why not? That's why not. Uh, reinforcements then arrive in the forms of the citizens of Avalon. Mystique wants to start killing, but Doug talks her down from that. Turns out the citizens are possessed by the Shadow King. Mystique kills one of them anyway, just for good measure. After body hopping a bit, Shadow King attempts to possess Destiny using a body of her friend Marcus. Damask used her powers on Marcus, and we learned that he was once her teacher. Okay. Uh, that was coincidental. <laughs> uh, the, the Shadow King escapes as she performs a psionic skinning. <laughs> Doug refers to Excalibur as animals, responsible for tearing down the once perfect Avalon, and Nightcrawler tells him to shut up at his face. <laughs> Shadow King pops up again, this time possessing Mystique and causing her to shapeshift into Sabretooth. So now you know why this this book has such an ugly cover. Uh, <laughs> Nightcrawler then bamps it with Damask and Switchback. When he teleports, he... Well, we'll just let him say it. He's in my mother. When I teleport, I spend a fraction of a second in the adjacent dimension. I'm praying that he uses the same space to make his transitions between hosts. If I teleport all three of us and switch back and extend our transition time... You know, that'd be mighty convenient if all Farouk used the same alternate dimension as Kurt, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it wouldn't have... Hmm. Yeah. Naturally, that's exactly the case. So, uh, they, the Banff, Banff dimension, we call it. Right? <laughs> yes. They Banff and switch back buys them transition time and Damask psionically skins the Shadow King. As a parting shot, the Shadow King hops back into the body of Marcus and fires a blast at Destiny. Doug pulls an Xavier and also a prime Doug Ramsey and hops in front of the bullet. <laughs> now, as Doug lay dying, Destiny swears by all she holds holy that she will take down Apocalypse. Next, X-Men Omega. What this was really missing was a multi-panel page of Destiny looking into the sky screaming, Duh! Yes. You know, just for panels and panels. Just no! Uh, anyway, uh, X-Men, number two, April 1995, cover date. This is titled Choosing Sides by Jeff Loeb and Steve Scroach. Or Scroachy? Scroach. Uh, Jeff Loeb, we talked about him a little bit. Let's do a little quicker one here. Joseph Jeff Loeb III was born January 29th, 1958 in these United States. Perhaps somewhere around Stanford, Connecticut, because that is where he grew up. Graduated from Columbia University in New York with a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's Degree in Film. His filmmaking debut was writing Team Wolf with Matthew Wiseman, the Matthew J. Fox vehicle. When Loeb was working on a screenplay for DC Comics character The Flash, that deal fell through. But not before Jeff had the opportunity to meet then-DC Comics head honcho Jeanette Kahn, who wanted him to write some comics. And his first work was the eight-issue Challengers of the Unknown miniseries, March through October 1991 cover dates. Loeb did a few one-off stories for DC Comics, including Batman, Legends of the Dark Knight, Halloween Special, 
which is a prestige format, came out December 1993. Then he'd do Cable for Marvel, which then became X-Men, and here we are. Yes, across the table, we got Steve Scrocy. Scrocy. Well, Steve Scrocy, we'll say. Sure. Uh, not, not a whole heck of a lot about him, uh, other than he's of Croatian descent. And, of course, that's only if the Internet isn't lying to us. His comics career started in 1993 when he drew Ecto Kid. That's a Clive Barker series from Marvel's Razorline. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, then he'd do himself a little Cable. And now he's doing himself a little of the book that filled in for Cable. Yeah, that's how it happened. Uh, <laughs> before hopping into the story, we received an email from friend of the show, Tom Panarisi, about a question we raised a couple of weeks back when we discussed X-Men number one. We asked if there was any significance to Nate's troop putting on a production of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Neither of us knew, but Tom came to the rescue and he wrote, Chris and Reggie, long-time listener, first-time caller here. I've loved your show for a while and have been enjoying the Age of Apocalypse episodes. I actually never read the storyline because I dropped all the X-Men books right after the Blood Ties crossover. Don't compliment me on taste, however. I bought and still own all of Deathmate. <laughs> I, I did too, and then I realized a few months ago I was missing one, and I, I actually went out and bought it. Oh, I, I don't you, know why. So you're yeah. worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, he continues. Anyway, at one point in episode 101, part two of the coverage, you guys noted that a group of mutants was using a traveling theater company as their cover. They were going through the countryside performing Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. You guys wondered what the significance was, and lucky for you, I teach high school English and have used the play class before. Now, he says the basic plot is that a bunch of people have sex in the woods. Okay, it's a little more complicated than that, but where the illusion might be coming from is that for most of the play, the fairies and other creatures who live in the forest are manipulating a group of humans through love potions and trickery. Much like a number of Shakespeare's comedies, Twelfth Night, As You Like It, The Tempest, to name a few, People who are expected to act a certain way within the confines of society leave that society somehow, act completely differently, and hijinks ensue. Anyway, the allusion to the play could be that our favorite mutant heroes are in a dream state, and because of the manipulations of those with greater powers are not acting the way they normally would in the real world. Everything is out of place, and either nobody or maybe one or two people realize it which seems to be what's going on in the Age of Apocalypse. Oh, that makes sense. He says, uh, if you're interested in a Midsummer Night's Dream, I recommend seeing if you can find a good live performance. There's a lot of beautifully written iambic pentameter and funny dirty jokes, and they work really well even 400 years later. If you're interested in seeing a film version, the 1999 movie starring Kevin Kline, Michelle Pfeiffer, Christian Bale, Callista Flockhart, Stanley Tucci, and Rupert Everett is worth checking out. I'd also recommend issue 19 of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, which is where really my, my closest to it, but they don't do the yeah. whole play there. Uh, series for another way, a comic uses Shakespeare, plus it has beautiful Charles Vess artwork. Keep up the great work, guys. Can't wait for the next episode. Yes, wow. big, big thanks well, for, huge uh, thanks for, for that. And, and it, yeah. makes, it does make perfect sense. This is like their alternate, uh, you know, potion-induced or whatever, you know, like induced Being out of the altered element, yeah. state, you know. So, yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, so real big thanks to Tom Panarese there. Uh, he's got a great site over at popcultureaffidavit.com where you can find his writings as well as his podcasts. Uh, currently, he's coming towards the end of a series called It Came From Syndication, where he and a guest explore a variety of programs from the 1980s and into the early 90s that aired in syndication. Uh, he's, a, he's a New York guy. Uh, he's actually a Long Island guy. Him and I... Him and I spent our teen years probably like three miles apart from one another. Oh, wow. We had the same comic stores and everything. So it's his his nostalgia is basically my nostalgia, and I, I'd recommend you check it out. That's cool. Uh, 
Yeah, he also has a a series called My Life as a Teen Titan, which chronicles his his youth reading the Teen Titans or oh, the wow. new Teen Titans. It's 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 a good it's a great site, and uh, we'll leave a link to it in the show notes. Absolutely. But we will hop in now to X Men number two, where we open with Domino fighting Rosovic, who we might know better as Omega Red. Real name is Arkady Rosovic. First appearance was X Men Volume Two, number four, January nineteen ninety two, created by Jim Lee and John Byrne. He was implanted by the Soviet government with a car- carbonadium tentacles. Uh, Ar- Arkady proved to be a thorn in the side of Wolverine during his days with Team X alongside Sabretooth and Maverick. Uh, Omega Red was resurrected post-Cold War by some other Wolverine thorn inside, Matsuo Tetsura Yaba. Tetsura Yaba. I did very well there. Thank you very much, Chris, (laughs) for your accolades. Uh, He loses to the X-Men a couple of times, but always manages to escape. And Rosovich works for the mutant underground. Domino is hoping he might give up some info about a certain telepath that he's currently hunting. Since they're fighting, you probably already know Arkady's answer. It was no. <laughs> Rosovich might be getting a little too big for his britches, though. He believes he'll have no problem beating up a lone female, but our money, uh, first of all, is on Domino. Second of all, she's not even alone. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to meet Grizzly. Real name, Theodore Winchester. First appearance, X-Force number 8. March 1992, cover date, created by Rob Liefeld. He's a member of Cable's Wild Pack. Later... Six pack. Then he would join Weapon P R I M E. Uh, we had a lot of weird names in the nineties, and uh, his his name. It used to be like a comedy thing where like people with like really proper names were kind of grungy. Yeah. Like Chester's and with Winchester's. It would always, <laughs> just, be, it would always be a real sl- a sloppy snoop like kind of dude. Yeah. Yeah, like an odd juxtaposition between name and and look likeness, and I think that might be what was going on with uh, our man Grizz here. Good old Teddy Winchester. Well, uh, <laughs> while Grizzly and Omega Red size each other up, Domino stabs Rosovich through the gut. Just then, a third member of their gang arrives. It's Caliban. We talked about we. Intimated him before. His first appearance was Uncanny X-Men number 148, August 1981, cover date, created by Claremont and Cockrum. He's an albino mutant who was thrown out of his home by an abusive father. His pop gave him the moniker Caliban after a character from William Shakespeare's The Tempest. Found a home amongst the Morlocks and almost married Kitty Pride. He'd later become Apocalypse's horseman of death and have a rather large growth spurt. He would eventually come around and join X-Force. Domino and the gang contentiously chatted out, but managed to give us a refresher on their mission. Find Nate Gray and either hire him or or fry him. Now, speaking of Nate, he's currently being trained in the art of hand-to-hand combat by Forge. And Forge wipes the floor (laughs) with him pretty easily. Uh, Teresa Rourke Cassidy is watching the sparring session, and uh, we learn that here in the AOA, she goes by the moniker Sonic rather than Siren. <laughs> Just to be confusing, why, well, you know, why not? Why not, right? <laughs> now, Nate's annoyed, and he thinks that he's above, you know, he's kind of above this hand-to-hand thing. Forge disagrees. So Nate stomps off like a child would. Uh, Forge is afraid that he might be pushing him toward Essex. You know, that's the hitchhiker who totally isn't Mr. Sinister that they picked up at the end of last right, issue. Right, yeah. Uh, if he's so scared of pushing him toward Essex, how about he just doesn't do that then? You know, right? <laughs> just stop doing it and you don't have to be scared of that. So, Forge wasn't just whistling Dixie. He did indeed send Nate right over to Essex, who reveals that he is a bioengineer who used to work for Apocalypse, which is something we already knew. He also laments the fact that the rest of the troop are keeping their distance. 
I guess there aren't any mirrors in the Age of Apocalypse. I mean, this this guy yeah. looks like this dude looks like a creep and a half. He's uh, everyone's giving you know it's a place where you give people the benefit of the doubt. I guess uh, you know the Age of Apocalypse. Yeah, he asked Nate about his true parentage, which Nate is still in the dark about. And he then asked Nate if he's ever thought to use his telekinesis in order to fly, and so Nate does just that. Yeah. That night, the troop plans their next move, and it seems like there's a consensus that, consensus that they lay low until Essex suggests that they infiltrate a factory wherein unspeakable horrors occur daily in Apocalypse's name. Before we know it, they do just that. Like, literally, like, two panels later, you know? There's no thought <laughs> about there. it at all. They were like, well, I gotta tie my shoes, and that's it. Uh, Essex fills them in on McCoy's M.O., and we'll just let him tell it here. This McCoy had a theory. Using the bone marrow of otherwise discarded human corpses, it might, emphasis on might, be possible to extract enough DNA to provide a worthwhile supplement for the Alpha-class mutant. Uh, That's enough for Nate, who decides that they uh, ought to level this joint. Then the Madri appear and attack, but they pick the wrong dude on the wrong day to attack, at first anyway. Uh, Nate plays Icarus and flies a little too high, neglecting that there are Madri on the ground firing blasts at him. Not sure that's exactly how the story of Icarus went. You sure? That's not it. They weren't. He, he didn't get blasted out of the sky by maybe, a weird monk. Right. Okay. It's been a while. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Forge calls for the troop to withdraw, and ex- Essex is lost in thought, shocked that Nate Gray went down so quickly. Nate recovers, but not before a Madri is able to run off to inform Apocalypse that he's there. We rejoin the troop at dawn, and they're hankered down in an old farmhouse. Nate wakes up early and sneaks out. Sanik catches up with him. He says he's tired of being spoon-fed information by Forge. He wants to know everything about his past. So he's going to have to find out everything all by himself. Mm. Teresa insists that he take her along on his astral jaunt. Now they wind up going back to that schoolhouse where Nate had his most recent astral trip, uh, back in X-Men number one where he saw Magneto and Bishop arguing. Right, right. Now inside, they see Magneto playing with baby Charles, and Charles can totally see them. Whoa, bro. <laughs> you know, babies and dogs. It's, uh, That's it's, right. It's, it's, it's like uh, it's like Al on Quantum Leap. They can see you. Uh, now, Magneto turns around to face the interlopers, but Sonic breaks Nate's Psylink right away. <laughs> Say that eight times fast. Uh, no. <laughs> back inside the farmhouse, troop member Brute confronts Essex about being experimented on. Oh, that's right. Uh, Brute was experimented on by Mr. Sinister. Not that we know that. No. So uh, Sinister kills him. Forge enters, but doesn't notice that Brute's been murdered and asks Essex to leave anyway. We wrap up with the arrival of Domino, Grizzly, and Caliban. On to X-Men number three, May 1995 cover date, titled Turning Point by Jeff Loeb and Steve Scrotz-E. Domino orders Forge to hand over that telepath. He ain't hip to the violence, and so she suffers. She offers to cut off his tongue. Essex uses this as an opportunity to slip away. Domino reads Forge's rap sheet, which includes working with Magneto and blowing up small factories and trains. Forge proclaims, exit stage left. Yeah, really. I mean, what the heck? Even. Anyway, uh, he throws a flash grenade to the ground, and he runs off to warn Nate of his persistent pursuers. 
And he runs into Toad and Mastermind first and decides to use the fact that Domino doesn't know what Nate looks like to their advantage. Domino eventually catches up and is left with the impression that Mastermind is the actual powerful telepath. He creates a great big illusion of apocalypse, which Domino sees through right away. Uh, She blows Mastermind away, leaving nothing but bones. Then Nate arrives and fights with Domino. The rest of the troop joins in. Toad stabs Caliban, but gets eaten by Grizzly for his troubles. Uh, Then Forge and Sonic double-team Grizzly and manage to kill him rather quickly. Grizzly shouts out as he dies, which Domino hears, and it you know distracts her attention long enough uh, for Nate to zap her with some TK hoodoo. Uh, as she lay frozen, he forces her to rewatch all of her kills from the point of view of the victims. What a son of a! Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's Nate, the, that's the uh, that's the was it the the humane way to do it? Exactly. You know, now I'm gonna make you suffer through guilt. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Nate and Forge rush toward each other and embrace, and Essex shows up and blames Brute's death on Domino, which kind of worked itself out, if you think about it. Uh, Some time passes, and Nate realizes that Forge has been gone for a little too long. He rushes over to his shed and finds him laying in a pool of blood. With his last breaths, Forge telepathically tells Nate to find Magneto. As Forge dies, Nate releases one heck of a telekinetic outburst that destroys the shed, which uh, impresses Essex pretty well, but Nate doesn't really care that much about it. We wrap up with Essex revealing himself to be something we've already uh, alluded to the entire time, Mr. Sinister! Gas! Oh, there I you mean, go! I mean, <gasps> <laughs> We wrap up his story, X-Man number 4, June 1995. Story's called The Art of War by Jeff Loeb and Steve Schirmer. Uh, <laughs> now, we open with the Shadow King reporting Domino's failure to Apocalypse, and he ain't pleased. And so he lets loose with a psionic temper tantrum. It's really quite a scene. Uh, he calms down upon realizing that Nate's sur- survival means that he's, you know, one of the fit. Right. Now, after dismissing the Shadow King, Apocalypse heads down to his dungeon to visit Magneto. Elsewhere, Nate blasts Mr. Sinister while he rants and raves about how he trusted him, man. He even blows a giant hole in Mr. Sinister's gut, a wound which all Essex mends with the quickness. He asks Nate, what's he so mad about? And Nate is like, you killed Forge, duh. And Sinister (laughs) compares Forge finding Nate to any random person finding money on the ground. The point he's trying to get across, we think, is that Forge might have acted like a father to Nate, but surely wasn't one, and Nate is not having that. So Sinister invites him to enter his mind and finally see the truth. It seems like a not bad idea, but anyway, yeah. uh, inside Sinister's mind, Nate learns where he comes from. Sinister combines Scott Summers and Jean Grey's genetic materials, and we got us a Nate, with the help of some growth acceleration, of course. And then Scott Freedom, the come-with-me-if-you-want-to-live bit we saw back in X-Men number one, which Sinister allowed to occur but didn't want to tip off the big A to Cyclops for his own treason. Back in reality, Sinister reveals his big plan. He wants Nate to kill Apocalypse. In fact, that was the point. That was the whole point of his creation to begin with. Just then, Sonic and Sauron enter the scene with a blast. Nate wraps them in a bubble and sends them away so they don't bear witness to the ugliness that's about to come. Nate then rears back and punches Sinister in the face, which Sinister laughs at, because uh, this is Nate's attempt at autonomy here, and he warns that Nate'll always just be a weapon, simply to be pointed at Apocalypse. Damn. <laughs> now, Nate continues pummeling the hell out of Sinister before flying off. 
And as Nate leaves, a bloodied sinister smiles, but before he realizes he's bleeding, of course. He struggles to get to his feet and then realizes, uh-oh, not only am I bleeding, I'm bleeding a lot. Sinister slumps to the ground. Dead. Nate heads back to Sonic and Sauron to say goodbye. He's got a job to do. Forge told him to track down Magneto, remember? Looking skyward, Nate sees, Nate sees an image of Apocalypse torturing Magneto, and somehow he knows exactly where they are. <laughs> Next stop, the Citadel. He arrives during the fracas that occurred at the end of Factor X, where Apocalypse ordered all the captives culled, and we talked about that last week. He meets Scott and Gene just as they're making their escape, and the psychic backlash between Nate and Gene is enough to shock them both, which causes Cyclops to believe he's one of the bad guys, so he lets loose with the optic blasts. They straighten everything out soon enough, though. Uh, Gene offers to take Nate with them, but he refuses. So Scott and Gene leave, and Nate heads off to search for Apocalypse. Next, X-Men Omega. But first... (laughs) First, we're going to wrap up Amazing X-Men with Amazing X-Men number 4, June 1995, cover date. On Consecrated Ground by Fabian Niciesa and Andy Cubitt. Start off in Quebec, where a group of Madri priests are preparing a ceremony during which they will kill Bishop. The priest says, Do you understand the meaning of these words, Haratik? You have proven yourself too great a threat of his most high lord. And they cut into Bishop's arm and let him bleed out into a goblet. They then take turns drinking of it. Yeah. Your knowledge of another world, of a place where Apocalypse does not hold sway over the planet, must not be allowed to poison, to contaminate the minds of the Empire. Though the Shadow King, Apocalypse's great telepath, was expelled from your mind during the joining, still did he glimpse visions of his other world. The apocalypse is strangely absent, and a long-dead mutant named uh, Charles Xavier lives and fights for a peace and coexistence. That world cannot be allowed to pass. Magneto and his X-Men must be stopped from making it so. And thus, the genetrator bishop must die. Storm arrives before they can do any actual damage to Bishop. She whips up some hurricane winds and blasts the Madri away. She then unhooks Bishop from the uh, ceremonial cable sure, yeah. <laughs> and helps him get away. Uh, she winds up using her lock-picking p- skills after Bishop jogs her memory. Elsewhere, we join Quicksilver and Banshee, who are disguised as cloaked members of the Madri. Uh, they happen across one of the, the one true Jamie Madrox, who looks quite insane, and due to some McCoy bio-tampering, his body has been crippled. It also looks like he's wearing a diaper, which... I mean, I, I guess it makes sense, considering yeah. what he's been through, yeah. True. Uh, Jamie goes, have you, have you come to kill me? Has someone at last come to help me? Please, please, free, free me from Apocalypse. Oh, please. Uh, Pietro and Shaw know the only way to stop the Madri is by killing the real deal, but can they go through with it? Mm. Back in Westchester, Rogue's X-Men return home, but do not find who they expect. Rogue says, what happened here? Sabretooth goes Signs of a firefight Plasma tracer burns Your husband was out there An apocalypse himself And now? Hmm Nothing's fresh Scent's cold Except from the house Daruski and his wife are here And a kid Charles 
Nope, not Charles. Mm. Uh, there they meet up with Colossus and Kitty, Ilyana in tow. They learn here that a Generation Next are dead. Blink, this is the girl, feels guilty about being with the X-Men instead of with the youngsters, which is kind of an inversion on what happened in the prime Marvel Universe during the Phalanx Covenant. Mm. Uh, Rogue, Sabretooth, and Wildchild head to the Morlock Tunnels to search for baby Charles. What they find instead are Gambit and the Externals, being led out by Exodus and Dazzler. Gambit tells Rogue that baby Charles is still alive, but for the Tot's own safety, he had to let them be taken. Oh, Sabretooth snorting really clogged my head there. Uh, now, uh, Rogue ain't pleased, and she punches Remy through the sewer walls, and he goes flying and lands out on the school grounds. Where is he, Remy? Wire! I had him, Rogue. Darling, I swear, chair. He's still alive, but I had no choice. I had to let the kid go. Of course, we know that he did, in fact, have a choice. He just chose the woman. Right. But uh, I wouldn't want to be the one to tell Rogue. I mean, he literally had a choice. They literally gave him an A or B choice. You yes. know? It wasn't a matter of, like, an esoteric thing. But uh, Rogue says, go, go where? With who? Start talking, Gambit, and for your sake, it better be good, and it better be the truth, or I swear, by all I hold holy, I'll kill you. We pop over to Quebec. Storm and Bishop fight off the Madry. The real Jamie begs Pietro and Sean to kill him. Kill us, X-Men. Do it quickly. You have no choice. Kill me and my replicants. The Madry will be left. Empty shells with no souls. So, is he trying to say that they actually have souls right now? Is that how that works? That's, I don't know. It's kind of a, that's a deep subject, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, the, the replicants of Jamie Madrix. Uh, <laughs> before they can, Abyss shows up and yoinks Jamie away with his tendrils. Abyss then reveals everybody's deepest, darkest fears, which is basically the cliche letting people down and dying sort of stuff that we all kind of feel, really. I mean, we could have told him that. <laughs> he is a human still, you know, I mean. Shoot. And I, I, I'm pretty sure you and I are both scared of letting people down and dying. That's, so. you know, that's, and we're, we can't even <laughs> replicate, so there it is. <laughs> no, Banshee gets fed up and lashes out with a sonic blast, and that's uh, not terribly effective. Well, not effective against Abyss anyway, but it does cause a shockwave that brings the entire tabernacle down around them. Quicksilver quickly grabs Jamie Madrox and they flee the crumbling joint and Jamie's still begging for death. Yes, Quicksilver goes, I will not kill you, boy. Madrox goes, no, you, you won't. Too, too noble, too good. Tell me, do you, do you love this woman, Aurora? Yes. And do you need, need this man, Bishop? Yes. Then you must save them. I must die. I, I, can, I can shut the Madry down. They're parts of my soul, but it'll take everything I have. And uh, now free of that place, I, I will take their lives, even if it means my own. In this way, I, I stab at Apocalypse's heart. No, don't give him Madrox. Don't let Apocalypse win. For the love of heaven, don't sacrifice another life to him. But Jamie does. He uh, wills himself to death, and the Madry stop. Theoretically, couldn't he have done that like the... Ages ago? Like, first thing. You think he would yeah. just shut it off, you know what I mean? Like, you're yeah. done. Uh, Storm, Bishop, and Quicksilver reconnoiter, and Pietro uh, reveals that Sean has sacrificed himself. Also, Jamie Madrox has. Back to Westchester. Gambit reveals to Rogue that Guido took Charles to keep him safe. Gambit, you son of a... You let Guido take my child! He was the only one who could brought your baby out of the mess alive! That's well, not entirely true there, pal. Yeah, there's Dazzle holding Rogue back, and she says, 
He had no choice, Rogue. At least Charles is still alive. We can save him. <laughs> oh, I wasn't expecting that. Oh, boy. Uh, so Dazzler's buying into Gal- G- Gambit's con here, right? I mean, that's... Oh, God, I, I wasn't expecting that. Don't buy. <laughs> <laughs> then, after the uh, the dispute is settled here, a Nightcrawler bamps in with Destiny. And then Bishop, Quicksilver, and Storm return. Sabretooth goes, Everybody did pretty much what they were supposed to do. Except for LeBeau, big surprise. So what do we do now? Quicksilver goes, Now, Creed, we have to regain the piece of the Emcon crystal. I gotta start that one over. Now, Creed, we have to regain the piece of the Emcon crystal. Rescue Magneto and my brother. And then what we do with the X-Men have always done. We give our all, our lives, to make this the last day Apocalypse fails. Oh, is that all you gotta do? Just give your lives? That's all fine. Yeah, no yeah, big deal. yeah. And next, X-Men Omega. But really... <laughs> but first... Let me ask you something. Were you wondering what the rest of the Marvel Universe was up to during the Age of Apocalypse? No, no, not really. Well, well you're going to find out anyway. Oh, right. Because next week, X-Universe 1 and 2. Yeah, that should be kind of a fun little aside. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> what's happening in the rest of the universe, and uh, we're going to have fun with that. And then wrap this one with the episode 6, it looks like, right? Yes. Where we're going to head to. But, boy, this is one... Kind of crazy story, yeah. You know what I mean? It is. It is. Uh, wow. Yeah, a lot of moving parts, a lot of things happening. Hope hope everyone's uh, able to uh, hang in there with our retelling of it. It does all. <laughs> I mean, amazingly, it does all make sense. It's just very silly in some places, yes. uh, and sometimes very there are uneven. Some convenient things are happening in there. Uh, but if you want to, uh, you know, write in about some of those conveniences or about the Age of Apocalypse or tell us about other of Shakespeare's great works or anything that's on your mind, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic history. Yeah, we're actually gathering a lot of emails and a lot of uh, reviews that uh, yes. we'll, we'll we'll deal with once we're out of the Age of Apocalypse. Right. When we, when we return to prime Cosmic Treadmill, <laughs> we'll uh, take care of that. Uh, you can tumble us on Tumblr at CosmicTmailHistory.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter at CosmicTmail, and I'm on Twitter at ReggieReggie. Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. See our weekly writings about DC Comics at WeirdScienceDCComics.com and see... Chris's daily writings uh, about DC Comics on Chris's on InfiniteEarths.com, where he writes a uh, review and a whatever you want, a breakdown of discussion uh, of a, sorts. A discussion <laughs> of, of a different issue from DC Comics can come from any time in their history. Lately, you've been doing, you started as Vartox Week. It's now become yes. Vartox Two Weeks, going into. Three weeks soon, you know, or, or heading into seven third days week. just yeah. isn't enough for Vartox. There's a lot Vartox of Vartox requires. in there, so uh, it's yeah. awesome. You got to check it out, folks. <laughs> it's it's really a, a whole lot of fun to uh, really see this deep dive on a character that probably hasn't had yeah. other deep dives like this. Chris at InfiniteEarths.com. You got to check it out. Check out the uh, the show's website here, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you can find the chronological listing of uh, every episode of the Cosmic Treadmill, uh, Weird Comics History, Real Comics History, and now the Young Animal Gatherums, where we're going through we're going through our reads from uh, a year or two ago uh, on the uh, Young Animal books as they came out. Yep. So uh, you can see how we uh, how we uh, evolved in our. Uh, <laughs> 
in our opinions, or how we haven't. Who knows? You know? Or how we haven't. This is yes. the this is the way to track it. See, see our, how inconsistent we are. And uh, <laughs> again, I want to thank you. We have been we have been accruing a lot of mails and reviews. A lot of people talking about the Age of Apocalypse, and we we are really grateful. We got a lot of nice messages. We're going to absolutely deal with those, as Chris said, after we finish this six part thing. So. Don't feel like we've we haven't seen them. We're just gonna probably we, frankly, it, it may be something we have to handle almost by itself, or we'll, we'll work something Maybe, out. Yeah. Uh, also, thanks to Tom first for letting us know about Midsummer Night's Dream. Absolutely, uh, that was an awesome piece of information. And uh, I would say that my schooling failed me, but I did go to New York City Public School, so <laughs> big big surprise there. I you know I read one Shakespeare while in public school, and that was Romeo and Juliet. Uh, mm. But I did read of my sermon three times. Wow, so that's great! I know that it's a good book. It's, I don't know if it's a read three times <laughs> good book, but it was good. Uh, but any, we did uh, we did like Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, and Hamlet, and that was it. Oh yeah, we did, we never yeah, even got three. there. No, yeah. Romeo, Romeo and Juliet was all we could handle. I'm trying to think if we ever did. No, definitely no other Shakespeare. I don't think we even did other plays. I just don't think that they wanted wow. to push the uh, envelope at all. Not even old. Oedipus. Uh, you know what? No, you know, I don't know. We didn't do a, a Oedipus. Now I think about that. We might have done a fellow, so maybe we did do another okay. Shakespeare. Another Shakespeare, yeah. Anyway, uh, I think that's all we got for my uh, high school memories this week. Chris, got anything else for him? <laughs> no, that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks. I want you to keep it on the treadmill, apocalyptically. See ya. As the world keeps going, we live these days. Dollar bill done goes the whole world crazy while sitting on the I never hesitate a moment to enhance my friends Since I need that escape, I'll take my pull Send me thugs on the corner trying to act all cool I'm pretty much out of character, I look right through The transparent exterior You and my foot getting red and I'm the narrator Thought you was peeping me, but I was aware of you You peep my ill expressions, how I just flare about Trying to check my inner world and my whereabouts Well, try on, try on I'm watching everything that's going down After all, these implements and text designed by intellects of X to find Evidently there's just so much that hides And though the saints of us divine in ancient feeding lines Their sentiment is just as hard to pluck from the vine Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 104, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up on iTunes, 
Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and from Cosmic Rays in Another Dimension. Wow. So here we are, part five mm-hmm. of our look at the 1995 Marvel's 1995 Age of Apocalypse event that ran through all the X-Men books, right? We got, mm-hmm. we did X-Men Alpha. We did, yes. We did we X-Men did Chronicles. Chronicles 1 and 2. We did uh, all of the, you know, the, they changed their names for the duration. We did Excalibre, Gambit, and the Externals, right? Mm-hmm. Factor uh, X, Factor Astonishing X. X-Men, Amazing X- X-Men, X-Men. X-Men was the other one. <laughs> Generation Next. Uh, right? That's right. I, I, knew, <laughs> I knew I would forget a couple if I didn't, if I didn't uh, have some help here. So, <laughs> finally, we have gone through all of it. We are finally ready to conclude the Age of Apocalypse with the final issue, X-Men Omega. But first, Hmm. (laughs) in this episode, we are going to take a little aside and see what was going on in the rest of the Marvel Universe while things were all wacky and, uh, you know, different-y and whatever. And uh, this time we're going to read uh, X-Universe numbers one and two. And we're going to uh, start jumping right into it. X-Universe number one, cover date May 1995. Story is Last Stand by Scott Lebdell, Terry Cavanaugh, and Carlos Pacheco. Uh, special note is that this story takes place between Weapon X number three and number four, which we discussed two episodes back. So this is in the middle of this story, basically of Age of Apocalypse and kind of like the Resistance trying to topple ap- Apocalypse while he's trying to take out Europe and stuff like mm-hmm. this. Uh, so Scott Lobdell, we've met him many times over at this point. So the super fast version. He was born either August 24th, 1960, or someday during 1963, perhaps in or, or near Marlboro, New York. He did not grow up a comic book fan, only resorting to reading them while convalescing after lung surgery. Worked on the college newspaper as a writer and cartoonist, and he performed interviews, including with comics editor Al Milgram, and felt he had an in at Marvel after that. He pitched a story to Tom DeFalco for the Marvel Comics Presents anthology using an obscure characters, because he had chosen a big-name character he figured it would have to be okayed by upwards of four editors. And he became an architect of the X-Men line, and took part in many an X-over, good one, mm-hmm. uh, including this one we're reading today. Yes, and uh, a little bit further down the table, we got Terry Cavanaugh, born July 9th. He was a writer and editor for Marvel Comics from 1985 through 1997. He was famously sort of kind of responsible for the Spider-Man clone saga. So saith uh, Spider-Man editor at the time, Mark Bernardo. He said, Marching orders we were given by upper management to come up with something similar in scope to DC's Death of Superman storyline, which at the time was breaking sales records left and right. Thus, no outrageous idea was out of bounds. Terry Cavanaugh was cajoled into blurting out his clone idea, which was first met with groans and indifference until someone, to my recollection, J.M. DeMatteis, suddenly realized the radical possibilities of such a storyline. The original plan, of course, was to bring Spider-Man back to basics, uh, stands to reason. Spider-Man's basics always included clones, right? That, that, yeah. always, that always simplified things when you threw clones in the mix. Absolutely. Uh, wasn't an ex, uh, he wasn't an X-Writer prior to the Age of Apocalypse, but he would eventually take over the X-Man ongoing. And, uh, oh yeah, by the way, X-Man is going to continue past its fourth issue, because <laughs> no one can get enough cable, that is a fact. Uh, since there isn't much more to say about Terry, we can note that in 2011, he founded MyBeanJar.com, an internet startup and an iPhone app subtitled Games with Benefits, 
Casual gaming winners would receive actual prizes in the form of pizzas, cupcakes, and lattes. But uh, we won't link to this in the show notes because it doesn't look like it's a thing that exists anymore. But no. I wouldn't mind a uh, free pizza. I'll tell you what. Sure. Deliver me a cupcake. I'll be your best friend for Bring a that long back. Time. Yeah, let's, let's do that again. <laughs> now we have across the table for Carlos Pacheco, born November 14th, 1962 in San Roque, Cadiz, Spain. Early on, Carlos worked on Spanish translations of Marvel Comics for pan-European publisher Planeta de Augustini. Uh, his first published work appeared in Marvel Heroes, with uh, accents on a couple of those vowels, number 41. This was a May 1991 cover date. The story was called American Soldier, and it was written by Antonio Moreno. Uh, he worked as a penciler on Dark Guard. This is October 1993, written by Dan Abnett. This was for the Marvel UK branch, which would garner him the attention of Marvel's North American editors. His first American work was on the 1994 Bishop miniseries that was written by John Ostrander. He'd also have a very brief run on The Flash for DC Comics. From here, Carlos entered the Age of Apocalypse. Now, as with you know, several of the artists and writers we've discussed here, this guy was very, very early on in his career by the time of this crossover. Yeah, yeah there's much more to say about him later, but here we are today. So yeah. our story opens in Wakanda, where we meet. Who else would you expect to meet in Wakanda but... Gwen Stacy, her first sure. appearance being American Amazing Spider-Man number 31, December 1965, cover date created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Uh, Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy, and Peter Parker, of course, is Spider-Man's alter ego. We'll be talking more about him later. We're undergraduates at Empire State University. After playing hard to get for a while, she starts dating Peter Parker, coincidentally right when his relationship with Mary Jane Watson concludes. Gwen and Peter date for a little while with the support of Gwen's dad and NYPD Captain George Stacy, who also thinks Spider-Man is swell at this point. And he doesn't even seem to mind when he figures out that Peter and Spidey are one and the same, so that's even uh, easier for him to deal with. Sure, now things take a turn when Captain Stacy is killed by falling debris that results from a fight between Spider-Man and Dr. Octopus. Now that fight took place in Amazing Spider-Man number 90, November 1970 cover date by Stan Lee and Gil Kane. Now Gwen's pretty messed up after this, so she heads to Europe for a while to uh, eat good cheese maybe. That's what uh, I would do there, sure. And maybe uh, do something between the sheets. No, we don't talk. We're not talking about that. I'm sorry. (laughs) And we won't talk about that again later. No, not at all. (laughs) Now, she comes back to New York to date Peter again uh, soon afterwards. Uh, In Amazing Spider-Man 121, June 1973 cover date by Jerry Conway and Gil Kane, Gwen Stacy is kidnapped by the Green Goblin and thrown from the George Washington Bridge. Which, uh, you know, looks uh, suspiciously like the Brooklyn Bridge. But, uh, exactly like it. Who's keeping track? That's all right. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's even called that a few times. I, I don't remember which bridge it wasn't called. Over yeah, years, they, so. they, it's a little all over the place, but it's a bridge is the <laughs> it's point. It's the frog's neck. No. Uh, <laughs> now, Spider-Man tries to save her with some web-slinging, but upon contact, there is a sickening snap, implying that her neck is broken. Peter explains this way by saying she would have died either way. If you say so, Mythbuster. I know, really. Uh, (laughs) He tested it with a watermelon. (laughs) Really? Uh, uh, Spider-Man winds up killing the Green Goblin with his own glider the very next issue. Now, at conventions and speaking engagements in the real world, Stan Lee took a lot of guff for Gwen Stacy's death, despite not writing the story, and he told Jerry Conway that Gwen had to come back somehow. Jerry does just that in Amazing Spider-Man number 144, covered a Mace in 1979 with Ross Andrew, 
When Gwen shows up in Peter's apartment after having returned from France, with no memory of what happened since her European trip that followed her father's death. Turns out she's a clone created by the Jackal, and upon learning this, she takes off to find her own way in life. Her story wound up spinning off into the television show That Girl, starring Marlo Thomas at... Wait, that, that part isn't true? I thought it was 9 to 5. I thought it was one of those, right? I thought so. <laughs> it was one of those. Yeah. Mary Tyler Moore was not at the show or something like she that. She threw a hat in the air. It was all good. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it snapped. Uh, now, <laughs> this, this would ultimately lay the groundwork. You know, the Jackal being a creeper and creating clones here. Uh, this would lay the groundwork for the infamous clone sagas. Uh, that's uh, both of the clone right, sagas, yeah. the real one and the realer one, I guess. Which are the original one and the elongated one, right, we'll say. Right. Uh, now, we covered that in, ish- in episode 24 of the Cosmic Treadmill in the archives. Uh, indeed, Gwen Stacy clones keep popping up even throughout the 1990s. And then, uh, an amazing Spider-Man number uh, 509. Uh, yeah, we don't have to talk about that, Chris. We can stay right here in the 1990s. Okay, and I, and I don't think we'll talk about that again later. Too, no, so we're, we're never going to talk about that this whole episode. <laughs> now, uh, back to the story. Uh, Gwen has medical supplies, and she's there to see the see to the Wakandan people. And there she mentions the passing of Wakanda's warrior king, who we know as the Black Panther. Real name, T'Challa. First appearance, Fantastic Four number 52, July 1966, cover date, created by Stan and Jack. Now, the Black Panther is a ceremonial title given to the chiefs of the Panther tribe in the advanced and fictional African nation of Wakanda. It's so advanced because a meteor made of vibranium crashed into the area in the distant past. T'Challa was raised primarily by his father, King T'Chaka, his mother having died during childbirth and his stepmother having been taken prisoner by a rival tribe. When King T'Chaka is killed by the sonic weapon-wielding claw, T'Challa gets revenge and becomes the king of the tribe. After a, you know, a series of trials by combat, of right. course. Yeah, you can't you know, just walk gotta... into that kind of thing, you know. No, certainly not. This prereqs. Uh, now, in his first published appearance, T'Challa invites the Fantastic Four to Wakanda in order to battle them in pre- preparation for a rematch with Claw. Uh, now, they beat him as a team, and then T'Challa explains himself. So they become fast friends. I mean, that's some, that's like someone invited you over for dinner and then tried to beat you up. <laughs> to the then, frying pan. Yeah. And then when you couldn't, they were like, all right, let's be friends. You'd be like, what, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Anyway, uh, so Black Panther joins the Avengers in Avengers number 58, November 1968, cover date by Roy Thomas and John Buscema. And Avengers number 74, March, March 1970, cover date by the same team. He reveals his true identity on national, that is, American national television. Black Panther he traveled to Wakanda, then returned to America and do a little traveling through the time, through the, uh, doing a little traveling through time during the 1970s as well. Uh, he never shied away from the nature of his character, though. He fought the Ku Klux Klan and confronted apartheid in South Africa. At this time, Chala is engaged to Monica Lynn, but they aren't yet married. And they never will be. You shush now. <laughs> uh, now, Gwen is approached by a young boy named Nkim. And he tells her that his mother is starving and ill and very close to death. All Gwen can give is a prayer. And Kim runs off to be by his mother's side as she passes away. But he doesn't get far before he's eradicated by a bomb. Oof. Enter the Marauders! And they are Arcade, whose first appearance was Marvel Team-Up number 65, January 1978, cover date. Created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. He's Marvel's tepid answer to DC Comics' Joker. Arcade's backstory is mysterious and unknown. 
Indeed, he has given conflicting accounts over time. One telling says that Arcade murdered his wealthy father and inherited his riches, setting up his first murder world, and these are diabolical amusement parks filled with death traps that Arcade sets up using his technological prowess. Uh, with the aid of even more mysterious ass assistants, uh, Mr. Locke and Ms. Chambers, Arcade became the world's most ex expensive assassin, charging $1 million per hit. His Achilles heel is that Arcade always leaves the people he traps one small possibility of escape, which, if they are the protagonist of that given comic book, which they make fast use of every single time, you know. It's nice of him to give them a sporting chance. A little something, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I, my favorite thing is when he struck that match on Doctor Doom's oh, shoulder. Oh, that was oh that that, oh. Was, that caused a rift between Bernie. Oh. <laughs> Another member of the team is the Owl. Real name Leland Owlsley. I get it. Uh, now, first appearance, <laughs> Daredevil number three, August 1964, created by Stan Lee and Bill Everett. Originally a well-respected financier known as the Owl of Wall Street, Owlsley was defamed when he was audited and indicted for tax evasion. And he, worth noting, he also looks an awful lot like an owl, yeah, incidentally. That's, so. got, that's got a his, yeah, there, that's the <laughs> yeah. <reason. laughs> yeah, he He's like the butler who was born, you know, named Jeeves. You know, right, what else exactly. Do? What else are you going to be, uh, you know? <laughs> Now, Owsley fled to Manhatt from Manhattan to New Jersey, and uh, there he took a serum that gave him the ability to fly. When Owsley had a chance encounter with Daredevil, he decides to kill Matt Murdock to become the undisputed king of the underworld. He failed. You might, you might figure. Uh, now, the owl tussles primarily with Daredevil, though he does mix it up with other Manhattan-based superheroes as well. He's also forever trying to usurp the kingpin as the leader of New York's underworld. Over the years, self-inflicted experiments to give the owl more powers have dehumanized him, and he was last seen actively eating live mice. I mean, at this point, can a guy like that really be king of the underworld? I mean, <laughs> you're just live mice alone, you're going to bankrupt the whole organization. So, sure. uh, Also, there is Red, who we know as Norman Osborn, a.k.a. we would know him as Green Goblin. First appearance was Amazing Spider-Man number 14, July 1964, cover date. Created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Uh, Norman was born in New Haven, Connecticut, the son of wealthy industrialist Amberson Osborne. When his dad lost his business, he became a drunk and would torment and beat Norman mercilessly. Norman swore to be a better person than his father, all the while nursing homicidal tendencies throughout uh, his young life brought about by his violent home life. Norman excels at the sciences in college and meets his wife, Emily, and they have a son named Harry, who would become Peter Parker's buddy, among other things. Uh, Norman starts up a chemical business called Oscorp that is wildly successful. When Emily becomes ill and dies before Harry is a year old, Norman, of course, gets all bitter and throws himself into his work and neglects his son. Ejecting his partner and mentor, Norman goes through his files to discover a formula for a super strength and intelligence enhancing serum. Norman tries to recreate this serum, and it blows up in his face. It has literally. the literally, <laughs> literally, it has the desired effect on his smarts and muscles, but it also turns him completely insane. You take the good, you take the bad. <laughs> sure. Uh, Norman, it actually, it actually doesn't ruin his face like Doctor Doom's got ruined either. It's so it's not a bad deal, really. He's, he's still as ruggedly handsome as ever. <laughs> <laughs> now, Norman adopts the Green Goblin identity in order to take over organized crime. <laughs> and to that end, he plans on killing Spider-Man. Now, he showed up uh, a lot in the early issues in near succession, including Amazing Spider-Man 14, 17, 23, 26, and 27. 
Norman Osborn eventually discovers that Spider-Man and Peter Parker are one and the same and lures him to a warehouse for uh, for some taunting in Amazing Spider-Man number 39. This is August 1966, cover date by Stan and uh, John Romita Sr. Uh, Peter breaks free of his restraints, and uh, Norman is electrocuted by some stray wires, conveniently erasing his memory of Peter's dual identity. I mean, I, I love this issue because it's like over over across the you know street in D.C., when someone endeavored to kill Batman, they had him suspended over a tank of sharks with electric eels, you know, and like, uh, you know, trained archers, whatever. Spider Man, he, he didn't, he didn't have a second part of the plan. Just capture Spider Man and just gloat, you know, and for a long time, and then eventually Spider Man gets out. So uh, Norman, he's to, even now that he's lost his memory and forgot that he was Green Goblin, he's still tormented by his Green Goblin persona subconsciously. And over time, slips back into his green and purple tights now and again when the mood strikes him. Uh, eventually, he kidnaps and kills Gwen Stacy, as we've already discussed when we talked about her. Uh, Norman is, like we said, killed by his own glider in the following issue. But you can't keep a green goblin down for the purposes of 1995. However, <laughs> he is down. Uh, you know, we might as well really talk about what happened between him and Gwen, right? Uh, no, we're going to move on, Chris. Oh. We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> we're gonna for, now we're going to meet Dirigible, whose uh, <laughs> real name is Wilson Fisk. We know him better as the Kingpin. I, I, uh, I think I know him better as Dirigible now, Dirigible. Though, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard word to spell, incidentally. <laughs> yeah. uh, his first appearance was Amazing Spider-Man number 50, July 1967 cover date, created by Stan Lee and John Romita. Uh, Wilson Grant Fisk grew up a poor, fat child in New York City. He was routinely bullied for his corpulence. Uh, he came up through New York's underworld and lived in Japan for a while, posing as a respectable businessman exporting spices. He was not a respectable businessman. No, not at all. <laughs> and to be honest, at this point, that's about all we know about his early life. Uh, it has been filled in, but in issues that came out, you know, more contemporarily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, at 1995, this is really all we knew. Uh, in his first appearance, Fisk attends an organized crime convention where he orders the kidnapping of J. Jonah Jameson of the Daily Bugle. Uh, he thought Spider-Man was out of action at the time, but sorry for him, no such luck. Yeah, uh, the Kingpin was actually married to a woman named Vanessa, and they had a son named Richard together. We see her for the first time shrouded in shadows in The Amazing Spider-Man number 70, March 6, 1969, by Stan Lee and John Romita. But we aren't introduced to her as Wilson's wife until The Amazing Spider-Man number 83, April 1970, cover date by the same team. Vanessa convinces her husband to quit his life of crime and move back to Japan. Before doing so, Fisk turns over his files to the authorities. Some mafia types were unhappy with this, uh, reasonably so. So they kidnapped his wife and appeared to kill her, which spurs Kingpin back into a life of crime. This is a really a common thing, basically. Men, if they're not with a woman, they're criminals. That's, that's yes. essentially what we've learned from <laughs> comics. Okay. Uh, he takes over New York City almost immediately, even installing a new mayor. Uh, Daredevil, ever the thorn in his side, mucks up Fisk's plans. So he tasks Electra with killing Daredevil's BFF, Foggy Nelson. Uh, she winds up having a thing with Daredevil and gets killed by Bullseye instead. That's another story entirely. We'll talk about yes. some other time. <laughs> now, in Daredevil Born Again, uh, this is Daredevil's 227 through 233, February through August 1986 cover date, by Frank Miller and David Masicelli. Uh, in that, the Kingpin discovers King, uh, Daredevil, the Daredevil's sorry. true identity and uh, uses that to ruin his personal life. 
Kingpin then uh, kind of spins out and uh, commits some atrocities. Uh, oh, this is uh, Daredevil, and uh, this ruins his reputation even among the uh, criminals. It's Kingpin after it's after he gets. Oh, Kingpin. Remember he like does like does oh, yeah, he murders everyone like a whole bunch of people downtown. He just he just gets drunk he with power and just yeah. freaks out. Yeah. <laughs> now we'll eventually get to that one on the treadmill, but uh, in order to hold you over, you could take a listen to episode ninety-eight in the archives with. Nearly the same exact thing happens to Nightwing. You know, all that and... Uh, and yeah, a little, that's a little extra piece we don't get in the Daredevil story <laughs> in that one. No. Uh, <laughs> later on, uh, Fisk gives Black Cat her bad luck powers, which ironically make her incompatible with the object of her affection, Spider-Man. Again, that's uh, sort of another story entirely. Yeah. Uh, in the 1990s, the Kingpin st- stars up a, starts up a cable television statement uh, with an analog to then uh, presidential candidate Ross Perot. Uh, he turns out to be a Hydra plant, hijinks ensue, and Wilson Fisk is a fugitive once more. Yeah, which is where he'd be now, but here in the alternate Age of Apocalypse universe, Fisk orders the other marauders to attack the citizens of Wakanda where, while he gets ready for the barbecue. Gwen takes aim and blasts the hell out of Fisk with a poom, 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 which is enough to reduce him to cinders. <laughs> Gwen's more bothered by this due to the fact that she had to waste tech than she is being forced to take a life. Arcade approaches, ready to kill Gwen, but then, hovering down, a giant mechanical spider appears. This is a stark cargo transport, and it drops a payload of medical supplies right on top of Arcade. He's just a puddle of blood. And that's it. You know, we took him out, boom, with a cargo drop. Uh, Inside that ship are Tony Stark. We know him as Iron Man. First appearance was Tales of Suspense number 39, March 9th, 1963, cover date. Created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, Don Heck, and Jack Kirby. Now, Anthony Edward Stark was adopted by wealthy industrialist Howard Stark and his wife, Maria. Howard Stark was modeled after famous industrialist and reclusive filmmaker Howard Hughes, and in some ways, so was Tony Stark. Uh, Howard Stark owned Stark Industries, a manufacturer with a lucrative U.S. military contract. Tony Stark is a child genius and enters MIT at age 15. When his adoptive parents are killed in a car accident while Tony is still a young man, he inherits their wealth in Stark Industries. And initially, he uses this money to party hard. (laughs) Now, a booby trap injures Tony, and he's captured by the Viet Cong forces of Wang Chu. They imprison him in Vietnam, and they force Tony to, to develop and build weapons for them. Tony discerns that shrapnel from the booby trap is working its way toward his heart, which is, uh, you know, fatal. Uh, With the help of a fellow prisoner, another scientist with great admiration for Stark, he creates an iron chest plate that magnetically keeps the shrapnel from moving. Together, he and this uh, fanboy create a suit of iron armor that Tony uses to escape, uh, sacrificing the fan club member in the process. <laughs> ah, well, you know, he, he wanted it that way. <laughs> he, he would have wanted it yeah. that way, yes. Uh, now, free of his prison, Tony meets up with the American forces and gets some revenge on Wang Chu and the Viet Cong. And he also bumps into wounded fighter pilot James Rhodey Rhodes, who will be important later on in a nice, convenient little uh, retcon happen there. Yes. Uh, back home, Tony learns that the shrapnel near his heart cannot be removed, so he has to wear the chest plate under his clothes at all times to stay alive. For comfort and efficiency, Tony redesigns the chest plate and armor a few times early on, finally settling on the more familiar red and gold version in Tales of Suspense number 48, December 1963, cover date, by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. 
For a long time, Tony Stark doesn't reveal that he's Iron Man except to his chauffeur, Happy Hogan, and his secretary, Pepper Potts, because he only reveals his secret identity to people with catchy nicknames, so... That's a good way to be. That's, that's you know, that's my I mean, motto. Yeah. They, they, they have no shame, so you, know, you can tell them whatever you want. That's what I said. <laughs> so, over time, Tony, Tony Stark's stance became pretty anti-war, and he ends Stark Industries' contracts with the U.S. government, refusing to make weapons of war for anybody anymore. Uh, instead, they make weapons for S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Avengers. You know, just kind of <laughs> under the table, though. Yeah, it's okay. And, and they're definitely not in league with the government, no, so it's okay. Oh, they're cool. <laughs> now, eventually, Tony gets an artificial heart transplant, but uh, he still likes wearing the armor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Indeed, he makes a lot of improvements to it over time, even developing special suits to handle certain climates and to explore space. Tony develops a drinking problem in the storyline Demon in a Bottle by David Michelini and Bob Layton that ran in the Invincible Iron Man 120 through 128, March through November 1979 cover dates. During the story, he loses controlling interest in Stark Industries to S.H.I.E.L.D., but he kicks his drinking habit, so, you know, things are looking up. Now, after Doctor Doom sends himself and Tony back to the time of King Arthur for a while, Tony returns and he's plagued by business rival Obadiah Stane, who causes Tony to relapse and takes control of Stark Industries. Tony becomes a homeless vagrant and gives up his Iron Man armor to, to Rhodey, who takes on the mantle for a time. This begins an in Invincible Iron Man number 170, May 1983 cover date by Denny O'Neill and Luke McDonald. Tony claws his way back to sobriety and respect by building a new Iron Man suit and fighting his friend Rhodes, who has been, dr been driven temporarily insane by Tony's Iron Man armor. Then he fights Obadiah Stane in his own armor, pilfered from Tony's design, dubbing himself the Iron Monger. Obadiah loses, but then he has to fight it. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but he commits suicide rather than be taken alive. Tony regains his fortune, and instead of buying back Stark Industries, he creates Stark Enterprises and moves to Los Angeles. Now, during a storyline known as the Armor Wars that ran in Iron Man number 215 through 232, December 1987 through June 1988 cover dates by Bob Layton and David Michelini, Tony attempts to dismantle all the robot and robotic-assisted heroes and villains around the world using his designs. He screws this up royally <laughs> and becomes an enemy of the U.S. government. Uh, Tony Stark pretends to retire the Iron Man suit, but later pops up and pretends that it's someone else wearing the armor. Uh, later, former lover Kathy Dare shoots Tony in the torso and paralyzes him. He regains mobility thanks to a chip implant at the base of his spine. This chip would allow some business rivals to take control of Tony's body, but he counteracts them with a new suit of armor, so, so you could basically solve any problem with yeah. uh, the right proper armor. Yeah, if, if there's ever a problem, you just haven't found the armor to solve it. That's all there is to it. You know, there's <laughs> armor for everything. So uh, all this fooling around with Tony's nervous system takes its toll, and eventually he has to go into suspended animation to heal. Uh, Rhodey takes over Iron Man duties again, this time wearing a beefed-up suit and calling himself War Machine. Tony installs a new chip that rewrites his nervous system, okay, and returns to public <laughs> life in a new sleek Iron Man suit. Rhodey and others are pretty annoyed at him having faked his death And that's not even the third worst thing Tony Stark has done to his friends This week uh, hey, Really? Uh, <laughs> Rhodes continues on as War Machine even after Iron Man comes back Yes, now sitting beside Tony Stark in that spider craft we talked about an hour and a half ago yeah. Is Clint Barton 
<laughs> who we know as Hawkeye. Uh, Clinton Francis Clint Barton first appeared in Tales of Suspense number 57, September 1964, cover date by Stan Lee and Don Heck. Uh, Don, yeah, Don Heck. As uh, an arrow-shooting reluctant villain who would reprise that role in Tales of Suspense number 60 and 64, that's December 1964 and April 1965 cover dates, also by Lee and Heck. Then he joined the Avengers in the Avengers number 16, May 1965, by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby as an arrow-shooting hero. This was a Caps kooky quartet. Yeah. Uh, Now, Clint was born in Waverly, Iowa, and lost both of his parents in a car accident while he was still young. After six years in an orphanage, Clint and his brother Barney, Barney Barton, (laughs) ran away to join the Carson Carnival of Traveling Wonders. I mean, we know why Barney ran away, but Clint, when I (laughs) Barney, was like, damn you, why'd you name me that? (laughs) I got no chance. (laughs) Now, Clint soon caught the eye of the swordsman. Who, along with the help of a tr- of trick shot, the swordsman tricked. Uh, I'm sorry, trained Clint to become a master archer. It's a t- he might have tricked it, him into it too. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? It's a circus. You know, everything is a is everything's carny. Yep. Uh, so the swordsman essentially was a fairly regular, regularly appearing supervillain in early Avengers comics, first showing up in the Avengers number 19, August 1965, covered eight by Lee and Heck. And Trick Shot was a member of the Carson Carnival of Traveling Wonders. And he first appeared in Solo Avengers number one, December 1987, by Tom DeFalco and Mark Bright. So that really is a link bridging of some serious uh, storylines, uh, sure. that, that origin. But uh, Clint adapted his archery skills to become a star carnival attraction, a master archer called Hawkeye, otherwise known as the world's greatest marksman. Inspired by Iron Man, he wanted to become a hero, but screwed it up and was accused of becoming a criminal. Uh, after saving Jarvis and his mother from a mugger, Hawkeye's invited to join the Avengers. Simple. Clint would marry former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Barbara Bobby Morse, who's also known as the hero Mockingbird, and together they started up the West Coast Avengers in Los Angeles, California, after a suggestion by Avengers teammate Vision. Beginning in West Coast Avengers number 1, September 1984, cover date, by Roger Stern and Bob Hall, uh, Clint initially recruited Mockingbird, Wonder Man, Tigra, and Iron Man, which was uh, Jim Rhodes wearing the Iron Man suit at this time. Uh, when Mockingbird is kidnapped by the Phantom Rider and allows him to die as a consequence, her marriage to Clint becomes frayed, and they separate. And uh, that's actually where he is at the time of the Age of Apocalypse. Pretty much, yeah, pretty close to it. So, uh, Tony and Clint fire a pair of explosive blasts to take out the remaining two marauders. Stark has a Hawkeye drop the rest of the supplies to land the craft. As he deboards the spider ship, Tony is faced by Gwen Stacy. And she says, Not another step, stranger! Tony goes, enchanting. The sunlight playing off gossamer hair. The blazing spirit in every word hardly holds a candle to the fire dancing in your eyes. You must be Stacy. I just picture him always with a snifter of brandy, like even in the, yeah. whatever, <laughs> yep. in the Iron and Man suit. At all, yep. at, at all times. Uh, <laughs> such a suave guy. So he Gwen is. isn't nearly as taken by Tony uh, as he is with her. She holds him at gunpoint and asks about the whereabouts of Ben. This is, uh, she says, Ben Grimm usually delivers the supplies and we'll formally meet him in just a little bit. In the distance, a figure approaches. He is Donald Blake. We know him better as Thor, sort of. First appearance was Journey into Mystery number 83, August 1962, cover date, created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. A young Harvard University medical student, Donald Blake, is visiting Norway when he spots some aliens looking to conquer some random village. 
Uh, escaping the aliens, Blake, who walks with a cane, flees deep into a cave where he finds a large hammer with ornately carved handle. This is Mjolnir, which, when struck on the ground, turns Donald Blake into the mighty Thor, the Norse god of thunder. And Thor dispatches the aliens pretty handily after that. Yes, uh, back in America, Donald Blake settles into a, the double life of handling his private practice by day with a nurse and love interest, Jane Foster, and fighting villains by night and other times other, of day. Else, you know, whenever he can grab a free whenever moment, you know. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, Thor's resurrection is noticed by his brother Loki, the Norse god of mischief, who creates, uh, well, you know, a lot of uh, mischief for Thor. <laughs> oh. It comes with the title. Yeah. Uh, when Donald Blake refuses to return to Asgard, uh, instead preferring to stay with Jane Foster on Earth, his father Odin gets, uh, he gets kind of annoyed. Uh, though he is one of the Avengers, Thor's battles are on a more epic, you know, god-level scale. Uh, fighting actual figures from mythology as well as conceptual characters. Odin eventually screws up Donald's relationship with Jane Foster because, uh, you know, that's what that's what good fathers do. That's what, well, you know, as we find out, he has bigger fish to fry. He does. Uh, this, that happened in Thor number 136, January 1967, covered eight by Lee and Kirby. And that's when we find out Donald Blake was a human form created by Odin in the first place in order to teach Thor humility. And uh, fairly well ditches that persona from this point from then on. I, we don't really see him again. Uh, he doesn't need to be. He is just Thor. So now we fast forward when Walt Simonson began writing and drawing Thor with issue number 337, November 1983, cover date. Things got really wacky. One of the best remembered aspects is the introduction of Beta Ray Bill, right there in that same issue, 337, who was a horse-faced alien who could also wield Mjolnir. And he proves to be an honorable, interesting character. In that run, also, Thor takes over Asgard for a while when his dad dies battling a long-teased threat named Surtur. Loki turns Thor into Thunderfrog for a time in Thor number 352, February 1986, cover date, and then Thor and Loki fight side-by-side side for a while, Loki even saving Thor's life. Later, Thor kills Loki and is banished from Asgard, but his father Odin wakes up from being dead, and all is forgiven. So, back to the action in the book. Uh, Blake and Stark reunite. Tony goes, you look like hell, Donald. Blake says, same old Stark. No real class. Gwen says, back off, Dr. Blake, until I can confirm. Nonsense. Some things can't wait. The old friends, Stark and Blake, embrace. Now, Tony informs Donald that he is needed back in England right away. Gwen doesn't think this is a great idea due to Blake's health, but <laughs> he and nobody else is listening to her anybody. Yeah, anyway. no, she's just yeah. a dizzy dame, who cares? <laughs> uh, Shift scenes to London, where a convoy of ships hovers high above. This convoy is there to start the peace talks with the Human High Council, and it's being led by the ever-elusive Mikhail Rasputin. Finally. Yes. In a nearby Eurasian helicopter, we meet Ben Grimm. This is going to get complicated, folks, because we know oh, him man. as The Thing. Uh, first appearance is Fantastic Four number one, November 1961, cover date, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. He's born on Yancey Street on New York's Lower East Side. Benjamin Jacob Grimm grew up scrapping on the streets with the other poor kids. His older brother Daniel died in a gang fight when Ben was eight years old. And this much about Ben Grimm is analogous to co-creator Jack Kirby's life who had really the same experience, he had, and even has said as much himself. He had an older brother that died, he fought a lot on Lower East Side. 
Ben Grimm's parents passed away when he was young and was raised by his uncle Jake and his dear aunt Petunia, who he likes to name check evermore. Yes. Uh, ben received a football scholarship to Empire State University where he met his BFF, Reed Richards, as well as his not-at-all-BFF, <laughs> Victor Von Doom. Now, the story of Ben's young adulthood has shifted over the years. Uh, he was a test pilot for the U.S. Marines during World War II initially. Then later, he was shown to have worked for Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. Later, he followed up on a promise he made to Reed to pilot the first rocket that he built. And so he was aboard the fateful trip through the cosmic rays that altered everybody on board. Uh, ben inarguably caught the worst of it, uh, becoming an orange, rocky form known as the Thing. And unlike the other passengers on the rocket, he couldn't even return to his uh, normal human form. Initially, Ben trusts in his pal Reed Richards to restore his human form eventually, but when he meets the blind artist Alicia Masters and falls in love with her, he's a little less anxious to become human again, fearing that maybe she won't dig him as much anymore if he changes back. Uh, Despite this, the thing changes back into Ben Grimm several times, even in his earliest appearances, but it's always temporarily, and uh, he often has to choose to become Rocky again to serve the greater good. Just a quick note about this also. Ben Grimm is canonically Jewish and was conceived that way by Jack Kirby initially, but it wasn't definitively shown in comics until 2004. Uh, In the 1970s, however, Kirby did draw the thing for a Hanukkah card that he sent to friends and family. But it wasn't, you know, it was always something that was... It was during the Wade run, yeah. Exactly, yeah, that's when it was. was, uh, That's when they would talk about it before then, but we first see him, I think, having a Passover Seder or something. Uh, He's a reluctant but reliable member of the Fantastic Four, and I think that's enough for our purposes (laughs) today. Uh, Also there is Sue Storm, a.k.a. Invisible Woman, first appearance, Fantastic Four, number one, November 1961, created by Stan and Jack. Susan and her younger brother Johnny grew up on Long Island, children to physician Franklin Storm and a woman named Mary. (laughs) Driving home from an event in his honor, Dr. Franklin loses control of his car and crashes, fatally injuring his wife, and this sends Dr. Franklin spiraling down into depression and alcoholism, eventually pursuing a life of crime that lands him in prison. As such, Sue was a maternal figure to Johnny, even early on. Now, while living with her aunt at age 17, Sue would meet her future husband, Reed Richards, when he was staying there while attending college. She would reconnect with him when she attended college for acting in California, and they'd fall in love. Sue convinced Reed Richards to allow her and her brother Johnny aboard the fateful rocket flight because she was worried something would happen to Reed and she wouldn't be there to cry about it in person. Oh, that would be too bad, yeah. It would have been. You don't want to get that by a letter. <laughs> uh, now, uh, she gains powers from traveling through those cosmic rays, and her powers are a little nicer than the things. She can turn invisible and also project force fields. Uh, initially, she takes the name Invisible Girl. Uh, Sue is the uh, fulcrum in Marvel's first love triangle, torn between Reed Richards and Prince Namor, the Submariner. Ultimately, however, Sue only has eyes for Reed. Sue and Reed would be married in Fantastic Four Annual Number 3, October 1965 cover date by Lee and Kirby. This is an event that stunned Marvel fandom, not just because of the marriage, but because so many beloved Marvel characters were actually in attendance at the ceremony. Mm -hmm. Uh, We would find out that Sue is pregnant in Fantastic Four Annual Number 5, and then their son Franklin Richards is born uh, in... uh, 
Fantastic Four Annual number six. Uh, seems like all the good stuff for the Fantastic Four happens in the annuals around here. Huh? I guess it's the only ones that they could have some time, you know. Otherwise, that matter. Yeah. otherwise, Jack Kirby's just cranking them out at the rate of six a day. That's the problem, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like uh, that's the one you can really stretch out in. But uh, yeah, we've read before that people that got that that annual uh, the, where they got married at the time, number three. Uh, that it was really the first time that they really felt it was a cohesive universe, even though they had sure. they had already you know referenced each other and then showed up yes, in each other. But yeah. here they all were at the same place. It was like wow, this really is taking place in the same place, same time. So cool for the people that saw it at the time. Uh, due to Sue's cosmic ray irradiated blood, Franklin's born a mutant and brought to full power prematurely by a nihilus. And he has a he has like a generally destructive psionic type power, like a telekinetic jammy thing going on. Uh, Reed Richards shuts down his son's mind before he can do a lot of damage, a move that so annoys Sue that she separates from Reed in Fantastic Four number 130, cover date January 1973 by Roy Thomas and John Buscema. Uh, but don't worry, she returns to marital bliss in issue number 149, August 1974, by Jerry Conway and Rich Buckler, with the help of Namor, no less. Hmm. Can you believe it? One-time enemy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> when Sue's second child is stillborn, Psycho Man uses her fragile emotional state to make her become Malice, the mistress of hate, who wears a costume exactly like you'd expect a mistress of hate to wear. I hate kind it. Of a, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> In Fantastic Four, number 281, August 1985, covered eight by John Byrne, Reed gets Sue to drop her Malice persona by slapping some sense into her. Yes, really. That's right. Uh, yeah, a little more. Occam's razor in action. Right? Little more to it than that, but basically <laughs> that's what happens. Uh, Sue does something off panel to Psycho Man that makes him scream horribly, then rejoins the team officially <laughs> in issue number 284 with the announcement that she's changing her name from Invisible Girl to Invisible Woman. Mm-hmm. Now, when Reed Richards is time-displaced following the events of the Infinity War, that ran June through November 1992, by Jim Starlin and Ron Lim, Sue and the crew go looking for him. On the way back to their time and place, the Fantastic Four encounter Valeria Von Doom. This is the daughter of Sue and Doctor Doom from another dimension. And she joins up with them, too. Well, sure. you know, why not? You know what's going on. Why not? And if, if things, uh, you know, what everything old is new again, Sue gets possessed by malice. Yeah. <laughs> this, uh, this also happened during that Infinity War. And in issue three, number, uh, number 371, December 1992, by Tom DeFalco and Paul Ryan. She wears that unfortunate costume that is barely there. Yeah. And uh, we're pretty sure that's close enough to the current events to, to move on. Yeah. But this is the one with the cutout four, if you know what we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. yeah. So uh, now Ben is smoking a stogie, which, I don't know, seems, doesn't seem like the best of matters, being that they're in cramped quarters on this craft, you know, but whatever. Uh, they naturally don't trust Mikhail. Also, they don't trust Apocalypse. Come on, with a name like Apocalypse, what's not to trust? Come on, you know what I mean? That's just, that's just a family name. Yeah. Uh, ben says, I don't buy this for a second, and I hate playing nursemaid to a delegation we can't even see. And Sue goes, and I don't remember anyone asking us, Ben. Can you? Anyone did bother to ask, I'd tell them they were crazy to believe, even for a second, that Apocalypse would care a hoot about what happens to humans. On the bridge of the lead ship in the convoy, we finally see Mikhail. Uh, he looks as though he's been partially been assimilated by the Phalanx, though, doesn't he? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. A little computer up. 
Yeah, now uh, reporting reporting into Rasputin is his lead metahuman, the Keeper, who is better known to us as Matt Murdock. Whoa. Yeah, aka Daredevil. First appearance, Daredevil number one, April 1964 cover date, created by Stan Lee and Bill Everett. Now, Matt was a son of professional boxer Battlin' Jack Murdock, and he's instilled with the importance of education, which uh, made him study incessantly. In saving an elderly man from being hit by a speeding truck, Matt Murdock is struck by a canister of radioactive substance that leaves him blind, but with a heightened perception or, or a, a sonar, sonar sense. Yeah. And and also, I think four turtles got eradicated or irradiated by <laughs> that, that too, was, right? That's a side story, but yeah, that's, <laughs> yes. that's that very day, yeah. <laughs> now, in order to afford law school for his son, Jack Murdoch throws some fights as arrangement by an underworld figure known as the Fixer. This would ultimately get Jack killed. Remembering his promise never to resort to violence, Matt adopts the yellow and black color school of his uh, father's boxing uh, boxing trunks scheme, yes, and uh, becomes the acrobatic daredevil who can use violence because he's uh, you know wearing a costume, which uh, I don't know kind of seems like a cheat, doesn't it? I mean, really, leave it to a lawyer to come up with this one, you know? Technically, (laughs) I'm not doing it, you know. But uh, so over the next seven issues, Daredevil makes some minor changes to his costume, like in, in every issue, it's a as a plot point in the comic, and adopts a, a retractable billy club that also acts as a cane when he's not in his daredevil guise. By issue number seven, April 1965, cover date by Lee and Wally Wood, Matt settles on the familiar all-red suit that we know today. Even though that has changed a little bit over time, you get the idea. Uh, daredevil battles an assortment of weirdos and meets fellow New Yorker Spider-Man in number 16, May 1966, by Lee and Romita Sr., Spider-Man accidentally reveals Daredevil's secret identity, so Matt takes on another personality, Mike Murdock, the carefree twin brother of Matt. Uh, this goes on for a while, but it was deemed too silly and confusing, even for comics. So Mike dies in Daredevil number 41, June 1968, by Stanley and Gene Colan, and the character Daredevil, of course, remains... The reason why is a complicated story, the moral of which is that you should never, ever tell a lie, because that's never. you just dig yourself in deeper and deeper. <laughs> you spin uh, a web. Exactly. <laughs> uh, in issue, Daredevil issue number 57, October 1969, cover date by Stan Lee and Gene Colan, Daredevil reveals his true identity to his girlfriend, Karen Page, and she leaves him. So that was a bad idea, but don't worry, she comes back again and again and again and again. Over and over and over again. Yes. Uh, in the 1970s, Daredevil moves to San Francisco and has a series of science fiction-based space adventures that are really not Daredevil style. No. You know, how can you use sonar when there's no sound in space, right? Which actually did come up in one issue, yeah, but it, but it's like, <laughs> it's just not really the right place for a guy like that. Certainly. Uh, now, he also dates Black Widow and issues uh, 93 through 108, uh, November 1972 cover date through March 1974 cover date. The book is titled Daredevil and Black Widow. Uh, they break up and Daredevil heads back to Hell's Kitchen in New York City. The later 70s cast Daredevil in a much darker, more horrifying universe, even getting a little gory at times. He even inadvertently causes the suicide of his girlfriend, Heather Glenn's father, by revealing his identity to her. Uh, This would set the tone for Daredevil going forward. In the 1980s, a fellow named Frank Miller took over writing and drawing duties for the series, and while he maintained the series' darker tone, Frank essentially rewrote whatever past elements he didn't dig. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
So uh, Miller ditched a lot of Daredevil's colorful foes in favor of, like, the Kingpin primarily. And uh, most shockingly changed Jack Murdoch from a supporting father to an abusive one, which changed Matt's reasons for becoming a lawyer in the first place. Yeah, this it was interesting because Daredevil had been, in a way, Marvel's answer to DC's 60s Batman. Right, yeah. like a kind of a swashbuckling guy, campy, a lot of goofy, yeah. campy villains, and then, and as Batman became serious, or you know, it's almost like these two things are feeding each other. They're Daredevil, Daredevil yeah. turned serious, then you know, Frank Miller did the same thing for Batman. But anyway, now Daredevil goes uh, goes dark, becoming more of an anti-hero, and then in Daredevil number one eighty one, April nineteen eighty two cover date, Daredevil attempts to murder Bullseye by throwing him off a roof. Don't worry, though. Bullseye survives as a uh, quadriplegic for a little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Daredevil breaks into his hospital room and plays Russian roulette with him. So, they're playing together already. It's sure. fine. Everything was fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, he really is becoming a dark fella at this Very time. dark, yeah. Uh, because it's the 1980s at this point, ninjas had to be introduced to the story, and a sensei named Stick first appeared in Daredevil number 176, uh, 19, November 1981 cover date. Uh, he was inserted into Matt's past as having trained him after he was struck blind. The assassin-turned-love interest Electra was introduced in Daredevil 168, January 1981, cover date, but dies to bullseye issued number 181, April 1982, cover date. Daredevil gets his canonical origin for that moment in Miller and David <laughs> Masichelli's Born Again storyline that ran in issues number 227 to 233, February through August 1986, cover dates. Here... Karen Page returns, I think for the first time, as a drug-addicted porn star who sells Daredevil's secret identity. Uh, Kingpin uses this information to destroy Matt Murdock, but then things get better later on. Matt goes back to law and superheroing, then drifts upstate for a while before returning to New York for some gritty city action. Miller and Mazzucchelli returned to the series in 1993 to retcon some of their earlier retcons by Miller, including the one about Jack Murdock abusing his son, which was... A very welcome retcon, I always felt, yeah. and uh, here we are, more or less. So he was going into the uh, the motocross outfit around this time, which was a whole other kettle of fish. That was another thing, you know. Then there was also the armored one came out yeah. not too long after this or something. Uh, the costume does change slightly, but I would not say for any any appreciable benefit. No. So uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, in the age of apocalypse, Matt is still blind, but he has been granted a second sight by Res- by Mikhail Rasputin. Uh, Matt reports that a boy, one of Mikhail's latest experiments, is redlining, and he will very likely die. Mikhail says this is unacceptable, but that kind of thing's not always up to us, is it, Chris? No, not really. You can't really no. control that sometimes, <laughs> you know? Now, at a nearby hangar, Ben and Sue go to land their craft, until they're informed via radio not to. That's a pretty good thing, too, because had they landed, they'd have been part of the massive explosion on the runway. <laughs> <laughs> they land the craft nearby and go to check out what was behind the Quatum that took so many other ships. Uh, they head inside the field command center and find a gray-skinned thing. Right. So <laughs> this is where it's going to get a little <laughs> hinky here. This is actually the Hulk, but here he's called the Thing because things aren't confusing enough. Sure. Already. Yeah. I know exactly. Like why. <laughs> Why not just call him the Hulk? But uh, this is, of course, Bruce Banner. First appearance, The Incredible Hulk number 1, May 1962, by Stan and Jack. This is Stan Lee's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type character, uh, plus a little Frankenstein monster thrown in for uh, into the mix here. 
during the experimental detonation of a gamma bomb, scientist Bruce Banner saves teenager Rick Jones, who had driven onto the testing field to play his harmonica. Uh, Banner pushes Jones into a trench to save him. However, he himself is hit with the blast. He absorbs massive amounts of gamma radiation, and uh, he awakens later seemingly unscathed. But at night, transfers transforms into the Incredible Hulk. Now, after Rick Jones witnessed Banner turn into the Hulk at daytime following a failed attempt by Ross's men to shoot the Hulk into space, they figured out that the transformation is caused by anger. Banner was cured in the Incredible Hulk number four, but chose to restore a form that had Hulk's powers with Banner's intelligence. Banner needed the gamma ray machine to effect this change, but using it left him weak and sickly in his human form. Still, the Hulk has it together enough to become a founding member of the Avengers, the first issue debuting with a cover date of September 1963. By the third issue, reliance on the Gamma Ray machine has turned the Hulk into a rampaging monster, subject to spontaneous changes. Back and forth to Banner and whatever. Uh, Tales to Astonish number 64, February 1965, cover date, was the last Hulk story for a while to feature him speaking in complete sentences. When the Hulk is catapulted into the future by the experimental T-Ray in Tales to Astonish number 75, January 1966, cover date, Rick Jones assumes he's dead, and so in issue number 77 tells the rival for Betty Ross's love, Major Glenn Talbot, about his secret identity. Consequently, when the Hulk returns to the present, he's hunted by the military again. Now, during the 1970s, Banner nearly marries Betty Ross, uh, but doesn't. She marries Talbot a couple of years later. Damn it! I know. <laughs> he also travels to another dimension where a magical empress gives the Hulk his Banner intelligence back. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Why not? Uh, he would be a founding member of the Defenders, created by Roy Thomas, debuting in Marvel feature number one, December 1971 cover date. Uh, you can learn all about the Defenders in episode 32 of the Cosmic Treadmill, where we read the Defenders number one. One from 1972, and we I think we also talk about their their formation, the little bits that uh, brought yep. them all together. Yep. Now, in the 1980s, Bruce Banner and the Hulk would be physically split by Doc Samson. This happened in Incredible Hulk number 315, January 1986, by John Byrne, who was a uh, bringing the Hulk back to his roots by splitting him. Right, exactly yeah. how it was intended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now uh, Banner is contracted to form the Hulkbusters. This is a team to uh, form to capture the Hulk. Pretty much, it's in the name, uh, folks. It's right it's there. <laughs> uh, now, the Banner and the Hulk would get back together, though. This is Incredible Hulk number 323, September 1986, cover date by Al Milgram, and the next issue. Of the Hulk, he returns to his gray coloration and transforms only at night, which really is getting him back to his roots. Right. <laughs> Too bad Burn's already gone at this point. <laughs> uh, also during the Burn run, he uh, he married, he finally marries Betty Ross, which another right. thing to get him back to his roots. Right. Uh, exactly <laughs> the way it was intended, yeah. Sure. That's what uh, Stan and Jack wanted. In uh, Incredible Hulk number 347, September 1988, cover date by Peter David and Jeff Purves, the Hulk uh, mafioso persona, this is Mr. Fix-It, emerges, and he starts working in Las Vegas as a hired hood. Uh, during this time, Bruce Banner is a recessive personality within the Hulks, uh, a.k.a. Mr. Fix-It's mind. In uh, the 1990s, Hulk would turn green again, and Bruce Banner would be diagnosed with Dissociative Identity Disorder, proving that it ain't easy being any shade of green, because there were a lot in there. There were a lot. They did. He did get a couple of different uh, hues, didn't he, over the years? <laughs> he did. Uh, so, Ben Grimm, uh, taking, acknowledging 
the Hulk, who in this universe, again, is called The Thing. Uh, remember, <laughs> try to keep that straight. Uh, ben Grimm, who is not The Thing, says, Sweet Ed Petunia, some kind of, of thing. Pity the poor humans. No idea what you're truly up against. The Thing grabs Ben Grimm by the throat. <laughs> that ain't a line I thought we'd ever be saying. <laughs> no. <laughs> Smells more like more the same mutant with half of the brain. And he fires directly into Banner's hide. And Banner is so taken aback, he goes, ouch. It's uh, not terribly effective. Not quite a mutant, Flyboy, but so much more than the man I was. Sue lunges at Banner and grabs him around the shoulders, and Ben uses that distraction to give Bruce another blast. Next thing they know, they find a bleeding Bruce Banner huddled by the wreckage. No, 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 please, please don't hurt me. Uh, Sue and Ben, they don't put two and two together here. They assure Banner that the creature is gone, and Banner convinces Sue and Ben to escort him to the Peace Summit at Buckingham Rays. Speaking of which, we hop over to see Mikhail on a stage regaled by his adoring public. They're yelling, Make me Make hell! Make me hell! And he is greeted by the ranking officer of Eurasian security, Victor Von Doom. Now, we know him better as Dr. Doom. First appearance, Fantastic Four number 5, January 1962, cover date, created by Stan and Jack. Victor Von Doom was born decades ago to a tribe of Latvarian Romani people. His mother, Cynthia Von Doom, was a witch who died at the hands of Mephisto when Victor was young. His father, Werner Von Doom, led the tribe and was a renowned medicine man. Then the wife of the ruler of Latveria falls ill. Werner, Werner is summoned, and he brings Victor along with him. He cannot cure the queen, so Werner is sentenced to death, but he takes off with his son before they can get him. Werner dies of exposure on the mountainside, and Victor makes his way back to his home camp. There, he finds his mom's witchy instruments and vows to learn their use and get revenge on Latveria's king. And he does just that, blending sorcery and technology. Oh, what a guy. Uh, that mm. gets him the attention of Empire State University in America, the only college in America. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> there he meets a young Reed Richards and instantly dislikes him. When Richards tries to correct one of Doom's formulas, Victor chases him away and the thing blows up in his face, scarring Victor forever. Expelled after the accident, Victor traveled the world until he collapsed on a Tibetan mountainside. He was rescued by a clan of monks who then became his minions. Victor forged himself a suit of armor, complete with an iron mask, and took the mantle Dr. Doom. He returned to Latveria and started a revolution that would install him as the country's leader. And Dr. Doom was a jealous foil to Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four. And frankly, that hasn't changed much since he was created. I, I do love that he wouldn't wait for the mask to cool, and he put no. it on his face and scarred the whole thing up. He really worse. just seared him. Well, you know, originally Jack Kirby said he imagined the scarring on Victor Von Doom's face to be just like a chin scar, just minimal. Yeah, yeah, and that he was so vain. But you know, once you secured the scalding mask to your face, it was probably pretty bad. After <laughs> you that. turn it to yeah. hamburger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Doom goes. In the name of all who still rally to receive you and yours, from every free human sovereignty left in the land, welcome to our capital, Prelate Rasputin. And Mikhail says, Such badrantry is needless, Von Doom, and regrets uncalled for. I am here to lighten your load, not add to it. Mikhail lifts his hands aloft to address the crowd. On this bright night, people of our planet, 
I come not as agent of apocalypse, simply a soul in search for brotherhood. War is our common foe, a waste of lives and land, serving no one but the insatiable gods of chaos and death. I offer seeds for the starving, clothing for the cult, and the promise of so much more as a fellowship for a new world order, a union of power and peace, mutant and man, in a new nation, under my protection. And if everyone says, Make hell unity. unity. Make hell unity. unity. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty good deal. Yeah, I like uh, it. <laughs> now, among the crowd are Stark and Stacy, and they're uh, concerned that the common rapple appear to be hanging on Mikhail's every word, because they are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mikhail then invites Donald Blake and company on board his ship, so he might prove that he's got nothing to hide. Now, this crew this crew includes uh, Blake, Tony Stark, Gwen Stacy, Ben Grimm, Sue Storm, Victor Von Doom, uh, Clint Barton, and Bruce Banner. And so, they board the ship. As it takes off, Mikhail's human followers leap to board the ship, but none of them can reach it. So basically, they're jumping off a platform to reach a ship that they can't reach, so they're jumping to their death. Oh, but the stories their kids will have to tell, right? Isn't that going to be something? <laughs> uh, so Ben, now they're chit-chatting, and Ben says, Feels like walking into the lion's den and throwing away the key to me. Don't know what those folks think they're missing up here. But they're acting uh, all kind of crazy. And Mikhail responds, Crazy? Isn't it far more insane to ask them to trust your so-called high council humans to pledge blind faith in weak-willed leaders from the shadow end of the gene pool? Yeah, that was the sound of the other shoe dropping right there. Hey, we just heard a little more than uh, we were supposed to hear. There you go. Now, uh, Gwen fixes her gun on Mikhail, which is just adorable. Really, now. Of all people, Dr. Doom convinced her to lower her weapon. Mikhail proceeds to introduce the gang to his pet empath, that experiment of his who was redlining earlier in the uh, book. This is a young man crucified among tech and wires. He's also the same character from the 616 universe. With the same code name, Empath. Real name, Manuel de la Roca. First appearance, New Mutants number 16, June 1984, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Sal Buscema. He attended the Massachusetts Academy and was one of the Hellions, the students of the White Queen. Dude has a kind of creepy relationship with Emma Frost, really. He was used by Frost to mentally manipulate Magneto while he was the headmaster of Xavier's. This facilitated the New Mutants joining the Hellions for a mission. Empath would fall for new mutant Magma, who would eventually detect the Hellions. He'd survived the attack by Trevor Fitzroy that claimed so many other Hellions and left Emma Frost in a catatonic state. Mikhail addresses his new human hostages. Ironic that the handful who might have opposed me, those most resistant to Emmanuel's most powerful promise, instead are delivered directly into my grasp. Yeah, real ironic. That's one way to look at it. I can't think of any other ways to look it's at it. It's pretty ironic, I gotta <laughs> admit. Yeah, they thought it was gonna go one way, it went another. That's kind of irony right there. Yeah. Now, that's the end of this issue, and this issue ends with a look into the Human High Council's files. And here we're gonna learn the fates of a few Marvel, uh, you know, uh, long-staying people here who don't make an appearance in the issue. Right. And those include Frank Castle, a.k.a. The Punisher. First appearance, Amazing Spider-Man number 129, February 1974, cover date, created by Jerry Conway, Ross Andrew, and John Romita. 
He was inspired in part by Don Pendleton's The Executioner book series, in which a Vietnam veteran's family is killed by the mafia. Okay, maybe Frank was based pretty closely to that book series, because that's more or less his exact origin. I I mean, you might even say it was... Taken completely from that book series, Maybe, yeah. <laughs> we'll take it to, uh, to Mr. Conway here. He says, I was fascinated by the Dan Pendleton executioner character. Yeah, no kidding. Which was fairly popular at the time, and I wanted to do something inspired by that, although not, to my mind, a copy of it. Well, <laughs> okay. well I, I think that character in the books is called Frank Rassel. That's the difference. Yeah. The big thing, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's Fred Castle. <laughs> Fred, <in> Ca- <laughs> Fred Castle. <laughs> Now, uh, Punisher first appeared as an antagonist to Spider-Man, and he was totally cool killing criminals willy-nilly. Now, he was looking to kill Spidey as a handful of issues earlier. It appeared as though Spider-Man had killed Norman Osborn. And, of course, this is just a few issues after the deaths of uh, Gwen Stacy and Norman. Yeah. Uh, Punisher was treated pretty cartoonishly in early appearances, lashing out against petty crimes and stuff like that. But like, the ca- like littering and right, exactly. And yeah, that was his whole stuff. thing. He was, he was yeah. just a total hardliner, you know, almost like you know, my way or you get shot in the face way. Basically, uh, but the character was a surprise hit, and he started making more appearances and would eventually receive his own four, then five issue limited series in 1986. Heading into the 1990s, Punisher was popular enough to have his own line of comics, as well as a magazine. There was Punisher, that ran for 105 issues from July 1987 to July 1995, cover dates. Punisher World War Journal, that was 80 issues from November 1988 to July 1995, covers. Punisher War Zone had 41 issues, March through 1992 through July 1995, cover dates. Punisher Magazine was 16 issues, November 1989 to September 1990, cover dates. And Punisher Armory, 10 issues, just in 1990. His popularity did, however, begin to wane in the mid-90s, apparently in July 1995. (laughs) From the looks of it, that seems to be when these uh, titles could no longer be supported, which might be why he doesn't have a more prominent role during the Age of Apocalypse. Uh, I mean, really, it's true, Chris. If this had happened even two years earlier, oh, he'd it, be all over. It, it might have been the age of Punishopolis. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. it's, uh, different it would have been. Uh, then, of course, Peter Parker is also in the files. That's uh, we know him better as Spider-Man. First appeared in Amazing Fantasy number fifteen, August nineteen sixty-two, created by Stan and Steve Ditko. Uh, Speedy was raised in Forest Hills, Queens, by his aunt May and uncle Ben. He was a studious fellow, not quite popular with his classmates. All right, he was a nerd. Mm-hmm. And uh, on a class trip to some science-y thing, Peter is bitten by a spider that has been bombarded with radioactivity, and this gives him the proportionate strength of a spider and the ability to climb walls, you know, like a spider. Using his know-how, he builds wrist-mounted web shooters and develops sticky web fluid, which is a pretty neat trick for a 16-year-old, if you ask us. For sure. And uh, now he is Spider-Man, uses his newfound powers initially to win amateur wrestling matches and become a public figure. When a crook that Peter failed to stop kills his Uncle Ben, he learns that with great power comes great responsibility. And uh, pretty much every moment of his life after that is an unbearable hell of yeah. guilt and, <laughs> and guilt regret. And death and, you know, just like remorse. <laughs> oh, goodness. Now, perhaps more than his Marvel Comics contemporaries, Peter's struggles are constant. He's got to worry about his Aunt May. He's got to worry about paying bills, dealing with bullies, talk, thinking about chicks. You know, this guy's mind is always reeling. Yeah. Uh, Peter winds up getting a job as a photographer for the Daily Bugle, giving uh, J. Jonah Jameson ample opportunities to ball him out. 
Uh, Pete specializes in providing candid shots of Spider-Man, for obvious reasons, <laughs> which uh, Jameson uses to demonize the fella in the newspaper. Uh, eventually, Peter Parker dates his sweetheart, Gwen Stacy, and, uh, you know, we already went through that, and, it, you know, it doesn't end well. It doesn't end well for them, no. <laughs> uh, while mourning Gwen, Pete gets closer to Mary Jane Watson, a character introduced partially in Amazing Spider-Man number 25, June 1965, by Lee and Ditko, literally just in shadows. Yep. But, and then she shows up fully in issue 42, November 1966, by Lee and Romita Sr., where she says, that's the one, you know, face a tiger, you hit the jackpot. So, like, a full, more than a year later, you know what I mean? Sure. They, they pull her out. So this is talk about, you know, uh, burying the lead or whatever. <laughs> uh, Pete proposes to Mary Jane in issue 182, July 1978, covered eight by Marf Wolfman and Ross Andrew, but she turns him down in the next issue. So... Peter goes on with his life, graduates college, he delates, he dates Felicia Hardy, a.k.a. the Black Cat, for a while, and uh, does his regular Spider-Man thing around Manhattan. Uh, due to the events in Marvel's Secret Wars maxi-series, Peter acquires a new black-and-white costume and wears it for a year, beginning in Amazing Spider-Man number 252, May 1984, covered eight by Tom DeFalco, Roger Stern, and Ron Friends. Turns out the suit is a symbiotic alien that makes Peter do some vicious rounds while he's asleep. He's able to shuck the suit and web of Spider-Man number one, April 1985, by Louise Simonson and Greg LaRocque. But it, or is it LaRocque? LaRocque. One of those. But it comes back in the form of the monstrous Venom, which then has its own side spurt named Carnage, <laughs> and it, it does go on and on and on from there. And luckily, like the Punisher, Venom's uh, you know popularity was was waning at this point too. Otherwise, I'm sure yeah. he'd have had armies of symbiotes. It would have, in, exactly. it would have been a whole yeah. would have been a whole Venom war basically. <laughs> Russia would have been Venom. Uh, <laughs> uh, Peter Parker proposes to Mary Jane again. This is Amazing Spider-Man number two ninety, July nineteen eighty seven, cover date by David Michelini and John Romita Jr. And this time, she accepts. Whoa. Yeah, they're wed in the comics in Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 21. This is 1987. This is David Michelini, Jim Shooter, and Paul Ryan. Uh, however, they married for realsies on June 5th, 1987 at Shea Stadium with Stan Lee officiating the ceremony. Ooh. Yeah. Just a, a year after the Mets won the World Series. That's right. It was, it, it was, it was actually quite a little event, as I recall. Yeah. Uh, it's this footage of it online. Well, oh, definitely yeah. I'll try to remember yeah. to put that in the uh, show notes. For sure. Now, uh, shortly after the marriage, Peter is buried alive by Craven the Hunter during his last hunt. And this is the first time it becomes clear that Peter's spidey antics now affect more than just him, because, you know, he is married, and, and Mary Jane does know the dual identity. Right. Uh, after some time passes, Peter's parents, Mary and Richard, return, claiming to have been held captive by the Red Skull all those years. They're just, you know, they're revealed to be actually LMDs, which are life model decoys. Yeah, which are, uh, we call those story conveniences in the Marvel parlance is really what Indeed. <laughs> uh, Peter's life was thrown for a loop when Carnage tries taking over Manhattan during the Maximum Garbage event. Uh, <laughs> and if that wasn't bad enough, next came the Clone Saga. Look, uh, you know, we went over this in Cosmic Treadmill episode 24, so we implore you to give that episode a listen because... This episode's going to be long enough. I, I don't know if we want to tack on another hour. We can't to talk just about do that. Yeah. Especially when, when Peter's appearance here is a picture of his tombstone. Exactly. That, He's that, not even it. here. It's, it's just like, yeah, exactly. Well, we'll, we'll reveal what will happen to these characters soon, but we don't actually see them do anything. There's also yep. May Parker, a.k.a. Golden Oldie. Okay, not really. Uh, first appearance was Amazing Fantasy number 15, just like Spidey August 62, created by Stan and Steve. Peter Parker's feeble aunt uh, and Ben Parker's widow. 
makes for a wicked wheat cake that Peter can't get enough of. Almost constantly sickly early on in Spidey's run, usually the reason why Peter would have to seek odd jobs. Peter could never come clean about his being Spider-Man for fear that it would be too much for her heart to take. And she was actually extremely fearful of Spider-Man anyway, so he was actually probably right about that. Yeah. May would date and nearly marry Spidey villain Dr. Octopus. Uh, after Peter moved out, she would join the Grey Panthers, a militant group of oldsters that wielded batons down the streets of Forest Hills. Okay, okay. It was just a group looking for civil rights for the elderly, but what a good name, huh? Mm-hmm. Now, during a protest, May would suffer a heart attack. Finally, we've been waiting for it since 1962. <laughs> it it, it took to like you. decades. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, that heart was playing the long con. There. Uh, now, while convalescing in the hospital, she'd meet the curmudgeonly Nathan Lubinsky. Somewhere around this point, May would turn her Forest Hills home into like a, this, like sort of weird flop house. They were always, yeah, and I was like, anyone could stay there. It was like, what is going like people on? People are on the, the people are on the porch. There's hammocks. It's like, what's going on here? Uh, she, she and Nathan would be engaged. Uh, he would guilt trip Peter about dropping out of grad school because at this point, May and Peter weren't on speaking terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nathan would be killed by the Vultures gang over some old gambling debts, which is something that, oddly, May blames Peter for. Yeah, they, they were just not getting along at this period no. in time. Uh, heading into the Age of Apocalypse, May Parker took what we believe would be her final bow. This is an amazing Spider-Man number 400. It featured her passing, only after revealing to Peter that she'd always known about his double life. A wonderful story and a fitting end. Uh, while it lasted, unfortunately, but that's now getting ahead of ourselves. As of now, she would be passed in the regular yes. world. Oh, and that uh, golden oldie bit we mentioned earlier, that's in reference to the time that May Parker became a Herald of Galactus. For real. Yeah, check out uh, Mar- Marvel Team-Up number 137, January 1984 cover date. Should we tell them that happened on a different Earth? Nah, it's more fun this way. Yeah, read the comic, folks. You'll have a good time. <laughs> also mentioned is Ben Parker. First appearance again, Amazing Fantasy number 15 by Stan and Steve. The uncle of Peter Parker instilled in his nephew the concept that with great power must come great responsibility. He dies in his first appearance due in part to Peter's negligence. And uh, to my knowledge, at least he hasn't come back to life yet, right? Let's hope we don't have to edit that soon. It's true. Could be any know. minute. Could be any oh. minute. He'll come back with a rocket, a rocket pack, and uh, you know whatever. And, and four solo titles. <laughs> uh, for more on Ben and May's uh, possible potential youth, check out episode <laughs> number fifty-five of the Cosmic Treadmill when we discussed Mark Millar and Terry Dodson's trouble, which is mm-hmm. a sort of a telling of their younger days in a way. Sort of, kind of. Also mentioned in this file is Reed Richards, a.k.a. Mr. Fantastic. First appearance, Fantastic Four, number one, November 1961, cover date, created by Stan and Jack. After graduating from Harvard with multiple PhDs and meeting Victor Von Doom, Ben Grimm, and the Storms, Reed would design a craft that could fly to Mars and beyond. When the government threatened to cut funding, Reed took it upon himself to fly the thing on his own for his test trip. Uh, He'd take his pals Sue, Johnny, and Ben with him for the ride. After being bombarded by cosmic rays, Reed found himself with the ability to stretch. In Stan Lee conversation, Lee claims that Mr. Fantastic's stretching powers were based on Plastic Man, who had no equivalent at Marvel. Granted, the Marvel Age of Heroes kind of started with the Fantastic Four, so I don't think there were very many analogs. I don't really. That, what other heroes are we talking about? <laughs> Captain America, that was, and Namor, that was pretty much it. And that the, was it. The first human torch. And the android human torch. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Reed and company would form the Fantastic Four. Reed was the team's leader. 
As Marvel's first family, so long as they have those film rights, the Fantastic Four would face off against eventual Marvel staples such as the Skrulls and Doctor Doom. Also, Galactus and the Silver Surfer, that was a pretty huge story. Uh, in Fantastic Four Annual Number 3, as mentioned, Reed married Sue Storm, and in Fantastic Four Annual 6, Reed becomes a proud papa to baby Franklin. He's a mutant child born with incredible powers rivaling even the Celestials. Reed would be put before Cosmic Tribunal during the trial of Galactus. He was held up for sparing the life of the planet Gobbler. His defense was basically Galactus gonna Galactus, which is good enough to get them both off. <laughs> John Byrne himself was called in as a witness to the trial as he wrote the FF's cosmic exploits inside the Marvel Universe as well. Uh, Reed briefly left the Fantastic Four and joined the Avengers. Reed had trouble taking orders from Cap, though, so he went back to where he was the big, big wheel. After returning to the team that he founded, he was pitted against the Dark Rider, an alternate evil version of Reed, who hopped from reality to reality, deep-sixing every other Reed that he'd meet. Mm-hmm. Also here, Johnny Storm, a.k.a. the Human Torch. First appearance, Fantastic Four number 1, November 1961, cover date, Stan Jack. Uh, on board Reed's fateful, ship in, uh, fateful trip into space, post-cosmic uh, ray bombardment, had the ability to per- burst into flames. This is a renovation of the Human Torch concept, originally created by Carl Burgos in 1939. This is the android, uh, Jim Hammond Human Torch. Right. He first appeared in Marvel Comics number 1, October 1939 cover. Brother of Sue and eventual brother-in-law to Reed, he'd attend Metro College in New York. York City. He was dorm mates with Wyatt Wingfoot, and he also met his Golden Age namesake. After meeting the Inhumans, Johnny would fall in love with Crystal. This was a short-lived romance because Crystal would eventually marry and mate with Quicksilver. Uh, he'd move on to Ben Grimm's former squeeze, the blind Alicia Masters. They'd even get married. Well, sorta, because it turned out that Alicia was actually a scroll named Elijah. But legally, it still holds in court. It That's the weird thing. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny knocked her up just before she got herself killed. She'd get better, but they don't mention the pregnancy again. Probably for good reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, there's a file on Namor. Full name is Namor McKenzie. First appearance was Motion Picture Fun- Funnies Weekly, number one, April 1939, cover date created by Bill Everett. Motion Picture Funnies was intended as a giveaway to be sent to movie theaters by Funnies Incorporated. The idea was scrapped, and as of 1974, only eight samples of the giveaway have been located. After Motion Picture Funnies Weekly fell through, Bill Everett shifted the Submariner character over to Marvel Comics number 1, October 1939 cover date. Timely Comics was a client of Funnies Incorporated, so it felt like a natural fit. And of course, Timely was Marvel in her previous incarnation. Yes. Uh, Comics historian Les Daniels referred to Namor in his earlier appearances as a freak in the service of chaos. Citing that, while Namor acted in many ways like a villain... It was always in pursuit of justice, and he is a very strange character in those days. Yes. Uh, Namor would side with the Allies during World War II, and this would later be revealed as Namor serving on the Invaders, alongside Captain America, Bucky, the Android Human Torch, and Toro, his sidekick. Post-World War II, Namor would vanish along with the rest of the superheroes, Aside from a very brief return in 1954 to 1955, Namor wouldn't resurface. <laughs> <laughs> resurface mm-hmm. uh, until Fantastic Four number four, May 1962, where he is discovered as an amnesiac, helmless man by Johnny Storm. After getting his memory back, Namor would return to Atlantis only to find it had been destroyed from nuclear testing. And uh, yeah, he was pretty pissed off at that. 
little bit, yeah. Now, over the years, Namor's constitution and affiliation shifted back and forth from hero to villain quite a bit. Uh, he'd even share the supervillain team-up title with Doctor Doom yeah. for a year. I, this really always bothered me. I could never get a beat on this guy. Like, <laughs> it's true. It's true. You, you always want to keep him at arm's length. Like, <laughs> oh, exactly. Like, how could you ever <laughs> trust this guy? But anyway. <laughs> no. Uh, Namor would fall for Sue Storm very early on, which we talked about earlier, that love triangle between she, he, and uh, eventual husband Reed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd give up and eventually nearly marry his royal cousin, Lady Dorma. Uh, okay, I guess. I guess laws are different in that's Atlantis. That's how it goes in Atlantis, folks. I mean, we cannot... Atlantis is the very, very deep. <laughs> right. Um, now, uh, Namor is a founding Atlantis, member of the I Defenders. Like to call it, right? I'm sorry. Huh? The Appalachian <laughs> Atlantis, right? That's what we yes. call that, yeah. Now, Namor was a founding member of the Defenders, along with Doctor Strange and the Hulk, and eventually the Silver Surfer. And again, for more on their formation and first outings, you can check out episode 32 of the Treadmill in the Archives. Now, later, with money raised via sunken treasure, uh, Namor purchased Oracle Incorporated and turned it into an environmental and conservation outfit. They'd also sponsor uh, Heroes for Hire later on. He'd lose his cute little ankle wings in a battle against Sludge. The garbage monster, or sludge, right? That's Guessing more sludge, like it, yeah. yeah. Uh, but those wings would come back. They're just too adorable. He traveled to Kunlun and discovered the presumed dead Danny Rand. Uh, we told you a few episodes back that Iron Fist got better, so don't worry. So now looking at these files uh, to see where all these characters are in the Age of Apocalypse, we have Frank Castle, Missing in Action, Peter, May, and Benjamin Parker, Culled, Reed Richards, presumed dead, Johnny Storm, presumed dead, and Namor, killed in action. So I'm glad that we did all those bios so that we can find out that they don't exist here. They don't. Uh, but we did. We got a peek at him, and that's, that's, that's the context for you. But now we move on to the next and last book of the show. Yes, X-Universe number two, June 1995 cover date. Dying Breath by Scott Lobdell, Terry Cavanaugh, Carlos Pacheco, and Terry Dodson. Now, we met the first three. Let's meet Terry. We, and it's the same Terry that we've discussed a few times here. It's very, very brief. Right. Uh, originally from Oregon. He began working in 1991 at Revolutionary Comics. Those are the folks who put out the black and white illustrated bios and stories about rock artists and groups. He came to a mainstream prominence as an artist on Malibu Comics' Ultraverse title Mantra in 1993, which was co-created with Mike W. Barr. End of the story. We are on board Mikhail's ship, and the familiar folks we ran into last issue are locked in a sort of stasis. Mikhail is looking to augment them into more usable vessels, starting with Tony Stark, and we watch him receive a rather large injection into his heart hole. Also on board Mikhail's ship, the Keeper, Murdoch, keeps watch over Empath. He is ordered not to let the boy die from a doctor lurking in the shadows because he's vital in fomenting the human insurrection on the ground. And the doctor goes, do not let him die, Keeper, as long as he still fans the flames of the first... Down below. Elsewhere, the Human High Council are holding a meeting with General Thunderbolt Ross. Full name is Thaddeus E. Ross. First appearance was Incredible Hulk number one, May 1962, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. He's a general in the Air Force and father of eventual Banner Bride, Betsy Betty Ross. He was in charge of the Gamma Bomb Project, which turned uh, Bruce Banner into the Hulk accidentally, and uh, thus began a long lasting rivalry. 
We're also aligned with baddies such as Leader, Modoc, and Abomination in his hunt in his hulk. hunt for the Hulk. Sorry about <laughs> that. And of course, by the way, this is treasonous. Also very stupid. Uh, so he'd find himself dishonorably discharged from the military. Uh, Ross would show up at the wedding of Bruce and Betty, brandishing a pistol, and he shot Rick Jones. Which ought to get him a medal, maybe would, a commendation would, back into the military. Sure, I, I liked it, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, Ross would be merged with the electric baddie, Zax. I think that's how you say that. <laughs> and uh, he goes on a rampage. Uh, this ultimately clues him into uh, some of what Banner has to deal with when he turns into the Hulk. Ross dies in Betty's arms, finally giving her and Bruce his blessing. Uh, he'll get better, of course. We know that, but at this point, he is, uh, he's out of the picture. Except in the Age of Apocalypse. So, uh, mm. Moira says, The voice of the people is loud and clear, me love, but too fickle. The ranks of protesters outside diminish with each passing hour, and more and more be turning to... Ross interrupts her with traitors! Cowards looking for any excuse to abandon their own. If you ask me, and you did. <laughs> Lur- lurking nearby is Mikhail. He warns that any and all decisions have been taken out of the hands of the council. The mutants will win because, at the end of the day, the mutants are united. Back on Rasputin's ship, Tony Stark's artificial heart is penetrated in short circuits, which causes a blackout. Oh, and uh, Tony enters cardiac arrest. But at least the hostages are freed. Yeah, and I mean, Tony's not dead or anything. A second syringe jab from Dr. Donald Blake is enough to wake him up. Uh, Ben Grimm states that Operation Trojan Horse has begun. Yes, Tony goes, internal systems are already tracking the tracers hidden in your confiscated guns, Graham, pointing straight to the local ammo dump. And so next stop, the local ammo dump. Hey! The heroes reclaim their gear and suit up for the next round and snag a pair of hover bikes and leave the ship. Down below, a man leads hundreds of human prisoners to freedom, and that man is Bullseye. Real name is Lester something or other. Yeah. First appearance as well, there was Bulls hyphen I and Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. number 15, November 1969, cover date created by Gary Friedrich and Herb Trimpey. But regardless of what, what Wikipedia might tell you, this ain't him. That guy was Edward Forsyth, Forsyth, and he died in that same issue. Also, he had totally different, he didn't even have the costume, right? Or am I mad? Yeah, know, it, it's was, totally different. He guy. was just a, yeah. a guy that could shoot well. Uh, Lester first appeared in Daredevil number 131, March 1976, cover date, and was created by Marv Wolfman and Bob Brown. He's a petty, braggadocious assassin who agreed to be interviewed by the Daily Bugle to publicize his murderous ways. And then he was hired to murder Matt Murdock, and he was unsuccessful at that, but managed to prove himself a formidable foe for Daredevil. And primarily that. uh, He was diagnosed with a brain tumor that caused him to see everybody as Daredevil, so what's an assassin to do but kill everybody? Uh, Daredevil, the real one, is eventually able to win the day, and Bullseye's tumor is removed. During an assignment to kill the Kingpin, Bull- Bullseye would actually be hired by the Kingpin to do some jobs for him instead. <laughs> so the awesome. highest bidder, you know. Yeah. Uh, now, this is uh, the famous story wherein he kills Elektra. Right. Uh, also the story where Daredevil allows Bullseye to fall a great distance, seemingly to his death. Uh, he'd survive, however, be paralyzed, and uh, he'd get better. Actually, better than better, and adamantium lace spine is in his future. (laughs) That's a nice upgrade. Yeah, really. Uh, Ben and Sue help Bullseye free those prisoners. This is now back in the Age of Apocalypse, and a few well-placed blasts from above from them. 
Tony and Gwen land at different spots uh, on Mikhail's ship and infiltrate. They find some rogue humans who immediately begin sounding the alarms, and it's here they run into the thing, which is we would know as the Hulk. You, you get what you know? Oh, you, you you know it by now. Yeah, uh, Banner, who is ho- who's saying this to Stark while holding an unconscious Gwen Stacy, he says, "Sorry, little man, time's up." Meanwhile, Donald Blake arrives at the Human High Council and finds Mikhail bugging them. Blake reports that Mikhail no longer wields any power. His ship has been taken over by the Resistance. Mikhail, not having anything else to lose, sixes Strife Force on the Council, which is really just a handful of augmented humans in really lame cyber-organic armor. They do not immediately act in Mikhail's interest, so he uses his powers to force them to point their guns at the Human High Council, but then they drop to the ground dead. Courtesy of Victor Von Doom, who also just arrived. Yes, uh, we rejoin the Keeper and Empath as the latter squirms and whimpers in pain. Murdoch decides to put him out of his misery and beats him to death. Hey. <laughs> he just gets his stick out and beats the holy hell out of him to death. Uh, down below, uh, all the people are kind of freaked out because they're no longer having their emotions controlled by Empath. Ben Grimm and the rest of the cavalry arrive to lend a hand and to take the scared humans to safety. In so doing, Ben grabs a little baby. Just snatch a baby up. Uh, <laughs> elsewhere, Tony Stark is trying to facilitate the transport, but then... The Thing, who is really the Hulk, you know what I mean? Afraid <laughs> <laughs> I can't allow that, Stark. Step away from that console before. And then Gwen approaches from behind, holding her gun. She says, Surprise, Grosome! And she fires at him with a shoot. I was faking it. Give this girl an Oscar. Or or don't, because she's pretty terrible. Yeah, don't bother. <laughs> Guess again, girly. You're as good as dead already. You just don't know enough to lie down for the count. Yeah, so Gwen runs, but really, I mean, he's right. How far is she going to get here? She's kind of kind they're of They're on a trapped. ship. Yeah, yeah, they're on a spaceship here, or it's craft. <laughs> so Tony reports that she brought him. She bought him enough time to breach the ship's security shields. However, it was also too much time because the seawall has been launched, whatever the hell that is. Yeah. Back with the Human High Council, Mikhail stands surrounded by the few surviving members of his strife force. Until Doom kills the last one. Um, oddly, this kind of amuses Mikhail. Killing your own comes easily, teen soldier. Dare you challenge me directly? Donald Blake decides to take him up on this and lunges at him from behind. No. Use the flagship to get the counselors out of here, Victor. Rasputin's mine. And Mikhail says, Dream on, Jin Jok. In my dreams, devil, I soar through a far finer world than this. I dine and dance among graceful goddesses on the other side of the universe and share home and hearth with heroes. That's an oddly specific dream, is it not? Yeah, what is Mikhail, a dream uh, doctor or something? (laughs) In reality, here, now, I'm just another man in a role I was never meant to play. Blake runs Mikhail through, and they both tumble through the clock of Big Ben to their deaths. Look at what you've made of us all, Mikhail. As they fall, Apocalypse's seawall draws ever nearer. Nearby, Ben and Sue direct traffic for the evacuation. <laughs> Someone's got to do it, you know? <laughs> sure. Uh, back with Stark, the Thing, who is really the, the Hulk, Hulk yeah. <laughs> sees on the monitor that the seawall is a Thing, and this causes him to transform back into puny Banner. Stark gives a rousing speech, which ends with the line, 
None of us ever set out to be Avengers. Oh, that's just cute, isn't it? Isn't you it know? adorable? What yeah. an illusion to win. You know? <laughs> uh, Victor Von Doom returns to Stu Storm, and she's ticked that he's returned without Donald Blake, and punches him in the face for it. Yeah. She, she then goes to find Ben to report the news of the very likely successful evacuation. She finds him with a hole blown in his chest. He's still holding the baby, who appears to be okay. Sue reaches for the child who's wearing a bracelet with the name Frankie on it, likely a nod to Franklin Richards. First appearance was Franklin Four, Fantastic Four <laughs> Annual Number 3, November 1968, covered eight, created by Stan and Jack. He's the son of Reed and Sue Richards, born with mutant powers on the same level as Celestials. Reed would create psychic inhibitors to keep Franklin's powers under control, allowing him to have a normal life. You know, as normal as being the son of half of the Fantastic Four can be anyway. I mean, he still was raised in the Baxter building, for goodness yeah. sake, you know. Uh, Franklin was able to work around the inhibitors and even secretly joined up with Power Pack, taking the code name Tattletail. They grew close and the powers became something of a second family for him. The powers and the Richards grew tight as well. During Reed and Sue's time with the Avengers, Franklin bonded with Jarvis. He'd be kidnapped by his grandfather, Nathaniel Richards, in order to stop him from having a child with Rachel Summers. The child would, would grow up to be Jonathan Richards' hyperstorm, a villain, a bad dude. Uh, Franklin would return aged into teenagehood, which is uh, you know probably the dumbest thing ever if you don't want him to try to get it on with Phoenix. I know. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a, a baby and, and then bring back a hormone. Yeah, literally. I mean, to, yeah. After he stopped wanting to have sex with everything, maybe he can get over it. You know. <laughs> Now, while he's a teenager, he would take the codename Psylord and briefly run the Fantastic <laughs> Force. Mm. Yeah, that was a thing. That was something. Uh, so this version was rendered obsolete when Hyperstorm returned youngling Franklin to the FF. At the same time, Nathaniel snatched him. Worth noting that Franklin was mixed up in that issue of Marvel Team-Up that turned Aunt May into Golden Oldie during the Assistant Editor's Month that we mentioned earlier. The baby isn't him, though. It's just a nod. Hell, it could be a nod to Frankie Ray, that other Nova who was Galactus's herald. Oh, boy. <laughs> Let's Nova. <do> it. <laughs> Not that Nova. Real name, Frankie Ray. First appearance, Fantastic Four, number 164, November 1975, created by Roy Thomas and George Perez. He worked at the United Nations. She. She worked at the United <laughs> Nations, met Johnny Storm, and began dating him despite her deathly fear of fire. This fear was actually a mental block put on her by her stepfather, Phineas Horton, the creator of the original Human Torch. After breaking the mental block, Frankie realized she had superpowers of the flaming variety. She volunteered to be the Herald of Galactus and didn't really have a problem finding planets for the big guy to gobble up. So Frankie would get involved with the Silver Surfer because that's what anybody who deals with Galactus is eventually going to have to do, yeah. Yes. Now, this baby isn't hurt either, but if nothing else, we are completionists. <laughs> sure are. <laughs> At that moment, back in the story, a white light overtakes the Earth, and all of reality passes. And this will make much more sense next week, after we finally cover X-Men Omega. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, next week it'll be Omega as well as a look at X-Men Prime, which is the return of the uh, of the main Marvel Universe that, there for the X-Men and uh, their new place. It, it doesn't just come back like in the uh, 
Terminator versus uh, what was that? The uh, <laughs> Robocop, versus, Robocop Terminator. versus Terminator, where it's just like you can actually physically see the uh, future and change. <laughs> oh god, that was the best. No, we we need and we need another five dollar one shot. So yeah, we will get X Men Prime. Oh, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, marketing was like, uh, can we get another squeeze another issue out of this? I'm surprised they didn't have even more issues. They're just like, what are the what is the average person doing at this time? And they have like, <laughs> right. you know, whatever, uh, you know, uh, Millie Millie the model. In the it's age funny of apocalypse, because we, we don't see a lot of the uh, a lot of characters. I mean, like Spider Man doesn't get anything but a tombstone. It's interesting. We don't see J. Jonah Jameson. We, it's no Venom, uh, no Shield. It's very very odd. It is. I know a lot. Like we we've been saying a lot of times, some of these aspects seem really thought out of like what might have happened if you sure. know, if this one event had changed, how this would have spun out to change other. Things. Other times, doesn't really seem Pull very. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like, you know, we'll put some scary teeth on this one and keep it moving. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, definitely having a good time. Definitely really had a good time with these two issues. They were just, sure. they sort of did add like a little bit of levity, as weird as that sounds, because they're just as gory <laughs> and messed up as the other ones, but there was something very kooky and uh, silly about them, I thought. Um, but next week, we will finish up Age of Apocalypse, finally. It's spun out into six episodes. And, six uh, weeks in the making, yep. Then we will talk about, uh, you know, our thoughts and how that affected the industry and all that. If you want to talk to us about that, write to us about Age of Apocalypse or about why The Thing was called The Hulk and The Hulk was called The <laughs> Thing or anything uh, comics-related or whatever's on your mind, you write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic T-mill history. On Tumblr, cosmic T-mill history.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter at cosmic T-mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. To see our weekly writings about DC Comics, current ones at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And uh, you can see Chris's personal writings on DC Comics from any time in their publishing history on Chris's on infiniteearths.com, where you write a different... Uh, synopsis and review of sorts or breakdown or discussion i think is the word discussion is the word uh of uh different dc comic every day you did just finish your vartox week that was three weeks long yes um and uh now you're going into uh i saw something else random that i was love oh the dingbats i saw recently oh yeah the dingbats on danger street which finished up your first issue special uh, I think I saw you're in the 900s now. Am I wrong about this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, wow. we're about 60 days away from hitting the 1,000. So. so I expect that 1,000th post to have a, a hardback release with uh, all different artists uh, drawing A ton for of variant it. covers. A lot a of variant, variant covers. covers for that I want to see. <laughs> uh, no, really, this is something you got to check out. And uh, a lot of times it does act as a uh, corollary to the show. Chris is an yeah. yeah, check it out every day, folks. And uh, also you can check out the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. There you can find our show notes as well as a chronological listing of every issue, or every issue, every episode of the Cosmic Treadmill, all 104. And uh, also all uh, 20-odd or 30-odd uh, Weird Comics histories and all the shows we do. They're all, they're all there for you yep. to find in the order that you're supposed to listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> or in the order it might be uh, for... for uh, OCD folks might want to read them in order or listen to them in right. order like I do when I find a podcast. So there, there is, that's where you can do it. There is a progression, you know, when you hear the earlier ones versus now, we're a lot less uh, polished. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all. We gave him a whole bunch uh, to chew on here this episode. And I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? 
There, there, I think there was a story in there. I think, if I recall, wasn't there something about the X-Men? What were you? Maybe. Couldn't swear the X-Men were involved in this. We'll, find, we'll have to go back to it next week and see what's going on. We'll, we'll get there next week, yes. I think that'll do it. But uh, until that next week, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill apocalyptically. Now trick what lace who they ain't what mates do Got a lot of girls that I love to replace you Take it to your face, boo, not behind your back Talk, we never mind that Funny, never find that Puff a dime sack, right high Make a save a wine that No, you go against the Harlem gigolo Get your lick a low, make the shit get dough I represent honeys with money, fly guys and gents Ride with the tents, that be 35% Told by lace, so I look both ways. Cop says okay. My ten smoke grades, no ways. Leave without handing me my. Got plans to get my land and my six. Got a ten on the stand. Pop champagne like I won the championship. Come on, been around the world and now yeah yeah. We been playing hate I don't know when, I don't know why. Why they want us faded? I don't know why they hate us. Is it our ladies? After all, these implements and texts designed by intellects of X to find evidently there's so much that hides. And though the saints of us divine in ancient feeding lines, their sentiment is just as hard to pluck from the vine. Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 105, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by wistfully and regretfully remembering the greatness of Charles Xavier. Oh, I'm looking at a picture of him right now, Chris. I, me too, me too. I can't stop. It's just a... it's it's, hard. it's too hard. It uh, is, it is. <laughs> but uh, this this week we are finally, finally yeah. wrapping up the Age of Apocalypse uh, with special attention paid to X Men Omega Number One that was cover dated June 1995. The title of the story is Endings which it makes sense. Uh, story, Scott Lobdell. Dialogue, Mark Wade. Pencils, Roger Cruz. Inkers, uh, La Rosa, Townsend, Kiesel, Candelaro, Hannah, and, or Hannah, and Milgram. <laughs> it's it's like they didn't know this was going to come, you know? Yeah, or or maybe it's... there were uh, some last-minute changes made. They had to get all I hands wonder. on this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lettering, Richard Stockings with Comic Craft. Colors, Steve Bouchelado with Electric Crayon. Edited-in-Chief by Bob Harris. This was an oversized chromium-covered issue. Uh, it came with a cover by John Romita Jr. Uh, came with a cover price of $3.95 USD and $5.55 Canadian, Ooh. which is a, a pretty convenient price. I have all fives there. Really, yeah. <laughs> now, before we get into the story, let's... Let me ask you, are you tired of hearing about Scott Lobdell yet? A little bit, a little bit, you know, but yeah. we'll do the quick one here. Yeah, we're going to do the quickest of the quick here. Uh, now, we have met him many times over at this point, so here is the fastest version. Born either August 24th, 1960, or sometime during 1963, probably around Marlboro, New York. 
He wasn't a comic book fan growing up, and he only read them after convalescing from lung surgery. He worked on his college newspaper as a writer and a cartoonist, and he would perform interviews. One of these interviews was with comics editor Al Milgram, and so Scott felt he had an in at Marvel. He pitched a story to Tom DeFalco from Marvel Comics Presents Anthology, and he used some obscure characters not to make any waves. Uh, Lobdell would eventually become the architect, uh, for lack of a better term, of the X-Men line, and took part in many a crossover, including... This one. This very one, yep. And then uh, Mark Wade, a little bit longer, but also the truncated version. <laughs> he was born March 21st, 1962 in Hueytown, Alabama. In 1966, Mark's dad brought home Batman number 180. Cover date was May. Story is Death Knocks Three Times. Matt was captivated by this comic and began collecting comics and never stopped once. Not when he got older, not due to girls, not any of the excuses a lot of people have for why they have a, a stop or a pause in their comic collecting. His teenage life was tumultuous. He fought frequently with his parents, and he spent a lot of time crashing at his friends' houses. In 1979, Mark Wade watched Superman the movie, and this was a life-changing experience. He sat through the movie twice in a row and left with a strong belief in heroism. He said, seeing Superman the movie changed my life in a fundamental and profound way and gave me a North Star that I followed ever since. Mark dreamed of working in comics and didn't think he wrote or drew well enough to qualify, so after graduating... From the Virginia Commonwealth University, he found work for Amazing Heroes magazine and Comics Buyer's Guide. Since Mark already knew Julie through Amazing Heroes, Julius Schwartz, that is, he was able to, and about to be in New York for the first time, he was able to set up an in-person meeting with Julius Schwartz, and he said, I offered him an eight-pager in which Superman goes to his Arctic fortress only to find it's been stripped bare. Someone has burgled the joint, but who and why? Now, Schwartz would pick up the story in Wade's first professional comics work. This was uh, in Action Comics number 572, had an October 1985 cover date. Story title was The Puzzle of the Purloined Fortress. And that would be it for him for a little while. Uh, in 1986, he moved to L.A. to work for Fantagraphics as an editor. His first task on the first day was to fire the fellow he was replacing, who, uh, as you might imagine, had no idea it was coming. This is this is always one detail I can never get over, because it's such a weird power play by your new boss, you know, like, uh, first yeah, thing you and, do, and fire it, that guy, like, whoa. And it's so real, too. Yeah, it it's, really is. It's something that I'm sure happens all the time, yeah. uh, not just in comics. Uh, yeah. You know. By the spring of 1987, Mark was uh, packaging and editing his own magazine. This was Comics Week. Of it, Mark says, he, he refers to it as an industry news tabloid that was printed at roughly the size of a military parachute, but with more hot air. Now, Comics Week would run five issues. Uh, DC Comics publisher Jeanette Kahn noticed Comics Week and thought that Mark might make a good editor. And Mark was headed as, as he was hired as an associate editor when he was 25 years old by Dick Giordano, and he moved from L.A. to New York for this. This was his dream job. Uh, his first two days consisted of erasing pencil lines on Green Arrow. Oh, dare to dream. I was going to say, that's glamorous. <laughs> Uh, now, for two years, he primarily edited Secret Origins and made a lot of contacts, but he'd be fired by 1990. Uh, he also edited Batman Gotham by Gaslight, which kicked off DC's Elseworlds imprint. 
After this, he became a regular freelance writer for DC Comics. And in 1992, he was hired by editor Brian Augustine to write The Flash. And from here, his star would take off. Uh, Mark would write The Flash for eight years. Uh, now, his own series uh, in April 1995 by Wade and Humberto Ramos was Impulse, a character he introduced in Flash. Uh, in November that same year, Wade and Howard Porter would collaborate on Underworld Unleashed. This was a limited a series event that served as a core for a storyline of the company-wide crossover event uh, of the same name. At the same time, Mark Wade was writing for Marvel, and his first major project for them was as one of the writers for this very crossover, The Age of Apocalypse. This guy was juggling a lot of work right here in the mid-90s, but I guess for you got to sure. strike while the iron's hot. Uh, and then also just a quick wrap up on Roger Cruz again. Uh, Rogerio de, Rogerio de Cruz Corota was born on February 22, 1971 in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He started his professional career with Editoria Abril, a major Brazilian publisher and printing company, mostly lettering port- Portuguese translations of American comics. He was introduced to the American comics world by Art and Comics Studio and found himself getting work from Marvel Comics and... This book was one of those jobs that he got from Marvel Comics, so there you go. That might be our shortest intro yet. It really, really may be, yeah. Because <laughs> we are already at X-Men Omega. And uh, we open it up, and uh, we are we are seeing Magneto stood before Apocalypse and Apocalypse's son, Holocaust. Uh, the latter two would really like for Magneto to stay down. Yeah, Holocaust says, fall down, Magnus. Make it easier on all of us. Magneto goes, never. Face reality, Magnus. Once upon a time, you championed the vision. A precious little dream full of smiles and handshakes. But the time for dreaming is over. Wake up. Magneto refuses to stay down. You don't understand, Magnus. Your reign is past. Your day is done. We have been saying it for some time, and now it's finally absolutely true. This is the age of apocalypse. They said it. Oh, they said boy, it. Oh boy, oh boy. There it is. <laughs> apocalypse pipes up. <clears throat> he knows. Uh, how, do, how do I do his voice again? <laughs> <laughs> he knows, Holocaust. Stare into his eyes. Look for that trademark dire of defiance. See instead the smoldering ash of defeat. And Apocalypse checks in with Rex to ensure the trap is set. Magneto is taken aback. He goes, Trap? Of course, Magneto. You don't think for a moment that I'd let you die alone without your beloved X-Men at your side, uh huh? <laughs> now, Magneto is not worried by this. He's certain that the X-Men wouldn't throw away all of their plans just to save him. Well, about that. <sighs> I have my trap, Magnus, and you aren't the beat. But the other shoe is about to drop. You think you have secrets? You are wrong. Once my Madri siphoned Bishop's memories, I learned your biggest secret. That there is apparently a world beyond the one we know. A world, or better yet, a timeline, uh uh-huh, that would have been, in your words, brighter and more hopeful had history run differently. Dig it! And here, Apocalypse is standing on a hill of skulls, and, you know, he looks very angry and, you know, defiant, or I guess magnificent would be the word, really, here. That's a good one. He's he's running the show. He then continues his uh, little speech. 
The Shadow King has seen glimpses of this world. He has told me the most important thing about it. It is one in which I do not rule. Your ultimate goal is to somehow fix history, undo all that I have done even as I stand on the cusp of total world domination. I can hardly let that happen. In fact, I can make it impossible. Uh-oh. Then Apocalypse reveals that he has... The M-Cran Crystal. The X-Men will come, Magneto. Not for you, but because they believe they can use the self-regenerating crystal to repair time. And then uh, Apocalypse cracks Magneto in the mush with a, uh, well, you know, a, a crack, basically. And take this world away from me. Now we shift scenes outside where Angel approaches. He's halted by a guard who actually shouts halt and says, what do you want, pretty boy? Apocalypse isn't welcoming visitors. Angel informs the guards that he's here to rescue the kidnapped Karma, and also... I wasn't asking permission, you troll. And with that, Angel kills the infinite guards. Joke's on him, though. It was Karma in that armor. Hey, that almost rhymes. Yeah, Karma armor, Karma armor. <laughs> uh, Angel pulls her lifeless body out of the infinite suit and vows to make Apocalypse pay for what he's done. Elsewhere, the X-Men blink into the pens, courtesy of, you know, blink. That's the one. Uh, yeah. The woman, yes. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and if the art is anything to go by, man, these guys are steaming mad. These some scowls. <laughs> now, the X-Men roll call right now includes Iceman, Rogue, Colossus, Ilyana, Destiny, Nightcrawler, Jubilee, Gambit, Blink, Quicksilver, Shadowcat, and, of course, Bishop. Uh, they're pretty surprised to find nobody's guarding the pens. At this point, Rogue suggests maybe they just got lucky, and uh, that's not good enough for Colossus. No, he says, Look, you're not about to risk my sister's life on a mission fueled by fortune, Rogue. I demand to know what happened here. So uh, he'd rather they, like, fought their way in? That is the way of, of Colossus, if you think I about guess it. so. He's punched that wall Constantly <laughs> tortured, yeah. Uh, now, Gambit's looking around, and he might have found some answers. Oh, well. An answer. Uh, he drags the limp body of McCoy, the Dark Beast, from the shadows. And Rogue says, "What? What is it? A man, or some sort of beast?" And McCoy, with his uh, as really injured, says, "A little, <coughs> little of birth. Heaven help me. The prisoners, they rebelled. I thought I was the God King of their world, but..." I was blinded by pride, and in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. That is like the worst analogy ever, right? Yeah. Like, I, I guess you mentioned one eye so you can provide us with a nice segue over to Cyclops and Jean Grey. Yeah who have uh, led the human prisoners from the pens out onto the streets and hopefully across the bridge to the home of the free, New Jersey. Oh, that's where we all want to be. <laughs> uh, what they don't know, though, is that they are being watched at this moment by Havoc. Mm. Other summers is, uh, we rejoin the X-Men in the tunnels below Apocalypse's palace. Through a grate above them, we can, they can see Angel flying toward the palace with bombs strapped to his waist. Now, Warren manages to destroy Apocalypse's force field generator, and also himself. Uh, we'll just let the caption tell it. <laughs> Warren Worthington will not be mourned. Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah, I'm um, not that bothered by it. Yeah. <laughs> now, Warren's sacrifice did, however, enable a new player to enter the mix. This is X-Man, Nate Gray. 
Yeah, back inside, Apocalypse gives Magneto a taste of his own medicine by refusing to shut up. <laughs> the game always goes to those best prepared, Magneto. Just hours ago, my Madri warned me that the crystal might threaten my centuries-old plans. If I were foolish enough to allow your X-Men near it, which I'm not, as always, the world turns on my vision, and everything moves according to me. And thankfully, he's interrupted by some two-hooded goofball yelling, No! <laughs> and this is one of the Shadow King's hosts, apparently, and he reveals that Apocalypse's Southwest Kingdom is gone. Rex corroborates that story. My lord, it, it's true. Somehow the Eurasian High Council managed to set off their bombs from within North America, the entire Midwest. It's now a radioactive crater. And Magneto, he's not digging the sound of that news. Good God. Millions of lives. You madmen. What have you done? What have you done? The question, Magnus, is rather, what must we do to retaliate? Rex, expand the seawall defense grid across the Atlantic. Now! Ah, the good old seawall defense grid. We covered Mm -hmm. that last episode when we discussed X-Universe number two. Told you they would eventually make more sense out of that, sort of, kind of, a little bit. Now, that episode is, of course, available in the archives. Now, Apocalypse blasts Magneto, probably for being annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then Apocalypse himself gets, himself gets blasted, possibly for being oh, even God. more annoying. God, there's going to be so much blasting. <laughs> uh, Holocaust takes this opportunity to say, Who? It's Nate Gray. The nail in your coffin, Apocalypse. Magneto recognizes Nate as the very mutant Forge promised he would someday deliver. Stay down, old man. This isn't your fight anymore. Now, Magneto, who has somehow located his helmet between panels, says, <laughs> Think again. You've just bought the universe a few precious seconds, boy. Together, let's make the most of them. And now we pop down to the crystal chamber below. Didn't even realize Apocalypse had one of these, but that's nice. Yeah. That's very cute. Uh, th- there, the X-Men beat up a bunch of guards, and worth noting, despite Quicksilver's argument to the contrary, Iceman is carrying McCoy along with them. Mm-hmm. Now, after the dust settles, Destiny is finally able to uh, uh, interface with the Emkron crystal. At their approach, the crystal glows ever brighter, grows ever larger and larger, its light burning even the eyes of the blind, as Destiny, whose second sight allows her to glimpse alternate realities, finds herself staggered by vision upon vision. Each facet of the vast gem reflects a sliver of history from a timeline not hers. From the looks of it, she's seeing the events of Legion Quest, which we covered way back in episode 100. It feels way back, doesn't it? (laughs) It does. Uh, And she knows, once and for all, that every word of the mysterious Bishop's story has been... True. God help us all. Time is broken. The child Ileana and I have no choice but to facilitate Bishop's journey into the past so that he may repair the continuum. Well, I mean, we, we could have told you that much. We kind of, we, that's sort of the like story we've been months reading. months ago, yeah. yeah, we've, yeah. Been, we've known this for a long time. <laughs> uh, Quicksilver suggests assembling a support team for the time travel, but Destiny says there's only room for three. Well, actually, only room for folks without a counterpart in the Prime Universe, which only allows for the, a three of their number to head back, which, you know, Destiny in the real world is dead. Mm-hmm. Magic is dead. Bishop... 
well, this is that it's same, same bitch. guy. Yeah, so. So there. <laughs> uh, now, upon hearing that magic is dead, Colossus is a bit bummed out that his, you know, 616 sis is no more. Yeah, he doesn't want to know how he's doing there right now, but that's another, mm-hmm. we'll get to that later. Uh, <laughs> suddenly, Nate and Holocaust burst through a wall above the crystal chamber. Rogue hops to and lends a hand until Magneto shows up. Beloved, no, do not interfere. He then restates their mission, which is fixing reality, bringing back the world that should have been. He then heads over to Ileana. That chance, little one, lies solely with you. I cannot command you to help us, child. I can only tell you that that we cannot create this better place without you. And after finding out that his this new world is one without a sugar man, she gives the thumb, thumbs up. Yeah, kid, about about that sugar, man. I don't even, that's a spoiler <laughs> alert. Let's not reveal that yet. Now, after a large explosion, Bishop realizes that time is short and getting shorter by the second. If they're going to make a run for it, it's got to be now. And so Bishop, Ilyana, and Destiny make a mad dash into the Emkron crystal. <laughs> Colossus says, You sent my sister to her death, Magnus. You had best pray that your decision is worthwhile, or so help me. In any world, in any time, we will be enemies forever. Gotta say, that statement would have carried a little bit more oomph in it yeah. with, uh, if, you know, if the Prime Universe Colossus wasn't currently one of Magneto's acolytes. Yeah, whoopsie, you're gonna find you out. All right. <laughs> uh, down below, it looks like more X-Men have arrived, including Morph, Sabretooth, and Wildchild. Uh, they're taking it to Apocalypse's hordes, uh, facilitating the Emkron Traveler's safe passage. And outside, Jean Grey realizes that nuclear bombs have destroyed the Midwest. She and Cyclops try to process the enormity of the loss. Weapon X parachutes in behind them, and back inside, Holocaust blasts Nate. He takes offense at the idea that Nate thinks he's in the same league as his father. Nate promises to kick it up a notch. It's time for the main event, but first... And here's here we begin the countdown, folks. Back mm-hmm. outside, it's Armageddon minus 30 minutes. The X-Men continue fighting back the hordes. Nobody notices when the Sugar Man bounces out of Colossus's boot, where apparently he'd been hiding since the end of Generation X number four. That's, you know, it's a good place to be. It is. Uh, we covered that in episode 102. Now the Sugar Man bounds over to the Emkron crystal and hops on in. At this point, Colossus decides, uh, you know what? It might really suck to stick around on his doom timeline, so then he rushes towards the crystal. Uh, Iceman stops him before taking the plunge. Colossus then lashes out, shattering poor Bobby's body everywhere. Uh, Gambit then blasts Colossus in the back. Yeah, he says, Only way you gotta muck up things, um, and that's gonna, that's over, both are dead bodies. We jump inside the crystal where Destiny sees bits and pieces from the Prime Universe in the facets and shards. She asks Ilyana to use her, as of now, unknown abilities to open a doorway for Bishop. And after opening her mind, Ilyana is able to do this. And Destiny goes, imagine a doorway and one will appear. Oh! For Bishop, but not for us. Say farewell, child. Goodbye, Mr. Bishop, and good luck. With that... Bishop steps through. Armageddon minus 25 minutes. We hop over to London, where Mora and Bolivar Trask hold each other for one final time. They know that Apocalypse's seawall defense is about to wipe them out. Is, uh, what now? Anyway, uh, Armageddon minus <laughs> 20. Thing, yeah. <laughs> All right. Armageddon minus 20. Apocalypse is knocked down by an explosive shakoom. And when the dust settles, he sees Magneto and Rogue st- stand before him. 
Magneto uses his powers to create a sort of armor out of the nearby machinery. You return, and I thought you were a coward. No, no more than you are a genius. Survival of the fittest, indeed. You preen and posture as if you were the first dictator to discover the concept and stake the world's fate on its nonsense. As a child, I heard the very same babble from a Berlin house painter, a madman whose Aryan race tried to wipe out all it deemed dirty or impure. And do you remember who won that war he began? The weak, who rose in righteous triumph. That was the, um... That was the Germans? No, the, the other guys, the other guys, sorry. Okay, sorry. Uh, and with a punch... <laughs> to overthrow the strong once and for all. As Magneto goes in for another punch, he is stopped now by Rogue. Magneto looks up to see Guido holding his son. Young Charles begs his parent to save him. Apocalypse rises with a smirk on his face. Armageddon minus 15. We're back outside on the bridge. Logan finds Jean. Just in time to witness Havoc fatally blasting her in the back. Mm. Yeah, kind of sucks. Alex then turns his attention toward his brother, Scott. Yeah, Havoc says, Yeah, imagine that, big brother. The Summers actually had something in common after all. Uh, We both had an eye for traitorous redheads. Scott informs Alex that killing Jean was the dumbest thing to do, as she was, uh... Well, we'll just let him tell it. Alex, you idiot! Jean's power was the only thing keeping the bombs at bay. Now, thanks to you, there's no more time. For God's sake, Alex, is dying the only thing we'll ever do together? Yeah, at least we're gonna have some fun. Anyway, so the Summerses (laughs) proceed to blast at one another, even though they're immune to each other's power. But somehow Scott still somehow dies from it. Right? All right. He just gave up, I think. He was like, screw this, I'm dead anyway. Uh, then Logan takes the opportunity to gut havoc like a fish, and he then sits with the bodies of Gene and the Summerses, awaiting the inevitable. Armageddon, minus ten. Now we're back in the real world, 20 years in the past. Uh, Bishop made his trek through the Emkron Crystal and has arrived just moments before Legion accidentally kills Xavier. He charges in to stop the event from occurring, only he's stopped by his younger self. Oh, this is going to get not confusing at all. (laughs) Uh, Young Bishop says, Hold it right there! I don't know who you are, but... Old Bishop says, Don't you... Armageddon minus eight. We're back in the present in the Age of Apocalypse world. Morph gets blasted by some off-panel baddie. Uh, McCoy, the Dark Beast, uses this distraction to head into a conveniently placed teleporter that sends him directly into the Emkron Crystal. All right. Armageddon minus five. Outside, Gambit and Colossus continue to fight. Shadowcat steps in the way of a Colossus punch and doesn't phase, trusting him to pull his punch. But he doesn't pull his punch and instead puts a great big hole in his wife. He doesn't get much time to mourn, however, as Gambit nails him with some charged debris. Don't worry, um, where she's gone, I make sure you'll be right behind her. Dude, like, she just died. I'm not even sure she's dead yet. I, really? She's probably still a little cold. bit... Some motor yeah. functions She's there. twitching, I'm sure. <laughs> now, <laughs> this blast of debris is enough to kill Colossus, and he passes just as Ilyana returns from inside the crystal with news of her success. He says she. He says he's scared, and now she's scared. Uh, Quicksilver rushes in to save her from being nabbed by the Horde, because that's what Quicksilver does. Mm. Armageddon minus four. Rogue beats the holy hell out of Guido and reclaims her son. 
Apocalypse is able to knock Magneto down long enough to run away, hopeful that he will be able to enter the Emkron Crystal and overtake whatever new world lay behind beyond it. Uh, Nate Gray has different plans and manages to snag the Crystal Shard, and then he delivers one hell of a kick. This one's for Forge. Armageddon minus three. We're back in the 616 and the bishops fight. The old bishop says, I have no time to explain. No time at all. But for God's sake, no matter what happens to you from this time forward, remember this moment. We see Legion holding his psionic blade up to Magneto. He says, uh, Goodbye, Eric Magnus Lencher. I hope that in death you find the peace you've been missing in life. And Legion's cut off by Bishop shouting his name. David, uh, no. David, who knows my name? And Bishop lunges for Legion, but the kid just won't quit. Finally, Bishop grabs Legion's side knife and plunges it into his own chest. He uses his powers to create a sort of psychic feedback loop that only one of them will survive. David sees everything that Bishop lived through over the past two decades and powers down. In your mind, I, I, I saw tomorrow. It was terrible, horrible. It was it was my fault. She just tried to fix things, give my father the, his dream. Never meant to screw it up. I know, David, uh, but you did. You turned it into a nightmare. And now... As your own energies consume you, you pay the price for your folly. I, too, fade, and with me, all memory of your crime. You had the potential to be the greatest of us all, David. Instead, twisted with that hatred, you squandered your power. Your father would not be proud. Yeah, Bishop, uh, he'd make a good counselor, right? Lord! (laughs) I guess since the world's going away, screw you too, you know? (laughs) And with that, Legion and the old Bishop vanish. Our four time-displaced X-Men, that's Storm, Iceman, Psylocke, and Young Bishop, in case you forgot, because, I mean, we last talked about them like a hundred weeks ago. That's right, I did actually forget, so thank you. (laughs) They're confused at their sudden victory. They're probably also confused that they just got sucked back through time to the present. The real present. The real present, yeah. Uh, Still in the past, though, Xavier, Magneto, and Gabrielle Haller feel some weird time streaminess. Yes, Magneto goes, Charles, what's happening? I feel as if I'm being pulled backwards. It's the time stream, Eric, somehow. It's rebuilding itself, that young man. Gabby cuts him off and goes, Said something about being my son, Charles. Someone did, I'd swear to it. And yet there is no one here. Do you remember being in any danger, Gabby? I don't... All I feel really is a loss. Almost maternal. (laughs) That I can't explain. Armageddon minus two. Back in the Age of Apocalypse, Magneto and Nate combine their powers to pommel Apocalypse. Holocaust sneaks in to break Nate's concentration, and Nate's all, screw this, and plunges himself into the M-Cron crystal shard. Oh, he's plunged it into Holocaust's chest, and then they both vanish. This leaves only Apocalypse and Magneto left. Pay them no mind, Magnus. They're finished. The end game is yours and mine alone. Uh-huh. This is no time to disappoint me. Fight back. 
back. Why won't you fight back? I I can't. I'm concentrating. And with that, Magneto tears Apocalypse in two. <laughs> That's all <laughs> he was done doing. done that ages ago? Oh, he was he at the concentrate. Ages of Apocalypse yeah, ago? right. <laughs> uh, Apocalypse not going to get off that easy, though. Time for another Magneto monologue. For 20 years, you've gone on about how the only the strong survive. Tell me again, Apocalypse, just how strong you are. We were the mightiest of our race, Apocalypse. Suppose we had been on the same side. What a world we would have had. Does this mean there's a world where Magneto stares longly at a photo of Apocalypse in his off time and just thinks... Gotta be. Gotta be. Same kind of thing. You know, just like, oh, what might have been? Uh, (laughs) Now, Armageddon minus one. Magneto watches as the bombs come closer. He's approached by Rogue and little Charles. You didn't think we were going to skip Magneto's last monologue, did you? Come on now. (laughs) It's over, my love. Apocalypse is dead. And with him, his world. Our world. No, no, this was never our place, never our time. Not really. And if Bishop did his job, we will be but memories by the time the bombs fall. Come to me, my wife, my son. Let me love you before time slips away. Everything depends on Bishop. Do you think he was able to set things right? We can hope. And if I've earned nothing else, we have earned that right. And I would never have believed until I met you, beloved, that hope would be so dear to me. But then, a good man mm-hmm, once gave me faith oh, that right. all things were possible. <laughs> the bombs land, but not even that will stop our man from his talking. He preached a dream of harmony and told me that any dream worth having was a dream worth fighting for. He taught me well. Had I had these years to live over again, I might have made other choices. I might have done many things differently, but I never would have stopped fighting for the dream. That is your legacy, Charles Xavier. Now, as I hold my family to me before the end, I thank you for changing my life. Zero. And that is it for the Age of Apocalypse proper. Mm-hmm. But of course we want to know what's going on now in the right. Prime universe. So we're going to find out right here in X-Men Prime number one, July 1995, cover date. Title The, the story is titled... Racing the Night, written by Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nicieza, pencils by Brian Hitch, Jeff Matsuda, Gary Frank, Mike McCone, Terry Dodson, Ben Herrera, and Paul Pelletier, inked by Al Milgram, P. Craig Russell, Cam Smith, Mark Farmer, Mark McKenna, Tom Palmer, Tim Townsend, and Hector Calazzo. That's <laughs> quite an art team, boy. Uh, letters by Richard Starkins and Comicraft. Colors by Steve Bucciolato and Electric Crayon. Edited-in-chief edited by Bob Harris. This one was a less of a huge Mungo book as the other one. It was... Um, oh, it actually was bigger, it looks like. Cover price. It was. It had, like, it had like one of those, like, see-through uh, covers. Oh, wow. Yeah. There you go. You got, you got the, uh, yeah, the print-over-clear plastic. That's going to cost yeah. a lot of money. That was a... 495 USD 695 Canadian. And now we open the issue. We're back to reality just after we left uh, for us six weeks ago, or, mm-hmm. you know, but for <laughs> everyone else, a couple of months. Uh, issue opens with Jean Grey stomping the school grounds, and she comes across Wolverine. This is a bone clawed Wolverine, a bone clawed Wolverine who made it clear he won't go back inside the Institute so long as Sabretooth is being kept there. Xavier took Sabretooth in to attempt to rehabilitate him in X-Men Unlimited number 3, uh, the December 1993 cover date. 
Inside the mansion, the professor and Bishop are chatting. Bishop claims that since returning from the past, he's having nightmares that feel more to him like memories. It's as if someone tried to cram years uh, of vague recollections into my head. Xavier kind of waves it off. He blames it on Bishop already being a time anomaly. Yeah, pretty much. You're always, something weird's always happening, Bishop. <laughs> every, every single day it's something new. Uh, now, uh, we shift scenes to a train station in Yonkers, uh, where we meet a young man named Dennis Hogan. Uh, he's recently discovered that he's a mutant, and he's hoping to reach the Xavier Institute in Salem Center in order to get some help. Over in Manhattan, CBNC reporter and on-again, off-again main squeeze to the beast, Trish Tilby is preparing for a broadcast. Her first appearance was X-Factor number 7, August 1986, covered 8, created by Louise Simonson and Butch Geis. Geis, Geis, Geis. One of those. And uh, she's a reporter for CBNC and an on-again, off-again girlfriend to Hank McCoy, just like we hey. said. Not much more to say about it. Worth noting, though, they met and started dating while Beast was back in his human, that is, his non-furry form, and stuck around during his change back to the Blue Beast we all know. So, bless her heart. Well, yeah. he, he, probably gets, he probably is soft like a kitty, I have a feeling, that's why. <laughs> uh, today's leading story, the mutant plague known as the Legacy Virus. Mm. Now we jump over to Wyoming to catch up with X-Factor. Ford, Val Cooper, Havoc, and Polaris are searching for Mystique at the Belforce Bell River Dam, which uh, she's apparently trying to blow up. Mystique is fleeing through a nearby cave when she's confronted by a large shape. It slashes at her and says, It begins before vanishing. And X-Factor finds her laying prone. Back at Xavier's, Beast and Cyclops are preparing dinner. Uh, we've got Beast tossing a salad with his feet. Ew. So, uh, yeah, if Hank McCoy offers you a salad, just uh, politely yeah, decline. Uh, we're good. <laughs> no, just make sure you're sitting by a potted plant or something. Uh, now, they talk about Gambit being comatose, because Gambit and Rogue kissed as the crystal wave overcame Earth back in X-Men Volume 2, number 41, the lead-up to the Age of Apocalypse there. And this kiss left him comatose. Probably, uh, probably with a smile on his face, yep. though. Uh, kiss was a long time coming. Uh, Bishop enters the kitchen, and he flashes back to the Age of Apocalypse. <laughs> so instead of seeing his teammate Scott and Hank, instead he sees Prelate Summers and the Dark Beast. He draws his gun and lunges at them while referring to them as butchers. Scott is able to zack the blaster out of Bishop's hands before he can do much damage. Uh, they're finally able to restrain Bishop, who wonders aloud what is happening to him. I can't get over the NAM, man. I can't get over it. Uh, <laughs> now back to Yankees. Uh, Dennis Hogan stops at a diner. He eats, as he eats his soup, we can see that his right hand has begun to morph. It's turned green and scaly. He worries about causing a stir and hopes the X-Men will be able to help him. Then we go over to a drainage pipe by the George Washington Bridge where a bum named Jim Davis... The creator of Garfield? That's right, the very same one. He follows a light inside the pipe and winds up getting murdered by Morlock G-Nation member Marrow. And she promises something big is coming, which will be followed up on the, in, uh, followed up on in the pages of Uncanny X-Men. And while we're here, let's meet Marrow. Sure. Real name, Sarah something. Uh, first appearance, Cable number 15, September 1994, cover date, created by Jeff Loeb and David Brewer. She's a Morlock, uh, 
who was part of that whole ridiculous hill thing that Mikhail Rasputin did during the Storm miniseries. Um, now, she'd eventually be revealed as having been present and rescued by Gambit during the Mutant Massacre, and also as having two hearts after surviving Storm yanking one of them out of her chest. Now, that'll happen in Uncanny X-Men 325 in a few months. I'll tell you, some people have all the luck. They got two hearts. They're getting rescued right, right at the last second. It's just uh, <laughs> fortune shines upon her. Now, uh, back to Xavier's, we got Cyclops, Beast, and Bishop head to the Med Ward, where they find Storm attending to the comatose Gambit. They drop off some dinner for Storm and head into another room to perform a battery of tests on Bishop. At his insistence, that is, Scott and Hank think it's a terrible idea, and uh, they're probably right. Another terrible idea? Don't eat that salad. No, definitely not. It's a cuticle in here. Um, we, jump, <laughs> we jump over to Key Largo, Florida, where Rogue and Iceman are out at a club. Rogue is dancing away her troubles. Remember, she did just drop Gambit into a coma. Mm. Uh, now, she's dancing while Iceman looks on. Now, they were sort of dosy doing with the idea of, like, a rogue Gambit-Iceman love triangle around now. Yeah, and then, I, you know, Iceman thinks Gambit's the man and stuff. I know that, but it never really happened, did it? Yeah. <laughs> now, some dude approaches Rogue and uh, looks to be getting a little bit handsy. Iceman makes him slip so Rogue doesn't inadvertently suck up all of his energy. Uh, it's worth noting here, Rogue has a whole lot of skin showing, which yeah. uh, is what? a pretty dumb idea considering her powers. Yeah, I mean, that's just a danger to, to people right here. You to know? everybody, everything. I mean, if a mosquito lands on her, what happens? I don't know. Uh, now, lucky for them, they happen to be in one of those real hip and happen in nightclubs that have TVs on the wall that uh, play the evening news. Oh, I love clubs like that, right? You yeah, they're always the best. To flip on MSNBC while I'm right? boogieing away, yeah. <laughs> now, what they see is Trish Tilby... Talking about the legacy virus, she takes it public. Uh oh. They're also watching the same report several other places, such as the Massachusetts Academy, home of Generation X. They ain't happy. The Washington, D.C. offices of Senator Robert Kelly. He's really, really annoyed. He's quite enraged. He calls his government liaisons an X Factor, hoping to get some answers. The Muir Island Mutant Research Center. Just as Maura McTaggart's name is dropped in the news report. Very good coincidence there. Yeah. Uh, and also at that same Yonkis Diner. Yeah, fomenting a whole lot of fear, panic, and confusion among the patrons. And also give us a little joke you can try at your next party. Uh, yeah. It's, what do you call a dead mutant on the bottom of the Hudson River? A start. <laughs> hmm. Does it have to be the Hudson? It is kind of specific for a hate-fueled joke, isn't it? Yeah. I guess you got to know your audience. I guess. You know, it's, it's different places. You might pick a different river. You know, make sure, sure. you know where you are. So, uh, anywho, Dennis slinks out of the diner, and uh, it didn't go unnoticed. Some of the other diner patrons suggest he might have left because he's a mutant, which is a pretty strong conclusion to jump, <laughs> jump to, but I, I guess that's the panic and fear we're talking about. Yes. Uh, now, finally, uh, they're viewing this at the X-Mansion, and the X-Men are not happy. Uh, Beast takes it especially bad, considering that it was his girlfriend that just sold them out on national television. He stomps out of the room, hopeful for a confrontation and some answers. Uh, Xavier asks Scott to contact Cable. Just then, Xavier is overcome by intense energy, the likes of which he's never felt before. And that's because at that very moment, Nate Gray has landed in the prime Earth. Whoa. In Switzerland, to be a bit more precise, somewhere in Switzerland, to be exactly precise. Uh, <laughs> now, Cable's, Cable's bug-eyed buddy Blacksmith, though we don't know that yet, notices the temporal rift. 
The blacksmith, his first appearances right here, created by Jeff Loeb and Ian Churchill, a member of the Escani from the far-flung future. Uh, we just don't know any of that yet. He's brand no. new, so we're meeting him here. Uh, we next shift over to England, where Emplate arrives at a Potch mansion looking to speak with Lady Gail Edgerton. Emplate, real name, Marius St. Croix. First appearance, Generation X number 1, November 1994, cover date. Created by Scott Lobdell and Chris Pichalo. He's the brother of Monet and the M-Twins. He's also responsible for trapping Monet into the mute diamond-skinned penance, but uh, we, we don't know that yet. All, right. uh, all we really know at this point is that Emplate feeds off of mutant bone marrow. Back to the story, the butler, a butler named Niles escorts him into the den. Gale runs, th- runs him through with a fireplace poker, and it's not terribly effective, which is to say not effective in the slightest. No. Uh, he tells her that they have a mutual friend, Jonathan Starsmore. That's Chamber of Generation X. Believe it or not, this will be followed up in... Generation X. Oh, that would have might have guessed that in my hmm. fifth my fifth or sixth guess. Yeah. Uh, back in Yonkers, Dennis Hogan runs alongside some train tracks and he trips over his own feet and soon finds himself surrounded by those douches from the diner. At this point, Dennis has completely transformed. He looks kind of like a shrunken headed Frankenstein with Doug Funny hair. They beat the holy hell out of him with baseball bats, but he manages still to get away. Jump back to the mansion where Storm and Professor X are about to have a tea party. Until uh, Xavier senses the danger young Dennis Hogan is currently in. He asks Storm to bring him a few miles north and then telepathically contacts the rest of the X-Men along the way. We shift scenes completely to Murder World, which is currently the base of operations for X-Force. Now, X-Force consists of Cable, Siren, Cannonball, Richter, Warpath, Shatterstar, Boomer, Sunspot, and Domino. Now, of those we haven't met yet, we've got Boomer, formerly known as the Justice Silly Boom Boom. Uh, (laughs) She was a sweat hog. Uh, Real real name, Tabitha Smith. First appearance, Secret Wars 2, number 5. November 1985, cover date, created by Jim Shooter and Al Milgram. Now, after discovering she was a mutant with the power to create time bombs, she ran away from home. Kind of hinted at that her father might have pimped her out. Uh, she'd meet the Beyonder, who would take her to Xavier's school. Now, Xavier's school would not so much reject her, but they kind of had their hands full with this whole Secret Wars thing, so she wasn't their first priority. So Tabitha went back to the streets. Now, after the Secret Wars, she'd be recruited by the Vanisher into the Fallen Angels team, and she'd eventually get captured by anti-mutant outfit The Right. Uh, X-Factor would rescue her from there, and she would join the X-Terminators. From one ragtag weirdo group to another, that's uh, where Boomer and Boom Boom belongs. She'd eventually join the, uh, well, I mean, not the big leagues, but X-Men's AAA farm team, the New Mutants, which is almost the big leagues, uh, which led her to X-Force. And she's romantically linked to Sam Cannonball Guthrie. A Shatterstar, real name, though we don't know it yet at the time of this uh, comic, is Gavrita Seven. First appearance, New Mutants, number 99, March 1991, created by Rob Liefeld and Fabian Nicieza. He hails from a future version of Mojo World, though I don't think we know that yet either at this point. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, we know very little about this fella this time. He would eventually be revealed that Shatterstar is sort of kind of Longshot's father, who in turn then became sort of kind of Shatterstar's father. So, uh... Yeah, yeah, that's how that works. Sure, a, gen- a genetic Ouroboros or whatever it is. Man. It's <laughs> yeah. just a real nutty situation. It made perfect sense while I was reading it, but uh, but saying it aloud, you're like, wait, how did that work? Yeah, 
<laughs> seeing it in print like that, it's kind of tough. Uh, we also have Warpath. Real name, James Proudstar. First appearance, New Mutants, number 16. June 1984 cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Sal Buscema. He's the younger brother of John Thunderbird Proudstar. That's the, uh, the one X-Man who died very early on in the all-new, all-different era. Uh, James would join up with the Hellions in order to exact revenge for his brother's death. He's eventually set straight by Professor X. However, he declines membership into the New Mutants. He would eventually join the good guys during the transition to X-Force. Back to the story, the X-Force folks train. While they train, a a hologram of Arcade appears. Remember, Arcade is the proprietor of Murder World. Right. Uh, And soon after, the place goes boom. As the dust settles, X-Force finds themselves approached by Cyclops. Now, they're informed that Professor X would like a word with them, and they are more than happy to come along. I mean, why do they think they could just move into a murder world and leave it as a base <laughs> right? of operations to be like, ah, he won't notice us. Like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> this is a real danger room. You know, that's like that's like using, you know, the, the, the Joker's lair as like your, uh, where you store your candy <laughs> or something. So, uh, back in Wyoming with, the, with X-Factor, uh, Forge appears to flip the hell out and kicks Val Cooper in the head. Or, you know, that member of the team who can shapeshift, you know, the real Val Cooper, you know, we might be morph. Uh, the real Val Cooper emerges from the cave just as the fake one reverts to the unconscious mystique. Havoc begins to pulsate and explodes and takes the dam with him. This story will continue in the pages of X-Factor. Off to Hammer Bay in Genosha, Excalibur members Kitty, Douglock, and Pete Wisdom are doing some research on dead mutates. Uh, Pete Wisdom, by the way, first appearance was Excalibur 86, February 1995, cover date, created by Warren Ellis and Ken Lashley. You mean to tell me that a perpetually snarky, chain-smoking Brit who's often shown wearing a trench coat was created by Warren Ellis? That is a shocker, right? I think, Isn't it? I gotta be honest, I would have never expected it, but yeah, that's like <laughs> One of his five archetypes. Anyway, so uh, he was pretty much brand new at this point, only first appearing just as the Age of Apocalypse was starting. Uh, the character was initially pitched to Trident Comics for a series to be titled uh, Electric Angel. Ellis states that he was based on Jack Regan from the ITV series The Sweeney, which ran from nine, 1975 to 1978. Wisdom would eventually bang Kitty Pride, All right. which is apparently a bone of contention with Chris Claremont, who, upon his return to the Xbox, had Kitty proclaim that she's just 16 years old. <laughs> Leave her alone, they said. That's old enough uh, in the UK, mate. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, that's a banging good idea. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, they don't realize, that this is back to the story, they don't realize that they're being watched by the very reason behind all these dead mutates, the Sugar Man. Uh-oh! <laughs> now, uh, at the Avalon Space Station, which is the home base of Magneto's acolytes, Colossus, an acolyte, leads a crew into space to examine something glowing in the distance. From inside the base, Exodus requests that they retrieve it and bring it to him. What it is, is Holocaust, sealed in a big old meteor slab of ice. Wow. From here, we jump to the Morlock Tunnels, where Marrow returns and reports into her leader. And uh, we, we hit on three of them so far. Here's the fourth. Her leader is McCoy, the Dark Beast. Oh, no. They're all oh, here. Man. Except for Apocalypse. <laughs> we wrap up back upstate. Dennis Hogan is attempting to flee the crowd, but they've caught up, and they're still keen on using his head for batting practice. Uh, Storm and Xavier show up and scare off the humans, and the rest of the X-Men arrive. However... It's too late. Dennis Hogan is already dead. Well, we hardly knew ye. Uh, literally. Mm-hmm. I mean, we yeah, it's true. Didn't know you at all. 
Uh, so that is the official conclusion, right? To the Age of Apocalypse. There's no more. I mean, there is sort of more to say about it later, but in 1995, that was the end. That was it. And, that was it. Uh, X Men Omega and X Men Prime both hit the shelves on the same day. Wow. So that was so you wrapped it all up in the same day, and then next week mm-hmm. you move on to uh, new X Men stuff. Uh, we're gonna mm-hmm. wrap up just a couple of the creators, which really are the I guess we're going to say architects for this whole thing. Sure. Uh, Scott Lobdell, uh, after this, he did Onslaught, which is also likely uh, worth an entire series of episodes. Just not anytime soon after this six-episode <laughs> six uh, behemoth. Uh, in brief, brief, though, he a creature called Onslaught, which was the mixed consciousness of Professor X and Magneto, takes on the entire Marvel Universe. To defeat the baddie, the Avengers of Fantastic Four sacrifice themselves. Uh, They, of course, wind up in a pocket universe for Heroes Reborn year. That's a whole other thing. Uh, Lobdell was responsible for much of the planning and execution of this storyline and wrote the bookend one-shots that was Onslaught X-Men and Onslaught Marvel Universe. He also did work on Heroes Return after the Heroes Reborn mess wrapped up. Lobdell was named writer of the returning Fantastic Four. He only lasted a handful of issues before being replaced by Chris Claremont. The folks thought Lobdell made the FF X-Meny, Wait till they get a load of what Claremont will bring to the table, boy. Ooh-y. Oh, boy. Uh, now, Lobdell would be ousted from the X-Books. Uh, not much has been said publicly about his sort of abrupt departure from the X-Books. Yeah. Uh, we've heard that his original ending to the crossover, Operation Zero Tolerance, was changed, and uh, that was somewhat controversial. The ending that was went with that they went with was a uh, very safe and sudden. It's uh, after a ton of build, the bad guy just gives up and he turns himself over to the authorities. So, uh, gotta wonder what Lobdell might have had in mind instead of that. Uh, now, the later years of Lobdell's run appeared to be leading up to a huge reveal about Gambit's history. This would be ultimately revealed in Uncanny X Men 350, which is the first issue of Uncanny X Men to ship in quite a while without Lobdell's name anywhere to be found. Huh. Uh, now, Gambit was revealed to be instrumental in the Mutant Massacre, which we mentioned in passing several episodes back, so yeah. that was the big reveal there. We'll probably dig into it, that Mutant Massacre more. Oh, did, I think we talked about it a couple of times, touching on different X-Men things in the past. Yeah. That's the, uh, Mar- the, uh, what is the, the Morlock Massacre, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Wildstorm. Lobdell moved over to Image Comics' Wildstorm imprint, where he wrote some Wildcats comics, including the Wildcats X-Men series of crossovers. So it couldn't have been that bad blood. Something did happen yeah. there, though, where he just, like, walked away from X-Men for some reason. Or Marvel. Uh, Lobdell briefly returned to the main two X-Men titles to tie off some loose ends before Grant Morrison and Joe Casey took over the franchise. Lobdell reestablished Cyclops' place on the team after he merged with Apocalypse during the 12 storyline. He also ended the long-lingering subplot regarding the legacy virus and did so in a way that Colossus sacrificed himself. This is at the start of Casada and, and Gemesis' dead means dead days, so that was intended to stick. No more Colossus. Until some guy who writes about teenage vampire slayers decides he wants to slum it in comics for a bit, and then C- Colossus comes right back. Right back. Don't know who that is, but we're just, if that happened... If that were to happen, I think that's the way it would turn uh, out. Yeah. Right. Theoretically. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, <laughs> Slobdell did some work for uh, DC Comics during the New 52. Wrote uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws. And this series might have been initially overshadowed by the controversy regarding how Starfire was portrayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this really didn't help a lot of folks' opinion of Mr. Lobdell. No. Uh, he also uh, worked on the Superman family books. Following uh, the revolving door of Superman, Volume 3 writers, DC would finally settle on Lobdell. 
who had a pretty decent run, I guess. Uh, he also wrote the new 52 volume of Superboy. Teen Titans. Due to the strength of Lobdell's Generation X work, at least one guy was very excited to see him <laughs> announced as he is guiding the Teen Titans into the new 52. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. Teen Titans, definitely one of the worst, most maligned properties of the new 52. Not Absolutely. Not because uh, just solely of, of Scott Lobdell, but he must take some of the blame along with sure. many others. Uh, now, Mary, now, I, it, uh, it happened to me, or, yeah, it happened to me. I was sexually harassed on stage at a comic convention panel. It was an article written by Mary Naomi. Am I getting that right, Bill? Yeah. This, so, yeah. this was at the Long Beach Comic Con 2013, the Prism Comics panel. She says, Lobda was seated on a panel featuring LGBT creators, including Mary Naomi, a bisexual woman. Throughout the panel, Lobda made some odd comics to her. Mm. He asked, R-U-G-A-Y, when she responds that she is bisexual, he gives her a high five. He makes several mentions of her red lipstick, claiming that it distracts him. <laughs> when her microphone drooped in its holster, uh, Lobdell suggested she stimulated to get it back up. Uh, there was also a story about Mango. Uh, Mango, we don't want to get into it. What we've no. already given you is a little weird. A little uh, much, yeah. Lobdell would apologize to marry both via communication through Heidi McDonald of The Beat as well as in a written public missive. He claimed it was a failed attempt at humor. Uh, the whole thing sounds like a giant mess. And uh, mm. as of this recording, Lobdell is writing the second volume of Red Hood and the Outlaws for DC Comics. And if I could stump for just a minute, it's pretty good. I'm telling you, it's one mm. of the best things since Rebirth. Between that and New Superman, it are my two favorite things. Uh, it's consistently good. It's not... Yep. The best, but it's it's solid, and I recommend it. Quality, yes. Yeah. Uh, now we'll jump over to uh, the other architect, Fabian Nicieso. so we'll wrap him up. Now, after the Age of Apocalypse, but still in 1995, a dispute with uh, then-editor-in-chief Bob Harris over the future direction of his plot lines on X-Force made uh, Fabian not, so, uh, not, not one of their favorite sons, and he was fired from the X-Men titles. Uh, X-Force, he left with issue 43, February 1995, and then X-Men Volume 2 with issue 45. That was October 1995. Uh, asked about it later, Fabian would say, I never wanted to leave X-Force. I never felt my firing was justified. I don't recall being given a reason for being fired, and I also don't recall asking for one. Considering it was a top 10 selling title at the time, I felt it was wholly, it was a wholly unjustified decision. After 1995, Nisiesa wrote a few short runs. He did a, a volume of Captain Marvel starring a genus Vell in 1995. Uh, Spider-Man The Final Adventure. Uh, this was a one of the Clone Saga miniseries. Mm. And he would also uh, do a non-Marvel work for Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. For the show or the comic or both? I believe the comic. Wow. Yeah, it was a comic. Either way. Uh, yeah. Fabian left Marvel in 1996, did his first work for DC Comics. He co-wrote Justice League Midsummer Nightmare with Mark Wade. Uh, that would relaunch the JLA series. Fabian also worked for Twist and Shout Comics, writing and penciling backup stories in X-Files Special Number 1 and Dirtbag Number 7. Nicieza joined Acclaim Comics as Senior Vice President and Editor-in-Chief in 1996, and he was tasked with enlivening the acquired properties that used to comprise the Valiant universe for Valiant Comics. If you remember Acclaim Comics, bought mm. Valiant Comics, that's why that happened. Uh, characters such as Solar, Exo Manowar, and Ninjak, and he called it VH2. Nicieza himself wrote the Turok title, as well as a new series, Troublemakers. And Turok met with success as a video game adaptation, and Nicieza was promoted to president and publisher of Acclaim Comics in 1997. He also wrote a Turok novella during this period. 
Now, after deep uh, staff cuts and most of the lines being canceled, uh, Fabian would leave Acclaim in 1999. Returning to freelance work, he co-wrote the Magneto Wars crossover that ran from uh, Uncanny X-Men 366 and 367 and X-Men Volume 2, 86 and 87. That was along with artist Alan Davis, and that happened in 1999. This will lead to successive Magneto limited series, uh, Magneto Rex in 99, Magneto Dark Seduction 2000. He'd also do the Gambit ongoing series that began in 1999, and he wrote the first 24 issues of its 25-issue run. Wow. That, that 25th issue, Scott Lobdell. Hey! It all comes the around. gang's all here. Yeah. <laughs> also in 1999, Nisiesa began writing Thunderbolts with issue 34 of that series, and he would stick around until issue 75, initially with uh, Mark Bagley on art. Post-issue 75, uh, Thunderbolts fell victim to a Bill Jemis new take, which uh, shifted the book's focus from a superhero title to a title on a underground fight club. Lame. I would think the movie Fight Club probably had something to do with that. I wonder. Yeah. Uh, Fabian <laughs> juggled work from both Marvel and DC at the turn of the 21st century. At Marvel, he wrote Citizen V in 2001, Citizen V and the V Battalion, Everlasting in 2002, X-Men Forever in 2001, and X-Force Volume 2, as well as a short-lived ongoing series, Hawkeye, in 2003. For DC, he wrote the six-issue miniseries Superman of America in 1999, and the Elseworlds project JLA created Equal in 2000, as well as some of the, some issues of the children's comic Justice League Adventures. Nisi is a co-creator with, with artist Stefano Raphael, a horror miniseries titled The Blackburn Covenant, published by Dark Horse Comics in 2003, and returned to his old pals with Cable and Deadpool that same year, writing all 50 issues of the series. In 2006, Nisiesa wrote for DC a three-issue arc in Action Comics that was issues 841 through 843, ran July through September 2006 cover dates. It was co-written by Kurt Busiek. Uh, these issues filled time while Jeff Johns and Richard Donner got around to doing Last Sun, which mm-hmm. was uh, <laughs> kind of the, the uh, straw that stirred the drink for Superman, but didn't come out very often, so uh, really needed to fill time. Uh, Nisiesa also wrote JSA Classified, number 28, September 2007 cover date. He was also one of the co-writers for The 99. The 99 comic book created by Naif Al-Mutawa, you think? Mutawa? Yeah, I would say Mutawa. And uh, published by Tish Keel Comics, it featured a team of superheroes with special abilities based on the 99 attributes of Allah in Islam. Uh, he wrote a bunch of Batman-related stuff while Grant Morrison was having a field day with the property, including uh, Red Robin and Azrael, Volume 2. In 2011, DC announced Nisiesa would be writing Legion Lost. This is a spinoff of the Legion of Superheroes as part of DC's line-wide New 52 relaunch initiative. Nisiesa wrote the first six issues before leaving the title. He's written here and again for DC over the next few years, including a handful of the Convergence tie-ins. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the comics company Shatner Singular, Singularity, there we go, uh, he adapted a Stan Lee poem into the graphic novel Stan Lee's God Woke. That was in 2016. This work would win the 2017 Independent Publisher Book Awards Outstanding Books of the Year Independent Voice Award. Good job. That's a lot of words. Yep, That's that was a lot. I know. That was a lot to spill out about Fabian at the end, but we wanted to mm. give him his due, and he has, he has inspired a lot of other creators, and uh, he's just, just a, a journeyman, workhorse kind of fella. Like he's like the cut of his chip. Uh, and Scott Lobdell, too. Uh, these are both... Uh, sure. I like both these guys. But anyway, 
Uh, what were the outcomes of Age of Apocalypse? What were the lasting results besides a handful of weirdos, you know, coming from one <laughs> timeline to the new one? Well, there were some things that, that stuck out. Uh, the title X-Men. Uh, Nate Gray, he not only came back to the Prime Marvel Universe, he actually received his own ongoing title, continuing the numbering of his initial Age of Apocalypse mini, which ran four issues, so we started with five. Uh, It's unknown if this was always the intention, though, with the amount of lead time. It's probable they did have this in mind from the start, plus Cable was pretty popular even back then, too. Unfortunately, all of our research on the subject defaults to movie speculation. Thanks, 2018, so Mm. (laughs) it's hard to penetrate sometimes backwards. I definitely... We, you know, well, we know that that pace challenges. Yeah. Uh, X Men ran for an impressive seventy-five issues. A final cover, final issue cover dated May two thousand one. Though the title of his book was X Men, he was only ever referred to by that name during guest appearances in other books, or when someone unfamiliar with the title wrote a fill-in. He was always just Nate Gray in the book when people talked yes. to him. Now, upon landing in Prime Earth, he would meet up with an amnesiac, Madeline Pryor. Uh, During his time roaming the Earth, his extremely powerful telepathy adds to the strength of the threat that we would later know as Onslaught. Uh, He'd become pals with Spider-Man, because why not? Sure. Uh, Nice guy, right? Everyone likes Spider-Man. both affable fellas. (laughs) Uh, Now, he'd even team up with his sort of kind of genetic brother Cable on a few occasions. Uh, Nate was chosen by Apocalypse to be his new host body during that swing of a missed storyline known as the Twelve. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, Cyclops would take that bullet and briefly become the host for Apocalypse. This was a huge mess, and it was quickly undone. With sales on this title and a few others flagging, Warren Ellis came in to breathe new life into the title, and he wrote a couple of British guys with trench coat. No, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, he did, yes. He did, actually. But, yeah, that wasn't <laughs> the only thing. The other titles included in this in his Counter X initiative were Generation X and X Force, both also limping toward cancellation or revamp. Ellis's plan for Nate was to turn him into a mutant sh- shaman. This had potential, but didn't bring in the readers. Nate sacrificed himself to save the world in his final issue by inseminating his genetic code onto all living cells on the planet. Uh, he'd eventually get better from that, though. And uh, during the Dark Rain Not event, uh, that's when it happened, but I think we've talked, taken Nate far enough as we need to. Yeah. Another guy who came through, Holocaust. Now, despite the potential of this character and the pretty cool look, he didn't do a whole heck of a lot in the Prime Universe. Uh, he basically became another, you know, heavy, another villain. Mm. Um, he'd eventually join the Exiles, and we'll talk about them more in a little bit. Uh, during this time, he'd return to the Age of, Age of Apocalypse reality. And die. The end, yeah. <laughs> now, the uh, 616 counterpart, you remember, this is an Age of Apocalypse character, so it stands to reason that there is a counterpart on the 616 world. Mm. This was a character who would be introduced several years later during the Dark Angel saga, and more on that in a little bit, too. And this one had the name Genocide. You know, Holocaust, Genocide, you know, let's what's what's the difference? Sure. Uh, Sugar Man. (laughs) There he is. (laughs) Upon arrival in the Prime Universe, Sugar Man falls in with the Gen gen Engineer in Gen Gen Engineer in Genosha. Genosha. Just like Holocaust, (laughs) Sugar Man didn't really cause much of a splash. He messed with Havoc and Nate Gray a bit, but was returned to the Age of Apocalypse Earth like three or four times. Uh, Really not a lot more to say about him than that. Yeah, it's really, uh, really sad uh, for such a such a great character um, <laughs> as the Sugar Man, uh, Dark Beast. He was retroactively revealed as being responsible for the creation of the Morlocks. 
Now, the Morlocks would be recognized by Mr. Sinister as failed experiments utilizing his own theories. Since, of course, McCoy and Sinister worked very closely during the Age of Apocalypse. Cleverly, this revelation would be used as the motivation behind the mutant massacre. So, really nice how they made it all fit. Uh, That was really cleverly done. Uh, Early on, Dark Beast would kidnap our Beast and briefly take his place on the X-Men. Uh, to keep up with the route, he he would keep up with his ruse until the onslaught event where he threw in with a big O. Uh, he would fall to being a background player in the years that followed, returned into the Age of Apocalypse a couple of times, and also died and returned a bunch too because that's just what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last character who made it through uh, eventually was Nightcrawler, but more on that in a little bit. Yeah, we'll go back to uh, the other fallout from Age of Apocalypse. There was this uh, thing was revisited more than a bunch of times really yeah we had tales of the age of apocalypse this was a couple of prequels i guess they would have had to have been right you just wait just wait uh, uh, uh. uh taking place before x-men chronicles and something we probably could have included if we wanted to do bios for about a dozen inhumans uh which we did not ever no no, no. it ran two issues december 1996 december 1997 cover dates and it was written by scott labdell ralph macchio john francis moore and brian k vaughn we got Blink, a four-issue miniseries that ran March through June 2001, written by Scott Lobdell and Judd Winnick, with art by Trevor McCarthy. Uh, now, for whatever reason, Blink became something of a cult favorite among the fandom. I don't get it, but mm. it's something that happened. Uh, despite only appearing in a handful of issues, Blink even received an action figure as part of Marvel's Most Wanted series back in 1998. That's back before... Everybody had an action figure. This was, wow. you know, you had to be kind of kind of special or, you know, Black Tom Cassidy to have a figure. <laughs> uh, now, other figures in this line included X-Man and Spat and Grovel. Oh, right. You know, the, you, the, I the illustrious very well, Spat yes. and Grovel, which if we ever cover that uh, that issue where that X, Uncanny X-Men 350 with Gambit, we'll, we'll meet them All a right. little bit closer. Uh, now, this Blink miniseries was a lead-off for the ongoing title... Exiles, number one ship with an August 2001 cover date. The original creative, creative team was Judd Winnick and Mike McCone. In it, Blink is yoinked out of the Age of Apocalypse universe and added to a team of Dimension Hoppers, who had also been yoinked off of their home worlds. This team would visit many alternate Marvel universes, including 2099, the New Universe, the Ultimate Universe, the Prime Universe, and eventually places like House of M. The team roster was pretty fluid and at different times included Morph, Spider-Man 2099, Dazzler, Psylocke, Beak, and Sage. Exiles Volume 1 ran for a pretty staggering 100 issues, though it uh, was limping along under Chris Claremont's scripts for the the final bit. I guess like that's the, one of the perks of having his kind of contract. Right. Um, now, Exiles and the Exiles concept would be relaunched a couple of times as uh, New Exiles, Exiles Volume 2, Extreme X-Men Volume 2, and I think even now there's an Exiles title coming I believe out. there is right now, yes, yeah. Yeah. the Fresh Start Initiative or Yeah. Now, it's uh, worth noting there's no relation between this team and the Malibu Ultraverse team of the same name, even though there were some Marvel characters on that team, including uh, the Juggernaut. Wow. Just, yeah. just to make it easy for the collection. Right. <laughs> and then, of course, Age of Apocalypse featuring the X-Men one-shot. This was May 2005 cover day. Remember that touching ending we just read where Magneto yeah. and Rogue watched alongside their son Charles as the nukes were landing and they were, they were they yeah. were resigned to the sacrifice to restore the timeline? 
Well, uh, yeah, none of that actually happened. See, someone was able to dismantle the nukes before they went boom, despite the fact that we actually visually saw them <laughs> going boom, and he was, remember, speaking over these uh, atomic explosions. And so Earth-295 lived on, and in that Earth, or on that Earth, Magneto rebuilds the Statue of Liberty, and the United States assumes that he was responsible for saving the world. Yeah, he's not very out front about his not doing that. He's like, oh, that's... Good enough, then, I guess. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take the applause. Uh, now, Age of Apocalypse 10th Anniversary. This was a miniseries that ran six issues from May through June 2005, written by Akira Yoshida with art by Chris Pachalo. In it, the X-Men fight the Sinister Six for, like, six issues. And uh, many of the mutants introduced in the Prime Universe over the 10-year interim between the Age of Apocalypse and the anniversary, they make their official Age of Apocalypse debuts, Uh including Psylocke, who was left out of the first one. That's so weird. So they just kind of went back there. Let's look at them all in there. They all all deserve a spot. Uh, Uncanny X-Force had the Dark Angel saga, saga This ran in Uncanny X-Force number 11 through 18 That was August 2011 to February 2012 Cover dates written by Rick Remender In this Warren Worthington's Archangel persona Rears its ugly head Leading his X-Force teammates to refer to McCoy The Dark Beast for assistance He convinces them to travel to his old lab In the Age of Apocalypse universe So he can seek out a life seed In order to counteract the death seed Already brewing in Warren While in the Age of Apocalypse X-Force naturally has a run-in with the X-Men The surly Age of Apocalypse Nightcrawler Returns back to the prime Marvel universe With X-Force And this was during the time Where the 616 Nightcrawler was dead So this brought one back and if you if you read any of these uh, follow ups to the Age of Apocalypse, read this one. This is the best one. This okay. was a, this was actually a great great story. Yeah, because I'll tell you the um, one the one you mentioned before, the tenth anniversary seems like a real dud. Oh <laughs> man, like, fighting why? the sinister six. Oh lordy. Uh, now we we end the Dark Angel saga, and then we move on to Uncanny X Force. 19.1. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, March 2012 cover date. This was a pilot series for the ongoing Age of Apocalypse series. Yes, it got an ongoing. Uh, now, this ran a whole 14 issues from May 2012 to June 2013. And, uh, I mean, those are Avengers volume numbers these days, so I can't, really can't hold 14 issues against anybody. No, no, it's something... <laughs> And then the last one uh, so far is Secret Wars, Age of Apocalypse. This was during the 2015 Secret Wars where the entire Marvel Universe went on vacation and we got these weird miniseries for uh, yeah. ever. Was, 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 like, that, was that the one where uh, uh, Steve Rogers turned out to be working for it? There was some, some big reveal maybe, at the end. I can't remember. I, I, it's a five-issue miniseries. I made it about a half-issue in, uh, but the uh, the entire miniseries ran from September through December 2015. And uh, don't have much to say about the Age of Apocalypse ongoing or the Secret Wars mini uh, I feel it would do them a disservice to just do a hot take I managed to get through about half of each like uh, half of a single issue of each before realizing that it wasn't my thing and uh, rather than you know disparage it for sure. what it isn't uh, I just uh, I figured it's just worth a mention it was an event and we it will be marked as such you know uh, all I know is at the end of that I didn't read the event either but at the, at the end of that Daredevil, uh, everyone forgot his identity, and he moved back to New York from San Francisco, and he became the assistant DA, and they never explained how or why, ever. 
Yeah, it was like, it was one of those uh, it was one of those like carrots on a stick. It's like yeah, maybe maybe in a year. They were they were like <laughs> oh we'll reveal this amazing. They never ever like explain what the, what the heck happened. But uh, yeah. Anyway, that is what it is. But uh, that does conclude our uh, talk about the Age of Apocalypse, as well as what spun out from the Age of Apocalypse uh, after the event. But you know, the more recent stuff notwithstanding. It's a pretty tight event, I gotta say. You know, sure. This is my first time reading it uh, at all, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. And I, I did read, I'm gonna say, seventy percent of it, which it wasn't bad. I, re- I read the bookend books and a bunch of the sure. uh, the minis, you know, as much as I get in. Uh, although it's, I was thinking before too on the Marvel Unlimited app, which is where I read all these. Uh, they start the reading order with the the four issue blink mini. Yeah, yeah. So it's so they start with the thing that came, you know, they obviously trying to establish a continuity. A continuity, here, yeah. A chronological look at I it. didn't even bother with it. I was like, I'm staying in the, <laughs> I'm staying in the nineties. I don't need to know all of the uh, the other posthumous uh, stuff the after the fact. <laughs> but now you bought this in the store, so let me hear about your I experience. Did. I did, and uh it was a it was one of those things that uh, we were kinda nervous about because it did cancel all the books we loved so much. Yeah. And uh and the fact that it was going four months put it one month past what previews would give us. Uh-huh. So, uh, like, when we're reading the first issues here and then we pick up an, a copy of previews and we're still in this world, it really gave you a feeling of, uh, like, this might be what it's going to be for a little while. I mean, and it's silly to even suggest that today. But, you know, I was younger at the time and uh, and was pretty new to the uh to the fandom. I, I, I'd only been collecting for like five years at this point. Yeah. Um, which it's funny to think that that's new at some point, Right. but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was a, uh, very exciting. Um, a lot of it, a lot of it I hated at the time because it was so different. And then a lot of it I liked, uh, because it was so different. So it was a very conflicting series yeah. to get in. And, um, and, and, you know, uh, we talked when, uh, when we did the death of Superman series where, you know the the speculation was ramping up. This was definitely when the speculation was ramping down. Oh yes. Um, all the first issues, uh, and you know, I don't have sales figures because this was this was in that kind of miasmatic time of a uh, hero's world. Hero's and, world. So they, yeah, they, was, they got they weren't even on the diamond list and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't know what the sales figures were throughout, but uh, I remember it was hard to find the first issues. I, I remember especially X Man number one. It was a tough one to track down. Um, that one took probably a few weeks, and I think I got it like in a pharmacy because I couldn't find it at any of the local comic shops. I used to and love stuff like that, though. You find yeah. you find oh, it yeah. in the weird rack somewhere. You know what I mean? Or like, oh, absolutely. Like you go to the weird candy store. The where the the mean guy is always ushering you out of the store, but he he's got <laughs> the comics. Exactly. I used yeah. to get that all the time. <laughs> but uh, this was a. Uh, you know that one took a while to, to track down, but at the end of it, uh, you know it was a similar situation where the the where the old Rob Leefield guy told me to uh, told me that you know Omega and Prime are going to sell out. So, you know, had my mother pick them up for me while I was in school, and I mean there was a stack of them you could have choked a whale with because right, yeah. you know nobody was coming in for these things, especially at the price point. Right. I mean that was ten dollars and just. Two X Men comics, and uh, and in nineteen nineties money too. I mean, sure, know, to, sure. When quite a when like a regular, dough. yeah, when a regular comic was going for like a buck seventy five, buck ninety nine, maybe. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this was a that was a pretty big deal for that one day. Um, it's weird. I, reading it now, um, I don't know if it's because I'm older or because I'm so detached from the X Men now. Hmm. The the ending was touching. 
you know, yeah, uh, with Magneto touching, watching. Her. Yeah, and I, and I think that was lost on me the first time. I think it was just like, okay, we're done with this, right into Prime. You right. got to see where this goes. And, and I guess that's just, you know, periodicals where, you know, you're, you're trying to get to the to where you're up to date. And uh, so I think a lot of the... Uh, I think a lot of the somberness of the story was lost on me, and I was just happy to see it gone. Yeah, you probably didn't have the patience for Magneto's soliloquies. That, you know, <laughs> and, and, and we've had a lot of fun with those, but they do set the stage for a guy that's very remorseful and very thoughtful. Very. And, uh, you know, Mag- Magneto's character had been kind of uh, sort of de-villainized already by this point, somewhat in the regular universe, but uh... yeah, because they de-villainized him and then they turned him into like a raving lunatic, right? Yeah. So it was like it went from like one polar to the other, you know, I... where it was nice Grandpa Magneto to oh wow, this guy's going to you know send the planet into the sun. Magneto. Psycho, yeah, complete psycho. Yeah. At this point, actually, he was the psycho Magneto, but he was. I'm just yeah. saying that that it had happened that his character had been softened in the past. Sure. So... It wasn't unknown that he had, like, you know, feelings and thoughts and a heart, but this really did, you know, let you sit with the character and see the kind of thoughtfulness he has and, you know, the, the, that, in the end. And the debt he owes to Xavier. Right. And, 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 and that, you know, he realized, like, his goal of, you know, mutant acceptance, he would, you know, maybe the other way is going about it the wrong way, you know, the uh, psycho throw everything in the sun way or whatever. Yeah. Uh, his character definitely fared the best. Uh, a lot of characters, I mean, for me, this, I was buying no comics except for Batman at this point. I had sure. pretty much walked away completely. And even Batman was not a regular, it was sporadic, but it was, you know, just trying to keep up a little bit with what was going on. Uh, so a lot of these characters to me, I've always just kind of lumped them in with, you know, nineties characters, nineties stuff, I guess, uh, this helped to put new dimensions on them, a little bit of, uh, I don't know that there's care going into these, these characters and, and you see which ones I think that the writers cared about more than (laughs) the others. Some of them do seem like they just kind of came into like to have a walk-on role and I'll see you later. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so, uh, yeah, my, my, my feeling of this whole thing was I, it was overall a very, an interesting and and more carefully plotted event than I think I I gave it credit for not knowing anything. I think Uh, it's, uh, I think it's more than a lot of folk gave it credit for. I think, I think you, you're saying that you lump it in with the 90s stuff is perfect because You know, when people are like, oh, it's like Age of Apocalypse and Death Mate. And, you know, like they lump it in with like. With like, these other events that really are, yeah, like the Death Mate thing really yeah. was a total rook, you know what I mean? Whereas this. Oh, yeah. This, you know, even though they, you know, it has the chromium covers, it has all that, all those trappings. Oh, it has all the trappings, yeah. And it has, you know, the, you know, they spun it out into, and we know behind the scenes, the, uh, you know, the marketing department was driving a lot of these extra issues. The X-Universe, obviously, was an afterthought. Oh, I'm sure. X, yeah. Even X-Men Chronicles and stuff. Even given all that, though, the, I think the core of it is intact, uh, that they were going to, you know, shift a bunch of characters and sort of go down a different road for a little while. And I, I would say I would give this a total thumbs up or whatever the heck you want to. Sure. Whatever the positive rating is, I would give that to this. It, it was it was overall interesting. Uh, you know, again, some points, some of those, like like we were talking about the, uh, you know, a Gambit and the Externals and Excalibre, all, all the little issues, the minis that went on in between. Some of them weren't necessary. A couple of them we could have done without, yeah. you know. A couple of them were yeah. vital, though, you know, and really were sure. gripping. Uh, sure. And to be honest, I just joked about it, but I thought the X Universe books were all right, although not totally comprehensive, not essential. <laughs> but uh, you know, they were. They, I did enjoy seeing those characters in that you know world and, sure. and what they had to do. So, uh, good job on this one. And yeah. 
if people don't if people didn't notice you know chris is the uh big x-men guy especially from this period and he took sure. heavy point on this one i basically <laughs> I, I filled in a few gaps here and there with some caulk but uh he, he's done a tremendous amount of work on this we didn't we didn't think this would go six episodes we were thinking we five but yeah, initially, I was I was thinking three, and then like doing the outline for it, it went to five, and then when it got to the point where we realized just how, uh, I mean, we were going to be touching on every mover and shaker in the Marvel right. universe during next universe. It's like, oh man, this is gonna this got to be its own thing at this point. It's doing so, all those uh, bios, and it was good because it gave a little break, it gave a little uh, pause before the big cataclysmic big ending climax. Yes. Uh, another thing I, I do like about this event too is that the big the big apocalyptic ending. Happens, uh, it does. even though later it's retconned out. But at the time of this, there's no, there's no fixing it. You know what I mean? There's, it's done there's, deal. It's, I mean, it happened. Yeah. That's all there is to it. And the only way out of it was to jump out of the timeline, which you know mm-hmm. we all wish yeah. we could do sometimes. Because halfway through Omega, I mean, the Midwest was was nuked. Right. I mean, and you know that's that's done. So it's like there really is no way to to that, really step. That's that a big back. shocking moment. You know what I mean? That's yeah. also where you know Apocalypse has been. You know, kind of setting up all his uh, his uh, whatever Apocalyptian things his and ducks. Uh, yeah, exactly. His <laughs> pens and stuff. So that was a big shocker. This really, this really did mm-hmm. have an air of finality about it. Even reading it. 23 years after the fact, folks. I think especially reading it now. Um, yeah. And I mean, I don't, I don't do the X-Men anymore. I, I you know, it's that, I think that's why this, uh, this deep dive kind of affected me the way it did, where there is a poignance to it and there is a finality to it both yeah. in the book. And for me out of the book, because uh, I don't know when the next time I'm going to read an X-Men book is, you know, I, uh, they announced the new uncanny X-Men and, Asked me a couple months ago, I've been like, "Yeah, I'll be there for it." Yeah. You're now st- I'm not so sure. You're still on the fence, I know. Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, it'll be a game time decision, and knowing you, Chris, you probably will end up getting it, and you'll regret it. And that's well, I'm is an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> the, the plight and life of the comic book collector. However, if you want to force Chris to read an X Men book sooner, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com and recommend an X Men book, and we will get to it. Uh, if you want to talk about Age of Apocalypse. Marvel events or anything that we mentioned or anything that's on your mind right there. WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic tmail history. We're on Tumblr, cosmicteemailhistory.tumblr.com, even though I've I've never been there, so I've ne- I, I couldn't say that I've... Uh, I which- can't guarantee it. I've, been, <laughs> I've not been there in quite a while myself. I do know for sure we are on Twitter at CosmicTmail. I've seen that. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter at ReggieReggie. Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can see our weekly writings on DC Comics at WeirdScienceDCComics.com and Chris's daily writings on older DC Comics at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarth.com where he writes a review every single day of the week of a DC comic from any point in the publishing history. And uh, you're still cranking them out. You're getting close to that thousand number, buddy. Yeah, this week will be 950. So Woo! We, you are, are getting, getting there. Before the year is out, you will be hitting those four digits. So yeah, There's uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. You got to check it out. You <laughs> recently did the uh, Teen Titans uh, Walmart one, I noticed. I didn't I didn't read that one did? yet, but I was. Did. I, I want to head over there because I don't know anything about those comics. I, I have to admit, I'm... I'm Stupidly curious as well about what's going on with those. I, uh, I I did some hot takes on that one, and uh, 
I, I, not not many people have uh, have really paid attention to that one. I think I kind of pigeonholed myself with Vartox Week. I think people want more Vartox. More Vartox. Only I got more... no Vartox left oh, to give. No, you got to so... make your own stories. <laughs> so when you move into the 2000s, people are like, eh, nah. <laughs> uh, You can check out the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you can find a chronological listing of every episode of the Cosmic Treadmill, as well as Weird Comics History, Real Comics History, and... Uh, the Young Animal Gatherum, where we're uh, revisiting our our previous look at Young Animal. We're combining them for easy consumption. That's right. Um, and uh, I think that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, and that, since that imprint is done, this is our time to yes. do a full wrap-up on that. And, of course, over at uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, like I say, that's the best place to see the shows in order and also for the uh, box sets that Chris puts together. Uh, oh, thematic yes. box sets. This will certainly become a box set, I'm sure. A, Very uh, short. So you can, uh, if you want to hear the whole thing in one place at one time, that is the place to go, folks. But I think that's all the apocalypse we have from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? No, I think we're done. <laughs> well, <laughs> until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill apocalyptically. Dig it. Well, I'm changing all my strings. I'm gonna write another traveling song about all the billion highways and the cities at the break of dawn. Well, I guess the best that I can do now is pretend that I've done nothing wrong and a dream about a train that's gonna. Take me back where I belong Well now the ocean speaks and spits And I can hear it from the inner state And I'm screaming at my brother on his cell phone He is far